The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien Part 3 The Return of the King Pippin looked out from the shelter of Gandalf's cloak. He wondered if he was awake or still sleeping, still in the swift-moving dream in which he had been wrapped so long since the great ride began. The dark world was rushing by, and the wind sang soundly in his ears. He could see nothing but the wheeling stars, and away to his right vast shadows against the sky where the mountains of the south marched past. Sleepily he tried to reckon the times and stages of their journey, but his memory was drowsy and uncertain. There had been the first ride at terrible speed without halt, and then in the dawn he had seen a pale gleam of gold, and they had come to the silent town and the great empty house of the hill and hardly had they reached this shelter when the winged shadow had passed over once again, and men wilted in fear. But Gandalf had spoken soft words to him, and he had slept in a corner, tired but uneasy, dimly aware of comings and goings, and of men talking and Gandalf giving orders, and then again riding, riding in the night. This was the second, no, the third night since he had looked in the stone, and with that hideous memory he woke fully and shivered, and the noise of the wind became filled with menacing voices. A light kindled in the sky, a blaze of yellow fire behind dark barriers. Pippin cowered back, afraid for a moment, wondering into what dreadful country Gandalf was bearing him. He rubbed his eyes, and then he saw that it was the moon, rising above the eastern shadows, now almost at the full, so the night was not yet old, and for hours the dark journey would go on. He stirred and spoke. Where are we, Gandalf? He asked. In the realm of Gondor, the wizard answered. The land of Anurien is still passing by. There was a silence again for a while. Then... What is that? Cried Pippin suddenly, clutching at Gandalf's cloak. Look! Fire! Red fire! Are there dragons in this land? Look! There is another! For answer, Gandalf cried aloud to his horse. On, Shadowfax! We must hasten. Time is short. See, the beacons of Gondor are alight, calling for aid. War is kindled. See, there is the fire of Hamondine, and flame on Elenach. And there they go, speeding west. Nardor, Erelas, Minrimon, Kalenhad, and the Halifirian on the borders of Rohan. But Shadowfax paused in his stride, slowing to a walk. And then he lifted up his head and neighed. And out of the darkness, the answering neigh of other horses came. And presently, the thudding of hooves was heard, and three riders swept up and passed like flying ghosts in the moon, and vanished into the west. Then Shadowfax gathered himself together and sprang away, and the night flowed over him like a roaring wind. Pippin became drowsy again, and paid little attention to Gandalf telling him of the customs of Gondor, and how the Lord of the City had beacons built on the tops of outlying hills along both borders of the Great Range, and maintained posts at these points, where fresh horses were always in readiness to bear his errand riders to Rohan in the north, or to Belfalas in the south. It is long since the beacons of Gondor were lit, he said, and in the ancient days of Gondor they were not needed, for they had the seven stones. Pippin stirred uneasily. Sleep again, and do not be afraid, said Gandalf. For you are not going like Frodo to Mordor, but to Minas Tirith, and there you will be as safe as you can be anywhere in these days. If Gondor falls, or the ring is taken, then the Shire will be no refuge. 
You do not comfort me, said Pippin. But nonetheless, sleep crept over him. The last thing that he remembered before he fell into deep dream was a glimpse of high white peaks, glimmering like flowing aisles above the clouds as they caught the light of the westering moon. He wondered where Frodo was, and if he was already in Mordor, or if he was dead. And he did not know that Frodo, from far away, looked on that same moon as it set beyond Gondor, ere the coming of the day. Pippin woke to the sound of voices. Another day of hiding and a night of journey had fleeted by. It was twilight. The cold dawn was at hand again, and chill grey mists were about them. Shadowfax stood steaming with sweat, but he held his neck proudly and showed no signs of weariness. Many tall men, heavily cloaked, stood beside him, and behind them in the mist loomed a wall of stone, partly ruinous it seemed, but already before the night was past, the sound of hurried labour could be heard. Beat of hammers, clink of trowels, and the creak of wheels. Torches and flares glowed dully here and there in the fog. Gandalf was speaking to the men that barred his way, and as he listened, Pippin became aware that he himself was being discussed. Yes, truly we know of you, Mithrandir, said the leader of the men, and you know the passwords of the seven gates and are free to go forward. But we do not know your companion. What is he? A dwarf out of the mountains in the north? We wish for no strangers in the land this time unless they be mighty men of arms in whose faith and help we can trust. I will vouch for him before the seat of Denethor, said Gandalf. And as for valor, that cannot be computed by stature. He has passed through more battles and perils than you have in gold, though you be twice his height. And he comes now from the storming of Isengard, of which we bear tidings. And great weariness is on him, or I would wake him. His name is Peregrine, a very valiant man. Man, said Ingold dubiously, and the others laughed. Man, cried Pippin, now thoroughly roused. Man, indeed not. I'm a hobbit, and no more valiant than I am a man. Safe perhaps now and again by necessity. Do not let Gandalf deceive you. Many a doer of great deeds might say no more, said Ingold. But what is a hobbit? A halfling, answered Gandalf. Nay, not the one that was spoken of, he added, seeing the wonder in the men's faces. Not he, yet one of his kindred. Yes, and the one who journeyed with him, said Pippin. And Boromir of your city was with us, and he saved me in the snows of the north, and at last was slain, defending me from many foes. Peace! said Gandalf. The news of that grief should have been told first to the father. It has been guessed already, said Ingold, for there have been strange portents here of late. But pass on now, quickly, for the Lord of Minas Tirith will be eager to see any that bear the latest tidings of his son, be it man or... Hobbit, said Pippin. Little service can I offer your lord, but what I can do, I would do, remembering Boromir the Brave. Fare you well, said Ingold. And the men made way for Shadowfax, and he passed through a narrow gate in the wall. May you bring good counsel to Denethor in his need, and to us all, Mithrandir. Ingold cried. But you come with tidings of grief and danger, as is your wont, they say. Because I come seldom but when my help is needed, answered Gandalf. And as for counsel to you, I would say that you are over late in repairing the wall of Pelennor. Courage will now be your best defense against the storm that is at hand. That and such hope as I bring. For not all the tidings that I bring are evil, but leave your trowels and sharpen your swords. The work will be finished ere evening, said Ingold. This is the last portion of the wall we put in defense. 
the least open to attack, for it looks towards our friends of Rohan. Do you know aught of them? Will they answer the summons, think you? Yes, they will come. But they have fought many battles at your back. This road and no road looks towards safety any longer. Be vigilant! But for Gandalf's Stormcrow, you would have seen a host of foes coming out of Anurian, and no riders of Rohan. And you may yet. Fare you well, and sleep not! Gandalf passed now into the wide land beyond the Ramas Echor. So the men of Gondor called the outwall that they had built with great labor after Ithilien fell under the shadow of their enemy. For ten leagues or more it ran from the mountain's feet, and so back again, enclosing its fence the fields of the Pelennor, fair and fertile townlands, on the long slopes and terraces falling to the deep levels of the Anduin. At its furthest point of the great gate of the city, northeastward, the wall was four leagues distant, and there from a frowning bank it overlooked the long flats beside the river, and men had made it high and strong. For at a point, upon the walled causeway, the road came in from the fords and bridges of Osgiliath, and passed through a guarded gate between embattled towers. At its nearest point, the wall was little more than one league from the city, and that was southeastward. There Anduin, going in a wide knee about the hills of Eminarmen in South Ithilien, bent sharply west, and the outwall rose upon its very brink. And beneath it lay quays and landings of the Harland for craft that came upstream from the southern fiefs. The townlands were rich, with wide tilth and many orchards, and homesteads there were with Oost and Garner, Fold and Byre and many rills ripping through the green from the highlands down to Anduin. Yet the herdsmen and husbandmen that dwelt there were not many, and the most part of the people of Gondor lived in the seven circles of the city, or in the high vales of the mountain borders, in Losana, or further south in fair Lebanon, with its five swift streams. There dwelt a hardy folk between the mountains and the sea. They were reckoned men of Gondor, yet their blood was mingled, and they were short and swarthy, Folk among them whose sires came more from the forgotten men who housed in the shadow of the hills in the dark years, ere the coming of the kings. But beyond, in the great fief of Belfalas, dwelt Prince Imrahil in his castle of Dol Anroth by the sea. And he was of high blood, and his folk also, tall men and proud with sea-gray eyes. Now after Gandalf had ridden for some time, the light of day grew in the sky, Pippin roused himself and looked up. To his left lay a sea of mist, rising to a bleak shadow in the east. But to his right, great mountains reared their heads, ranging from the west to a steep and sudden end, as if in the making of the land the river had burst through a great barrier, carving out a mighty valley to be a land of battle and debate in times to come. And there were the white mountains of Eredimres came to their end. He saw, as Gandalf had promised, the dark mass of Mount Mindoluin, the deep purple shadows of its high glens and its tall face whitening in the rising day. And upon its outthrust knee was the guarded city, with its seven walls of stone so strong and old that it seemed to have been not builded but carven by giants out of the bones of the earth. Even as Pippin gazed in wonder, the walls passed from looming grey to white, blushing faintly in the dawn. And suddenly, the sun climbed over the eastern shadow and sent forth a shaft that smote the face of the city. Then Pippin cried aloud, for the tower of Ecthelion, standing high within the topmost walls, shone out against the sky, glimmering like a spike of pearl and silver. Tall and fair and shapely, 
and its pinnacle glittered as if it were wrought of crystals, and white banners broke and fluttered from the battlements in the morning breeze, and high and far we heard a clear ringing of silver trumpets. So Gandalf and Peregrine rode to the great gate of the men of Gondor at the rising of the sun, and its iron doors rolled back before them. Men cried. Now we know that the storm is indeed nigh. It is upon you, said Gandalf. I have ridden on its wings. Let me pass. I must come to your lord Denethor while his stewardship lasts. Whatever betide, you have come to the end of the Gondor that you have known. Let me pass. Then men fell back before the command of his voice and questioned him no further, though they gazed in wonder at the hobbit that sat before him and at the horse that bore him. For the people of the city used horses very little, and they were seldom seen in their streets, save only those ridden by the errand riders of their lord. And they said, Surely that is one of the great steeds of the king of Rohan. Maybe the Rohirrim will come soon and strengthen us. But Shadowfax walked proudly up the long, winding road. For the fashion of Minas Tirith was such that it was built on seven levels. Each delved into the hill, and about each was set a wall, and in each wall was a gate. But the gates were not set in a line. The great gate in the city was at the east point of the circuit, but the next faced half south, and the third half north, and so to and fro upwards, so that the paved way that climbed toward the citadel turned first this way and then that across the face of the hill. And each time that it passed the line of the great gate, it went through an arched tunnel, piercing a vast pier of rock, whose huge outthrust bulk divided in two all the circles of the city, save the first. For partly in the primeval shaping of the hill, partly by the mighty craft and labor of old, there stood up from the rear of the wide court behind the gate a towering bastion of stone, its edge sharp as a ship keel facing east. Up it rose, even to the level of the topmost circle, and there was crowned by a battlement so that those in the citadel might, like marinas in the mountain's ship, look from its peak sheer down upon the gate, seven hundred feet below. The entrance to the citadel also looked eastward, but was delved in the heart of the rock. Thence a long lamp-lit slope ran up from the seventh gate. Thus men reached at last the high court, and the place of the fountain before the feet of the white tower, tall and shapely, fifty fathoms from its base to the pinnacle, where the banner of the stewards floated a thousand feet above the plain. A strong citadel it was indeed, and not to be taken by a host of enemies, if there were any within that could hold weapons unless some foe could come behind and scale the lower skirts of Mindoluin, and so come upon the narrow shoulder that joined the hill of guard and the mountain mass. But that shoulder, which rose to the height of the fifth wall, was hedged with great ramparts, right up to the precipice that overhung its western end. And in that space stood the houses and domed tombs of bygone kings and lords, forever silent between the mountain and the tower. Pippin gazed in growing wonder at the great stone city, vaster and more splendid than anything that he had dreamed of, greater and stronger than Isengard, and far more beautiful. Yet it was in truth falling year by year into decay, and already it lacked half of the men that could have dwelt at ease there. In every street they passed, some great house or court over whose doors and arched gates were carved many fair letters of strange and ancient shapes, Names Pippin guessed of great men and kindreds that had once dwelt there, and yet now they were silent, and no footsteps rang on their wide pavements, nor voice was heard in their halls. 
nor any face looked out from door or empty window. At last they came out of shadow to the seventh gate, and the warm sun that shone down beyond the river as Frodo walked in the glades of Ithilien glowed here on the smooth walls and rooted pillars, and the great arch with keystone carven in the likeness of a crowned and kingly head. Gandalf dismounted, for no horse was allowed in the citadel, and Shadowfax suffered himself to be laid away at the soft word of his master. The guards of the gate were robed in black, and their helms were of strange shape, high-crowned, with long cheek guards, close-fitting to the face, and above the cheek guards there were set the white wings of seabirds. But the helms gleamed with a flame of silver, for they were indeed wrought of mithril, heirlooms from the glory of old days. Upon the black surcoats were embroidered in white a tree blossoming like a snow beneath a silver crown and many pointed stars. This was the livery of the heirs of Elendil, and none wore it now in old Gondor. Save the guards of the citadel, before the court of the fountain where the white tree once had grown. Already it seemed that word of their coming had gone before them, and at once they were admitted, silently and without question. Quickly Gandalf strode across the white paved court. A sweet fountain played there in the morning sun, and the sward of bright green lay about it. But in the midst, drooping over the pool, stood a dead tree, and the falling drops dripped sadly from its barren and broken branches back into the clear water. Pippin glanced at it as he hurried after Gandalf. It looked mournful, he thought, and he wondered why the dead tree was left in this place, where everything else was well tended. Seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. The words that Gandalf had murmured came back into his mind. And then he found himself at the doors of the great hall, beneath the gleaming tower. And behind the wizard, he passed the tall, silent door wardens and entered the cool, echoing shadows of the House of Stone. They walked down a paved passage, long and empty, and as they went, Gandalf spoke softly to Pippin. Be careful of your words, Master Peregrine. This is no time for hobbit pertness. Theoden is a kindly old man. Denethor is of another sort, proud and subtle. A man of far greater lineage and power, though he is not called a king. But he will speak most to you, and question you much, since you can tell him of his son Boromir. He loved him greatly. Too much, perhaps, and the more so because they were unlike. But under cover of his love, he will think it easier to learn what he wishes of you, rather than from me. Do not tell him more than you need, and leave quiet the matter of Frodo's errand. I will deal with that in due time, and say nothing about Aragorn either. Unless you must. Why not? What's wrong with Strider? Pippin whispered. He meant to come here, didn't he? And he'll be arriving soon himself anyway. Maybe, maybe, said Gandalf. Though if he comes, it is likely to be in some way that no one expects. Not even Denethor. It will be better so. At least you should come unheralded by us. Gandalf halted before a tall door of polished metal. See, Master Pippin, there is no time to instruct you now in the history of Gondor, though it might have been better if you had learned something of it, when you were still birds nesting and playing truant in the woods of the Shire. Do as I bid. It is scarcely wise when bringing the news of the death of his heir to a mighty lord to speak over much of the coming of the one who will, if he comes, claim the kinship. Is that enough? King Kingship? said Pippin, amazed. Yes, said Gandalf. If you have walked all these days with closed ears and mind asleep, wake up now. He knocked on the door. The door opened. A 
could be seen to open it. Pippin looked into a great hole. It was lit by deep windows in the wide aisles at either side. Beyond the rows of tall pillars that upheld the roof, monoliths of black marble, they rose to great capitals, carved in many strange figures of beasts and leaves, and far above, in shadow, the wide vaulting gleamed with dull gold, inset with flowing traceries of many colors. No hangings or storied webs, nor any things of woven stuff or of wood, were to be seen in that long, solemn hall. But between the pillars there stood a silent company of tall images graven in cold stone. Suddenly Pippin was reminded of the hewn rocks of Argonath, and awe fell on him as he looked down that avenue of kings long dead. At the far end, upon a dais of many steps, was set a high throne under a canopy of marble, shaped like a crowned helm. Behind it was carved upon the wall and set with gems an image of a tree in flower. But the throne was empty. At the foot of the dais, upon the lowest step which was broad and deep, there was a stone chair, black and unadorned, and on it sat an old man, gazing at his lap. In his hand was a white rod with a golden knob. He did not look up. Solemnly, they paced the long floor towards him, until they stood three paces from his footstool. Then Gandalf spoke. Hail, Lord and Steward of Minas Tirith, Denethor, son of Ecthelion. I am come with counsel and tidings in this dark hour. Then the old man looked up. Pippin saw his carven face with its proud bones and skin like ivory and the long curved nose between the dark deep eyes. And he was reminded not so much of Boromir as of Aragorn. Dark indeed is the hour, said the old man, and at such times you are wont to come, Mithrandir. But though all the signs forebode that the doom of Gondor is drawing nigh, less now to me is that darkness than my own darkness. It has been told to me that you bring with you one that saw my son die. Is this he? It is, said Gandalf. One of the twain. The other is with Theoden of Rohan, and may come hereafter. Halflings they are, as you see, yet this is not he of whom the omen spoke. Yet a halfling still, said Denethor grimly, and little love do I bear the name, since those accursed words came to trouble our counsels and drew away my son on the wild errand to his death. My Boromir, now we have need of you. Faramir should have gone in his stead. He would have gone, said Gandalf. Be not unjust in your grief. Boromir claimed the errand and would not suffer anyone to have it. He was a masterful man, and one to take what he desired. I journeyed far with him, and learned much of his mood. But you speak of his death. You have bad news of that ere we came. I have received this, said Denethor, and laying down his rod he lifted from his lap the thing that he had been gazing at. In each hand he held up one half of a great horn cloven through the middle, a wild ox horn bound with silver. That is the horn that Boromir always wore, cried Pippin. Verily, said Denethor, and in my turn I bore it, and so did each eldest son of our house. Far back into the vanished years before the fallings of the kings, 
Since Vorondil, father of Mardil, hunted the wild kine of Aro in the far fields of Rune, I heard it blowing dim upon the northern marches thirteen days ago, and the river brought it to me. Broken. It will wind no more. He paused, and there was a heavy silence. Suddenly he turned his black glance upon Pippin. What say you to that, halfling? Thirteen. Thirteen days, faltered Pippin. Yes, I think that would be so. Yes, I stood beside him, and he blew the horn. But no help came. Only more orcs. So, said Denethor, looking keenly at Pippin's face. Where were they? Tell me more. Why did not help come? And how did you escape? And yet he did not. So mighty a man as he was, and only orcs to withstand him. Pippin flushed and forgot his fear. The mightiest man may be slain by one arrow, he said. And Boromir was pierced by many. When last I saw him, he sunk beside a tree and plucked a black-feathered shaft from his side. Then I swooned and was made captive. I saw him no more, and knew no more. But I honor his memory, for he was very valiant. He died to save us, my kinsmen, Beriadoc, and myself. Waylaid in the woods by the soldiery of the Dark Lord. And though he fell and failed, my gratitude is nonetheless. Then Pippin looked the old man in the eye, for pride stirred strangely within him, still stung by the scorn and suspicion in that cold voice. Little service, no doubt, will so great a lord of men think to find a hobbit, yet such as it is, I will offer it in payment of my debt. Twitching aside his grey cloak, Pippin drew forth his small sword and laid it at Denethor's feet. A pale smile, like a gleam of cold sun on a winter's evening, passed over the old man's face. But he bent his head and held out his hand, laying the shards of the horn aside. Give me the weapon, he said. Pippin lifted it and presented the hilt to him. Whence came this? said Denethor. Many, many years lie on it. Surely it is a blade brought by your own kindred in the north in the deep past. It, it came out of the mounds that lie on the borders of my country, said Pippin. But only evil whites dwell there now, and I will not willingly tell more of them. I see that strange tales are woven about you, said Denethor. And once again it is shown that looks may belie the man, or the halfling. I accept your service. For you are not daunted by words, and you have courteous speech, strange though the sound of it may be to us in the south. And we shall have need of all folk of courtesy, be they great or small, in the days to come. Swear to me now. Take the hilt, said Gandalf, and speak after the Lord if you are resolved on this. I am, said Pippin. The old man laid the sword along his lap. And Pippin put his hand to the hilt, and said slowly after Denethor, Here do I swear fealty and service to Gondor, and to the lord and steward of the realm. Here do I swear fealty and service to Gondor, and to the lord and steward of the realm. To speak and to be silent. To speak and to be silent. To do and to let to be. To do and to let be. To come and go in need or plenty. To come and go in need or plenty. 
in peace or war, in living or dying, in peace or war, in living or dying, from this hour henceforth until my Lord release me or death take me, from this hour henceforth until my Lord release me or death take me, or the world end, or the world end. So say I, Peregrine, son of Paladin, of the Shire of the Halflings. So say I, Peregrine, son of Paladin, of the Shire of the Halflings. And this do I hear, Denethor, son of Victhelion, Lord of Gondor, steward of the High King, and will not forget it, nor fail to reward that which is given. Fealty with love, valor with honor, oath-breaking with vengeance. Then Pippin received back his sword and put it in his sheath. And now, said Denethor, my first command to you, speak and be not silent. Tell me your full tale, and see that you will recall all that you can of Boromir, my son. Sit now and begin. As he spoke, he struck a small silver gong that stood near his footstool, and at once servants came forward. Pippin saw then that they had been standing in alcoves on either side of the door, unseen as he and Gandalf entered. Bring wine and food and seats for the guests, said Denethor and see that none trouble us for one hour. It is all I have to spare, for there is much else to heed, he said to Gandalf. Much of more import it may seem, and yet to me less pressing. But maybe we can speak again at the end of the day, and earlier it is to be hoped, said Gandalf. For I have not ridden hither from Isengard 150 leagues with the speed of wind only to bring you one small warrior, however courteous. Is it not to you that Theoden has fought a great battle, and that Isengard is overthrown, and that I have broken the staff of Saruman? It is much to me, but I know already sufficient of these deeds for my own counsel against the menace of the East. He turned his dark eyes on Gandalf, and now Pippin saw a likeness between the two, and he felt the strain between them, almost as if he saw a line of smoldering fire, drawn from eye to eye, that might suddenly burst into flame. Denethor looked indeed much more like a great wizard than Gandalf did. More kingly, beautiful and powerful, and older. Yet by a sense older than sight, Pippin perceived that Gandalf had the greater power, and the deeper wisdom, and a majesty that was veiled. He was older. Far older. How much older? He wondered. And then he thought how odd it was that he had never thought about it before. Treebeard had said something about wizards, but even then he had not thought of Gandalf as one of them. What was Gandalf? In what far time and place did he come into the world, and when would he leave it? And then his musings broke off, and he saw that Denethor and Gandalf still looked at each other in the eye, as if reading the other's mind. But it was Denethor who first withdrew his gaze. Ye, he said, for though the stones be lost, they say, Still the lords of Gondor have keener sight than lesser men, and many messages come to them. But sit, now. Then men came, bearing a chair and a low stool, and one brought a salver with a silver flagon and cups and white cakes. Pippin sat down, but he could not take his eyes from the old lord. Was it so, or had he only imagined it, that as he spoke of the stones, a sudden gleam of his eye had glanced upon Pippin's face? Now tell me your tale, my liege, said Denethor, half kindly, half mockingly. For the words of one whom my son so befriended will be welcome indeed. Pippin never forgot that hour in the great hall under the piercing eye of the Lord of Gondor, 
stabbed ever and anon by his shrewd questions, and all the while conscious of Gandalf at his side, watching and listening. And so Pippin felt, holding in check a rising wrath and impatience. When the hour was over and Denethor again rang the gong, Pippin felt worn out. It cannot be more than nine o'clock, he thought. I could now eat three breakfasts on end. Lead the Lord Mithrandir to the housing prepared for him, said Denethor, and his companion may lodge with him for the present, if you will. But be it known that I have now sworn him into my service, and he shall be known as Peregrine, son of Paladin, and taught the lesser passwords. Send words to the captain that they shall wait on me here, as soon as may be after the third hour has rung. And you, my lord Mithrandir, shall come too, as and when you will. None shall hinder your coming to me at any time, save only in my brief hours of sleep. Let your wrath at an old man's folly run off, and then return to my comfort. Folly, said Gandalf. Nay, my lord, when you are a dotard you will die. You can use even your grief as a cloak. Do you think that I do not understand your purpose in questioning for an hour one who knows the least while I sit by? If you understand it, then be content, returned Denethor. Pride would be the folly that disdained counsel at need. But you deal out such gifts according to your own designs. Yet the Lord of Gondor is not to be made the tool of other men's purposes, however worthy. And to him there is no purpose higher in the world, as it now stands, than the good of Gondor. And the rule of Gondor, my lord, is mine, and no other man's, unless the king should come again. Unless the king should come again? said Gandalf. Well, my lord steward, it is your task to keep some kingdom still against that event, which few now look to see. In that task you shall have all the aid that you are pleased to ask for. But I will say this, the rule of no realm is mine, neither of Gondor nor any other, great or small. But all worthy things that are in peril as the world now stands, those are my care. And for my part, I shall not wholly fail of my task. Though Gondor should perish, if anything passes through this night that can still grow fair or bear fruit and flower again in days to come. For I also am a steward, did you not know? And with that he turned and strode from the hall with Pippin running at his side. Gandalf did not look at Pippin or speak a word to him as they went. Their guide brought them from the doors of the hall, and then led them across the court of the fountain into a lane between tall buildings of stone. After several turns they came to a house close to the wall of the citadel upon the north side, not far from the shoulder that linked the hill with the mountain. Within, upon the first floor above the street, up a wide carven stair, he showed them to a fair room, light and airy, with goodly hangings of dull gold sheen unfigured. It was barely furnished, having but a small table, two chairs and a bench, but at either side there were curtained alcoves and well-clad beds within, with vessels and basins for washing. There were three high, narrow windows that looked northward over the great curve of Anduin, still shrouded in mists, towards the Eminuil and Rauros far away. Pippin had to climb on the bench to look out over the deep stone sill. Uh, are you angry with me, Gandalf? He said as their guide went out and closed the door. I did the best I could. <laughs> you did indeed, said Gandalf, <laughs> laughing suddenly, and he came and stood beside Pippin, putting his arm about the hobbit's shoulders and gazing out the window. Pippin glanced in some wonder at the face now close beside his own, 
for the sound of that laugh had been gay and merry. Yet in the wizard's face he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow, though as he looked more intently he perceived that under all there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing, were it to gush forth. Indeed you did your best, said the wizard, and I hope that it may be long before you find yourself in such a tight corner again between two such terrible old men. Still, the Lord of Gondor learned more from you than you may have guessed, Pippin. You could not hide the fact that Boromir did not lead the company from Moria, and there was one among you of high honor, who was coming to Minas Tirith, and that he had a famous sword. Men think much about the stories of old days in Gondor, and Denethor has given long thought to the rhyme and to the words Isildur's bane since Boromir went away. He is not as other men of his time, Pippin, and whatever be his descent from father to son, by some chance the blood of Westerness runs nearly true in him, as it does in his other son, Faramir, and yet it did not in Boromir whom he loved best. He has long sight, he can perceive, if he bends his will thither, much of what is passing in the minds of men, even those that dwell far off. It is difficult to deceive him, and dangerous to try. Remember that, for you are now sworn to his service. I do not know what put it in your head or your heart to do that, but it was well done. I did not hinder it, for generous deeds should not be checked by cold counsel. It touched his heart, as well, may I say it, as pleasing his humor, and at least you are free now to move about as you will in Minas Tirith, when you are not on duty. But there is another side to it. You are at his command, and he will not forget. Be wary still. He fell silent and sighed. Well, no need to brood on what tomorrow may bring. For one thing, tomorrow will be certain to bring worse than today. For many days to come. And there is nothing more than I can do to help it. The board is set. And the pieces are moving. One piece that I greatly desire to find is Faramir. Now the heir of Denethor. I do not think that he is in the city, but I have had no time to gather news. I must go, Pippin. I must go to this Lord's Council and learn what I can. But the enemy has the move, and he is about to open his full game. And pawns are likely to see as much of it as any, Peregrine, son of Peladin. Soldier of Gondor, sharpen your blade. Gandalf went to the door, and there he turned. I'm in haste, Pippin, he said. Do me a favor, and when you go out, even before you rest, if you are not too weary, go and find Shadowfax and see how he is housed. These people are kindly to beasts, for they are good and wise folk, but they have less skill with horses than some. With that, Gandalf went out, and as he did so, there came the note of a clear, sweet bell ringing in the tower of the citadel. Three strokes it rang, like silver in the air, and ceased, the third hour from the rising of the sun. After a minute, Pippin went to the door and down the stair, and looked about the street. The sun was now shining warm and bright, and the towers and tall houses cast long, clear-cut shadows westward. High in the blue air, Mount Mindoluin lifted its white helm and snowy cloak. Armed men went to and fro in the ways of the city as if going at the striking of the hour to changes of post and duty. Nine o'clock we'd call it in the Shire, said Pippin aloud to himself. 
Ooh, just the time for a nice breakfast by the open window in spring sunshine. Now I should like breakfast. Do these people ever have it, or is it over? And when do they have dinner, and where? Presently he noticed a man, clad in black and white, coming along the narrow street from the centre of the citadel towards him. Pippin felt lonely and made up his mind to speak as the man passed, but he had no need. The man came straight up to him. You are Peregrine the Halfling, he said. I am told that you have been sworn to the service of the Lord in the city. Welcome. He held out his hand and Pippin took it. I am named Beragond, of son of Baranor. I have no duty this morning, and I have been sent to you to teach you the passwords and to tell you some of the many things that no doubt you will wish to know. As for my part, I will learn of you also. For never before have we seen a halfling in this land, and though we have heard rumour of them, little is said of them in any tale that we know. Moreover, you are a friend of Mithrandir. Do you know him well? Well, said Pippin, I have known of him all my short life, as you might say, and lately I have travelled far with him, but there is much to read in that book, and I cannot claim to have seen more than a page or two. Yet perhaps I know him as well as any but few. Aragorn was the only one of our company, I think, who really knew him. Aragorn, said Beragond. Who is he? Oh, oh, uh, stammered Pippin. He was a man who went about with us. I think he's in Rohan now. Ah, you've been in Rohan, I hear. There is much I would ask you of that land also, for we put much of what little hope we have in its people. But I am forgetting my errand. Which was first to answer what you would ask? What would you know, Master Peregrine? Er, well, said Pippin, if I may venture to say so, uh, rather a burning question in my mind is at present is, well, what about breakfast and all that? I mean, what are the meal times, if you understand me? And where is the dining room, if there is one? Are there inns? I looked never one could I see as we rode up, though I had been borne up by the hope of a draught of ale as soon as we came to the homes of wise courtly men. Baragon looked at him gravely. An old campaigner, I see, he said. They say that men who go warring afield look ever to the next hope of food and of drink, though I am not a travelled man myself. Then you have not yet eaten today? Well, yes, to, to speak in courtesy, yes, said Pippin. But no more than a cup of wine and a white cake or two by the kindness of your lord. But he racked me for it with an hour of questions. And that is hungry work. Beragond <laughs> laughed. At the table, small men may do the greater deeds, we say. But you have broken your fast as well as any man in the citadel, and with greater honour. This is a fortress and a tower of guard, and is now in posture of war. We rise ere the sun, and take a morsel in the grey light, and go to our duties at the opening hour. But do not despair, he laughed again, seeing the dismay in Pippin's face. Those who have had heavy duty take somewhat to refresh their strength in the mid-morning. Then there is the luncheon, at noon or after as duties allow, and men gather from the day meal as much birth as there still may be, about the hour of sunset. Come, we will walk a little and then go find us some refreshment, and eat and drink on the battlement, and survey the fair morning. Uh, well, not one moment, said Pippin, blushing. Greed or hunger by your courtesy put it out of my mind, but Gandalf... Mithrandir, as you call him, asked me to see to his horse, Shadowfax, a great steed of Rohan, and the apple of the king's eye, I am told, though he has given him to Mithrandir for his services. I think his new master loves the beast better than he loves many men, and if his goodwill is of any value to this city, you may treat Shadowfax with all honour, with greater kindness, that you have treated this hobbit, if it's possible. Hobbit? That is what we call ourselves, said Pippin. I'm glad to learn it, said Beragond. For now I may say that strange accents do not mar fair speech, and hobbits are a fair-spoken folk. But come, you shall make me acquainted with this good horse. 
I love beasts, and we see them very seldom in this stony city. For my people came from the mountain vales, and before that from Ithilium. But fear not, the visit shall be short, a mere call of courtesy, and we will go thence to the butteries. Pippin found that Shadowfax had been well housed and tended, for in the sixth circle, outside the walls of the citadel, there were some fair stables where a few swift horses were kept, hard by the lodgings of the errand riders of the Lord, messengers always ready to go at the urgent command of Dinathor or his chief captains. But now all the horses and the riders were out and away. Shadowfax whinnied as Pippin entered the stable and turned his head. Good morning! said Pippin. Gandalf will come as soon as he may. He is busy, but he sends greetings. And I am to see that all is well with you. And and you resting, I hope, after your long labours. Shadowfax tossed his head and stamped, but he allowed Baragon to handle his head gently and stroke his great flanks. He looks as if he were spoiling for a race and not newly come from a great journey, said Baragon. How strong and proud he is. Where is his harness? It should be rich and fair. Oh, none is rich and fair enough for him, said Pippin. He will have none. If he will consent to bear you, bear you he does. And if not, well, no bridle, whip, or thong will tame him. Farewell, Shadowfax. Have patience. Battle is coming. Shadowfax lifted up his head and neighed, so that the stable shook, and they covered their ears. (laughs) Then they took their leave, seeing that the manger was well filled. And now for our manger said Beragond, and he held Pippin back to the citadel and so to a door in the north side of the great tower. There they went down a long, cool stair into a wide alley lit with lamps. There were hatches in the walls at the table, and one of these was open. This is the storehouse and the buttery of my company of the guard, said Beragond. Greetings, Targon, he called through the hatch. It is early yet, but here is a newcomer that the Lord has taken into his service. He has ridden long and far with a tight belt and has some sore labelled this morning, and he is hungry. Give us what you have. They got there bread and butter and cheese and apples, the last of the winter store, wrinkled but sound and sweet, and a leather flagon of new-drawn ale, and wooden platters and cups. They put all into a wicker basket and climbed back into the sun, and Baragond brought Pippin to a place at the east end of the great outthrust battlement, where there was an embrasure in the walls with a stone seat beneath the sill. From there they could look out on the morning over the world. They ate and drank, and they talked now of Gondor and its ways and customs, now of the Shire and the strange countries that Pippin had seen. And ever as they talked, Beragond was more amazed, and looked with greater wonder at a hobbit, swinging his short legs as he sat on the seat, or standing tiptoe upon it to peer over the sill at the lands below. I will not hide from you, Master Peregrine, said Beragond. Now to us you look almost as one of our children, a lad of nine summers or so. Yet you have endured perils and seen marvels that few of our greybeards could boast of. I thought it was the whim of our lord to take him a noble page, after the manner of the kings of old, they say. But I see that it is not so, and you must pardon my foolishness. <laughs> I do, said Pippin, though you are not far wrong. I am still little more than a boy in the reckoning of my own people. It will be four years yet before I come of age, as they say in the Shire. But do not bother about me. Come and look and tell me what I can see. The sun was now climbing and the mists in the vale below had been drawn up. The last of them were floating away, just overhead, as wisps of white cloud borne on the stiffening breeze from the east that was now flapping and tugging the flags and white standards of the citadel. Away down in the valley bottom, 
Five leagues or so as the eye leaps, the great river could now be seen grey and glittering, coming out of the northwest and bending in a mighty sweep south and west again, till it was lost to view in a haze of shimmer, far beyond which lay the sea fifty leagues away. Pippin could see all the Pelennor laid out before him, dotted into the distance with farmsteads and little walls, barns and byres, but nowhere could he see any kind or other beasts. Many roads and tracks crossed the green fields, and there was much coming and going, wains moving in lines towards the great gate and others passing out. Now and again a horseman would ride up and leap from the saddle and hasten into the city, but most of the traffic went out along the chief highway and that turned south, and then bending swifter than the river, skirted the hills and passed soon from sight. It was wide and well paved, and along its eastern edge ran a broad green riding track, and beyond that a wall. On the ride, horsemen galloped to and fro, but all the streets seemed to be choked with great covered wains going south. But soon Pippin saw that all was in fact well ordered. The wains were moving in three lines, one swifter drawn by horses, another slower, great wagons with fair housings of many colours, drawn by oxen, and along the west rim of the road many smaller carts hauled by trudging men. That is the road on the vales of Tumleiden, and Los Arnach, and the mountain village, and then on to Lebanon, said Beregond. There go the last of the wains that bear away to refuge the aged, the children, and the women that must go with them. They must all be gone from the gate and the road clear from a league before noon. That was the order. It is a sad necessity. He sighed. Few, maybe, of those now sundered will meet again. And there were always too few children in this city. But now there are none. Save some young lads that will not depart, and may find some task to do. My own son is one of them. They fell silent for a while. Pippin gazed anxiously eastward as if at any moment he might see thousands of orcs pouring over the fields. What can I see there? he asked, pointing down to the middle of the great curve of the Anduin. Is that another city, or what is it? It was a city, said Beragond, the chief city of Gondor, of which this was now only a fortress. For that is the ruin of Osgiliath, on either side of the Anduin, which our enemies took and burned long ago. Yet we want it back in the days of the youth of Denethor, not to dwell in, but to hold as an outpost and rebuild the bridge for the passage of our arms. And then came the fell riders out of Minas Morgul. The Black Riders, said Pippin, opening his eyes, and they were wide and dark with an old fear reawakened. Yes, they were black, said Beragond. And I see that you know something of them, though you have not spoken of them in any of your tales. I know of them said Pippin softly. But I will not speak of them now. So near. So near. He broke off and lifted his eyes above the river, and it seemed to him that all he could see was a vast and threatening shadow. Perhaps it was mountains looming on the verge of sight, their jagged edges softened by well-nigh twenty leagues of misty air. Perhaps it was but a cloud wall, and beyond that again a yet deeper gloom. But even as he looked, it seemed to his eyes that the gloom was growing and gathering, very slowly, slowly rising to smother the regions of the sun. So near to Mordor, said Beragon quietly. Yes, there it lies. We seldom name it, 
but we have dwelt ever in sight of that shadow. Sometimes it seems fainter and more distant, sometimes nearer and darker. It is growing and darkening now, and therefore our fear and disquiet grow too. And the fell riders. Less than a day ago they won back the crossings, and many of our best men were slain. Boromir it was that drove the enemy at last back from the western shore, and we hold still the near half of Osgiliath for a little while. But we await now a new onslaught here. Maybe the chief onslaught of the war that comes. When? said Pippin. Have you a guess? For I saw the bigots last night and the errand riders, and Gandalf said that it was a sign that war had begun. He seemed in a desperate hurry, but now everything seems to have slowed up again. Only because everything is now ready, said Beragond. It is but the deep breath before the plunge. But why were the beacons lit last night? It is over late to send for aid when you are already besieged, answered Beragond. But I do not know the counsel of the Lord and his captains. They have many ways of gathering news, and the Lord Denethor is unlike other men. He sees far. Some say that he sits alone in his high chamber in the tower at night and bends his thought this way and that. He can read somewhat of the future, and that he will at times search even the mind of the enemy, wrestling with him. And so it is that he is old, worn before his time. But however that may be, my lord Faramir is abroad, beyond the river on some perilous errand, and he may have sent tidings. But if you would know what I think set the beacons ablaze, it was the news that came yestereve out of Lebanon. There is a great fleet drawing near in the mouths of Anduin, manned by the corsairs of Umbar in the south. They have long ceased to fear the might of Gondor, and they have allied them with the enemy, and now make a heavy stroke in his cause. For his attack will draw off much of the help that we look to have from Lebanon and Belfarlas, where folk are hardy and numerous. All the more do our thoughts go north to Rohan, and the more glad are we for these tidings of victory that you bring. And yet, he paused and stood up, and looked round north, east, and south. The doings at Isengard should warn us that we are caught now in a great net in strategy. This is no longer a bickering at the fords, raiding from Ithilien and from Anurian, ambushing and pillaging. This is a great war, long planned, and we are but one piece in it, whatever pride may say. Things move in the far east beyond the inland sea, it is reported and north in Mirkwood and beyond, and south in Harad. And now all realms should be put to the test, to stand or fall under the shadow. Yet, Master Peregrine, we have this honor. Ever we bear the brunt of the chief hatred of the Dark Lord, <laughs> for that hatred comes down out of the depths of time and over the deeps of the sea. Here the hammer stroke will fall hardest, and for that reason Mithrandir came hither in such haste, for if we fall, who shall stand? And, Master Peregrine, do you see any hope that we shall stand? Pippin did not answer. He looked at the great walls and towers and brave banners and the sun in the high sky, and then at the gathering gloom in the east, and he thought of the long fingers of that shadow, of the orcs in the woods and the mountains, the treason of Isengard, the birds of evil eye, and the black riders, even in the lanes of the Shire and of the winged terror, the Nazgûl. He shuddered, and hope seemed to wither, and even at that moment the sun for a second faltered and was obscured, as though a dark wing had passed across it. 
Almost beyond hearing, he thought he caught, high and far up in the heavens, a cry, faint but heart-quelling, cruel and cold. He blanched and cowered against the wall. What was that? Asked Berigond. You also felt something? Yes, muttered Pippin. It is the sign of our fall, and the shadow of doom. A fell writer of the air. Yes, the shadow of doom, said Berigond. I fear that Minas Tirith shall fall. Night comes. The very warmth of my blood seems stolen away. For a time they sat together with bowed heads and did not speak. Then suddenly Pippin looked up and saw that the sun was still shining and the banners still streaming in the breeze. He shook himself. It is past, he said. No, my heart would not yet despair. Gandalf fell and has returned and is with us. We may stand, if only on one leg, or at least be left still upon our knees. Rightly said, cried Beragon, rising and striding to and fro. Nay, though all things must come utterly to an end in time, Gondor shall not perish yet. Not though the walls be taken by a reckless foe that will build a hill of carrion before them. There are still other fastnesses and secret ways of escape into the mountains. Hope and memory shall live still in some hidden valley where the grass is green. All the same, I wish it was over for good or ill, said Pippin. I am no warrior at all and dislike any thought of battle. But waiting on the edge of one that I can't escape is the worst of all. What a long day it seems already. I should be happier if, it, if, if we were not obliged to stand and watch, making no move, striking nowhere first. No stroke would have been struck in Rohan, I think, but for Gandalf. There you lay your finger on the sword that many feel, said Baragond. But things may change when Faramir returns. He is bold, more bold than many deem. For in these days men are slow to believe that a captain can be wise and learned in the scrolls of lore and song as he is. And yet a man of hardihood and swift judgment in the field. But such is Faramir. Less reckless and eager than Boromir, but not less resolute. Yet what indeed can he do? We cannot assault the mountains of, of yonder realm. Our reach is shortened, and we cannot strike till some foe comes within it. Yet our hand must be heavy. He smote the hilt of his sword. Pippin looked at him tall and proud and noble, as all the men that he had yet seen in that land, and with a glitter in his eyes as he thought of the battle. Alas, my own hand feels as light as a feather, he thought, but he said nothing. Upon did Gandalf say? Perhaps, but on the wrong chessboard. So they talked until the sun reached its height, and suddenly the noon bells were rung, and there was a stir in the citadel, for all save the watchmen were going to their meal. Will you come with me? said Beragond. You may join my mess for this day. I do not know what company you will be assigned, or the Lord may hold you at his own command. But you will be welcome, and it will be well to meet as many men as you may, while there is yet time. I shall be glad to come, said Pippin. I am lonely, to tell you the truth. I left my best friend behind in Rohan, and I have had no one to talk to or jest with. Perhaps I could really join your company. Are you the captain? If so, you could take me on, or, or speak for me. <laughs> nay, nay. Beragon laughed. I'm no captain, neither office nor rank nor lordship have I, being but a plain man of arms of the third company of the Citadel. Yet, Master Peregrine, to be only a man of arms of the guard of the Tower of Gondor is held worthy in the city, 
and such men have honor in the land. Then it is far beyond me, said Pippin. Take me back to our room, and if Gandalf is not there, I will go where you like, as your guest. Gandalf was not in the lodging, and had sent no message. So Pippin went with Baragond, and was made known to the men of the Third Company. And it seemed that Baragond got as much honor from it as his guest, for Pippin was very welcome. There had already been much talk in the citadel about Mithrandir's companion and his long closeting with the Lord. And rumor declared that the Prince of the Halflings had come out of the north to offer allegiance to Gondor and five thousand swords. And some said that when the riders came to Rohan, each would bring behind him a halfling warrior, small maybe, but doughty. Though Pippin had regretfully to destroy this hopeful tale, he could not be rid of his new rank, only fitting. Men thought to be one befriended by Boromir and honored by the Lord Denethor. And they thanked him for coming among them, and hung on his words and stories of the outlands, and gave him as much food and ale as he could wish. Indeed, his only trouble was to be wary, according to the Council of Gandalf, and not to let his tongue wag freely after the manner of a hobbit among friends. At length, Beragond rose. Farewell for this time, he said. I have duty now till sundown, as have all the others here, I think. But if you are lonely, as you say, maybe you would like a merry guide about the city. My son would go with you gladly. A good lad, I may say. If that pleases you, go down to the lowest circle and ask for the old guest house in the Rath Kellardine, the Lamprite Street. You will find him there with other lads that are remaining in the city. There may be things worth seeing down at the great gate ere the closing. He went out, and soon after all the others followed. The day was still fine, though it was growing hazy and it was hot for March, even so far southwards. Pippin felt sleepy, but the lodging seemed cheerless, and he decided to go down and explore the city. He took a few morsels that he had saved to Shadowfax, and they were graciously accepted, though the horse seemed to have no lack. Then he walked on down many winding ways. People stared much as he passed. To his face, men were gravely courteous, saluting him after the manner of Gondor with bowed head and hands upon the breast, but behind him he heard many calls, as those out of doors cried to others within to come and see the Prince of the Halflings, the companion of Mithrandir. Many used some other tongue than the common speech, but it was not long before he learned at least what was meant by Ernil y Pelferianath, and knew that his title had gone down before him into the city. He came at last by arched streets and many fair valleys and pavements to the lowest and widest circle, and there he was directed to the Lamprite Street a broad way running towards the great gate. In it he found the old guest house, a large building of grey weathered stone, with two wings running back from the street, and between them a narrow greensward, behind which was a many-windowed house, fronted along its whole width by a pillared porch and a flight of steps on down onto the grass. Boys were playing among the pillars, the only children that Pippin had seen in Minas Tirith, and he stopped to look at them. Presently one of them caught sight of him, and with a shout he sprang across the grass and came into the street, followed by several others. There he stood in front of Pippin, looking at him up and down. Greetings, said the lad. Where do you come from? You're a stranger in the city. I was, said Pippin, but they say I've become a man of Gondor. Oh, come, said the lad. And we're all men here, but how old are you, and wh what is your name? I am ten years already and should soon be five feet. I am taller than you, but then my father is a guard, one of the tallest. What is your father? Which question should I answer first? said Pippin. My father farms the lands round Whitwell near Tuckborough in the Shire. 
I am nearly twenty-nine, so I pass you there. Though I am but four feet and not likely to grow any more. Safe sideways. You are quite old. So does my uncle Eorlus. Still, he added hopefully, I wager I could stand you on your head or lay you on your back. Well, maybe you could if I let you, said Pippin with a laugh. And maybe I could do the same to you. We know some wrestling tricks in my little country. Where, let me tell you, I am considered uncommonly large and strong, and I have never allowed anyone to stand me on my head. So if it came to a trial and nothing else would serve, I might have to kill you. For when you are older, you will learn that folk are not always what they seem. And though you may have taken me for a soft stranger lad and easy prey, let me warn you, I am not. I am a halfling, hard, bold, and wicked. Pippin pulled such a grim face that the boy stepped back a pace, but at once he returned with clenched fists and the light of battle in his eye. No, no, Pippin laughed. Don't believe what strangers say of themselves either. I'm not a fighter. <laughs> but it would be politer in any case for the challenger to say who he is. The boy drew himself up proudly. I am Bergil, a son of Beragond of the Guards, he said. Oh, so I thought, said Pippin. For you look like your father, knowing him. I know him, and he sent me to find you. Then why did you not say so at once, said Bergil. And suddenly a look of dismay came over his face. Do not tell me that he has changed his mind and will send me away with the maidens. But no, the last twains have gone. His message is less bad than that, if not good, said Pippin. He says that if you would prefer it to standing me on my head, you might show me round the city for a while and share my loneliness. I can tell you some tales of far countries in return. Bergil clapped his hands <laughs> and laughed with relief. All is well, he cried. Come then, we were soon going to the gate to look on. We will go now. What's happening there? The captains of the outlands are expected of the South Rodia Sundown. Come with us and you'll see. Bergil proved to be a good comrade, the best company Pippin had had as he parted from Merry, and soon they were laughing and talking gaily as they went about the streets, heedless of the many glances that men gave them. Before long they found themselves in a throng going towards the great gate. There Pippin went up much in the esteem of Bergil, for when he spoke his name and the password, the guard saluted him and let him pass through, and what was more, he allowed him to take his companion with him. That is good, said Bergil. We boys are no longer allowed to pass the gate without an elder. Now we can see better. Beyond the gate there was a crowd of men along the verge of the road, and of the great paved space into which all the ways to Minas Tirith ran. All the eyes were turned southwards, and soon a murmur rose. There is a dust away there. They are coming! Pippin and Burgle edged their way forward to the front of the crowd and waited. Horns sounded at some distance, and the noise of cheering rolled towards them like a gathering wind. Then there was a loud trumpet blast, and all about them people were shouting. Forlong! Forlong! Pippin heard men calling. Whoa. What did they say? He asked. Forlong has come! Bergil answered. Old Forlong, the fat, the lord of Losarnach! That's where my grandsire lives. Hurrah! There he is! Good old Forlong! Leading the line, there came walking a big thick-limbed horse, and on it sat a man of wide shoulders and huge girth, but old and grey-bearded yet mail-clad and black-helmed and bearing a long, heavy spear. Behind him marched proudly a dusty line of men, well-armed and bearing great battle-axes. Grim-faced they were, and shorter and somewhat swarthier than any men that Pippin had yet seen in Gondor. Fall on! Men shouted. True heart, true friend, fall on! But when the men of Losanach had passed, they muttered, So few, two hundreds, what are they? We hope for ten times the number. 
That will be the new tidings of the Black Fleet. They're sparing only a tithe of their strength. Still, every little is a gain. And so the companies came and were hailed and cheered and passed through the gate. Men of the Outlands were marching to defend the city of Gondor in dark land. But always too few. Always less than hope looked for or need asked. The men of Ringil Vale, behind the son of their lord, Dervorin, striding on foot. Three hundreds. From the uplands of Morthond, the great Blackroot Vale. Tall Duin here with his sons Duilin and Derufin, and five hundred bowmen. From the Anfalas, the Langstrand far away. A long line of men of many sorts, hunters and herdsmen, and men of little villages, scantily equipped, save for the household of Golaskil, their lord. From Lamedon, a few grim hillmen without a captain. Fisherfolk from the Ethier, some hundred or more spared from the ships. Hirluin, the fair of the green hills from Pinath Gelin, with three hundreds of gallant green-clad men. And last and proudest, Imrahil, prince of Dol Amroth, kinsman of the Lord, with gilded banners, bearing his token of the ship and the silver swan, and a company of knights with full harness riding grey horses, and behind them seven hundreds of men at arms, tall as lords, grey-eyed, dark-haired, singing as they came. And that was all. Less than three thousands foretold. None more would come. Their cries and the tramp of their feet passed into the city and died away. The onlookers stood silent for a while. Dust hung in the air. For the wind had died and the evening was heavy. Already the closing hours was drawing nigh and the red sun had gone behind Mindoluin. Shadow came down on the city. Pippin looked up, and it seemed to him that the sky had grown ashen grey, as if a vast dust and smoke hung above them, and light came dully through it. But in the west the dying sun had set all the fume on fire, and now Mindoluin stood black against a burning smolder flecked with embers. So ends a fair day in wrath, he said, forgetful of the lad at his side. So it will, if I have not returned before the sundown bells, said Burgil. Come, there go the trumpets of the closing of the gate. Hand in hand they went back into the city, the last to pass the gate before it was shut. And as they reached the lamplight street, all the bells in the towers tolled solemnly. Lights sprang in many windows, and from the houses and wards of the men-at-arms along the walls there came the sound of song. Farewell for this time, said Beargil. Take my greetings to my father, and thank him for the company that he sent. Come again soon, I beg. Almost I wish now that there was no war, for we might have had some merry times. We might have journeyed to Losarnacht, to my grandsire's house. It is good to be there in spring. The woods and fields are full of flowers. But maybe we will go hither together yet. They will never overcome our lord, and my father is very valiant. Farewell and return. They parted, and Pippin hurried back towards the citadel. It seemed a long way, and he grew hot and very hungry. And night closed down, swift and dark. Not a star pricked the sky. He was late for the day meal in the mess, and Beregon greeted him gladly, and sat him at his side to hear the news of his son. After the meal Pippin stayed a while, and then took his leave for a strange gloom was on him, and now he desired very much to see Gandalf again. Can you find your way? said Beregon at the door of the small hall, on the north side of the citadel, where they had sat. It is a black night, and all the blacker since orders came that lights are to be dimmed within the city, and none are to shine out of the walls. And I can give you news of another order. You'll be summoned to the Lord Denethor early tomorrow. I fear you will not be for the third company. Still, we may hope to meet again. Farewell and sleep in peace. 
The lodging was dark, save for a little lantern set on the table. Gandalf was not there. Gloom settled still more heavily on Pippin. He climbed on the bench and tried to peer out a window, but it was like looking into a pool of ink. He got down and closed the shutter and went to bed. For a while he lay and listened for sounds of Gandalf's return. And then he fell into an uneasy sleep. In the night he was wakened by a light, and he saw that Gandalf had come and was pacing to and fro in the room beyond the curtain of the alcove. There were candles on the table and rows of parchment. He heard the wizard sigh and mutter, When will Faramir return? Hello, said Pippin, poking his head around the curtain. I thought you had forgotten all about me. I am glad to see you back. It has been a long day. But the night will be too short, said Gandalf. I have come back here, for I must have a little peace, alone. You should sleep in a bed while you still may. At the sunrise I shall take you to the Lord Denethor again. No, when the summons comes, not at sunrise. The darkness has begun. There will be no dawn. Gandalf was gone, and the thudding hooves of Shadowfax were lost in the night when Merry came back to Aragorn. He had only a light bundle, for he had lost his pack at Path Garland, and all he had was a few useful things he had picked up among the wreckage of Isengard. Hasufel was already saddled. Legolas and Gimli with their horse stood close by. Sir, four of the company still remain, said Aragorn. We will ride on together, but we shall not go alone as I thought. The king is now determined to set out at once. Since the coming of the winged shadow, he desires to return to the hills under the cover of night. And then whither? said Legolas. I cannot say yet, Aragorn answered. As for the king, he will go to the muster that he commanded at Edoras. Four nights from now. And there I think he will hear tidings of war. And the riders of Rohan will go down to Minas Tirith. But for myself, and any that go with me... I, for one, cried Legolas. And Gimli with him, said the dwarf. Well, for myself, said Aragorn. It is dark before me. I must go down also to Minas Tirith. But I do not yet see the road. An hour long prepared approaches. <laughs> don't leave me behind, said Merry. I have not been much use yet. But I don't want to be laid aside like baggage to be called for when all is over. I don't think the riders will want to be bothered with me now. Though, of course, the king did say that I was to sit by him when he came to his house and tell him all about the Shire. Yes, said Aragorn. And your road lies with him, I think, Merry. But do not look for mirth at the ending. It will be long, I fear, ere Theoden sits at ease again in Meduseld. Many hopes will wither in this bitter spring. Soon all were ready to depart. Twenty-four horses, Gimli behind Legolas, and Merry in front of Aragorn. Presently they were riding swiftly through the night. They had not long passed the mounds of the Falls of Isen, when a rider galloped up from the rear of their line. My lord! He said to the king. There are horsemen behind us. As we crossed the falls, I thought that I heard them. Now we are sure. They are overtaking us, riding hard. Theoden at once called a halt. The riders turned about and seized their spears. Aragorn dismounted and set Merry on the ground, and drawing his sword, he stood by the king's stirrup. Eomer and his esquire rode back to the rear. Merry felt more like unneeded baggage than ever, and he wondered, if there was a fight, what he should do. Supposing the king's small escort was trapped and overcome, but he escaped into the darkness, alone, in the wild fields of Rohan with no idea of where he was in all the endless miles. No good, he thought. He drew his sword and tightened his belt. 
The sinking moon was obscured by a great sailing cloud, but suddenly it rode out clear again. Then they all heard the sound of hooves, and at the same moment they saw dark shapes coming swiftly on the path from the forts. The moonlight glinted here and there on the points of spears. The number of the pursuers could not be told, but they seemed no fewer than the king's escort at least. When they were some fifty paces off, Aomer cried in a loud voice, Halt! Halt! Who rides in Rohan? The pursuers brought their steeds to a sudden stand. A silence followed. And then in the moonlight a horseman could be seen dismounting and walking slowly forward. His hand showed white as he held it up, palm outward, in token of peace, but the king's men gripped their weapons. At ten paces the man stopped. He was tall, a dark standing shadow. Then his clear voice rang out. Rohan! Rohan, did you say? That is a glad word. We seek that land in haste from long afar. You have found it, said Eomer. When you crossed the fords yonder, you entered it. But it is the realm of Theoden the king. None ride here save by his leave. Who are you? And what is your haste? Halbarat Dudadan, ranger of the north, I am, cried the man. We seek one Aragorn, son of Erethor, and we heard that he was in Rohan. And you have found him also, cried Aragorn. Giving his reins to Merry, he ran forward and embraced the newcomer. Halbarat, he said. Of all the joys, this is the least expected. Merry breathed a sigh of relief. He had thought that this was some last trick of Saruman's to waylay the king while he had only a few men about him. But it seemed that there would be no need to die in Theoden's defense. Not yet at any rate. He sheathed his sword. All is well, said Aragorn, turning back. Here are some of my own kin from the far land where I dwelt. But why they come and how many they be, Halbarad shall tell us. I have thirty with me, said Halbarad. That is all of our kindred that could be gathered in haste. But the brethren Eladan and Erohir have ridden with us, desiring to go to the war. We rode as swiftly as we might when your summons came. <laughs> but I did not summon you, said Aragorn. Save only in wish. My thoughts have often turned to you, and seldom more than tonight, yet I have sent no word. But come, all such matters must wait. You find us riding in haste and danger. Ride with us now, if the king will give his leave. Theoden was indeed glad of the news. It is well, he said. If these kinsmen be in any way like to yourself, my lord Aragorn, thirty such knights will be a strength that cannot be counted by heads. Then the riders set out again, and Aragorn for a while rode with the Dunedain. And when they had spoken of tidings in the north and the south, Elrohir said to him, I bring word to you from my father. The days are short. If thou art in haste, remember the paths of the dead. Always my days have seemed to me too short to achieve my desire, answered Aragorn. But great indeed will be my haste ere I take that road. That will soon be seen, said Elrohir. But let us speak no more of these things upon the open road. And Aragorn said to Halbarad, What is that that you bear, kinsman? For he saw that instead of a spear he bore a tall staff, as it were a standard but it was close-furled in a black cloth bound about with many thorns. It is a gift that I bring to you from the Lady of Rivendell, answered Halbarad. She wrote it in secret, and long was the making. But she also sends word to you. The days now are short. Either our hope cometh, or all hopes end. Therefore I send thee what I have made for thee. Farewell, Elfstone. And Aragorn said, Now I know what you bear. Bear it still for me a while. And he turned and looked away to the north under the great stars, and then he fell silent, 
and spoke no more while the night's journey lasted. The night was old and the east grey when they rode up at last from Deeping Coombe and came back to the Hornburg. There they were to lie and rest for a brief while and take counsel. Mary slept until he was roused by Legolas and Gimli. The sun is high, said Legolas. All others are up and doing. Come, Master Sluggard, and look at this place while you may. There was a battle here three nights ago, said Gimli. And here Legolas and I played a game that I won only by a single orc. Come and see how it was. And there are caves, Mary, caves of wonder. Shall we visit them, Legolas, do you think? Nay, there is no time, said the elf. Do not spoil the wonder with haste. I have given you my word to return hither with you if a day of peace and freedom comes again. But it is now near to noon, and at that hour we eat and then set out again, I hear. Merry got up and yawned. His few hours sleep had not been nearly enough. He was tired and rather dismal. He missed Pippin, and felt that he was only a burden, while everybody was making plans for speed in a business that he did not fully understand. Where is Aragorn? he asked. In the high chamber of the Burg, said Legolas. He has neither rested nor slept, I think. He went thither some hours ago, saying that he must take thought, and only his kinsman Halberd went with him. But some dark doubt or care sits on him. We are a strange company, these newcomers, said Gimli. Stout men and lordly they are, and the riders of Rohan look almost as boys beside them, for they are grim men of face, worn like weathered rocks for the most part, even as Aragorn himself. And they are silent. But even as Aragorn, they are courteous, if they break their silence, said Legolas. And have you marked the brethren Elodan and Elro here? Less somber is their gear than the others. And they are fair and gallant as elven lords, and that is not to be wondered at in the sons of Elrond of Rivendell. Why have they come? Have you heard? Asked Merry. He had now dressed and flung his grey cloak about his shoulders, and the three passed out together towards the ruined gate of the burg. They answered the summons, as you heard, said Gimli. Word came to Rivendell, they say. Aragorn has need of his kindred. Let the Dunedain ride to him in the Rohan. But whence this message came, they are now in doubt. Gandalf sent it, I would guess. Nay, Galadriel, said Legolas. Did she not speak through Gandalf of the ride of the Grey Company from the north? Yes, you have it, said Gimli. The Lady of the Wood. She read many hearts and desires. Now why did not we wish for some of our own kinsfolk, Legolas? Legolas stood before the gate and turned his bright eyes away north and east, and his fair face was troubled. I do not think that any would come, he answered. They have no need to ride to war. War already marches on their own lands. For a while the three companions walked together, speaking of this and that turn of the battle. And they went down from the broken gate and past the mounds of the fallen on the greensward beside the road, until they stood on Helm's Dyke and looked into the coombe. The death down already stood there, black and tall and stony, and the great trampling and scoring of the grass by the Huons could be plainly seen. The Donaldings and many men of the garrison of the Burg were at work on the dike, or in the fields and about the battered walls behind. It all seemed strangely quiet, a weary valley resting after a great storm. Soon they turned back and went to the midday meal in the hall of the Burg. The king was already there, and as soon as they entered he called for Mary and had a seat for him at his side. It is not as I would have it said Theoden, for this is little like my fair house in Edoras, and your friend is gone, who should also be here, but it may be long ere we sit, you and I, at the high table in Meduseld. There will be no time for feasting when I return thither. But come now, eat and drink, and let us speak together while we may, and then you shall ride with me. 
Oh, may I? Said Mary, surprised and delighted. That would be splendid. He had never felt more grateful for any kindness in words. I'm, I'm afraid I'm only in everybody's way, he stammered. But I should like to do anything I could, you know. I doubt it not, said the king. I have had a good hill pony made ready for you. He will bear you as swift as any horse by the roads that we shall take. For I will ride from the burg by mountain paths, not by the plain. And so come to Edoras by way of Dunharrow, where the Lady Eowyn awaits me. You shall be my square, if you will. Is there any gear of war in this place here, man, that my sword thane could use? There are no great weapon hordes here, lord, answered Eomer. Maybe a light helm might be found to fit him, but we have no mail or sword for one of this stature. I have a sword, said Merry, climbing from his seat and drawing from his black sheath his small bright blade. Filled suddenly with love for this old man, he knelt on one knee and took his hand and kissed it. May I lay the sword of Beriadoc of the Shire on your lap, Theoden King, he cried. Receive my service, if you will. Gladly will I take it, said the king, and laying his old hands upon the brown hair of the hobbit, he blessed him. Rise now, Maria Doc, Esquire of Rohan of the household of Meduseld, he said. Take your sword and bear it unto good fortune. As a father you shall be to me, said Mary. For a little while, said Theoden. They talked then together as they ate, until presently Eomer spoke. It is near the hour that we set for our going, Lord, he said. Shall I bid men sound the horns? But where is Aragorn? His place is empty and he has not eaten. We will make ready to ride, said Theoden. But let word be sent to the Lord Aragorn that the hour is nigh. The king with his guard and Merry at his side passed down from the gate of the burg to where the riders were assembling on the green. Many were already mounted. It would be a great company, for the king was leaving only a small garrison in the burg, and all who could be spared were riding to the weapon take at Edoras. A thousand spears had indeed already ridden away at night, but still there would be some five hundred more to go with the king, for the most part men of the fields and dales of Westfold. A little apart the rangers sat, silent, in an ordered company, armed with spear and bow and sword. They were clad in cloaks of dark grey, and their hoods were cast now over helm and head. Their horses were strong and of proud bearing, but rough-haired, and one stood there without a rider. Aragorn's own horse they had brought from the north, Roherin was his name. There was no gleam of stone or gold or any fair thing in all their gear and harness, nor did their riders bear any badge or token, save only that each cloak was pinned upon the left shoulder by a brooch of silver shaped like a rayed star. The king mounted his horse, Snowmane, and Merry sat beside him on his pony. Stiba was his name. Presently Eomer came out of the gate, and with him was Aragorn and Halberad bearing the great staff close furled in black and two tall men, neither young nor old. So much alike were they, the sons of Elrond, that few could tell them apart, dark-haired, grey-eyed, and their faces elven fair, clad alike in bright mail beneath cloaks of silver-grey. Behind them walked Legolas and Gimli, but Merry had eyes only for Aragorn. So startling was the change he saw in him, as if one night many years had fallen on his head. Grim was his face, grey-hued and weary, troubled in mind, Lord, he said, standing by the king's horse. I have heard strange words, and I see new perils far off. I have labored long in thought, and now I fear that I must change my purpose. Tell me, Theoden, you ride now to Dunharrow. How long will it be ere you come there? 
It is a full hour past noon. Before the night of the third day from now, we should come to the hold. The moon will then be one night past its full, and the muster that the king commanded will be held the day after. More speed we cannot make if the strength of Rohan is to be gathered. Aragorn was silent for a moment. Three days, he murmured, and the muster of Rohan will only be begun. But I see that it cannot now be hastened. He looked up, and it seemed that he had made some decision. His face was less troubled. Then, by your leave, Lord, I must take new counsel for myself and my kindred. We must ride our own road, and no longer in secret. For me, the time of stealth has passed. I will ride east by the swiftest way, and I will take the paths of the dead. The paths of the dead, said Theoden and trembled. Why do you speak of them? Emma turned and gazed at Aragorn, and it seemed to Mary that the faces of the riders that sat within hearing turned pale at the words. If there be truth in such paths, said Theoden, their gate is in Dunharrow, but no living man may pass it. Alas, Aragorn, my friend, said Eomer, I had hoped that we would ride to war together, but if you see the paths of the dead, then our parting is come, and it is little likely that we shall ever meet again under the sun. That road I will take nonetheless said Aragorn. But I say to you, Eomer, that in battle we may yet meet again, though all the hosts of Mordor should stand between. You will do as you will, my lord Aragorn, said Theoden. It is your doom, maybe, to tread strange paths that others dare not. This parting grieves me, and my strength is lessened by it. But now I must take the mountain roads and delay no longer. Farewell. Farewell, lord, said Aragorn. Ride unto great renown. Farewell, Mary. I leave you in good hands. Better than we hoped when he hunted the orcs to Fanghorn. Legolas and Gimli will still hunt with me, I hope. But we shall not forget you. Goodbye, said Mary. He could find no more to say. He felt very small, and he was puzzled and depressed by all these gloomy words. More than ever, he missed the unquenchable cheerfulness of Pippin. The riders were ready, and their horses were fidgeting. He wished they would start and get it over. Now Theoden spoke to Eomer, and lifted up his hand and cried aloud. And with that word, the riders set forth. They rode over the dike, and down the coon, and then, turning swiftly eastwards, they took a path that skirted the foothills for a mile or so, until bending south, it passed back among the hills, and disappeared from view. Aragorn rode to the dike, and watched till the king's men were far down the coon. Then he turned to Halbarad. There go three that I love, and the smallest not the least, he said. He knows not to what end he rides, yet if he knew, he still would go on. A little people, but of great worth are the Shire folk, said Halbarad. Little do they know of our long labor for the safe keeping of their borders. Yet I grudge it not, and now our fates are woven together, said Aragorn. And yet, alas, here we must part. Well, I must eat a little. And then we also must hasten away. Come, Legolas and Gimli. I must speak with you as I eat. Together they went back into the burg. Yet for some time Aragorn sat silent at the table in the hall, and the others waited for him to speak. Come, said Legolas at last. Speak and be comforted, and shake off the shadow. What has happened since we came back to this grim place in the grey morning? A struggle somewhat grimmer for my part than the Battle of the Hornburg, said Aragorn. I have looked in the stone of Orthanc, my friends. You have looked in that accursed...
last stone of wizardry! exclaimed Gimli with fear and astonishment in his face. Did you say aught to him? Even Gandalf feared that encounter. You forget to whom you speak, said Aragorn sternly, and his eyes glinted. What do you fear that I should say to him? Did I not openly proclaim my title before the doors of Edoras? Nay, Gimli, he said in a softer voice, and the grimness left his face, and he looked like one who has labored in sleepless pain for many nights. Nay, my friends, I am the lawful master of the stone, and I had both the right and the strength to use it. So I judged. The right cannot be doubted. The strength was enough. Barely. He drew a deep breath. It was a bitter struggle, and the weariness is slow to pass. I spoke no word to him, and in the end I wrenched the stone to my own will. That alone he will find hard to endure. And he beheld me. Yes, Master Gimli, he saw me but in other guise than you see me here. If that will aid him, then I have done ill, but I do not think so. To know that I lived and walked the earth was a blow to his heart, I deem, for he knew it not until now. The Eisenor thank did not see through the armor of Theoden, but Sauron has not forgotten Isildur and the sword of Elendil. Now, in the very hour of his great designs, the heir of Isildur and the sword are revealed. For I showed the blade reforged to him. He is not so mighty yet that he is above fear. Nay, doubt ever gnaws him. But he wields great dominion nonetheless, said Gimli. And now he will strike more swiftly. The hasty stroke goes off to stray, said Aragorn. We must press our enemy and no longer wait upon him for the move. See, my friends, when I had mastered the stone, I learned many things. Grave peril I saw coming and looked for upon Gondor from the south that will draw off great strength from the defense of Minas Tirith. If it is not counted swiftly, I deem that the city will be lost ere ten days be gone. Then lost it must be, said Gimli. For what help is there to send thither? And how could it come there in time? I have no help to send, therefore I must go myself, said Aragorn. But there is only one way through the mountains that will bring me to the coastlands before all is lost. That is the paths of the dead. The paths of the dead, said Gimli. It is a fell name and little to the liking of the men of Rohan as I saw. Can the living use such a road and not perish? And even if you pass that way, what will so few avail to counter the strokes of Mordor? The living have never used that road since the coming of the Rohirrim, said Aragorn, for it is closed to them. But in this dark hour, the heir of Isildur may use it, if he dare. Listen! This is the word that the sons of Elrond bring to me from their father in Rivendell, wisest in law. Bid Aragorn remember the words of the seer and the paths of the dead. And what may be the words of the seer? said Legolas. Thus spoke Malbeth the seer in the days of Arvendui, last king at Fornost, said Aragorn. Over the land there lies a long shadow, westward reaching wings of darkness. The tower trembles to the tombs of kings. Doom approaches. The dead awaken. For the hour is come for the oath-breakers. At the stone of Erech they shall stand again. And hear there a horn in the hills ringing. Whose shall the horn be? Who shall call them from the grey twilight? The forgotten people. The heir of him to whom the oath they swore. From the north shall he come. Need shall drive him, he shall pass the door to the paths 
the dead. Dark ways, doubtless, said Gimli. But no darker than these staves are to me. If you would understand them better, then I bid you come with me, said Aragorn. For that way I now shall take, but I do not go gladly. Only need drives me, therefore only of your free will would I have you come. For you will find both toil and great fear, maybe worse. I will go with you even on the paths of the dead, and to whatever end they may lead, said Gimli. I also will come, said Legolas. For I do not fear the dead. <laughs> I hope that the forgotten people will not have forgotten how to fight, said Gimli. For otherwise I see not why we should trouble them. That we shall know if we ever come to Erech, said Aragorn. But the oath that they broke was to fight against Sauron, and they must fight, therefore, if they are to fulfill it. For at Erech there stands yet a black stone that was brought, it was said, from Numenor by Isildur. And it was set upon a hill, and upon it the king of the mountain swore allegiance to him in the beginning of the realm of Gondor. But when Sauron returned and grew in might again, Isildur summoned the men of the mountains to fulfill their oath, and they would not for they had worshipped Sauron in the dark years. Then Isildur said to the king, Thou shalt be the last king, and if the west prove mightier than thy black master, this curse I lay upon thee and thy folk, to rest never until your oath is fulfilled. For this war will last through years uncounted, and you shall be summoned once again ere the end. And they fled before the wrath of Isildur, and did not dare to go forth to war on Sauron's part. And they hid themselves in secret places, in the mountains, and had no dealings with other men. But slowly dwindled in the barren hills, and the terror of the sleepless dead lies about the hill of Erech, and all places where that people lingered. But that way I must go, since there are none living to help me. He stood up. Come! He cried and drew his sword, and it flashed in the twilight hall of the burg. To the stone of Erech! I seek the paths of the dead. Come with me, who will? Legolas and Gimli made no answer, but they rose and followed Aragorn from the hall. On the green they waited, still and silent, the hooded rangers. Legolas and Gimli mounted. Aragorn sprang up upon Rohirrim. Then Halbarad lifted the great horn, and a blast of it echoed in Helm's Deep, and with that they leapt away, riding down the coombe like thunder, while all the men that were left on Dykorberg stared in amaze. While Theoden went by slow paths in the hills, the Grey Company passed swiftly over the plain, and on the next day, in the afternoon, they came to Edoras. And there they halted only briefly, ere they passed up the valley, and so came to Dunharrow as darkness fell. The Lady Eowyn greeted them and was glad of their coming, for no mightier men had she seen than the Dúnedain and the fair sons of Elrond. But on Aragorn most of all her eyes rested, and when they ate supper with her, they talked together, and she heard of all that had passed since Theoden rode away, concerning which only hasty tidings had yet reached her. And when she heard of the battle in Helm's Deep, and the great slaughter of their foes, and of the charge of Theoden and his knights, then her eyes shone. But at last she said, Lords, you are weary, and shall now go to your beds with such ease as can be contrived in haste. But tomorrow fairer housing shall be found for you. But Aragorn said, Nay, lady, be not troubled for us. If we may lie here tonight and break our fast tomorrow, it will be enough, for I ride on an errand most urgent. With the first light of morning we must go. She smiled on him and said, Then it was kindly done, Lord, to ride so many miles out of your way to bring tidings to Erwin, 
and to speak with her in her exile. Indeed, no man would count such a journey wasted, said Aragorn. And yet, lady, I would not have come hither if it were not that the road which I must take leads me to Dunharrow. And she answered as one that likes not what is said. Then, lord, you are astray. For out of Harrowdale no road runs east or south, and you had best return as you came. Nay, lady, said he, I am not astray. For I walked in this land ere you were born to grace it. There is a road out of this valley, and that road I shall take. Tomorrow I shall ride by the paths of the dead. Then she stared at him as one that is stricken, and her face blanched, and for long she spoke no more, while all sat silent. But Aragorn, she said at last, is it that your errand to seek death? For that is all you will find on that road. They do not suffer the living to pass. They may suffer me to pass, said Aragorn, but at the least I will adventure it. No other road will serve. But this is madness, she said. For here are men of renown and prowess whom you should not take into the shadows, but should lead to war where men are needed. I beg you to remain and ride with my brother, for then all our hearts will be gladdened and our hope will be brighter. It is not madness, lady, he answered, for I go on a path appointed. For those who follow me do so of their free will, and if they wish now to remain and ride with the Rohirrim, they may do so. But I shall take the paths of the dead, alone, if needs be. Then they said no more, and they ate in silence. But her eyes were ever upon Aragorn, and the others saw that she was in great torment of mind. At length they arose, and took their leave of the lady, and thanked her for her care, and went to their rest. But as Aragorn came to the booth where he was to lodge with Legolas and Gimli, and his companions had gone in, there came the Lady Eowyn after him, and called to him. He turned and saw her as a glimmer in the night, for she was clad in white, but her eyes were on fire. Aragorn, she said, why will you go on this deadly road? Because I must, he said. Only so can I see any hope of doing my part in the war against Sauron. I do not choose paths of peril, Eowyn. Were I to go where my heart dwells, far in the north I would now be wandering in the fair valley of Rivendell. For a while she was silent, as if pondering what this might mean. Then suddenly she laid her hand on his arm. You are a stern lord and resolute, she said. And thus do men win renown. She paused. Lord, she said, if you must go, then let me ride in your following. For I am weary of skulking in the hills and wish to face peril in battle. Your duty is with your people, he answered. Too often have I heard of duty, she cried. But am I not of the house of Aeol, a shield maiden, not a dry nurse? I have waited on faltering feet long enough, since they falter no longer, it seems. May I not now spend my life as I will? Few may do that with honor, he answered. But as for you, lady, did you not accept the charge to govern the people until the Lord's return? If you had not been chosen, then some marshal or captain would have been set to the same place. And he could not ride away from his charge, were he weary of it or no. Shall I always be chosen? She said bitterly. Shall I always be left when the right is the part to mind the house while they win renown and find foods and beds when they return? A time may come soon, said he, when none will return. Then there will be need of valor without renown, for none shall remember the deeds that are done in the last defense of your homes. Yet the deeds will not be less valiant because they are unpraised. And she answered, All your words are but to say you are a woman and your part is in the house. But when the men have died in battle and honor, you have leave to be burned in the house, for the men will need it no more. But I am of the house of Eol, and not a serving woman. I can ride, and wield blade, and I do not fear either pain nor death. What do you fear, lady? he asked. 
a cage, she said, to stay behind bars until you and old age accept them. And all chance of doing great deeds is gone beyond recall or and desire. yet you counseled me not to adventure on the road that I had chosen because it is perilous. So may one counsel another, she said. Yet I do not bid you flee from peril but to ride to battle where your sword may win renown and victory. I would not see a thing that is high and excellent cast away needlessly. Nor would I, he said. Therefore I say to you, lady, stay, for you have no errand in the south. Neither have those who go with thee. They go only because they would not be parted from thee. Because they love thee. Then she turned and vanished into the night. When the light of day was come into the sky, but the sun was not yet risen above the high ridges in the east, Aragorn made ready to depart. His company was all mounted, and he was about to leap into the saddle, when the Lady Eowyn came to bid them farewell. She was clad as a rider and girt with a sword. In her hand she bore a cup, and she set it to her lips and drank a little, wishing them good speed. And then she gave the cup to Aragorn. And he drank, and he said, Farewell, Lady of Rohan. I drink to the fortunes of your house, and of you, and of all your people. Say to your brother, Beyond the shadows we may meet again. Then it seemed to Gimli and Legolas, who were nearby, that she wept. And in one so stern and proud, that seemed the more grievous. But she said, Aragorn, wilt thou go? I will, he said. Then wilt thou not let me ride with this company as I've asked? I will not, lady, he said. For that I could not grant without leave of the king and of your brother, and they will not return until tomorrow. But I now count every hour indeed, every minute. Farewell. Then she fell on her knees, saying, I beg thee. Nay, lady. He said, taking her by the hand, he raised her. Then he kissed her hand, and sprang into the saddle, and rode away, and did not look back. And only those who knew him well, and were near to him, saw the pain that he bore. But Eowyn stood still as a figure, carven in stone. Her hands clenched at her sides, and she watched them until they passed into the shadow under the Black Drumerberg, the haunted mountain, in which was the gate of the dead. When they were lost to view, she turned, stumbling as one that is blind, and went back to her lodging. But none of her folk saw this parting, for they hid themselves in fear and would not come forth until the day was up, and the reckless strangers were gone. And some said, They are elvish whites. Let them go where they belong, into the dark places and never return. The times are evil enough. The light was still grey as they rode, for the sun had not yet climbed over the black ridges of the haunted mountain before them. A dread fell on them, even as they passed between the lines of ancient stones, and so came to the dim halt. There, under the gloom of black trees that not even Legolas could long endure, they found a hollow place, opening at the mountain's root. And right in their path stood a single mighty stone, like a finger of doom. My blood runs chill, said Gimli, but the others were silent, and his voice fell dead on the dank fir needles at his feet. The horses would not pass the threatening stone until the riders dismounted and led them about. 
And so they came at last deep into the glen, and there stood a sheer wall of rock, and in the wall the dark door gaped before them like a mouth of night. Signs and figures were carved above its wide arch, too dim to read, and fear flowed from it like a grey vapour. The company halted, and there was not a heart among them that did not quail, unless it were the heart of Legolas of the Elves, for whom the ghosts of men have no terror. This is an evil door, said Halbarad, and my death lies beyond it. I will dare to pass it nonetheless. But no horse will enter. But we must go in, and therefore the horses must go too, said Aragorn. For if ever we come through this darkness, many leagues lie beyond, and every hour that is lost there will bring the triumph of Sauron nearer. Follow me. Then Aragorn led the way, and such was the strength of his will in that hour that all the Dunedain and their horses followed him. And indeed the love that the horses of the rangers bore to their riders was so great that they were willing to face even the terror of the door. But Arod, the horse of Rohan, refused the way, and he stood sweating and trembling in fear that was grievous to see. Then Legolas laid his hand on his eyes and sang some words that went soft in the gloom until he suffered himself to be led, and Legolas passed in. And there stood Gimli the dwarf, left all alone. His knees shook, and he was wroth with himself. Here is a thing unheard of, he said. An elf will go underground, and a dwarf dare not. With that he plunged in, but it seemed to him that he dragged his feet, like lead over the threshold. And at once the blindness came over him. Even upon Gimli, Gloin's son, who had walked unafraid in many deep places of the world. Aragorn had brought torches from Dunharrow, and now he went ahead bearing one aloft and Eladan with another went at the rear, and Gimli, stumbling behind, strove to overtake him. He could see nothing but the dim flame of the torches, but if the company halted, there seemed an endless whisper of voices all about him, a murmur of words in no tongue that he had ever heard before. Nothing assailed the company nor withstood their passage, and yet steadily fear grew on the dwarf as he went on. Most of all because he knew now that there could be no turning back. All the paths behind were thronged by an unseen host that followed in the dark. So time unreckoned passed, until Gimli saw a sight that was ever afterwards loath to recall. The road was wide, as far as he could judge, but now the company came suddenly into a great empty space and there were no longer any walls on either side. The dread was so heavy on him that he could hardly walk. Away to the left, something glittered in the glooms as Aragorn's torch drew near. Then Aragorn halted and went to look what it might be. Does he feel no fear? muttered the dwarf. In any other cave, Gimli Glowing Sun would have been the first to run to the gleam of gold. But not here. Let it lie. Nonetheless, he drew near, and saw Aragorn kneeling, while Eladan held aloft both torches. Before him there were the bones of a mighty man. He had been clad in mail, and still his harness lay there whole, for the cavern's air was as dry as dust, and his hauberk was gilded. His belt was of gold and garnets, and rich with gold was the helm upon his bony head face downward on the floor. 
he had walked near the far wall of the cave, as now could be seen, and before him stood a stony door closed fast. His finger bones were still clawing at the cracks. A notched and broken sword lay by him, as if he had hewn at the rock in his last despair. Aragorn did not touch him, but gazed silently for a while. He rose and sighed. Hither shall the flowers of Simbulmene come never unto world's end, he muttered. Nine mounds and seven there are now green with grass, and though all the long years he has lain at the door that he could not unlock, whither does it lead? Why would he pass? None shall ever know. For that is not my errand, he cried, turning back and speaking to the whispering darkness behind. Keep your hordes and your secrets hidden in the accursed years. Speed only, we ask. Let us pass, and then come. I summon you to the Stone of Erech. There was no answer, unless it were an utter silence more dreadful than the whispers before. And then a chill blast came in which the torches flickered and went out, and could not be rekindled. Of the time that followed, one hour or many, Gimli remembered little. The others pressed on, but he was ever hindmost, pursued by a groping horror that seemed always just about to seize him. And a rumor came after him like the shadow sound of many feet. He stumbled on until he was crawling like a beast on the ground, and felt that he could endure no more. He must either find an ending and escape, or run back in madness to meet the following fear. Suddenly he heard the tinkle of water, a sound hard and clear as a stone falling into a dream of dark shadow. Light grew, and lo, the company passed through another gateway, high-arched and broad, and a rill ran out beside them and beyond. Going steeply down was a road between sheer cliffs, knife-edged against the sky far above. So deep and narrow was that chasm that the sky was dark, and in it small stars glinted. Yet as Gimli after learned, it was still two hours ere sunset of the day on which they had set out from Dunharrow. Though for all that, he could then tell it might have been twilight in some later year, or in some other world. The company now mounted again and Gimli returned to Legolas. They rode in file and evening came on and a deep blue dusk and still fear pursued them. Legolas turning to speak to Gimli looked back and the dwarf saw before his face the glitter in the elves bright eyes. Behind them rode Eladan, last of the company, but not the last of those that took the road. The dead are following, said Legolas. I see shapes of men and of horses and pale banners like shreds of cloud and spears like winter thickets on a misty night. The dead are following. Yes, the dead ride behind. They have been summoned, said Eladan. The company came at last out of the ravine, as suddenly as if they had issued from a crack in the wall. And there lay the uplands of a great vale before them, and the stream beside them went down with a cold voice over many falls. Where in Middle-earth are we? said Gimli, and Eladan answered. We have descended from the uprising of the Morfond, the long, chill river that flows at last to the sea that washes the walls of Dolanroth. You will not need to ask hereafter how comes its name. Blackroot, men call it. The Morfond Vale made a great bay that beat up against the sheer southern faces of the mountains. But all was grey in that hour. For the sun had gone, and far below lights twinkled in the homes of men. The Vale was rich, and many folk dwelt there. Then, without turning, Aragorn cried aloud so that all could hear. Friends, 
Forget your weariness! Ride now! Ride! We must come to the stone of Erech ere this day passes, and long still is the way! So without looking back, they rode the mountain fields until they came to a bridge over the growing torrent and found a road that went down into the land. Lights went out in house and hamlet as they came, and doors were shut, and folk that were afield cried in terror and ran wild like hunted deer. Ever there rose the same cry in the gathering night. The King of the Dead! The King of the Dead is hell upon us! Bells were ringing far below, and all men fled before the face of Aragorn. But the great company, in their haste, rode like hunters, until their horses were stumbling with weariness. And thus, just ere midnight, and in a darkness as black as the caverns in the mountains, they came at last to the hill of Erech. Long had the terror of the dead lain upon that hill, and upon the empty fields about it. For upon the top stood a black stone, round as a great globe, the height of a man, though its half was buried in the ground. Unearthly it looked, as though it had fallen from the sky, as some believed, but those who remembered still the lore of Westerness told that it had been brought out of the ruin of Numenor, and there set by Isildur at his landing. None of the people of the valley dared to approach it, nor would they dwell near, for they said that it was a trysting place of the Shadow Men, and there they would gather in times of fear, thronging round the stone and whispering. To that stone the company came and halted in the dead of night. Then Elrohir gave to Aragorn a silver horn, and he blew upon it, and it seemed to those that stood near that they heard a sound of answering horns as if it was an echo in deep caves far away. No other sound they heard, and yet they were aware of a great host gathered all about the hill on which they stood, and a chill wind like the breath of ghosts came down from the mountains. But Aragorn dismounted, and standing by the stone, he cried in a great voice, Hothbreakers! Why have ye come? And a voice was heard out of the night that answered him, as if from far away. Then Aragorn said, The hour is come at last. Now I go to Pelargir upon Anduin, and ye shall come after me. And when all this land is clean of the servants of Sauron, I will hold the oath fulfilled, and ye shall have peace and depart forever. For I am Elessa, Hisildur's heir of Gondor! And with that he bade Halbarad unfurl the great standard which he had brought, and behold, it was black, and if there was any device upon it, it was hidden in the darkness. Then there was silence, and not a whisper nor a sigh was heard again all the long night. The company camped beside the stone, but they slept little because of the dread of the shadow that edged them round. But when the dawn came, cold and pale, Aragorn rose at once, and he led the company forth upon the journey of greatest haste and weariness that any among them had known, save he alone. And only his will held them to go on. No other mortal man could have endured it, none but the Dunedain of the North, and with them Gimli the Dwarf and Legolas of the Elves. They passed Tarlang's neck and came into Lamedon, and the shadow host pressed behind, 
and fear went on before them, until they came to Calenbel upon Kirill, and the sun went down like blood behind Pinath Gelin away in the west behind them. The township and the fords of Kirill they found deserted, for many men had gone away to war, and all that were left fled to the hills at the rumor of the coming of the king of the dead. But the next day there came no dawn, and the Grey Company passed on into the darkness of the storm of Mordor, and were lost to mortal sight. But the dead followed them. together to the east to meet the coming of war and the onset of the shadow. And even as Pippin stood at the great gate of the city and saw the Prince of Dol Amroth ride with his banners, the King of Rohan came down out of the hills. The day was waning. In the last days of the sun, the riders cast long pointed shadows that went on before them. Darkness had already crept beneath the murmuring fir woods that cloaked the steep mountain sides. The King rode now slowly at the end of the day. Presently, the path turned round a huge bare shoulder of rock and plunged into the blue of soft sighing trees. Down and down they went in a long, winding file. When at last they came to the bottom of the gorge, they found that evening had fallen in the deep places. The sun was gone. Twilight lay upon the waterfalls. All day, far below them, a leaping stream had run down from the high pass behind, cleaving its narrow way between pine-clad walls, and now through a stony gate it flowed out and passed into a wider vale. The riders followed it, and suddenly Harrowdale lay before them, loud with the noise of waters in the evening. There the white snowborn, joined by the lesser stream, went rushing, fuming on the stones, down to Adorus and the green hills and the plains. Away to the right, at the head of the great dale, the mighty stark horn loomed up above its vast buttresses, swathed in cloud, but its jagged peak, clothed in everlasting snow, gleamed far above the world, blue shadowed upon the east, red stained by the sunset in the west. Mary looked out in wonder upon this strange country of which he had heard many tales upon their long road. It was a skyless world, in which his eye, through dim gulfs of shadowy air, saw only ever-mounting slopes, great walls of stone behind great walls, and a frowning precipice wreathed with mist. He sat for a moment half-dreaming, listening to the noise of water, the whisper of dark trees, the crack of stone, and the vast waiting silence that brooded behind all the sound. He loved mountains, or he had loved the thought of them marching on the edge of stories brought from far away. But now he was borne down by the insupportable weight of Middle-earth. He longed to shut out the immensity in a quiet room by a fire. He was very tired, for though they had ridden slowly, they had ridden with very little rest. Hour after hour, for nearly three weary days, he had jogged up and down over passes and through long dales, and across many streams. Sometimes where the way was broader, he had ridden at the king's side, not noticing that many of the riders smiled to see the two together, the hobbit on his little shaggy grey pony, and the lord of Rohan on his great white horse. Then he had talked to Theoden, telling him about his home and the doings of the Shirefolk, or listening in turn to tales of the Mark and its mighty men of old. But most of the time, especially on this last day, Merry had ridden by himself just behind the king, saying nothing and trying to understand the slow, sonorous speech of Rohan that he heard the men behind him using. It was a language in which there seemed to be many words that he knew, though spoken more richly and strongly than in the Shire. Yet he could not piece the words together. 
At times, some rider would lift up his clear voice in stirring song, and Merry felt his heart leap, though he did not know what it was about. All the same, he had been lonely, and never more so than now at the day's end. He wondered where in all this strange world Pippin had gone to, and what would become of Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli. Then suddenly, like a cold touch on his heart, he thought of Frodo and Sam. I'm forgetting them, he said to himself reproachfully, and yet they are more important than all the rest of us. And I came to help them, but now they must be hundreds of miles away if they're still alive. He shivered. Harrowdale at last, said Eomer. Our journey is almost at an end. They halted. The paths out of the narrow gorge fell steeply. Only a glimpse, as through a tall window, could be seen the great valley in the loaming below. A single small light could be seen twinkling by the river. This journey's over, maybe, said Theoden. But I have far yet to go. Last night the moon was full, and in the morning I shall ride to Edoras to the gathering of the Mark. But if you would take my counsel, said Eomer in a low voice, you would then return hither until the war is over, lost or won. Theoden smiled. Nay, my son, or so I will call you. Speak not the soft words of Wormtongue in my old ears. He drew himself up and looked back at the long line of his men fading into the dusk behind. Long years in the space of days it seems since I rode west, but never will I lean on a staff again. If the war is lost, what good will be my hiding in the hills? And if it is won, what grief will it be even if I fall, spending my last strength? But we will leave this now. Tonight I will lie in the hold of Dunharrow. One evening of peace at least is left us. Let us ride on! In the deeping dusk they came down into the valley. Here the snowborn flowed near to the western falls of the dale, and soon the path led them to a ford where the shallow waters murmured loudly on the stones. The ford was guarded. As the king approached, many men sprang up out of the shadow of the rocks, and when they saw the king, they cried with glad voices. Theoden king! Theoden king! The king of the mark returns! Then one blew a long call in the horn. It echoed in the valley. Other horns answered it, and lights shone across the river. And suddenly there rose a great chorus of trumpets from high above, sounding from some hollow place, as it seemed, that gathered their notes into one voice and sent it rolling and beating on the walls of stone. So the King of the Mark came back victorious out of the west to Dunharrow beneath the feet of the White Mountains. There he found the remaining strength of his people already assembled, for as soon as his coming was known, captains rode to meet him at the ford, bearing messages from Gandalf. Dunhir, chieftain of the folk of Harrowdale, was at their head. At dawn three days ago, Lord, he said, Shadowfax came like a wind out of the west to Edoras, and Gandalf brought tidings of your victory to gladden our hearts. But he brought also word from you to hasten the gathering of the riders, and then came the winged shadow. The winged shadow, said Theoden. We saw it also, but that was in the dead of night before Gandalf left us. Maybe, Lord, said Dunhir, yet the same or another like to it, as a flying darkness in the shape of a monstrous bird passed over Edoras that morning, and all men were shaken with fear. For it stooped upon Meadowseld, and as it came low, almost to the gable, there came a cry that stopped our hearts. Then it was that Gandalf counseled us not to assemble in the fields, but meet you here in the valley under the mountains, and he bade us to kindle no more lights or fires than barest need asked. So it has been done. Gandalf spoke with great authority. We trust that it is as you would wish. Nought has been seen in Harrowdale of these evil things. It is well, said Theoden. I will ride now to the hold. And there, before I go to rest, I will meet the marshals and captains. Let them come to me as soon as may be. The road now led eastward straight across the valley, which was at first point little more than half a mile in width. Flats and meads and rough grass, grey now in the falling night, lay all about. 
But in front of the far side of the dale, Mary saw a frowning wall, a last outlier of the great roots of the Starkhorn, cloven by the river in ages past. On all the level spaces there was a great concourse of men, some thronged to the roadside, hailing the king and the riders from the west with glad cries. But stretching away into the distance behind, there were ordered rows of tents and booths, and lines of picketed horses, and great store of arms, and piled spears bristling like thickets of newly planted trees. Now all the great assembly was falling into shadow, and yet, though the night chill blew cold from the heights, no lanterns glowed, no fires were lit, watchmen heavily cloaked paced to and fro. Mary wondered how many riders there were. He could not guess their number in the gathering gloom, but it looked to him like a great army, many thousands strong. While he was peering from side to side, the king's party came up under the looming cliff of the eastern side of the valley. And there, suddenly, the path began to climb, and Mary looked up in amazement. He was on a road, the like of which he had never seen before, a great work of men's hands in years beyond the reach of song. Upwards it wound, coiling like a snake, Boring its way across the sheer slope of rock, steep as a stair, it loomed backwards and forwards as it climbed. Up it horses could walk, and wains could be slowly hauled, but no enemy could come that way, except out of the air. It was defended from above. At each turn of the road there were great standing stones that had been carved in the likeness of men. Huge and clumsy-limbed, squatting cross-legged with their stumpy arms folded on fat bellies. Some in the wearing of the years had lost all features, save the dark holes of their eyes that still stared sadly at the passers-by. The riders hardly glanced at them. The Pukul men, they called them, and heeded them little. No power or terror was left in them, but Mary gazed at them with wonder and a feeling almost of pity as they loomed up mournfully in the dusk. After a while he looked back and found that he had already climbed some hundreds of feet above the valley. But still far below, he could dimly see a winding line of riders crossing the ford and filing along the road towards the camp prepared for them. Only the king and his guard were going up into the hold. At last, the king's company came to a sharp brink, and the climbing road passed into a cutting between walls of rock, and so went up a short slope and out on to a wide upland. The Firienfeld, men called it, a green mountain field of grass and heath, high above the deep delved courses of the snowborn laid upon the lap of the great mountains behind, the Starkhorn southwards, and northwards the sawtoothed mass of ice of Irenzaga. Between there faced the riders, the grim black wall of the Dwomoberg, the haunted mountain rising out of the deep slopes of somber pines. Dividing the upland into two, there marched a double line of unshaped standing stones that dwindled into the dusk and vanished in the trees. Those who dared to follow that road came soon to the black dimholt under Dwimmerberg, and the menace of the pillar of stone in the yawning shadow of the forbidden door. Such was the dark Dunharrow, the work of long-forgotten men. Their name was lost, and no song or legend remembered it. For what purpose they had made this place as a town or secret temple or a tomb of kings, none could say. Here they labored in the dark years, before ever a ship came to the western shores, or Gondor of the Dunedain was built. And now they had vanished, and only the old Pukul men were left, still sitting at the turnings of the road. Mary stared at the lines of marching stones. They were worn in black. Some were leaning, some were fallen, some cracked or broken. They looked like rows of old and hungry teeth. He wondered what they could be, and he hoped that the king was not going to follow them into the darkness beyond. Then he saw that there were clusters of tents and booths on either side of the stony way, 
but these were not set near the trees, and seemed rather to huddle away from them towards the brink of the cliff. The greater number were on the right, where the Firienfeld was wider, and on the left there was a smaller camp in the midst of which stood a tall pavilion. From this side a river now came out to meet them, and they turned from the road. As they drew near, Mary saw that the rider was a woman with long braided hair gleaming in the twilight. Yet she wore a helm that was clad to the waist like a warrior and girded with a sword. Hail, Lord of the Mark, she cried. My heart is glad at your returning. And you, Eowyn, said Theoden, is all well with you? All is well, she answered. Yet it seemed to Mary that her voice belied her, and he would have thought that she had been weeping, if that could be believed for one so stern of face. All is well. It was a weary road for the people to take, torn suddenly from their homes. They were hard words, for it is long since war has driven us from the green fields, but there have been no evil deeds, and all is now ordered as you see, and your lodging is prepared for you, for I have had full tidings of you and knew the hour of your coming. So Aragorn has come then, said Eomer. Is he still here? No, he is gone, said Eowyn, turning away and looking at the mountains dark against the east and south. Whither did he go? I do not know, she answered. He came at night and rode away yestermorn ere the sun had climbed over the mountaintops. He is gone. You are grieved, daughter, said Theoden. What has happened? Tell me. Did he speak of that road? He pointed away along the darkening lines of the stones towards the Dwimmerberg. Of the paths of the dead? Yes, Lord, said Eowyn, and he passed into the shadows from which none have returned. I could not dissuade him. He is gone. Then our paths are sundered, said Eomer. He is lost. We must ride without him and our hope dwindles. Slowly they passed through the short heath and upland grass, speaking no more until they came to the king's pavilion. There Mary found that everything was made ready and that he himself was not forgotten. A little tent had been pitched for him besides the king's lodging. And there he sat alone, while men passed to and fro, going into the king and taking counsel with him. Night came on, and the half-seen heads of the mountains westwards were covered with stars, but the east was dark and blank. The marching stones faded slowly from sight, but still beyond them, blacker than the gloom, brooded the vast crouching shadow of the Dwimmerberg. The paths of the dead, he muttered to himself. The paths of the dead, what does all this mean? They have all left me now. They have all gone to some doom. Gandalf and Pippin to the war in the east, and Sam and Frodo to Mordor, and Strider and Legolas and Gimli to the path of the dead. But my turn will come soon enough, I suppose. I wonder what they're all talking about, and what the king means to do, for I must go where he goes now. In the midst of these gloomy thoughts, he suddenly remembered that he was very hungry, and he got up to go and see if anyone else in this strange camp felt the same. But at that very moment, a trumpet sounded, and a man came summoning him, the king's esquire, to wait at the king's board. In the inner part of the pavilion was a small space, curtained off with broidered hangings and strewn with skins, and there at the small table sat Theoden with Eomer and Eowyn, and Dunher, lord of Haroldale. Mary stood beside the king's stool and waited on him till presently the old man, coming out of deep thought, turned to him and smiled. Come, Master Meriadoc, he said. You shall not stand. You shall sit beside me as long as I remain in my own lands and lighten my heart with tales. 
Room was made for the hobbit at the king's left hand, but no one called for any tale. There was indeed little speech, and they ate and drank for the most part in silence, until at last, plucking up courage, Merry asked the question that was tormenting him. Twice now, Lord, I've heard of the paths of the dead, he said. What are they? And where is Strider, I mean, Lord Aragorn, where has he gone? The king sighed, but no one answered, until at last Aelma spoke. We do not know, and our hearts are heavy, he said. But as for the paths of the dead, you have yourself walked on their first steps. Nay, I speak no words of ill omen. The road that we have climbed is the approach to the door yonder in the Dimholt. But what lies beyond, no man knows said Theoden. Yet ancient legend now seldom spoken has somewhat to report. If these old tales speak true that have come down from father to son in the house of Aeol, then the door under Dwimmerberg leads to a secret way that goes beneath the mountain to some forgotten end. But none have ever ventured in to search its secrets since Baldor son of Brago passed the door and was never seen among men again. A rash vow he spoke as he drained the horn at that feast in which Brago made to hallow new-built Meadowseld, and he came never to the high seat of which he was the heir. Folks say that dead men out of the dark years guard the way and they will suffer no living man to come in their hidden halls. But at whiles they may themselves be seen passing out of the door like shadows and down the stony road. Then the people of Harrowdale shut fast their doors and shroud their windows and are afraid. But the dead come seldom forth, and only at times of great unquiet and coming death. Yet it is said in Harrowdale, said Eowyn in a low voice, that in the moonless nights but little while ago a great host in strange array passed by. Whence they came none knew, but they went up the stony road and vanished into the hill, as if they went to keep a tryst. Then why is Aragorn gone that way? asked Merry. Don't you know anything that would explain it? Unless he spoke in words to you as his friend that we have not heard, said Eoma. None now in the land of the living can tell his purpose. Greatly changed he seemed to me since I saw him first in the king's house, said Eowyn. Grimmer, older, fey I thought him, and like one whom the dead call. Maybe he was called, said Theoden, and my heart tells me that I shall not see him again. Yet he is a kingly man of high destiny, and take comfort in this daughter. Since comfort you seem to need in your grief for this guest, it is said that when the Eolingas came out of the north and passed at length up the Snowborn, seeking strong places of refuge in the time of need, Brago and his son Baldor climbed the stair of the hold, and so came before the door. On the threshold sat an old man. Aged beyond guess of years, tall and kingly he had been, but now he was withered as an old stone. Indeed for stone they took him, for he moved not and he said no word, until they sought to pass him by and enter. And then a voice came out of him, as if out of the ground, and to their amaze it spoke in the western tongue. The way is shut. Then they halted and looked at him and saw that he lived still, but he did not look at them. The way is shut. His voice said again, it was made by those who are dead, and the dead keep it until the time comes. The way is shut. And when will that time be? said Baldor. But no answer did he ever get, 
for the old man died in that hour and fell upon his face, and no other tidings of the ancient dwellers in the mountains have our folk ever learned. Yet maybe, at last, the time foretold has come, and Aragorn may pass. How shall a man discover whether the time be come or no, save by daring the door? said Eomer. And that way I would not go, though all the host of Mordor stood before me, and I were alone and had no other refuge. Alas, that a fey mood should fall on a man so great-hearted in this hour of need. Are there not evil things enough abroad without seeking them under the earth? War is at hand. He paused. For that moment there was a noise outside. A man's voice crying the name of Theoden and the challenge of the guard. Presently the captain of the guard thrust aside the curtain. A man is here, lord, he said. An errand rider from Gondor. He wishes to come before you at once. Let him come. A tall man entered, and Merry choked back a cry. For a moment it seemed to him that Boromir was alive again and had returned. Then he saw that it was not so. The man was a stranger, though as like to Boromir as if he were one of his kin, tall and grey-eyed and proud. He was clad as a rider with his cloak of dark green over a coat of fine mail. On the front of his helm was wrought a small silver star. In his hand he bore a single arrow, black feathered and barred with steel, but the point was painted red. He sank on one knee and presented the arrow to Theoden. Hail, Lord of the Rohirrim, friend of Gondor, he said. Hirgon am I, errand rider of Denethor, who bring you this token of war. Gondor is in great need. Often the Rohirrim have aided us, but now the Lord Denethor asks for all your strength and all your speed, lest Gondor fall at last. The Red Arrow, said Theoden, holding it as one who received a summons long expected and yet dreadful when it comes. His hand trembled. The Red Arrow has not been seen in the mark in all my years. Has it indeed come to that? And what does the Lord Denethor reckon that all my strength and all my speed may be? It is best known to yourself, Lord, said Hirgon. But ere long it may well come to pass that Minas Tirith is surrounded, and unless you have the strength to break a siege of many powers, the Lord Denethor bids me say that he judges that the strong arms of the Rohirrim would be better within his walls than without. But he knows that we are a people who fight rather upon horseback and in the open, and that we are also scattered people, and time is needed for the gathering of our riders. Is it not true, Hirgon, that the Lord of Minas Tirith knows more than he sets in his message? For we are already at war, as you may have seen, and you do not find us all unprepared. Gandalf the Grey has been among us, and even now we are mustering for battle in the east. What the Lord Denethor may know or guess of all these things I cannot say, answered Hirgon. But indeed our case is desperate. My Lord does not issue any command to you. He begs you only to remember old friendship and oaths long spoken, and for your own good, to do all that you may. It is reported to us that many kings have ridden in from the east to the service of Mordor. From the north to the field of Dargolad there is a skirmish and rumour of war. In the south, Haradrim are moving, and fear has fallen on all our coastlands, so that little help will come to us thence. Make haste, for it is before the wars of Minas Tirith that the doom of our time will be decided. And if the tide be not stemmed there, then it will flow over all the fair fields of Rohan, and even in this hold among the hills, there shall be no refuge. Dark tidings, said Theoden, yet not all unguessed. But say to Denethor that even if Rohan itself felt no peril, still we would come to his aid. But we have suffered much loss in our battles with Saruman the traitor, and we must still think for our frontier to the north and east, as his own tidings make clear. So great a power as the Dark Lord seems now to wield might well contain us in battle before the city, and yet strike with great force across the river, away beyond the Gate of Kings. But we will speak no longer counsels of prudence. 
We will come. The weapon take was set for the morrow. When all is ordered, we will set out. Ten thousand spears I might have sent riding over the plain to the dismay of your foes. It will be less now, I fear. For I will not leave my strongholds all unguarded. Yet six thousands at the least shall ride behind me. For say to Denethor that in this hour the King of the Mark himself will come down to the land of Gondor, though maybe he will not ride back. But it is a long road, and man and beast must reach the end with strength to fight. A week it may be from the morrow's morn, ere you hear the cry of the sons of Aeol coming from the north. A week, said Hyrgon. If it must be so, it must. But you are like to find only ruined walls in seven days from now, unless other help unlooked for comes. Still, you may at the least disturb the orcs and swarthy men from their feasting in the White Tower. At the least we will do that, said Theoden. But I myself am new come from battle and long journey, and I will now go to rest. Tarry here this night. Then you shall look on the muster of Rohan and ride away the gladder for the sight and the swifter for the rest. In the morning counsels are best, and night changes many thoughts. With that the king stood up, and they all rose. Go now each to your rest, he said, and sleep well. And you, Master Mariadoc, I need no more tonight. But be ready to my call as soon as the sun is risen. I will be ready, said Mary, even if you bid me ride with you to the pass of the dead. Speak not words of vermin, said the king, for there may be more roads than one that could bear that name. But I did not say that I would bid you ride with me on any road. Good night. I won't be left behind to be called for on return, said Mary. I won't be left. I, I won't. And repeating this over and over again to himself, he fell asleep at last in his tent. He was wakened by a man shaking him. Wake up! Wake up, Master Holbitler! he cried and at length Mary came out of deep dreams and sat up with a start. It still seemed very dark, he thought. What was the matter? he asked. The king calls for you. But, but the sun has not risen yet, said Mary. No, it will not rise this day, Master Holpitla, nor ever again one would think under this cloud. But time does not stand still, though the sun be lost. Make haste! Flinging on some clothes, Mary looked outside. The world was darkling. The very air seemed brown and all things about were black and grey and shadowless. There was a great stillness. No shape or cloud could be seen unless it were far away westward where the furthest groping fingers of the great gloom still crawled on and a little light leaked through them. Overhead there hung a heavy roof, sombre and featureless, and light seemed rather to be failing than growing. Mary saw many folk standing, Looking up and muttering, all their faces were grey and sad, and some were afraid. With a sinking heart he made his way to the king. Here Gonda, rider of Gonda, was there before him, and beside him stood now another man, like him and dressed alike, but shorter and broader. As Mary entered, he was speaking to the king. It comes from Mordor, lord, he said. It began last night at sunset. From the hills in the east fold of your realm I saw it rise and creep across the sky. And all night as I rode, it came behind, eating up the stars. Now the great cloud hangs over all the land between here and the mountains of shadow. And it is deepening. War already has begun. For a while the king sat silent. 
At last he spoke. So we come to it in the end, he said. The great battle of our time, in which many things shall pass away. But at least there is no longer need for hiding. We will ride the straight way and the open road and with all our speed. The muster shall begin at once and wait for none that tarry. Have you good store at Minas Tirith? For if we ride now in all haste, then we must ride light, with but meal and water enough to last us into battle. We have very great store long prepared, answered Hirgon. Ride now as light and as swift as you may. Then call the heralds, Eoma, said Theoden. Let the riders be marshaled. Eoma went down, and presently the trumpets rang in the hold, and were answered by many others from below. But their voices no longer sounded clear and brave as they had seemed to Mary the night before. Dull they seemed, and harsh in the heavy air, braying ominously. The king turned to Merry. I am going to war, Master Meriadoc, he said. In a little while I shall take the road. I release you from my service, but not from my friendship. You shall abide here, and if you will, you shall serve the Lady Eowyn, who will govern the folk in my stead. But, 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 Lord, Merry stammered, I offered you my sword. I do not want to be parted from you like this, Theoden King. And as all my friends have gone to the battle, I should be ashamed to stay behind. But we ride on horses tall and swift, said Theoden. And great though your heart be, you cannot ride on such beasts. Then tie me on the back of one, or let me hang on, on a stirrup or, or something, said Mary. It is a long way to run, but run I shall if I cannot ride, even if I wear my feet off and arrive weeks too late. Theoden smiled. Rather than that, I would bear you with me on Snowmane, he said. But at the least you shall ride with me to Edoras and look on Meduseld, for that way I shall go. So far, Stiba can bear you. The great race will not begin till we reach the plains. Then Eowyn rose up. Come now, Meriadoc, she said. I will show you the gear that I have prepared for you. Then they went out together. This request only did Aragorn make to me, said Eowyn, as they passed among the tents. That you should be armed for battle. I have granted it as I could, for my heart tells me that you will need such gear ere the end. Now she led Mary to a booth among the lodges of the king's guard, and there an armorer brought out to her a small helm, and a round shield, and other gear. No mail we have fit for you, said Eowyn, nor any time for the forging of such hauberk. But here is also a stout jerkin of leather, a belt, and a knife. A sword you have. Mary bowed, and the lady showed him the shield, which was like the shield that had been given to Gimli, and it bore on it the device of a white horse. Take all these things, she said, and bear them to good fortune. Farewell now, Master Meriadoc. It may be we shall meet again, you and I. So it was amid a gathering gloom, the King of the Mark made ready to lead all his riders on the eastward road. Hearts were heavy, and many quailed in the shadow. But they were a stern people, loyal to their lord, and little weeping or murmuring was heard. Even in the camp in the hold, where the exiles from Edoras were housed, women and children and old men. Doom hung over them, but they faced it silently. Two swift hours passed, and now the king sat upon his white horse, glimmering in the half-light. Proud and tall he seemed, though the hair that flowed beneath his high helm was like snow, and many marveled at him, and took heart to see him unbent and unafraid. 
There on the wide flats beside the noisy river were marshaled many companies, well nigh five and fifty hundreds of riders fully armed, and many hundreds of other men, with spare horses lightly burdened. A single trumpet sounded. The king raised his hand, and then silently the host of the mark began to move. Foremost went twelve of the king's household men, riders of renown. Then the king followed with Eomer on his right. He had said farewell to Eowyn above the hold, and the memory was grievous, but now he turned his mind to the road that lay ahead. Behind him Merry rode on Stibba with the errand riders of Gondor, and behind them again twelve more of the king's household. They passed down the long ranks of waiting men with stern and unmoved faces, but when they had come almost to the end of the line, one looked up glancing keenly at the hobbit. A young man, Merry thought as he returned the glance, less in height and girth than most. He caught the glint of clear grey eyes, and then he shivered, for it came suddenly to him that it was the face of one without hope who goes in search of death. On down the grey road they went beside the snowborn, rushing on its stones, through the hamlets of Underharrow and Upborn, where many sad faces of women looked out from dark doors. And so without horn or harp or music of men's voices, the great ride into the east began with which the songs of Rohan were busy for many long lives of men thereafter. From dark Dunharrow in the dim morning, with Thane and Captain rode Thangil's son, to Edoras he came, the ancient halls, of the Mark Wardens mist enshrouded. Golden timbers were in gloom mantled. Farewell he bade to his free people. Hearth and high seat and hallowed places, for the long he had feasted ere the light faded. Forth rode the king, fear behind him. Fate before him, fealty kept he. Oaths he had taken, all fulfilled them. Forth rode Theoden, five nights and days, Eastward and onward rode the Eolingas, through Fold and Fenmarch and the Firian Wood. Six thousand spears to Sunolding, Mundberg the mighty under Mindoluin, Sea King's city in the South Kingdom, foe beleaguered and fire encircled. Doom drove them on, darkness took them. Horse and horsemen, hoofbeats afar, sank into silence, so the songs tell us. It was indeed in deeping gloom that the king came to Edoras, although it was then but noon by the hour. There he halted only a short while, and strengthened his host by some three score of riders that came late to the weapon take. Now, having eaten, he made ready to set out again, and he wished his esquire a kindly farewell. But Mary begged for the last time not to be parted from him. This is no journey for such thieves as Stiba, as I have told you, said Theoden. And in such a battle as we think to make on the fields of Gondor, what would you do, Master Meriadoc? Sore thane though you be, and greater of heart than of stature. <laughs> as for that, who can tell? Answered Mary. But, but why, Lord, did you receive me as a sore thane if not to stay by your side? And I would not have it said to me in song only that I was always left behind. I received you for your safe keeping, answered Theoden. And also to do as I might bid. None of my riders can bear you as a burden. If the battle were before my gates, maybe your deeds would be remembered by the minstrels. But it is a hundred leagues and two to Munberg, where Denethor is lord. I will say no more. Mary bowed and went away unhappily, and stared at the lines of horsemen. Already the companies were preparing to start. Men were tightening girths, 
looking to saddles, caressing their horses. Some gazed uneasily at the lowering sky. Unnoticed, a rider came up and spoke softly in the hobbit's ear. Where will once not a way open, so we say, he whispered, and so I have found myself. Mary looked up and saw that it was the young rider whom he had noticed in the morning. You wish to go whither the Lord of the Mark goes? I see it in your face. I do. Then you shall go with me, said the rider. I will bear you before me under my cloak until we are far afield. And this darkness is yet darker. Such goodwill should not be denied. Say no more to any man, but come. Thank you indeed, said Mary. Thank you, sir, though I do not know your name. Do you not, said the rider softly. Then call me Danhelm. Thus it came to pass that when the king set out, before Denhelm sat Meriadoc the hobbit and the great grey steed Windfaller made little of the burden, for Denhelm was less in weight than many men, though lithe and well knit in frame. On into the shadow they rode, in the willow thickets where Snowball flowed into the Entwash. Twelve leagues east of Edras they camped that night, and then on again through the fold and through the fen march where, to their right, great oakwoods climbed on the skirts of the hills under the shades of dark Alifirian by the borders of Gondor. But away to their left, the mists lay on the marshes, fed by the mouths of Entwash. And as they rode, rumour came of war in the north. Lone men riding wild brought word of foes assailing their east borders, of orc hosts marching in the wall of Rohan. Ride on! Ride on! cried Eona. Too late now to turn aside. The friends of Entwash must guard our flank. Haste now we need! Ride on! And so King Theoden departed from his own realm, and mile by mile the long road wound away, and the Beacon Hills marched past. Kalenhad, Minrimon, Erelas, Nardor. But their fires were quenched. All the lands were grey and still and ever the shadow deepened before them, and hope waned in every heart. Pippin was roused by Gandalf. Candles were lit near their chamber, for only a dim twilight came through the windows. The air was heavy as with approaching thunder. What is the time? said Pippin, yawning. Past the second hour, said Gandalf. Time to get up and make yourself presentable. You are summoned to the Lord of the City to learn your new duties. And will he provide breakfast? No, I have provided it. All that you will get till noon. Food is now doled out by order. Pippin looked ruefully at the small loaf and, he thought, very inadequate pat of butter which was set out for him, beside a cup of thin milk. Why did you bring me here? You know quite well, said Gandalf, to keep you out of mischief. (laughs) And if you do not like being here, you can remember that you brought it on yourself. Pippin said no more. Before long he was walking with Gandalf once more down the cold corridor to the door of the tower hall. There Denethor sat in a grey gloom, like an old, patient spider, Pippin thought. He did not seem to have moved since the day before. He beckoned Gandalf to a seat, but Pippin was left for a while standing unheeded. Presently the old man turned to him. 
Well, Master Peregrine, I hope that you used yesterday to your profit and to your liking. Though I fear that the board is barer in this city than you could wish. Pippin had an uncomfortable feeling that most of what he had said or done was somehow known to the lord of the city, and much was guessed of what he thought as well. He did not answer. What would you do in my service? I thought, sir, that you would tell me my duties. I will when I learn what you are fit for, said Denethor. But that I shall learn soonest, maybe, if I keep you beside me. The esquire of my chamber has begged leave to go to the out garrison, so you shall take his place for a while. You shall wait on me, bear errands, and talk to me, if war and council leave me any leisure. Can you sing? Uh, yes, said Pippin. Well, yes, well enough for my own people, but we have no songs fit for great halls and evil times, lord. We seldom sing of anything more terrible than wind or rain, and most of my songs are about things that make us laugh, or about food and drink, of course. And why would such songs be unfit for my holes, or such hours as these? We who have lived long under the shadow may surely listen to echoes from a land untroubled by it. Then we may feel that our vigil was not fruitless, though it may have been thankless. Pippin's heart sank. He did not relish the idea of singing any song of the Shire to the Lord of Minas Tirith. Certainly not the comic ones that he knew best. They were too, well, rustic for such an occasion. He was, however, spared the ordeal for the present. He was not commanded to sing. Denethor turned to Gandalf, asking questions about the Rohirrim and their policies. In the position of Eomer, the king's nephew, Pippin marvelled at the amount that the lords seemed to know about a people that lived far away, though it must, he thought, be many years since Denethor himself had ridden abroad. Presently Denethor waved to Pippin and dismissed him again for a while. Go to the armories of the citadel, he said, and get you there the livery and gear of the tower. It will be ready. It was commanded yesterday. Return when you are clad. It was as he said and Pippin soon found himself arrayed in strange garments, all of black and silver. He had a small hauberk, its rings forged of steel, maybe, yet black as jet, and a high-crowned helm with small raven wings on either side, set with a silver star in the center of the circlet. Above the mail was a short surcoat of black, but broidered on the breast in silver with the token of the tree. His old clothes were folded and put away, but he was permitted to keep the grey cloak of Lorien, though not to wear it when on duty. He looked now, had he known it, very Ernil e Ferianath, the prince of the halflings, that folk had called him. But he felt uncomfortable, and the gloom began to weigh on his spirits. It was dark and dim all day, from the sunless dawn until evening. The heavy shadow had deepened, and all hearts in the city were oppressed. Far above, a great cloud streamed slowly westward from the black land, devouring light, borne upon a wind of war. But below, the air was still and breathless, as if all the Vale of Anduin waited for the onset of a ruinous storm. About the eleventh hour, released at last for a while from service, Pippin came out and went in search for food and drink to cheer his heavy heart and make his task of waiting more supportable.
In the messes, he met Berigond again, who had just come from an errand over the Pelennor, out to the guard towers upon the causeway. Together they strolled out to the walls, for Pippin felt imprisoned indoors, and stifled even in the lofty citadel. Now they sat side by side again in the embrasure looking eastward, where they had eaten and talked the day before. It was the sunset hour, but the great pole had now stretched far into the west, and only as it sank at last into the sea did the sun escape to send out a brief farewell gleam before the night, even as Frodo saw it at the crossroads touching the head of the fallen king. But to the fields of the Pelennor, under the shadow of Mindoluin, there came no gleam. They were brown and drear. Already it seemed years to Pippin since he had sat there before, in some half-forgotten time where he had still been a hobbit, a light-hearted wanderer touched little by the perils that he had passed through. Now he was one small soldier in a city preparing for a great assault, clad in the proud but somber manner of the Tower of Guard. In some other time and place, Pippin might have been pleased with his new array, but he knew now that he was taking part in no play. He was in deadly earnest the servant of a grim master in the greatest peril. The hauberk was burdensome, and the helm weighed upon his head. His cloak he had cast aside upon the seat. He turned his tired gaze away from the darkling fields below and yawned, and then he sighed. You are weary of this day, said Berigond. Yes, said Pippin. Very tired out with the idlers and waiting. I've kicked my heels at the door of my master's chamber for many slow hours, while he has debated with Gandalf and the prince and other great persons. And I'm not used, Master Beregrond, to waiting hungry on others while they eat. It is a sore trial for a hobbit, that. No doubt you, you would think I should feel the honor more deeply. But what is the good of such honor? Indeed, what is the good even of food and drink under this creeping shadow? What does it mean? The very air seems thick and brown. Do you often have such glooms when the wind is in the east? Nay, said Berigond. This is no weather of the world. This is some service of his malice. Some broil of fume from the mountain of fire that he sends to darken hearts in council. And so it doth indeed. I wish the Lord Faramir would return. He would not be dismayed. But now... Who knows if he will ever come back across the river out of the darkness. Yes, said Pippin. Gandalf too is anxious. He was disappointed, I think, not to find Faramir here. And where is he got himself? He left the Lord's council before the noon meal, and in no good mood either, I thought. Perhaps he has some foreboding of, of bad news. Suddenly as they talked, they were stricken dumb, <laughs> frozen as it were to listening stones. Pippin cowered down with his hands pressed to his ears, but Beregond, who had been looking out from the battlement as he spoke of Faramir, remained there. Stiffened, staring out with starting eyes, Pippin knew the shuddering cry that he had heard. It was the same that he had heard long ago in the Marish of the Shire, but now it has grown in power and hatred, piercing the heart with a poisonous despair. At last Beregond spoke with an effort. They have come, he said. Take courage and look. There are fell things below. Reluctantly, Pippin climbed onto the seat and looked out over the wall. 
the Pelennor lay dim beneath him, fading away to the scarce guessed line of the great river. But now, wheeling swiftly across it, like shadows of untimely night, he saw in the middle airs below him five bird-like forms, horrible as carrion fowl, yet greater than eagles, cruel as death. Now they swooped near, venturing almost within bowshot of the walls. Now they circled away. Black Riders, muttered Pippin. Black Riders of the air! But see, Beregond, he cried. They are looking for something, surely. See how they wheel and swoop, always down to that point over there. And could you see something moving on the ground? Dark little things. Yes. Men on horses. Four or five. Ah, I cannot stand it. Gandalf! Gandalf, save us! Another long screech rose and fell, and he threw himself back again from the wall, panting like a hunted animal. Faint and seemingly remote, through that shuddering cry he heard winding up from below the sound of a trumpet ending on a long high note. Faramir! Lord Faramir! That is his call! cried Beregond. Braveheart! But how can a winter brigade of these foul hellhawks have other weapons than fear? But look! They hold on! They will make the gate! No! The horses are running mad! Look! The men are thrown! They are running on foot! No! One is still up! But he rides back to the others! That will be the captain. He can master both beasts and men! Ah! There, one of the foul things is swooping on him. Help! Help! Will no one go out to him? Faramir! With that, Baragon sprang away and ran off into the gloom, ashamed of his terror while Baragon of the guard thought first of the captain whom he loved. Pippin got up and peered out. At that moment he caught a flash of white and silver coming from the north, like a small star down on the dusky fields. It moved with the speed of an arrow and grew as it came converging swiftly with the flight of the four men towards the gate. It seemed to Pippin that a pale light was spread about it, and the heavy shadows gave way before it. And then as it drew near, he thought that he heard, like an echo in the walls, a great voice calling. Gandalf! he cried. Gandalf! He always turns up where things are darkest. Go on! Go on, right rider! Gandalf! He shouted wildly, like an onlooker at a great race, urging on a runner who is far beyond encouragement. But now the dark swooping shadows were aware of the newcomer. One wheeled towards him, and it seemed to him that he raised his hand, and from it a shaft of lightning stabbed upwards. The Nazgul gave a long wailing cry and swerved away. And with that the four others wavered, and then rising in swift spirals they passed away eastward, vanishing into the lowering cloud above and down on the Pelennor it seemed for a while less dark. Pippin watched, and he saw the horsemen and the white rider meet and halt, waiting for those on foot. Men now hurried out to them from the city, and soon they all passed from sight under the outer walls, and he knew that they were entering the gate. Guessing that they would come at once to the tower and the steward, he hurried to the entrance of the citadel. There he was joined by many others who had watched the race and the rescue from the high walls. It was not long before a clamour was heard in the streets leading up from the circles, and there was much cheering and crying of the names of Faramir and Mithrandir. Presently Pippin saw torches, and followed by a press of people, two horsemen riding slowly. One was in white, but shining no longer, pale in the twilight as if his fire was spent or veiled. The other was dark, and his head was bowed. They dismounted, 
And as grooms took Shadowfax and the other horse, they walked forward to the sentinel at the gate. Gandalf steadily, his grey cloak flung back and a fire still smouldering in his eyes. The other, clad all in green, slowly, swaying a little as a weary or wounded man. Pippin pressed forward as they passed under the lamp beneath the gate arch. And when he saw the pale face of Faramir, he caught his breath. It was the face of one who has been assailed by a great fear or anguish, but has mastered it, and now is quiet. Proud and grave he stood for a moment as he spoke to the guard, and Pippin gazing at him saw how closely he resembled his brother Boromir, whom Pippin had liked from the first, admiring the great man's lordly but kindly manner. Yet suddenly for Faramir his heart was strangely moved with a feeling that he had not known before. He was one with an air of high nobility, such as Aragorn, at times revealed. Less high, perhaps, yet also less incalculable and remote, one of the kings of men born into a later time, but touched with the wisdom and sadness of the elder race. He knew now why Baragorn spoke his name with love. He was a captain that men would follow, and he would follow, even under the shadow of the Black Wings. Faramir! He cried aloud with the others. And Faramir, catching his strange voice among the clamor of the men of the city, turned and looked down at him and was amazed. Whence come you? he said. A halfling, and in the library of the tower. Whence? But with that, Gandalf stepped to his side and spoke. He came with me from the land of the halflings, he said. He came with me, but let us not tarry here. There is much to say and to do. And you are weary. He shall come with us. Indeed he must, for he does not forget his new duties more easily than I do. He must attend to his lord again within this hour. Come, Pippin, follow us. So at length they came to the private chamber of the lord of the city. There deep seats were set about a brazier of charcoal, and wine was brought. And there Pippin, hardly noticed, stood behind the chair of Denethor, and felt his weariness little. So eagerly did he listen to all that was said. When Faramir had taken white bread and drunk a draught of wine, he sat upon a low chair at his father's left hand. Removed a little upon the other side sat Gandalf in a chair of carven wood, and he seemed at first to be asleep. For at the beginning Faramir spoke only of the errand upon which he had been set out ten days before, and he brought tidings of Ithilien and of movements of the enemy and his allies, and he told of the fight on the road when the men of Harad and their great beasts were overthrown, a captain reporting to his master such matters as had often been heard before, small things in border war that now seemed useless and petty, shorn of their renown. Then suddenly Faramir looked at Pippin. But now we come to strange matters, he said, for this is not the first halfling that I have seen walking out of northern legends into the Southlands. At that Gandalf sat up and gripped the arms of his chair, but he said nothing, and with a look stopped the exclamation on Pippin's lips. Denethor looked at their faces and nodded his head, as though in sign that he had read much there before it was spoken slowly while the others sat silent and still. Faramir told his tale, with his eyes for the most part on Gandalf, though now and again his glance strayed to Pippin, as if to refresh his memory of others that he had seen. As his story was unfolded of his meeting with Frodo and his servant and of the events at Henneth Anun, Pippin became aware that Gandalf's hands were trembling as they clutched the carven wood. White they seemed now and very old. And as he looked at them, Suddenly, with a thrill of fear, Pippin knew that Gandalf, Gandalf himself, was troubled, even afraid. 
the air of the room was close and still. At last, when Faramir spoke of his parting with the travellers and of their resolve to go to Kirith Ungol, his voice fell, and he shook his head and sighed. Then Gandalf sprang up. Kirith Ungol, Mogul Vale, he said. The time, Faramir, the time. When did you part with them? When would they reach their accursed valley? I parted with them in the morning two days ago, said Faramir. It is fifteen leagues thence to the Vale of the Morgulduin, if they went straight south, and then they would be still five leagues westward of the accursed tower. At swiftest they could not come there before today, and maybe they have not come there yet. Indeed, I see what you fear. But the darkness is not due to their venture. It began yesterday eve, and all Ithilien was under the shadow last night. It is clear to me that the enemy has long planned an assault on us and its hour had already been determined before ever the travellers left my keeping. Gandalf paced the floor. A morning two days ago, nine or three days of journey. How far is the place where you parted? Some twenty-five leagues as the bird flies, answered Faramir. But I could not come more swiftly. Yesterday if I lay at Kerandros, the long isle in the river northward which we hold in defence, and horses are kept on the hither bank. As the dark drew on, I knew that haste was needed, so I rode thence with three others that could also be horsed. The rest of my company I sent south to strengthen the garrison at the fords of Asgiliath. I hope... I hope that I've not done ill. He looked at his father. Ill? cried Denethor, and his eyes flashed suddenly. Why do you ask? The men were under your command. Or do you ask for my judgment on all your deeds? Your bearing is lowly in my presence, yet it is long now since you turned from your own way at my council. See, you have spoken skillfully, as ever. But I? Have I not seen your eye fixed on Mithrandia, seeking whether you said well or too much? He has long had your heart in his keeping. My son, your father is old, but not yet a doted. I can see and hear as was my wont. And little of what you have half said or left unsaid is now hidden from me. I know the answer to many riddles. Alas, alas for Boromir. If what I have done displeases you, my father, said Faramir quietly, I wish I had known your counsel before the burden of so weighty a judgment was thrust on me. Would that have availed to change your judgment? said Denethor. You would still have done just so, I deem. I know you too well. Ever your desire is to appear lordly and generous as a king of old, gracious, gentle. That may well befit one of high race, if he sits in power and peace, but in desperate hours gentleness may be repaid with death. So be it, said Faramir. So be it cried Denethor, but not with your death only, Lord Faramir, with the death also of your father, and of all your people whom it is your part to protect now that Boromir is gone. Do you wish then, said Faramir, that our places had been exchanged? Yes, I wish that indeed, said Denethor. But Boromir was loyal to me and no wizard's pupil. He would have remembered his father's need, and would not have squandered what fortune gave. He would have brought me a mighty gift. 
For a moment, Faramir's restraint gave way. I would ask you, my father, to remember why it was I, not he, was in Ithilien. On the occasion, at least, your counselors prevailed not long ago. It was the lord of the city that gave the errand to him. Stir not the bitterness in the cup that I have mixed for myself, said Denethor. Have I not tasted it now many nights upon my tongue, foreboding that worse yet lay in the dregs? As now indeed I find. Would it were not so, would it that this thing had come to me? Comfort yourself, said Gandalf. In no case would Boromir have brought it to you. He is dead, and died well, and may he sleep in peace. If you deceive yourself, he would have stretched out his hand to this thing, and taking it, he would have fallen. He would have kept it for his own, and when he returned, you would not have known your son. The face of Denethor set hard and cold. You found Boromir less apt to your hand, did you not? He said softly. But I, who was his father, say that he would have brought it to me. You are wise, maybe, Mithrandir, yet with all your subtleties you have not all wisdom. Counsels may be found that are neither the webs of wizards, nor haste of fools. I have in this matter more law and wisdom than you deem. What then is your wisdom? said Gandalf. Enough to perceive that there are two follies to avoid. To use this thing is perilous, but this are to send it in the hands of a witless halfling into the land of the enemy itself, as you have done, and this son of mine, that is madness. And the Lord Denethor, what would he have done? Neither. But most surely not for any argument would he have set this thing at a hazard beyond all but a fool's hope, risking our utter ruin if the enemy should recover what he lost. Nay, it should have been kept, hidden, hidden dark and deep. Not used, I say, unless at the uttermost end of need, but set beyond his grasp, save by a victory so final that what then befell would not trouble us, being dead. You think, as is your wont, my lord, of Gondor only, said Gandalf. If there are other men, then other lives and time still to be. And for me, I pity even his slaves. And where will other men look for help if Gondor falls? Answered Denethor. If I had this thing, now in the deep vaults of this citadel, we would not then shake with dread under this gloom, fearing the worst. And our counsels would be undisturbed. If you do not trust me to endure the test, you do not know me yet. Nonetheless, I do not trust you, said Gandalf. Had I done so, I would have said this thing hither to your keeping and spared myself and others much anguish. And now, hearing you speak, I trust you less, no more than Boromir. Nay, stay your wrath. I do not trust myself in this, and I refuse this thing, even as a freely given gift. You are strong and can still in some matters govern yourself, Denethor. Yet if you had received this thing, it would have overthrown you. Were it buried beneath the roots of Mindoloween, still it would burn your mind away as the darkness grows. And the yet worse things will follow that soon shall come upon us. For a moment the eyes of Denethor glowed again as he faced Gandalf, and Pippin felt once more the strain between their wills. 
but now almost it seemed as if their glances were like blades from eye to eye, flickering as they fenced. Pippin trembled, fearing some dreadful stroke. But suddenly Denethor relaxed and grew cold again. He shrugged his shoulders. If I had, if you had, he said, such words and ifs are vain. It has gone into the shadow, and only time will show what doom awaits it and us. But time will not be long. In what is left, let all who fight the enemy in their fashion be at one, and keep hope while they may, and after hope, still the hardihood to die free. He turned to Faramir. What think you of the garrison at Osgiliath? It is not strong, said Faramir. I have sent the company to Athelion to strengthen it, as I have said. Not enough, I deem, said Denethor. It is there that the first blow will fall. They will have need of some stout captain there. There and elsewhere and in many places, said Faramir and sighed. Alas for my brother, whom I too loved. He rose. May I have your leave, father? And then he swayed and leaned upon his father's chair. You are weary, I see, said Denethor. You have ridden fast and far, and under the shadows of evil in the air, I am told. Let us not speak of that, said Faramir. Then we will not, said Denethor. Go now and rest as you may. Tomorrow's need will be sterner. All now took leave of the lord of the city and went to rest while they still could. Outside there was a stairless blackness as Gandalf with Pippin beside him bearing a small torch made his way to their lodging. They did not speak until they were behind closed doors. Then at last Pippin took Gandalf's hand. Tell me, he said, is there any hope? For Frodo, I mean. Or at least, mostly for Frodo. Gandalf put his hand on Pippin's head. There never was much hope, he answered. Just a fool's hope, as I have been told. And when I heard of Kirith Ungol, he broke off and strode to the window as if his eyes could pierce the night in the east. Kirith Ungol, he muttered. Why that way, I wonder? He turned. Just now, Pippin, my heart almost failed me, hearing that name. And yet, in truth, I believe that the news that Faramir brings has some hope in it. For it seems clear that our enemy has opened his war at last, and made the first move while Frodo was still free. So now, for many days, we will have his eye turned this way and that, away from his own land. And yet, Pippin, I feel from afar his haste and fear. He has begun sooner than he would. Something has happened to stir him. Gandalf stood for a moment and thought. Maybe, he muttered. Maybe, maybe even your foolishness helped, my lad. Let me see. Some five days ago now, he would discover that we had thrown down Saruman and taken the stone. Still, what of that? We could not use it to much purpose, or without his knowing. Ah, I wonder. Aragorn. His time draws near, and he is strong and stern underneath Pippin. Bold, determined, able to take his own counsel and dare great risks at need. That may be it. He may have used the stone and showed himself to the enemy, challenging him. 
for this very purpose, I wonder. Well, we shall not know the answer till the riders of Rohan come, if they do not come too late. There are evil days ahead. To sleep while we may. But, said Pippin. But what? said Gandalf. Only one but will I allow tonight. Gollum, said Pippin. How on earth could they be going about with him? Even following him? And I could see that Faramir did not like the place he was talking to them any more than you do. What is wrong? I cannot answer that now, said Gandalf. Yet my heart gets that Frodo and Gollum would meet before the end. For good or for evil. But of Kirithungol I will not speak tonight. Treachery. Treachery, I fear. Treachery of that miserable creature. But so it must be. Let us remember that a traitor may betray himself and do good that he does not intend. It can be so sometimes. Good night. The next day came with the morning like a brown dusk, and the hearts of men, lifted for a while by the return of Faramir, sank low again. The winged shadows were not seen again that day, yet ever and anon, high above the city, a faint cry would come, and many who heard it would stand stricken with the passing tread, while the less stout-hearted quailed and wept. And now Faramir was gone again. They give him no rest, some murmured. Lord drives his son too hard, and now he must do the duty of two. For himself, for the one that will not return. And ever men looked northward, asking, Where are the riders of Rohan? But the lord of the city was master of his council, and he was in no mood that day to bow to others. Early in the morning the council had been summoned. There all the captains judged that because of the threat in the south, their force was too weak to make any stroke of war on their own part, unless perchance the riders of Rohan yet should come. Meanwhile, they must man the walls and wait. Yet, said Denethor, we should not lightly abandon the outer defences. The Rama's made with so great a labour, and the enemy must pay dearly for the crossing of the river. That he cannot do, and forced to assail the city. Either north of Kerandros because of the marshes, or southwards towards Lebanon because of the breadth of the river. That needs many boats. It is at Osgiliath that he will put his weight, as before when Boromir denied him the passage. That was but a trial, said Faramir. Today we may make the enemy pay ten times our loss at the passage and yet rue the exchange, for he can afford to lose a host better than we to lose a company. And the retreat of those that we put out far afield will be perilous if he wins across in force. And what of Kerandros? said the prince. That too must be held if Osgiliath is defended. Let us not forget the danger on our left. The Rohirrim may come, and they may not. But Faramir has told us of great strength drawing near to the Black Gate. More than one host may issue from it and strike for more than one passage. Much must be risked in war, said Denethor. Kerandros is manned and no more can be sent so far. But I will not yield the river and the Pelennor unfought. Not if there is a captain here who has still the courage to do his lord's will. Then all was silent. But at length Faramir said, I do not oppose your will, sire. Since you are robbed of Boromir, I will go and do what I can in his stead. 
if you command it. I do so, said Denethor. Then farewell, said Faramir. But if I should return, think better of me. That depends on the manner of your return, said Denethor. Gandalf it was that spoke to Faramir ere he rode east. Do not throw away your life away rashly or in bitterness, he said. You will be needed here for other things than war. Your father loves you, Faramir, and he will remember it ere the end. Farewell. So now the Lord Faramir had gone forth again, and had taken with him such strength of men as were willing to go or could be spared. On the walls some gazed through the gloom towards the ruined city, and they wondered what chanced there, for nothing could be seen. And others, as ever, looked north and counted the leagues to Theoden and Rohan. Will he come? Will he remember our old alliance? They said. Yes. Yes, he will come, said Gandalf. Even if he comes too late, they think. At best the Red Arrow cannot have reached him more than two days ago, and the miles are long from Edoras. It was night again ere news came. A man rode in haste from the falls, saying that a host had issued from Minas Morgul and was already drawing nigh towards Giliath. And it had been joined by regiments of the south, Haradrim, cruel and tall. And we have learned, said the messenger, that the black captain leads them once again. And the fear of him has passed before him down the river. With those ill-boding words, the third day closed since Pippin came to Minas Tirith. Few went to rest, for small hope had any now that even Faramir could hold the fords for long. The next day, though the darkness had reached its full and grew no deeper, it weighed heavier on men's hearts, and a great dread was on them. Ill news came soon again. The passage of Anduin was won by the enemy. Faramir was retreating to the wall of the Perinor, rallying his men to the causeway forts. But he was ten times outnumbered. If he wins back at all across the Perinor, his enemies will be on his heels, said the messenger. They have paid dear for the crossing, but less dearly than we hoped. The plan has been well laid. It is now seen that in secret they have long been building floats and barges in great numbers in East Osgiliath. They swarmed across like beetles. But it is the black Captain that defeats us. Few will stand and abide even the rumor of his coming. His own folk quail at him, and they would slay themselves at his bidding. Then I am needed there more than here, said Gandalf, and rode off at once, and the glimmer of him faded soon from sight. And all that night, Pippin alone and sleepless stood upon the wall and gazed eastward. The bells of day had scarcely rung out again, a mockery in the unlightened dark, when far away he saw fires spring up, across in the dim spaces where the walls of the Pelennor stood. The watchman cried aloud, and all men in the city stood to arms. Now ever and anon there was a red flash, and slowly through the heavy air dull rumbles could be heard. They have taken the wall! Men cried. They are blasting breaches in it! They are coming! Where is Faramir? Cried Baragond in dismay. Say not that he has fallen. It was Gandalf that brought the first tidings. 
with a handful of horsemen who came in the middle morning, riding as escort to a line of wagons. They were filled with wounded men, all that could be saved from the wreck of the causeway forts. At once he went to Denethor. The lord of the city sat now in a high chamber above the hall of the White Tower, with Pippin at his side. And through the dim windows north and south and east, he bent his dark eyes, as if to pierce the shadows of doom that ringed him round. Most to the north he looked, and would pause at whiles to listen as if by some ancient art his ears might hear the thunder of hoofs on the plains far away. Is Faramir come? He asked. No, said Gandalf, but he still lived when I left him, yet he is resolved to stay with the rearguard, lest the retreat over the Pelennor become a rout. He may perhaps hold his men together long enough, but I doubt it. He is pitted against a foe too great. For one has come that I feared. Not the Dark Lord, cried Pippin, forgetting his place in his terror. Denethor laughed bitterly. Nay, not yet, Master Peregrine. He will not come save only to triumph over me when all is won. He uses others as his weapons. So do all great lords if they are wise, Master Halfling. Why should I sit here in my tower and think, and watch, and wait, spending even my sons? For I can still wield a brand. He stood up and cast open his long black cloak, and behold, he was clad in mail beneath, and girt with a long sword, great hilted in a sheath of black and silver. Thus I have walked, and thus now for many years have I slept, he said, lest with age the body should grow soft and timid. Yet now under the lord of Baradur, the most fell of all his captains, already master of your outer walls, said Gandalf, king of Angmar long ago, sorcerer, ring wraith, lord of the Nazgul, a spear of terror in the hand of Sauron, shadow of despair. Then, Mithrandir, you had a foe to match you, said Denethor. For myself, I have long known who is the chief captain of the hosts of the Dark Tower. Is this all you have returned to say? Or can it be that you have withdrawn because you are overmatched? Pippin trembled, fearing that Gandalf would be stung to sudden wrath, but his fear was needless. It might be so, Gandalf answered softly. But our trial of strength has not yet come. And if words spoken of old be true, not by the hand of men shall he fall. And hidden from the wise is the doom that awaits him. However that may be, the captain of despair does not press forward yet. He rules rather according to the wisdom that you have just spoken, from the rear, driving his slaves in madness on before. Nay, I came rather to guard the hurt men that can yet be healed, for the Ramus is breached far and wide, and soon the host of Morgul will enter in at many points. And I came chiefly to say this. Soon there will be a battle on the fields. A sortie must be made ready. Let it be of mounted men. In them lies our brief hope, for in one thing only is the enemy still poorly provided. He has few horsemen. And we also have few. Now would the coming of Rohan be in the nick of time? Said Denethor. We are likely to see other newcomers first, said Gandalf. Fugitives from Kerandros have already reached us. The Isle has fallen. Another army has come from the Black Gate, crossing from the northeast. Some have accused you, Mithrandir, of delighting to bear ill news, said Denethor. 
but to me this is no longer news. It was known to me ere nightfall yesterday. As for the sortie, I had already given thought to it. Let us go down. Time passed. At length, watchers on the walls could see the retreat of the out-companies. Small bands of weary and often wounded men came first with little order. Some were running wildly as if pursued. Away to the eastward, the distant fires flickered, and now it seemed that here and there they crept across the plain. Houses and barns were burning. Then, from many points, little rivers of red flame came hurrying on, winding through the gloom, converging towards the line of the broad road that led them to the city gate of Osgiliath. The enemy, men murmured. The dike is down. Here they come, pouring through the breaches. They carry torches, it seems. Where are our own folk? It drew now to evening by the hour, and the light was so dim that even far-sighted men upon the citadel could discern little clearly out upon the fields, save only the burnings that have ever multiplied, and the lines of fire that grew in length and speed. At last, less than a mile from the city, a more ordered mass of men came into view, marching, not running, still holding together. The watchers held their breath. Faramir must be there, they said. He can govern man and beast. He will make it yet. Now the main retreat was scarcely two furlongs distant. Out of the gloom behind, a small company of horsemen galloped, all that was left of the rear guard. Once again they turned at bay, facing the oncoming lines of fire. Then suddenly there was a tumult of fierce cries. Horsemen of the enemy swept up. The lines of fire became flowing torrents, file upon file of orcs bearing flames and wild Sauron men with red banners, shouting with harsh tongues, surging up, overtaking the retreat. And with a piercing cry, out of the dim sky fell the winged shadows. The Nazgul stooping to the kill. The retreat became a rout. Already men were breaking away, flying wild and witless here and there, flinging away their weapons, crying out in fear, falling to the ground. And then a trumpet rang from the citadel, and Denethor at last released the sortie. Drawing up within the shadow of the gate and under the looming walls outside, they had waited for his signal, all the mounted men that were left in the city. Now they sprang forward, formed quickened into a gallop, and charged with a great shout. And from the walls an answering shout went up. For foremost on the field rode the swan knights of Dolanroth with their prince and his blue banner at their head. They cried. Like thunder they broke upon the enemy on either flank of the retreat. But one rider outran them all, swift as the wind in the grass. Shadowfax bore him, shining, unveiled once more a light starting from his upraised hand. The Nazgul screeched and swept away, for their captain was not yet come to challenge the white fire of his foe. The hosts of Morgul, intent on their prey, taken at unawares in wild career, broke, scattering like sparks in a gale. The out-companies with great cheer turned and smote their pursuers. Hunters became the hunted, the retreat became an onslaught. The field was strewn with stricken orcs and men, and a reek arose of torches cast away, sputtering out in swirling smoke. The cavalry rode on, 
but Denethor did not permit them to go far. Though the enemy was checked and for the moment driven back, great forces were flowing in from the east. Again the trumpet rang, sounding the retreat. The cavalry of Gondor halted. Behind their screen, the out companies reformed. Now steadily they came marching back. They reached the gate of the city and entered, stepping proudly. And proudly the people of the city looked on them and cried their praise, and yet they were troubled in heart. For the companies were grievously reduced. Faramir had lost a third of his men. And where was he? Last of all he came. His men passed in. The mounted knights returned, and at their rear the banner of Dolanroth and the prince. And in his arms before him on his horse, he bore the body of his kinsman, Faramir son of Denethor, found upon the stricken field. Men cried, weeping in the streets. But he did not answer, and they bore him away up the winding road to the citadel and his father. Even as the Nazgul had swerved aside from the onset of the White Rider, there came flying a deadly dart, and Faramir, as he held at bay a mounted champion of Harad, had fallen to the earth. Only the charge of Dol Amroth had saved him from the red Southland swords that would have hewed him as he lay. The Prince Imrahil brought Faramir to the White Tower, and he said, Your son has returned, Lord, after great deeds, and he told all that he had seen. But Denethor rose and looked on the face of his son, and was silent. Then he bade them make a bed in the chamber and lay Faramir upon it and depart. But he himself went up alone into the secret room under the summit of the tower. And many that looked up thither at that time saw a pale light that gleamed and flickered from the narrow windows for a while, and then flashed and went out. And when Denethor descended again, he went to Faramir and sat beside him without speaking. But the face of the Lord was grey, more death-like than his son's. So now at last the city was besieged, enclosed in a ring of foes. The Ramas was broken, and all the Pelennor abandoned to the enemy. The last word to come from outside the walls was brought by men flying down the northward ere the gate was shut. They were the remnant of the guard that was kept at that point where the way from Anurian and Rohan ran into the townlands. Ingold led them, the same who had admitted Gandalf and Pippin less than five days before, while the sun still rose and there was hope in the morning. There is no news of the Rohirrim, he said. Rohan will not come now, or if they come it will not avail us. The new host that we had tidings of has come first, from, from over the river by way of Andros it is said. They are strong, battalions of orcs of the eye and countless companies of men of a new sort that we have not met before. Not all, but broad and grim, bearded like dwarves, wielding great axes, out of some savage land in the wide east they come. We deem, they hold the northward road, and many have passed on into Anurian. The Rohirrim cannot come. The gate was shut. All night watchmen on the walls heard the rumor of the enemy that roamed outside, burning field and tree, and hewing any man that they found abroad, living or dead. The numbers that had already passed over the river could not be guessed in the darkness. But when morning, or its dim shadow, stole over the plain, that even fear by night had scarcely overcounted them. The plain was dark with their marching companies, and as far as eyes could strain in the murk there sprouted, 
like a foul fungus growth all about the beleaguered city. Great camps of tents, black or somber red. Busy as ants, hurrying orcs were digging, digging lines of deep trenches in a huge ring, just out of bowshot from the walls. And as the trenches were made, each was filled with fire, though how it was kindled or fed by art or devilry none could see. All day the labor went forward, while the men of Minas Tirith looked on, unable to hinder it. And as each length of trench was completed, they could see great wains approaching. And soon yet more companies of the enemy were swiftly setting up, each behind the cover of a trench. Great engines of the casting of missiles. There were none upon the city walls large enough to reach so far or to stay the work. At first men laughed and did not greatly fear such devices, for the main wall of the city was of great height and marvelous thickness, built ere the power and craft of Dúmenor waned in exile, and its outward face was like to the Tower of Orthanc, hard and dark and smooth, unconquerable by steel or fire, unbreakable except by some convulsion that would rend the very earth on which it stood. Nay, they said, but if the nameless one himself should come, not even he could enter while we yet live. But some answered, While we yet live? How long? He has a weapon that has brought low many strong places since the world began. Hunger. The roads are cut. Rohan will not come. But the engines did not waste shot upon the indomitable wall. It was no brigand or orc chieftain that ordered the assault upon the Lord of Mordor's greatest foe. A power and mind of malice guided it. As soon as the great catapults were set, with many yells and the creaking of rope and winch, they began to throw missiles marvelously high, so that they passed right above the battlement and fell thudding within the first circle of the city. And many of them, by some secret art, burst into flame as they came toppling down. Soon there was a great peril of fire behind the wall, and all who could be spared were busy quelling the flames that sprang up in many places. Then, among the greater castes, there fell another hail, less ruinous, but more horrible. All about the streets and lanes behind the gate it tumbled down, small round shot that did not burn. But when men ran to learn what it might be, they cried aloud or wept, for the enemy was flinging into the city all the heads of those who had fallen fighting against Gilead or on the ramas, or in the fields. They were grim to look on. For though some were crushed and shapeless, and some had been cruelly hewn, yet many had features that could be told, and it seemed that they had died in pain, and all were branded with the foul token of the lidless eye. But marred and dishonored as they were, it often chanced that thus a man would see again the face of someone that he had known, or had walked proudly once in arms or tilled the fields, or ridden in upon a holiday from the green vales in the hills. In vain men shook their fists at the pitiless foes that swarmed before the gate. Curses they heeded not, nor understood the tongues of western men, crying with harsh voices like beasts and carrion birds. But soon there were few left in Minas Tirith who had the heart to stand up and defy the hosts of Mordor. For yet another weapon, Swifter than hunger, the Lord of the Dark Tower had dread and despair. 
the Nazgul came again, and as their Dark Lord now grew and put forth his strength, so their voices, which uttered only his will and his malice, were filled with evil and horror. Ever they circled above the city, like vultures that expect their fill of doomed men's flesh. Out of sight and shot they flew, and yet were ever present, and their deadly voices rent the air. More unbearable they became, not less at each new cry. At length even the stout-hearted would fling themselves to the ground as the hidden menace passed over them, or they would stand, letting their weapons fall from nevertheless hands, while into their minds a blackness came, and they thought no more of ruin, but only of hiding and of crawling, and of death. During all this black day, Faramir lay upon his bed in the chamber of the White Tower, wandering in a desperate fever, dying, someone said, and soon dying all men were saying upon the walls and in the streets. And by him his father sat and said nothing, but watched and gave no longer any heed to the defense. No hours so dark had Pippin known, not even in the clutches of the Urukai. It was his duty to wait upon the Lord, and wait he did. Forgotten it seemed, standing by the door of the unlit chamber, mastering his own fears as best he could. And as he watched, it seemed to him that Denethor grew old before his eyes, as if something had snapped in his proud will, and his stern mind was overthrown. Grief maybe had wrought it, and remorse. He saw tears on that once tearless face, more unbearable than wrath. Do, 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 do not weep, Lord, he stammered. But perhaps yet, perhaps he will get well. Have you asked Gandalf? Comfort me not with wizards, said Denethor. The fool's hope has failed. The enemy has found it, and now his power waxes. He sees our very thoughts, and all we do is ruin us. I sent my son forth, unthanked, unblessed, out into needless peril, and here he lies, with poison in his veins. Nay, whatever may now betide in war, my line too is ending. Even the house of the Stuarts has failed. Mean folk shall rule the last remnant of the kings of men. Lurking in the hills until all are hounded out. Men came to the door crying for the lord of the city. Nay, I will not come down, he said. I must stay beside my son. He might still speak before the end. That is near. Follow whom you will, even the grey fool. Though his hope has failed, here I stay. So it was that Gandalf took command of the last defense of the city of Gondor. Wherever he came, men's hearts would lift again, and the winged shadow pass from memory. Tirelessly he rode from citadel to gate, from north to south, about the wall, and with him went the Prince of Dol Roth in his shining mail. For he and his knights still held themselves like lords in whom the race of Numenor ran true. Men that saw them whispered, saying, Belike the old tale, speak well. There is elvish blood in the veins of that folk, for the people of Nimrodel dwelt in that land long ago. And then one would sing amid the gloom and some staves of the Lady of Nimrodel, or other songs of the Vale of Anduin out of vanished years. And yet, when they had gone, the shadow closed on men again, and their hearts went cold, and the valor of Gondor withered into ash. And so slowly they passed out of a dim day of fears into the darkness of a desperate night. 
Fires now raged unchecked in the first cycle of the city, and the garrison upon the outer wall was already in many places cut off from retreat. But the faithful who remained there at their posts were few. Most had fled beyond the second gate. Far behind the battle, the river had been swiftly bridged, and all day more force and gear of war had poured across. Now at last, in the middle night, the assault was loosed. The vanguard passed through the trenches of fire by many devious paths that had been between them. On they came, reckless of their loss as they approached, still bunched and herded within the range of bowmen on the wall. But indeed, there were too few now left to do them great damage, though the light of the fires showed up many a mark for archers of such skill as Gondor once had boasted. Then, perceiving that the valor of the city was already beaten down, the hidden captain put forth his strength. Slowly, the great siege towers built in Osgiliath rode forward in the dark. Messengers came again to the chamber in the White Tower and Pippin let them enter, for they were urgent. Denethor turned his head slowly from Faramir's face and looked at them silently. The first circle of the city is burning, Lord, they said. What are your commands? You are still the Lord and Steward. Not all will follow Mithrandir. Men are flying from the walls and leaving them unmanned. Why? Why do the fools fly? said Denethor. Better to burn sooner than late. Oh, burn we must. Go back to your bonfire. And I, I will go now to my pyre. To my pyre! No tomb for Denethor and Faramir. No tomb. No long, slow sleep of death embalmed. We will burn like the heathen kings before ever a ship sailed hither from the west. The west has failed. Go back and burn. The messengers without bow or answer turned and fled. Now Denethor stood up and released the favored hand of Faramir that he had held. He is burning. Already burning, he said sadly. The house of his spirit crumbles. Then, stepping softly towards Pippin, he looked down at him. Farewell, he said. Farewell, peregrine son of Paladin. Your service has been short, and now it is drawing to an end. I release you from the little that remains. Go now and die in what way seems best to you, and with whom you will, even that friend whose folly brought you to his death. Send for my servants and then go. Farewell. <laughs> I will not say farewell, my lord, said Pippin, kneeling. And then suddenly, hobbit-like once more, he stood up and looked the old man in the eyes. I will take your leave, sir, he said, for I want to see Gandalf very much indeed. But he is no fool, and I will not think of dying until he despairs of life. But from my word and your service, I do not wish to be released while you live. And if they come at last to the citadel, I hope to be there and stand beside you and earn perhaps the arms that you have given me. Do as you will, Master Halfley, said Denethor, but my life is broken. Send for my servants. He turned back to Faramir. Pippin left him and called for the servants, and they came. Six men of the household, strong and fair, yet they trembled at the summons. But in a quiet voice, Denethor bade them lay warm coverlets on Faramir's bed and take it up. And they did so. Lifting up the bed, they bore it from the chamber. Slowly they paced to trouble the fevered man as little as might be, and Denethor, now bending on the staff, followed them. 
and last came Pippin. Out from the wide tower they walked, as if to a funeral, out into the darkness, where the overhanging cloud was lit beneath with flickers of dull red. Softly they paced the great courtyard, and at a word from Denethor halted beside the withered tree. All was silent, save for the rumor of war in the city down below, and they heard the water dripping sadly from the dead branches into the dark pool. Then they went on through the citadel gate, where the sentinel stared at them in wonder and dismay as they passed by. Turning westward, they came at length to a door in the rearward wall of the Sixth Circle. Fen Holland, it was called, for it was kept ever shut save at times of funeral. And only the lord of the city might use that way, or those who bore the tokens of the tombs and tended the houses of the dead. Beyond it went a winding road that descended in many curves down to the narrow land under the shadow of Mindoluin's precipice, where stood the mansions of the dead kings and of their stewards. A porter sat in a little house beside the way, and with fear in his eyes he came forth bearing a lantern in his hand. At the Lord's command he unlocked the door, and silently it swung back, and they passed through. Taking the lantern from his hand, it was dark on the climbing road between ancient walls and many pillared balusters looming in the swaying lantern beam. Their slow feet echoed as they walked down, down until at last they came to the silent street. Rathdinen, between pale domes and empty halls and images of men long dead. And they entered into the house of the stewards and set down their burden. There Pippin, staring uneasily about him, saw that he was in a wide vaulted chamber, draped as if it were with the great shadows that the little lantern threw upon its shrouded walls, and dimly to be seen were many rows of tables, carved of marble, and upon each table lay a sleeping form, hands folded, head pillowed upon stone, but one table near at hand stood broad and bare. Upon it, at a sign from Denethor, they laid Faramir, and his father side by side, and covered them with one covering and stood then with bowed heads, as mourners beside a bed of death. Then Denethor spoke in a low voice. Here we will wait, he said, but send not for the embalmers. Bring us wood quick to burn, and lay it all about us, and beneath, and pour oil upon it. And when I bid you thrust in a torch, do this and speak no more to me. Farewell. By your leave, Lord, said Pippin, and turned and fled in terror from the deathly house. Faramir, he thought, I must find Gandalf. Poor Faramir. Quite likely he needs medicine more than tears. Where can I find Gandalf? In the thick of things, I suppose. And he will have no time to spare for dying men or madmen. At the door, he turned to one of the servants who had remained on guard there. Your master is God himself, he said. Go slow. Bring no fire to this place where Faramir lives. Do nothing until Gandalf comes. Who is the master of Minas Tirith? The man answered. The Lord Denethor of the Grey Wanderer. The Grey Wanderer or no one it would seem. And he sped back and up the winding way as swiftly as his feet would carry him. Past the astonished porter, out through the door and on, till he came near the gate of the citadel. The sentinel hailed him as he went by, and he recognized the voice of Berigon. Whither do you turn, Master Peregrine? He cried. To find me, Thrandir! Pippin answered. The Lord's errands are urgent and should not be hindered by me, said Berigon. But, tell me quickly, if you may. What goes forward? Whither has my lord gone? I have 
just come on duty, but I heard that he had passed towards the closed door. And men were bearing Faramir before him. Yes, said Pippin, to the silent street. Beragon bowed his head to hide his tears. They say that he was dying. He sighed. Now he is dead. No, said Pippin. Not yet. And even now his death might be prevented, I think. But the lord of the city, Beragon, has fallen before his city is taken. He is fey and dangerous. Quickly he told of Denethor's strange words and deeds. I must find Gandalf at once. Then, then you must go down to the battle. I know. The lord has given me leave. But Beragon, if you can... Do something to stop any dreadful thing happening. The Lord does not permit those who wear the black and silver to leave their post for any cause, save for his own command. Well, you must choose between the orders and the life of Faramir, said Pippin. As for orders, I think you have a madman to deal with, not a lord. I must run. I will return if I can. He ran on, down, down towards the outer city. Men flying back from the burden passed him, and some, seeing his livery, turned and shouted. But he paid no heed. At last he was through the second gate, beyond which great fires leapt up between the walls. Yet it seemed strangely silent. No noise or shouts of battle or din of arms could be heard. Then suddenly, there was a dreadful cry and a great shock, and a deep echoing boom. Forcing himself on against a gust of fear and horror that shook him almost to his knees, Pippin turned a corner, opening on the wide place behind the city gate. He stopped dead. He had found Gandalf, but he shrank back, cowering into a shadow. Ever since the middle night, the great assault had gone on. The drums rolled. To the north and to the south, company upon company of the enemy pressed to the walls. There came great beasts, like moving houses in the red and pitiful light. The mimicking of the Harad dragging through the lanes amid the fire's huge towers and engines. Yet their captain cared not greatly what they did or how they might be slain. Their purpose was only to test the strength of the defense and to keep the men of Gondor busy in many places. It was against the gate that he would throw his heaviest weight. Very strong it might be, wrought of steel and iron and guarded with towers and bastions of indomitable stone. Yet it was the key, the weakest point in all that high and impenetrable wall. The drums rolled louder. Fires leapt up. Great engines crawled across the fields, and in the midst was a huge ram, great as a forest tree a hundred feet in length, swinging on mighty chains. Long had it been forging in the dark smithies of Mordor, and its hideous head, founded of black steel, was shaped in the likeness of a ravening wolf. On it, spells of ruin lay. Grond, they named it, in memory of the hammer of the underworld of old. Great beasts grew it, orcs surrounded it, and behind walked mountain trolls to wield it. But about the gate, resistance still was stout, and there the knights of Dolanroth and the hardiest of the garrison stood at bay. Shot and dart fell thick, siege towers crashed and blazed suddenly like torches. All before the walls, on either side of the gate, the ground was choked with wreck and with bodies of the slain. Yet still, driven as if by a madness, more and more came up. Grond crawled on, upon its housing no fire would catch. 
though now and again some great beast that hold it would go mad and spread, stamping ruin among the orcs innumerable that guarded it, their bodies were cast aside from its path, and others took their place. Drummed crawled on, the drums rolled wildly. Over the hills of slain, a hideous shape appeared. A horseman, tall, hooded, cloaked in black. Slowly trampling the them, he rode forth, heeding no longer any dart. He halted and held up a long, pale sword, and as he did so, a great fear fell on all, defender and foe alike, and the hands of men drooped to their sides, and no bow sang. For a moment, all was still. The drums rolled and rattled. With a vast rush, Grond was hurled forward by huge hands. It reached the gate. It swung. A deep boom rumbled through the city like thunder running in the clouds. But the doors of iron and posts of steel withstood the stroke. Then the black captain rose in his stirrups and cried aloud in a dreadful voice, speaking in some forgotten tongue words of power and terror to rend both heart and stone. Thrice he cried, thrice the great ram boomed, and suddenly, upon the last stroke, the gate of Gondor broke. As if stricken by some blasting spell, it burst asunder. There was a flash of searing lightning, and the doors tumbled in riven fragments to the ground. Silent and still in the space before the gate sat Gandalf upon Shadowfax. Shadowfax, who alone among the free horses of the earth endured the terror, unmoving. Steadfast as a graven image in Rathdinan. You cannot enter here, said Gandalf, and the huge shadow halted. Go back to the abyss prepared for you! Go back! Fall into the nothingness that awaits you and your master! The black rider flung back his hood, and behold, he had a kingly crown, and yet upon no head visible was it set. The red fires shone between it and the mantled shoulders vast and dark. From a mouth unseen there came a deadly laughter. Old fool, he said. sword and flames ran down the blade. Gandalf did not move. And in that very moment, 
away behind some courtyard of the city. A cock crowed. Shrill and clear he crowed, wrecking nothing of wizardry or war, welcoming only the morning that in the sky, far above the shadows of death, was coming with the dawn. And as if in answer they came from far away another note. Horns, 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 in dark Mandolowin sides, they dimly echoed. Great horns of the north wildly blowing. Rohan had come at last. It was dark, and Mary could see nothing as he lay on the ground rolled in a blanket. Yet, though the night was airless and windless all about him, hidden trees were sighing softly. He lifted his head. Then he heard it again, a sound like faint drums in the wooded hills and mountain steps. The throb would increase suddenly and then be taken up again at some other point, now nearer, now further off. He wondered if the watchman had heard it. He could not see them. But he knew that all around him were the companies of the Rohirrim. He could smell the horses in the dark, and could hear the shiftings and their soft stamping on the needle-covered ground. The host was bivouacked in the pine woods that clustered about Eilenach Beacon, a tall hill standing up from the long ridges of the Druidan forest that lay beside the great road in East Anurian. Tired as he was, Mary could not sleep. He had ridden now for four days on end, and the ever-deepening gloom had slowly weighed down on his heart. He began to wonder why he had been so eager to come, when he had been given every excuse, even his lord's command, to stay behind. He wondered, too, if the old king knew that he had been disobeyed and was angry. Perhaps not. There seemed to be some understanding between Danhelm and Elfhelm, the marshal who commanded the Eored in which they were riding. He and all his men ignored Mary and pretended not to hear if he spoke. He might have been just another bag that Danhelm was carrying. Danhelm was no comfort. He never spoke to anyone. Mary felt small, unwanted, and lonely. Now the time was anxious, and the host was in peril. They were less than a day's ride from the outwalls of Minas Tirith that encircled the townlands. Scouts had been sent ahead. Some had not returned. Others, hastening back, had reported that the road was held in force against them. A host of the enemy was encamped upon it, three miles west of Amondine, and some strength of men was already thrusting along the road and was no more than three leagues away. Orcs were roving in the hills and woods along the roadside. The king and Eomer held council in the watches of the night. Mary wanted somebody to talk to, and he thought of Pippin, but that only increased his restlessness. Poor Pippin, shut up in the great city of stone, lonely and afraid. Mary wished he was a tall rider, like Eomer, and could blow a horn or something and go galloping to his rescue. He sat up listening to the drums that were beating again, now nearer at hand. Presently he heard voices speaking low, and he saw dim, half-shrouded lanterns passing through the trees. Men nearby began to move uncertainly in the dark. A tall figure loomed up and stumbled over him, cursing the tree roots. He recognized the voice of the marshal, Elfhelm. 
I'm not a tree root, sir, he said. Nor a bag, but a bruised hobbit. The least you can do in amends is to tell me what is afoot. Anything that can keep so in this devil's murk, answered Elfhelm. But my lord sends word that we must set ourselves in readiness. Orders may come for a sudden move. Is the enemy coming then? Asked Mary anxiously. Are those your drums? I began to think that I was imagining them. Does no one else seem to take any notice of them? Nay, nay, said Elfhelm. The enemy is on the road, not in the hills. You hear the woeses, the wild men of the woods. Thus they talk together from afar. They still haunt Druidan Forest, it is said. Remnants of an older time they be, living few and secretly wild and wary as the beasts. They go not to war with Gondor or the Mark, but now they are troubled by the darkness and the coming of the orcs. They fear lest the dark years be returning, as seems likely enough. Let us be thankful that they are not hunting us, for they use poisoned arrows, it is said, and they are woodcrafty beyond compare. But they have offered their services to Theoden. Even now one of their headmen is being taken to the king. Yonder go the lights. So much I have heard, but no more. And now I must busy myself with my lord's commands. Pack yourself up, Master Bag. He vanished into the shadows. Mary did not like this talk of wild men and poisoned darts, but quite apart from that, a great weight of dread was on him. Waiting was unbearable. He longed to know what was going to happen. He got up, and soon was walking warily in pursuit of the last lantern before it disappeared among the trees. Presently he came to an open space, where a small tent had been set up for the king under a great tree. A large lantern, covered above, was hanging from a bow and cast a pale circle of light yellow. There sat Theoden and Eoma, and before them on the ground sat a strange, squat shape of a man, gnarled as an old stone, and the hairs of his scanty beard straggled on his lumpy chin like dry moss. He was short-legged and fat-armed, thick and stumpy, and clad only with grass about his waist. Mary felt that he had seen him before somewhere, and suddenly he remembered the Pukelmen of Dunharrow. Here was one of those old images brought to life, or maybe a creature descended in true line through endless years from the models used by the forgotten craftsmen long ago. There was a silence as Mary crept nearer. And then the wild man began to speak, in answer to some question it seemed. His voice was deep and guttural, yet to Mary's surprise, he spoke the common speech, though in a halting fashion, and uncouth words were mingled with it. No, father of horsemen, he said, we fight not. Hunt only. Kill Gorgon in woods. Hate orc folk. You hate Gorgon too. We help as we can. Wild men have long ears and long eyes. No hot paths. Wild men live here before stone houses, before tall men come up out of water. But our need is for aid in battle. How will you and your folk help us? Pudding mm, news, said the wild man. We look out from hills, we climb big mountain, and look down. Stone city shut. Fire burns there outside, now inside too. You wish to come here? Then you must be quick. But Gorgon, and men out of far away. He waved a short gnarled arm eastward. Sit on horse road. Very many. More than horsemen. How do you know that? Said Elma. The old man's flat face and dark eyes showed nothing, but his voice was sullen with displeasure. Wild men are wild, free, but not children, he answered. I am great headman. Han, Puri Han, 
I count many things. Stars in sky, leaves on trees, men in the dark. You have a score of scores counted ten times in five. They have more. Big fight. And who will win? And many more walk round walls of stone houses. Alas, he speaks all too shrewdly, said Theoden. And our scouts say that they have cast trenches and stakes across the road. We cannot sweep them away in sudden onset. And yet we need great haste, said Eomer. Munburg is on fire. finish, said the wild man. More than one road he knows. He will lead you by road where no pits are. No Gorgon walk. Only wild men and beasts. Many parts were made when Stonehouse folk were stronger. They carved hills as hunters carve beast flesh. Wild men think they ate stone for food. They went through Druadan to Rimon with great rains. They go no longer. Road is forgotten, but not by wild men. Over hill and behind it lie still under grass and tree. There, behind Rimon, and down to Dean and back at the end to Horseman's Road. Wild men will show you that road. Then you kill Gorgon and drive away Bad Dark with bright iron, and wild men can go back to sleep in the wild woods. Eomer and the king spoke together in their own tongue. At length, Theoden turned to the wild man. We will receive your offer, he said. For though we leave a host of foes behind, what matter? If the stone city falls, then we shall have no returning. If it is saved, then the orc host itself will be cut off. If you are faithful, Han Buri Han, then we will give you rich reward, and you shall have the friendship of the Mark forever. Dead men are not friends to living men, and give them no gifts, said the wild man. But if you live after the darkness, then leave wild men alone in the woods, and do not hunt them like beasts anymore. Han Buri Han will not lead you into trap. He will go himself with father of horsemen. And if he leads you wrong, you will kill him. So be it, said Theoden. How long will it take to pass the enemy and come back to the road? Asked Elma. We must go a foot pace if you guide us. And I doubt not the way is narrow. Wild men go quick on feet, said Han. Where is wide for four horses in Stonewain Valley yonder? He waved his hand southwards. But narrow at beginning and at end. Wild men could walk from here to Dean between sunrise and noon. Then we must allow at least seven hours for the leaders, said Emma. We must reckon rather on some ten hours for all. Things unforeseen may hinder us. And if our host is all stung out... It will be long ere it can be set in order when we issue from the hills. What is the hour now? Who knows? said Theoden. It is all dark, but it is not all night, said Khan. When sun comes, we feel her, even when she is hidden. Already she climbs over east mountains. It is the opening of day in the sky fields. Then we must set out as soon as may be. Said Elmer. Even so, we cannot hope to come to Gondor's aid today. Mary waited to hear no more, but slipped away to get ready for the summons to the march. This was the last stage before the battle. It did not seem likely to him that any of them would survive it. But he thought of Pippin, 
and the flames in Minas Tirith and thrust down his own dread. All went well that day, and no sign or sound had they of the enemy waiting to waylay them. The wild men had put on a screen of weary hunters, so that no orc-roving spy should learn the movements in the hills. The light was more dim than ever as they drew nearer to the beleaguered city. The riders passed in long files like dark shadows of men and horses. Each company was guided by a wild woodman, but old Han walked beside the king. The start had been slower than was hoped, for it had taken time for the riders, walking and leading their horses, to find paths over the sticky wooden ridges behind their camp, and down into the hidden stone wing valley. It was late in the afternoon when the leaders came to wide grey thickets stretching beyond the eastward side of Amundin, and masking a great gap in the line of hills that from Nador to Dean ran east and west. Through the gap the forgotten Wayne road long ago had run down, back into the main horseway from the city, through Anurian. But now, for many lives of men, trees had had their way with it, and it had vanished, broken and buried under the leaves of uncounted years. But the thickets offered to the riders their last hope of cover before they went into open battle. For beyond them lay the road and the plains of Anduin, while east and southwards the slopes were bare and rocky. As the riven hills gathered themselves together and climbed up, bastion upon bastion into the great mass and shoulders of Mindoluin, the leading company was halted. And as those behind filed up out of the trough of the Stonewain Valley, they spread out and passed to camping places under the grey trees. The king summoned the captains to council. Eamir set out scouts to spy upon the road, but old Khan shook his head. No good sending horsemen. He said, Wild men have already seen all that can be seen in the bad air. They will come soon and speak to me here. The captains came. And then, out of the trees, crept wearily, other pukum shapes, so like old Khan that Mary could hardly tell them apart. They spoke to Khan in a strange, throaty language. Presently, Khan turned to the king. Wild men say many things, he said. First, be wary. Still many men in camp beyond Dean. An hour's walk yonder. He waved his arm west towards the black beacon. But none to see between here and stone folks' new walls. Many busy there. Walls stand up no longer. Gorgon knocked them down with earth thunder and with clubs and black iron. They are unwary and do not look about them. They think their friends watch all roads. At that, old Khan made a curious gurgling noise, and it seemed that he was laughing. Good tidings, cried Elmer. Even in this gloom, hope gleams again. Our enemy's devices often serve us in his despite. The accursed darkness itself has been a cloak to us, and now, lusting to destroy Gondor and throw it down stone for stone, his orcs have taken away my greatest fear. The outwall could have been held long against us. Now we can sweep through, if once we win so far. Once again I thank you, Han Buri Han of the Woods, said Theoden. Good fortune go with you for tidings and for guidance. Ah, kill Gokun. Kill all folk. No other words please, wild men, answered Khan. Drive away bad air and darkness with bright iron. To do these things we have ridden far, said the king, and we shall attempt them. But what we shall achieve only tomorrow will show. Khan Budi Khan squatted down and touched the earth with his horny brow in token of farewell. Then he got up as if to depart, but suddenly he stood looking up like some startled woodland animal, snuffling a strange air. A light came in his eyes. 
Wind is changing! He cried, and with that, in a twinkling as it seemed, he and his fellows had vanished into the glooms, never to be seen by any rider of Rohan again. Not long after, far away eastward, the faint drums throbbed again. Yet to no heart in all the host came any fear that the wild men were unfaithful, strange and unlovely though they might appear. We need no further guidance, said Elfhelm, for there are riders in the host who have ridden down to Mundburg in days of peace. I, for one. When we come to the road, it will veer south, and they will lie before us still seven leagues ere we reach the wall of the Townlands. Along most of that way there is much grass on either side of the road. On that stretch the errand riders of Gondor reckon to make the greater speed. We may ride it swiftly and without great rumour. Then, since we look for fell deeds and in the need of all our strength, said Aelma, I counsel that we rest now and set out hence by night. And so time our going that we come upon the fields when tomorrow is as light as it will be, or when our lord gives the signal. To this the king assented, and the captains departed. But soon Elfhelm returned. The scouts have found naught to report beyond the Grey Wood Lord, he said, save two men only, two dead men and two dead horses. Well, said Aelma, what of it? This lord, they were errand riders of Gondor. Hirgon was one, maybe. At least his hand still clasped the red arrow. But his head was hewn off, and this also. It would seem that the signs that they were fleeing westward when they fell. As I read it, they found the enemy already on the outwall or assailing it when they returned. And that would be two nights ago if they used fresh horses from their purses, as they won't. They could not reach the city and turn back. Alas, said Theoden, then Denethor has heard no news of our riding and will despair of our coming. Need brooks no delay. Yet late is better than never, said Eomer. And mayhap in this time shall the old say be proved truer than ever before since men spoke with mouth. It was night. On either side of the road, the host of Rohan was moving silently. Now the road, passing about the skirts of Mindoluin, turned southward. Far away and almost straight ahead, there was a red glow under the black sky of the sides of the great mountain. Loomed dark against it. They were drawing near the Ramas of the Pelennor. But the day was not yet come. The king rode in the midst of the leading company, his household men about him. Elfhelm's Eored came next, and now Merry noticed that Danhelm had left his place, and in the darkness was moving steadily forward, until at last he was riding, just in rear of the king's guard. There came a check. Merry heard voices in front speaking softly. Outriders had come back, who had ventured forward almost to the wall. They came to the king. There are great fires, Lord, said one. The city is all set about with flame, and the field is full of foes. But all seem drawn off to the assault. As well as we could guess, there are few left upon the outwall. And they are heedless, busy with destruction. Do you remember the wild man's words, Lord? said another. I live upon the open wold in days of peace. Windfara is my name, and to me also the air brings messages. Already the wind is turning. There comes a breath out of the south. There is a sea tang in it. Faint though it be, the morning will bring new things. Above the reek, it will be drawn when you pass the wall. If you speak truly, Windfarer, then may you live beyond this day in years of blessedness, said Theoden. He turned to the men of his household who were near, and spoke now in a clear voice, so that many also of the riders of the first Eored heard him. Now is the hour come, riders of the mark! Sons of Eorn, foes in fire before you, and your homes far behind. The glory that you reap there shall be your own forever. O oh, 
oaths ye have taken, now fulfill them all to Lord and Land and League of Friendship. Men clashed spear upon shield. Now, my son, you lead the first aimlet, said Theodore. And it shall go behind the king's banner in the center. Elfhelm, lead your company to the right when we pass the wall. And Grimbold shall lead his towards the left. Let the other companies behind follow these three that lead, as they have chance. Strike wherever the enemy gathers. Other plans we cannot make, for we know not yet how things stand upon the field. Forth now, and fear no darkness. The leading company rode off as swiftly as they could, for it was still deep dark, whatever change Windfather might forebode. Mary was riding behind Delham, clutching with the left hand, while with the other he tried to loosen his sword in his sheath. He felt now bitterly the truth of the old king's words. In such a battle, what do you do, Meriadoc? Just this, he thought. Encumber a rider and hope that best to stay my seat and not be pounded to death by galloping hoofs. It was no more than a league where the outwalls had stood. They soon reached them, too soon for Merry. Wild cries broke out, and there was some clash of arms, but it was brief. The orcs busy about the walls were few and amazed, and they were quickly slain or driven off. Before the ruin of the north gate in the Ramas, the king halted again. The first Eorred drew up behind him, and about him on either side. Danhelm kept close to the king, though Elfhelm's company was away on the right. Grimbold's men turned aside, and passed round to a great gap in the wall further eastward. Mary peered from behind Danhelm's back, far away, maybe ten miles or more. There was a great burning, but between it and the riders' lines of fire blazed in a vast crescent, at the nearest point less than a league distant. He could make out little more on the dark plain, and as yet he neither saw any hope of morning, nor felt any wind, changed or unchanged. Now, silently, the host of Rohan moved forward into the field of Gondor, pouring in slowly but steadily, like the rising tide through breaches in a dike that men have thought secure. But the mind and will of the black captain were bent wholly on the falling city. As yet, no tidings came to him warning that his designs held any flaw. After a while, the king led his men away somewhat eastward to come between the fires of the siege and the outer fields. Still they were unchallenged, and still Theoden gave no signal. At last he halted once again. The city was now nearer. A smell of burning was in the air, and a very shadow of death. The horses were uneasy, but the king sat upon Snowmane, motionless, gazing upon the agony of Minas Tirith, as if stricken suddenly by anguish, or by dread. He seemed to shrink down, cowed by age. Mary himself felt as if a great weight of horror and doubt had settled on him. His heart beat slow. Time seemed poised in uncertainty. They were too late. Too late was worse than never. Perhaps Theoden would quail, bow his old head, turn, slink away to hide in the hills. Then suddenly, Mary felt it at last, beyond doubt. A change. Wind was in his face. Light was glimmering. Far, far away in the south, the clouds could be dimly seen as remote grey shapes, rolling up, drifting. Morning lay beyond them. But at that same moment, there was a flash 
as if lightning had sprung from the earth beneath the city. For a searing second it stood dazzling far off in black and white, its topmost tower like a glittering needle. And then, as the darkness closed again, there came rolling over the fields a great boom. At that sound, the bent shape of the king sprang suddenly erect. Tall and proud he seemed again, and rising in his stirrups, he cried in a loud voice, more clear than any there had ever heard a mortal man achieve before. such a blast upon it that it burst asunder. And straightway all the horns in the host were lifted up in music, and the blowing of the horns of Rohan in that hour was like a storm upon the plain and a thunder in the mountains. Suddenly the king cried to Snowmane, and the horse sprang away. Behind him his banner blew in the wind, white horse upon a field of green, but he outpaced it. After him thundered the knights of his house, but he was ever before them. Eomer rode there, the white horse tail of his helm floating in his speed, and the front of the first Eored roared like a breaker foaming in the shore. But Theoden could not be overtaken. Fae he seemed, for the battle fury of his fathers ran like new tire in his veins. And he was borne up on Snowmane like a god of old. Even as Oromer the Great, in the Battle of the Valar when the world was young, his golden shield was uncovered, and lo, it shone like an image of the sun, and the grass flamed into green about the white feet of his steed. For morning came, morning and the wind from the sea, and the darkness was removed, and the hosts of Mordor wailed, and terror took them, and they fled, and died, and the hooves of wrath rode over them. And then all the host of Rohan burst into song, and they sang as they slew. And the joy of battle was on them, and the sound of their singing that was fair and terrible came even to the city. But it was no orc chieftain or brigand that led the assault upon Gondor. The darkness was breaking too soon, before the date that his master had set for it. Fortune had betrayed him for the moment, and the world had turned against him. Victory was slipping from his grasp even as he stretched out his hand to seize it. But his arm was long. He was still in command, wielding great powers. King Ringwraith. Lord of the Nazgul, he had many weapons. He left the gate and vanished. 
Theoden, king of the Mark, had reached the road from the gate to the river, and he returned towards the city that was now less than a mile distant. He slackened his speed a little, seeking new foes, and his knights came about him, and Danhelm was with them. Ahead, nearer the walls of Elfhelm's men, were among the siege engines hewing, slaying, driving their foes into the fire pits. Well nigh all the northern half of the Pelennor was overrun, and there camps were blazing. Orcs were flying towards the river like herds before the hunters, and the Rohirrim went hither and thither at their will. But they had not yet overthrown the siege nor won the gate. Many foes stood before it, and on the further half of the plain were other hosts still unfought. Southward beyond the road lay the main force of the Haradrim, and there their horsemen were gathered about the standard of their chieftain. And he looked out, and in the growing light he saw the banner of the king, and that it was far ahead of the battle with few men about it. Then he was filled with a red wrath, and shouted aloud, and displaying his standard, black serpent upon scarlet, he came against the white horse and the green with great press of men, and the drawing of the scimitars of the Southlands was like a glitter of stars. Then Theoden was aware of him, and would not wait for his onset, but crying to Snowmane he charged headlong to greet him. Great was the clash of their meeting, but the white fury of the northern burned the hotter, and more skilled was their knighthood with long spears and bitter. Fewer were they, but they clove through the Southrons like a fireboat in the forest. Right through the press drove Theoden Thango's son, and his spear was shivered as he threw down their chieftain. Out swept his sword, and he spurred to the standard, hewed staff and bearer, and the black spear Then all that was left unslain of their cavalry turned and fled far away. But lo, suddenly in the midst of the glory of the king, his golden shield was dimmed. The new morning was blotted from the sky. Dark fell about him. Horses reared and screamed. Men cast from the saddle lay groveling on the ground. To me! To me! Cried Theoden. But Snowmane, wild with terror, stood up on high, fighting with the air, and then with a great scream he crashed upon his side. A black dart had pierced him. The king fell beneath him. The great shadow descended like a falling cloud and behold, it was a winged creature, if bird then greater than all other birds, and it was naked, and neither quill nor feather did it bear, and its vast pinions were as webs of hide between horned fingers and it stank. A creature of an old world maybe it was, whose kind, lingering in forgotten mountains cold beneath the moon, outstayed their day. And in hideous airy, bred this last untimely brood, apt to evil. And the Dark Lord took it, and nursed it with fell meats, until it grew beyond the measure of all other things that fly. And he gave it to his servant, to be his steed. Down, down it came, and then, folding its fingered webs, it gave a croaking cry, and settled upon the body of Snowy, digging in its claws, stooping its long, naked neck. Upon it sat a shape, black-mantled, huge and threatening, a crown of steel he bore, but between rim and robe naught was there to see, save only a deadly gleam of eyes. The Lord of the Nazgul, to the air he had returned, summoning his steed ere the darkness failed, and now he has come again, 
bringing ruin, turning hope to despair and victory to death. A great black mace he wielded. But Theoden was not utterly forsaken. The knights of his house lay slain about him, or else mastered by the madness of their steeds were borne far away. Yet one stood there still, Dernhelm the Young, faithful beyond fear. And he wept, for he had loved his lord as a father. Right through the charge, Mary had been borne unharmed behind him, until the shadow came. And when Windfaller had thrown them in his terror, and now ran wild upon the plain, Mary crawled on all fours like a dazed beast, and such a horror was on him that he was blind and sick. King's man! King's man! His heart cried within him. You must stay by him! As a father you shall be to me, you said! But his will made no answer, and his body shook. He dared not open his eyes or look up. Then, out of the blackness in his mind, he thought that he heard Danham speaking. Yet now the voice seemed strange, recalling some other voice that he had known. Be gone, foul Dwimmerlake, Lord of Carrion! Leave the dead in peace! A cold voice answered. Come not between the Nazgul and his prey, or he will not slay thee in thy turn. He will bear thee away to the Houses of Lamentation, beyond all darkness, where thy flesh shall be devoured, and thy shriveled mind be left to the lidless a sword rang as it was drawn. Do what you will! But I will hinder it if I may! Hinder me! Thou fool! No living man may hinder me! Then Mary heard of all sounds in that hour the strangest. It seemed that Danham laughed, and the clear voice was like the ring of steel. But no living man am I! You look upon a woman! Eowyn I am, Eomon's daughter. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone! If you be not deathless, for living or dark and dead, I will spite you if you touch him! The winged creature screamed at her, but the ringwraith made no answer, and was silent, as if in sudden doubt. Very amazement for a moment conquered Mary's fear. He opened his eyes, and the blackness was lifted from them. There, some paces from him, sat the great beast, and all seemed dark about it, and above it loomed the Nazgûl lord like a shadow of despair. A little to the left facing them stood she whom he had called Dernhelm, but the helm of her secrecy had fallen from her, and her bright hair, released from its bonds, gleamed with pale gold upon her shoulders. Her eyes, grey as the sea, were hard and fell, and yet tears were on her cheek. A sword was in her hand, and she raised her shield against the horror of her enemy's eyes. Eowyn it was, and Danhelm also, for into Mary's mind flashed the memory of the face that he saw at the riding from Dunharrow. The face of one that goes seeking death, having no hope. Pity filled his heart, and great wonder, and suddenly the slow-kindled courage of his race awoke. He clenched his hand. She could not die. So fair, so desperate, at least she could not die alone, unaided. 
The face of their enemy was not turned towards him, but still he hardly dared to move, dreading lest the deadly eyes should fall on him. Slowly, slowly he began to crawl aside, but the black captain, in doubt and malice intent upon the woman before him, heeded him no more than a worm in the mud. Suddenly the great beast beat its hideous wings and the wind of them was foul. Again it leapt into the air, and then swiftly fell down upon Eowyn, shrieking, striking with beak and claw. Still she did not blench. Maiden of the Rohirrim, child of kings, slender but as a steel blade, fair but terrible. A swift stroke she dealt, skilled and deadly. The outstretched neck she clove asunder, and the hewn head fell like a stone. Backward she sprang as the huge shape crashed into ruin. Vast wings outspread, crumpled on the earth, and with its fall the shadow passed away. A light fell about her, and her hair shone in the sunrise. Out of the wreck rose the black rider, tall and menacing, towering above her. With a cry of hatred that stung the very ears like venom, he let fall his mace. Her shield was shriveled in many pieces, and her arm was broken. She stumbled to her knees. He bent over her like a cloud, and his eyes glittered. He raised his mace to kill. But suddenly he too stumbled forward with a cry of bitter pain, and his stroke went wide, driving him to the ground. Mary's sword has stabbed him from behind, shearing through the black mantle and passing up beneath the hauberk and pierced the sinew behind his mighty knee. Eowyn! Cried Mary. Then... Tottering, struggling up, with her last strength, she drove her sword between crown and mantle, and the great shoulders bowed before her. The sword broke, sparkling into many shards. The crown rolled away with a clang. Eowyn fell forward upon her fallen foe, but lo, the mantle and hauberk were empty. Shapeless they lay now on the ground, torn and tumbled. And a cry went up into the shuddering air and faded to a shrill wailing, passing with the wind, a voice bodiless and thin that died and was swallowed up and was never heard again in that age of this world. And there stood Mariadoc the hobbit in the midst of the slain, blinking like an owl in the daylight, for tears blinded him, and through a mist he looked on Eowyn's fair head as she lay and did not move. <coughs> And he looked on the face of the king, fallen in the midst of his glory. For Snowmane in his agony had rolled away from him again, yet he was the bane of his master. Then Mary stooped and lifted his hand to kiss it, and lo, Theoden opened his eyes, and they were clear, and he spoke in a quiet voice, though labored. Farewell, Master Hobbitler, he said. My body is broken, and I go to my father's. And even in their mighty company, I shall not now be ashamed. I felled the black serpent, a grim morn, and a glad day, and the golden sunset. Mary could not speak, but wept anew. Forgive me, Lord, he said at last. If I broke your command, 
and then have done no more than your service than to weep at our parting. The old king smiled. <laughs> Grieve not. It is forgiven. Great heart will not be denied. Live now in blessedness. And when you sit in peace with your pipe, think of me. For never now shall I sit with you in Medusild as I promised. Or listen to your herb lore. He closed his eyes, and Mary bowed beside him. Presently he spoke again. Where is Aoma? For my eyes darken, and I would see him ere I go. He must be king after me. And I would send word to Eowyn. She... She would not have me... She would not have me leave her. And now I shall not see her again. Dearer than daughter. Lord... Lord... Began Mary brokenly. She is... She is... But at that moment there was a great clamour, and all about them horns and trumpets were blowing. Mary looked around. He had forgotten the war, and all the world beside. And many hours it seemed since the king rode to his fall, though in truth it was only a little while. But now he saw that they were in danger of being caught in the very midst of the great battle that would soon be joined. New forces of the enemy were hastening up the road from the river, and from under the walls came the legions of Morgul, and from the southward fields came footmen of Harad with horsemen before them, and behind them rose the huge backs of the Mumakil with war towers upon them. But northwards the white crest of Aelna led the great front of the Rohirrim, which he had again gathered and marshaled. And out of the city came all the strength of men that was in it, and the silver swan of Dolanroth was born in the van, driving the enemy from the gate. For a moment the thought flitted through Mary's mind. Where's Gandalf? Is he not here? Could he not have saved the king in Eowyn? But thereupon Eomer rode up in haste, and with him came the knights of the household that still lived and had now mastered their horses. They looked in wonder at the carcass of the fell beast that lay there, and their steeds would not go near. But Eomer leapt from the saddle, and grief and dismay fell upon him as he came to the king's side and stood there in silence. Then one of the knights took the king's banner from the hand of Guthlaf, the banner-bearer who lay dead, and he lifted it up. Slowly, Theoden opened his eyes. Seeing the banner, he made a sign that it should be given to Eomer. Hail, King of the Mark, he said. Ride now to victory. Bid Eowyn farewell. And so he died, and knew not that Eowyn lay near him. And those who stood by wept, crying, But Eomer said to them, Or not overmuch. Might has fallen. Meat was his ending. When his mound is raised, women then shall weep. War now calls us. Yet he himself wept as he spoke. Let the knights remain here, he said, and bear his body in honor from the field, lest the battle ride over it. Yea, and all these other from the king's men that lie here. And he looked at the slain, recalling their names. 
Then, suddenly he beheld his sister Eowyn as she lay, and he knew her. He stood a moment as a man who is pierced in the midst of a cry by an arrow through the heart, and then his face went deathly white, and a cold fury rose in him, so that all speech failed him for a while. A fey mood took him. Eowyn! He cried at last. Eowyn! How came you here? What madness or devilry is this? Death, 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 take us all! Then without tasking counsel or waiting for the approach of the men of the city, he spurred headlong back to the front of the great host and blew a horn and cried aloud for the onset. Over the field rang his clear voice calling, and the world With that, the host began to move, but the Rohirrim sang no more. Death, they cried with one voice, loud and terrible, and gathering speed like a great tide, their battle swept about their fallen king and passed, roaring away southwards. And yet still, Meriadoc the Hobbit stood there, blinking through his tears, and no one spoke to him. Indeed, none seemed to heed him. He brushed away the tears and stooped to pick up the green shield that Eowyn had given him, and he slung it at his back. Then he looked for his sword that he had let fall, for even as he struck his blow his arm was numbed, and now he could only use his left hand, and behold there lay his weapon, but the blade was smoking like a dry branch that had been thrust in a fire, and as he watched it, it writhed and withered and was consumed. So passed the sword of the Barrow Downs, work of Westerness, but glad would he have been to know its fate who wrought it slowly long ago in the North Kingdom when the Dunedain was still young. And chief among their foes was the dread realm of Angmar and its sorcerer king. No other blade, not though mightier hands had wielded it, would have dealt that foe a wound so bitter, cleaving the undead flesh, breaking the spell that knit his unseen sinews to his will. Men now raised the king and laying cloaks upon the spear truncheons, they made shift to bear him away towards the city. And others lifted Eowyn gently up and bore her after him. But the men of the king's household they could not yet bring from the field. For seven of the king's knights had fallen there, and Deorwine their chief was among them. So they laid them apart from their foes and the fell beast that set spears about them. And afterwards, when all was over, men returned and made a fire there, and burned the carcass of the beast. But for Snowmane they dug a grave, and set up a stone upon which it was carved the tongues of Gondor in the mark. Faithful servant, yet master's bane. Lightfoot's foe, swift Snowmane. Green and long grew the grass on Snowmane's howl, but ever black and bare was the ground where the beast was burned. Now slowly and sadly Merry walked beside the bearers, and he gave no more heed to the battle. He was weary and full of pain, and his limbs trembled as with a chill. Great rain came out of the sea, and it seemed that all things wept for Theoden and Eowyn, quenching the fires in the city with grey tears. It was through a mist that presently he saw the van of the men of Gondor approaching. Imrahil, prince of Dol Roth, rode up and drew rein before them. What burden do you bear, men of Rohan? He cried. Theoden King, they answered. He is dead. But Eomer King now rides in the battle, he with the white crest in the wind. Then the prince went from his horse and knelt by the bier in honor of the king and his great onset. And he wept, and rising he looked then on to Eowyn and was amazed. Surely here is a woman, he said, 
Have even the women of the Rohirrim come to war in our need? Nay, one only. They answered. Lady Eowyn is she, sister of Erema, and we knew naught of her riding until this hour, and greatly we rue it. Then the prince, seeing her beauty, though her face was pale and cold, touched her hand as he bent to look more closely on her. Men of Rohan, he cried, are there no leeches among you? She is hurt to the death, maybe, but I deem that she yet lives. And he held the bright burnished embrace that was upon his arm before her cold tips, and behold, a little mist was laid on it hardly to be seen. Haste is now needed, he said, and he sent one riding back swiftly to the city to bring aid. But he, bowing low to the fallen, bade them farewell, and mounting rode away into the battle. And now the fighting waxed furious on the fields of the Pelennor, and the din of arms rose upon high, with the crying of men and the neighing of horses. Horns were blown and trumpets were braying, and the Mimakil were bellowing as they were goaded to war. Under the south walls of the city, the footmen of Gondor now drove against the legions of Morgul that were still gathered there in strength. But the horsemen rode eastward to the secure of Erma. Hurin, the tall warden of the Keys, and the lord of Losarnach, and Hirluin of the Green Hills, and Prince Imrahil the Fair with his knights all about him. Not too soon came their aid to the Rohirrim, for fortune had turned against Eomer, and his fury had betrayed him. The great wrath of his onset had utterly overthrown the front of his enemies, and great wedges of his riders had passed clear through the ranks of the Southrons, discomforting their horsemen and riding their footmen to ruin. But wherever the Mimikil came, there the horses would not go, but blenched and swerved away, and the great monsters were on fault and stood like towers of defense. And the Haradrim rallied about them, and the Rohirrim at their onset were thrice outnumbered by the Haradrim alone. Soon their case became worse, for new strength came now streaming to the field out of Osgiliath. They had been mustered for the sack of the city and the rape of Gondor, waiting on the call of their captain. He now was destroyed, but Gothnok, the lieutenant of Morgul, had flung them into the fray. Easterlings with axes, and variads of Khand, Southrons in Scarlet, and out of Far Harad, black men like half-trolls with white eyes and red tongues. Some now hastened up behind the Rohirrim, others held westward to hold off the forces of Gondor and prevent their joining with Rohan. It was even as the day thus began to turn against Gondor and their hope wavered that a new cry went up in the city. It being then mid-morning, and a great wind blowing, and the rain flying north and the sun shining. In that clear air, watchmen on the walls saw afar a new sight of fear, and their last hope left them. For Anduin, from the bend at the Harlon, so flowed that from the city men could look down on it lengthwise for some leagues, and the far-sighted could see any ships that approached. And looking thither they cried in dismay, for black against the glittering stream they beheld a fleet borne up on the wind. Romans and ships of great draught, with many oars, and with black sails bellying in the breeze. The Corsairs of Umba! Men shouted. The Corsairs of Umba! Look! The Corsairs of Umba are coming! Sobel Palace is taken in the ether, and Lebanon is gone! The Corsairs are upon us! This is the last struggle! And some without order, for none could he found to command them in their city, ran to the bells and told the alarms. Some blew the trumpets sounding the retreat. Back to the walls! 
they cried. Back to the walls! Come back to the city before all are overwhelmed! But the wind that sped the ships blew all their clamor away. The Rohirrim indeed had no need of news or alarm. All too well they could see for themselves the black sails. For Eomer was now scarcely a mile from Harland, and a great press of his first foes was between him and the haven there, while new foes came swirling behind, cutting him off from the prince. Now he looked to the river, and hope died in his heart, and the wind that he had blessed he now called accursed. But the host of Mordor were enhearted, and filled with a new lust and fury they came yelling to the onset. Stern now was Eomer's mood, and his mind clear again. He let blow the horns to rally all men to his banner that could come thither, for he thought to make a great shield walled at the last, and stand and fight there on foot till all fell, and do deeds of song on the fields of Pelennor, though no man should be left in the west to remember the last king of the mark. So he rode to a green hillock, and there set his banner, and the white horse ran rippling in the wind. Out of doubt! Out of dark! To the day's rising! I came singing in the sun, swords unsheathing! To hope's end I rode, and to hearts breaking! Move for rats! Move for ruin! And a red night These days he spoke. Yet he laughed as he said them, for once more the lust of battle was on him, and he was still unscathed, and he was young, and he was king, the lord of a fell people. And lo, even as he laughed at despair, he looked out again on the black ships, and he lifted his sword to defy them. And he cast his sword up in the sunlight and sang as he caught it. And all eyes followed his gaze. And behold, upon the foremost ship a great standard broke, and the wind displayed it as she turned toward the Harland. There flowed a white tree, and that was for Gondor. But seven stars were about it, and a high crown above it, the signs of Elendil that no lord had borne for years beyond count. And the stars flamed in the sunlight, for they were wrought of gems by Arwen, daughter of Elrond, and the crown was bright in the morning, for it was wrought of mithril and gold. Thus came Aragorn, son of Erethor, Elessar, Isildur's heir, out of the paths of the dead, born upon a wind from the sea to the kingdom of Gondor. And the mirth of the Rohirrim was a torrent of laughter and a flashing of swords, and the joy and wonder of the city was a music of trumpets and a ringing of bells. But the hosts of Mordor were seized with bewilderment and a great wizardry it seemed to them that their own ships should be filled with their foes. And a black dread fell on them, knowing that the tides of fate had turned against them and their doom was at hand. East rode the knights of Dol Anroth, driving the enemy before them, Trollmen and Variags and orcs that hated the sunlight. South rode Eomer and men fled before his face, and they were caught between the hammer and the anvil. 
For now men leaped from the ships to the quays of the Harland and swept north like a storm. There came Legolas and Gimli wielding his axe, and Halbarad with a standard, and Eladan and Elrohir with stars on their brow. And the dour-handed Dunedain, rangers of the north, lending great valor of the folk of Lebanon and Lamedon and the fiefs of the south. But before all went Aragorn with the flame of the west, Anduril like a new fire kindled, Narsil reforged as deadly as of old, and upon his brow was the star of Elendil. And so at length, Eomer and Aragorn met in the midst of the battle, and they leaned on their swords and looked on one another and were glad. Thus we meet again, though all the hosts of Mordor lay between us, said Aragorn. Did I not say so at the Hornburg? <laughs> so you spoke, said Eomer, but hope oft deceives. And I knew not then that you were a man foresighted, yet twice blessed is this help unlooked for. And never was a meeting of friends more joyful. <laughs> and they clasped hand in hand. Nor indeed more timely, said Eomer. You come none too soon, my friend. Much loss and sorrow has befallen us. Then let us avenge it ere we speak of it, said Aragorn, and they rode back to battle together. Hard fighting and long labor they had still, for the Southrons were bold men and grim, and fierce in despair, and the Easterlings were strong and war-hardened and asked for no quarter. And so in this place and that, by burnt homestead or barn, upon hillock or mound, under war on field, still they gathered and rallied and fought until the day wore away. Then the sun went at last behind Bindonuin and filled all the sky with a great burn so that the hills and the mountains were dyed as with blood. Fire glowed in the river, and the grass of the Pelennor lay red in the nightfall. And in that hour, the great battle of the field of Gondor was over, and not one living foe was left within the circuit of the Ramas. All were slain, save those who fled to die, or to drown in the red foam of the river. Few ever came eastward to Morgul or Mordor, and to the land of the Haradrim came only a tale from far off, a rumor of the wrath and terror of Gondor. Aragorn and Elmer and Imrahil rode back towards the gate of the city, and they were now weary beyond joy or sorrow. These three were unscathed, for such was their fortune and the skill and might of their arms. And few indeed had dared to abide them or look on their faces in the hour of their wrath. But many others were hurt or maimed or dead upon the field. The axes hewed forlong as he fought alone and unhorsed, and both Duilin of Morthon and his brother were trampled to death when they assailed the Mumakil leading their vermin close to shoot at the eyes of the monsters. Neither Hiluin the Fair would return to Pinath Gelin, nor Grimbold to Grimslade, nor Halbarad of the Northlands, dour-handed ranger. No few had fallen, renowned or nameless, captain or soldier, for it was a great battle, and the full count of it no tale has told. 
So long afterward, a maker in Rohan said in his song of the mounds of Menberg, We heard of the horns in the hills ringing, the swords shining in the south kingdom. Steeds went riding to the stoning land, as wind in the morning, war was kindled. There Theoden fell, thangling mighty, to his golden halls and green pastures, in the northern fields never returning. High Lord of the Host, Harding and Guthlaf, Dunhir and Deorwine, Doty Grimbold, Herafa and Herubrand, Horn and Thastred, fought and fell there in a far country. In the mounds of Munberg, under mould they lie, with their league fellows, lords of Gondor. Neither hill in the fair to the hills by the sea, nor fall along the old to the flowering vales. Ever to Arnach, to his own country, returned in triumph, nor the tall bowmen, Derufin and Duilin, to their dark waters. Mears of Morthrond under mountain shadow. Death in the morning and at day's ending. Lords took and lowly, long now they sleep, under grass in Gondor, by the great river. Grey now as tears, gleaming silver, red then it rolled, roaring water. Foam dyed with blood, flamed at sunset as Beacon's mountains burned at evening. Red fell the dew in Rama's echo. When the dark shadow at the gate withdrew, Gandalf still sat motionless. But Pippin rose to his feet as if a great weight had been lifted from him, and he stood listening to the horns, and it seemed to him that they would break his heart with joy, and never in after years could he hear a horn blown in the distance without tears starting in his eyes. But now suddenly, his errand returned to his memory, and he ran forward. At that moment, Gandalf stirred and spoke to Shadowfax, and was about to ride through the gate. Gandalf, Gandalf! cried Pippin. Shadowfax halted. What are you doing here? said Gandalf. Is it not a law in the city that those who wear black and silver must stay in the citadel and let their lord give them leave? He has! said Pippin. He sent me away, but I am frightened. Something terrible may happen up there. The lord is out of his mind, I think. I'm afraid he will kill himself and kill Faramir too. Can't you do something? Gandalf looked through the gaping gate, and already on the fields he heard the gathering sound of battle. He clenched his hand. I must go, he said. The Black Rider is abroad, and he will yet bring ruin on us. I have no time! Faramir! cried Pippin. He's not dead, and they will burn him alive if someone does not stop them! Burn him alive! said Gandalf. What is this tale? Be quick! Denethor has gone to the tombs, said Pippin. And he has taken Faramir, and he says that we are all to burn, and he will not wait. And they are to make a pyre and burn him on it, and Faramir as well. And he has set men to fish wood and oil. And I've told Beragon, but I'm afraid he won't dare to leave his post. He's on guard. And what can he do anyway? So Pippin poured out his tail, reaching up and touching Gandalf's knee with trembling hands. Can't you save Faramir? Maybe I can, said Gandalf. If I do, then others will die, I fear. Well, I must come, since no other help can reach him. But evil and sorrow will come out of this. Even in the heart of our stronghold, the enemy has power to strike us. 
for his will it is that is at work. Then, having made up his mind, he acted swiftly, and catching up Pippin and setting him before him, he turned Shadowfax with a word. Up the climbing streets of Minas Tirith they clattered, while the noise of war rose behind them. Everywhere men were rising from their despair and dread, seizing their weapons, crying to one another, Rohan has come! Captains were shouting, companies were mustering, and many already were marching down the gate. They met the Prince Imrahil, and he called to them. With an army, Thrandir! Here are here fighting on the fields of Gondor. We must gather all the strength that we can find. You will need every man and more, said Gandalf. Make haste. I will come when I can. But I have an errand to the Lord Denethor that will not wait. Take command in the Lord's absence. They passed on. And as they climbed and drew near to the citadel, they felt the wind blowing in their faces, and they caught a glimmer of warning far away. A light growing in the southern sky, but it brought little hope to them, not knowing that evil lay before them. Fearing to come too late. Darkness is passing, said Gandalf. Still lies heavy on the city. At the gate of the citadel they found no guard. Then better go to Scott, said Pippin hopefully. They turned away and hasted along the road to the closed door. It stood wide open, and the porter lay before it. He was slain, and his key had been taken. Work of the enemy, said Gandalf. Such deeds he loves. Friend at war with friend. Loyalty divided in confusion of hearts. Now he dismounted and bade Shadowfax return to his stable. For all my friend, he said. You and I should have ridden to the fields long ago, but other matters delay me. It comes swiftly if I call. They passed the door and walked on down the steep winding road. Light was growing, and the tall columns and carven figures beside the way went slowly by like grey ghosts. Suddenly the silence was broken, and they heard below them cries and the ringing of swords, such sounds that had not been heard in the hallowed places since the building of the city. At last they came to Rath Dinan and hastened towards the house of the stewards, looming in the twilight under the great dome. Stay! Stay! cried Gandalf, springing forward to the stone stair before the door. Stay this focus! For there were the servants of Denethor with swords and torches in their hands, but alone in the porch upon the topmost step stood Beragond, clad in the black and silver of the guard, and he held the door against them. Two of them had already fallen to his sword, staining the hallows with their blood, and the others cursed him calling him outlaw and traitor to his master. Even as Gandalf and Pippin ran forward, they heard from within the House of the Dead the voice of Denethor crying, Haste! Haste! Do as I have bidden! Slay me this renegade! I must do so myself! Thereupon the door which Beragond held shut with his left hand and was wrenched open, and there behind him stood the lord of the city, tall and fell. A light like flame was in his eyes, and he held a drawn sword. But Gandalf sprang up the steps, and the men fell back from him and covered their eyes, for his coming was like the incoming of a white light into a dark place, and he came with great anger. He lifted up his hand, and in the very stroke the sword of Denethor flew up and left his grasp and fell behind him in the shadows of the house, and Denethor stepped backward before Gandalf as one amazed. What is this, my lord? said the wizard. The houses of the dead are no place for the living, and why do men fight here in the hallows where there is war enough before the gate? Or has our enemy even come to Rathdinan? Since when has the Lord of Gondor been answerable to thee? Said Denethor. Or may I not command my own servants? You may, said Gandalf. But others may contest your will when it is turned into madness and evil. Where is your son, Faramir? He lies within, said Denethor. Burning. Already burning. They have set a fire in his flesh. But soon all shall be burned. The West has failed. It shall all go up in a great fire, and all shall be ended. Ash, 
ash and smoke blown away from the wind. Then Gandalf, seeing the madness that was on him, feared that he had already done some evil deed, and he thrust forward with Beragond and Pippin behind him, while Denethor gave back until he stood beside the table within. But there they found Faramir, still dreaming in his fever, lying upon the table. Wood was piled under it, and high all about it, and all was drenched with oil. Even the garments of Faramir and the coverlets, but as yet no fire had been set to the fuel. Then Gandalf revealed the strength that lay hid in him, even as the light of his power was hidden under his grey mantle. He leapt up onto the faggots, and raising the stickman lightly, he sprang down again, and bore him towards the door. But as he did so, Faramir moaned and called on his father in his dream. Denethor started as one waking from a trance, and the flame dined in his eyes, and he wept, and he said, Do not take my son from me! He calls for me! He calls, said Gandalf, but you cannot come to him yet, for he must seek healing on the threshold of death, and maybe find it not. Whereas your part is to go out to the battle of your city, where maybe death awaits you. This you know in your heart. He will not wake again, said Denethor. Battle is vain. Why should we wish to live longer? Why should we not go to death side by side? Authority is not given to you, Stuart of Gondor, to order the hour of your death answered Gandalf. And only the heathen kings under the domination of the dark power did thus, slaying themselves in pride and despair, murdering their kin to ease their own death. Then passing through the door he took Faramir from the deadly house and laid him on the bier on which he had been brought, and which had now been set in the porch. Denethor followed him and stood trembling, looking with longing on the face of his son. And for a moment, while all were silent and still, watching the lord in his throes, he wavered. Come said Gandalf. We are needed. There is much that you can yet do. Then suddenly Denethor laughed. He stood up tall and proud again, and stepping swiftly back to the table, he lifted from it the pillow on which his head had lain. Then, coming to the doorway, he drew aside the covering, and lo, he had between his hands a palantir. And as he held it up, it seemed to those that looked on that the globe began to glow with an inner flame so that the lean face of the Lord was lit as with a red fire, and it seemed cut out of hard stone, sharp with black shadows, noble, proud, and terrible. His eyes glittered. Pride and despair! He cried. Didst thou think that the eyes of the White Tower were blind? Nay, I have seen more than thou knowest, grey fool, for thy hope is but ignorance. Go then and labor in healing. Go forth and fight! Vanity, for a little space you may triumph on the field for a day, but against the power that now arises there is no victory. To this city only the first finger of his hand has yet been stretched. All the east is moving, and even now the wind of thy hope cheeks thee and wafts up Anduin with a fleet with black sails. The west has failed. It is time for all to depart who would not be slaves. Such counsels will make the enemy's victory certain indeed, said Gandalf. <laughs> Hope on then, laughed Denethor. Do I not know thee, Mithrandir? Thy hope is to rule in my stead, to stand behind every throne, north, south, or west. I have read thy mind and its policies. Do I not know that you commanded this halfling here to keep silence? That you brought him hither to be a spy within my very chamber? 
And yet in our speech together I have learned the names and purpose of all thy companions. So, with the left hand thou wouldst use me for a little while as a shield against Mordor, and with the right bring up this ranger from the north to supplant me. But I say to thee, Gandalf Mithrandir, I will not be thy tool. I am steward of the house of Anarion. I will not step down to be the doted chamberlain in an upstart. Even were his claim proven to me, still he comes but of the line of a Isildur. I will not bow to such a one, last of a ragged house, long bereft of lordship and dignity. What then would you have? said Gandalf. If your will could have its way, I... I would have things as they were in all the days of my life, answered Denethor, and in all the days of my long fathers before me. To be the lord of this city in peace, and leave my chair to a son after me, who would be his own master, and no wizard's pupil. But if doom denies this to me, then I will have naught, neither life diminished, nor love halved, nor honor abated. To me it would not seem that a steward who faithfully surrenders his charge is diminished in love or in honor, said Gandalf. And at the least you shall not rob your son of this choice while his death is still in doubt. At those words Denethor's eyes flamed again, and taking the stone under his arm, he drew a knife and strode towards the byre. But Beragon sprang forward and set himself before Faramir. So, cried Denethor, thou hast already stolen half of my son's love. Now thou stealest the hearts of my knights also, and that they rob me wholly of my son at the last. But in this at least thou shalt not defy my will to rule my own end. Come hither, he cried to his servants. Come if you are not all recreant. Then two of them ran up the steps to him. Swiftly he snatched a torch from the hand of one and sprang into the house. Before Gandalf could hinder him, he thrust the brand amid the fuel, and at once it crackled and roared into flame. Then Denethor leapt upon the table, and standing there wreathed in fire and smoke, he took up the staff of his stewardship that lay at his feet, and broke it on his knee. Casting the pieces into the blaze, he bowed and laid himself on the table, clasping the palantir with both hands upon his breast. And it was said that ever after, if any man looked in that stone, unless he had a great strength of will to turn it to other purpose, he saw only two aged hands withering in flame. Gandalf in grief and horror turned his face away and closed the door. For a while he stood in thought, silent upon the threshold, while those outside heard the greedy roaring of fire within. And then Denethor gave a great cry, and afterwards spoke no more, nor was ever again seen by mortal men. So passes Denethor, son of Ecthelion, said Gandalf. He then turned to Beragond and the Lord's servants that stood there aghast. And so pass the days of Gondor that you have known. For good or evil, they have ended. Ill deeds have been done here. But now let all enmity that lies between you be put away, for it was contrived by the enemy and works his will. You have been caught in a net of warring duties that you did not weave. But think, you servants of the Lord, blind in your obedience, that but for the treason of Beragond Faramir, captain of the White Tower, would now also be burned. Bear away from this unhappy place your comrades who have fallen, and we will bear Faramir, 
steward of Gondor, to a place where he can sleep in peace, or die if that be his doom. Then Gandalf and Baragon, taking up the bier, bore it away towards the Houses of Healing, while behind them walked Pippin with downcast head. But the servants of the Lord stood gazing as stricken men at the House of the Dead. And even as Gandalf came to the end of Rathdinen, there was a great noise. Looking back, they saw the dome of the house crack and smoke issue forth, and then with a rush and rumble of stone, it fell in a flurry of fire. But still, unabated, the flames danced and flickered among the ruins. Then in terror, the servants fled and followed Gandalf. At length, they came back to the steward's door and Baragond looked with grief at the porter. This deed I shall never rue, he said. But a madness of haste was on me, and he would not listen, but drew sword against me. Then taking the key that he had wrested from the slain man, he closed the door and locked it. This should now be given to the Lord Faramir, he said. The Prince of Dol Amroth is in command in the absence of the Lord, said Gandalf. But since he is not here, I must take this on myself. I bid you keep the key and guard it until the city is set in order again. Now at last they passed into the high circles of the city, and in the light of morning they went their way towards the Houses of Healing. And these were fair houses set apart for the care of those who were grievously sick. But now they were prepared for the tending of men hurt in battle or dying. They stood not far from the citadel gate, in the sixth circle, high to its southward wall, and about them was a garden and a greensward with trees, the only such place in the city. There dwelt the few women that had been permitted to remain in Minas Tirith, since they were skilled in healing or in the service of the healers. But even as Gandalf and his companions came carrying their bier to the main door of the houses, they heard a great cry that went up from the field before the gate and rising shrill and piercing to the sky passed and died away on the wind. So terrible was the cry that for a moment all stood still, and yet when it had passed, suddenly their hearts were lifted up in such a hope as they had not known since the darkness came out of the east. And it seemed to them that the light grew clear and the sun broke through the clouds. But Gandalf's face was grave and sad, and bidding Beragond and Pippin to take Faramir into the Houses of Healing, he went up to the walls nearby, and there, like a figure carven in white, he stood in the new sun and looked out. And he beheld with the sight that was given to him all that had befallen. And when Eomer rode out from the forefront of his battle and stood beside those who lay upon the field, he sighed, and he cast his cloak about him again, and went from the walls. And Beragond and Pippin found him standing in thought before the door of the houses when they came out. They looked at him, and for a while he was silent. At last he spoke. My friends, he said, and all you people of this city of the Western Lands, things of great sorrow and renown have come to pass. Shall we weep or be glad? Beyond hope, the captain of our foes has been destroyed, and you have heard the echo of his last despair. But he has not gone without woe and bitter loss, and that I might have averted but for the madness of Denethor. So long has the reach of our enemy become, alas, but now I perceive how his will was able to enter into the very heart of the city. 
though the stewards deemed that it was a secret kept only by themselves. Long ago, I guessed here in the White Tower, one at least of the seven seeing stones was preserved. In the days of his wisdom, Denethor did not presume to use it, nor to challenge Sauron knowing the limits of his own strength. But his wisdom failed, and I fear that as the peril of his realm grew, he looked in the stone and was deceived. Far too often, I guess, since Boromir departed. He was too great to be subdued to the will of the Dark Power. He saw, nonetheless, only those things with which that power permitted him to see. The knowledge which he obtained was doubtless often of service to him, yet the vision of the great might of Mordor that was shown to him fed the despair of his heart until it overthrew his mind. Now I understand what seemed so strange to me, said Pippin, shuddering at his memories as he spoke. The Lord went away from the room where Faramir lay, and it was only when he returned that I first saw he was changed, old and broken. It was in that very hour that Faramir brought to the tower that many of us saw a strange light at the topmost chamber, said Beregond. But we have seen that light before, and it has long been rumored in the city that the Lord would at times wrestle in thought with the enemy. Alas, then I have guessed right, said Gandalf. Thus the will of Sauron entered into Minas Tirith, and thus I have been delayed here. And here I shall still be forced to remain, for I shall soon have other charges, not Faramir only. Now I must go down to meet those who come. I have seen a sight upon the field that is very grievous in my heart, but greater sorrow may yet come to pass. Come with me, Pippin. But you, Beragon, should return to the Citadel, and tell the chief to the guard there what has fallen. It will be his duty, I fear, to withdraw you from the guard, but say to him that... If I may give you counsel, you should be sent to the Houses of Healing, to be the guard and servant of your captain, and to be at his side when he awakes, if that shall ever be again. For by you, he was saved from the fire. Go now, I shall return soon. With that, he turned away and went with Pippin down towards the lower city. And even as they hastened on their way, the wind brought a grey rain, and all the fire sank and there arose a great smoke before them. A mist was in Mary's eyes of tears and weariness when they drew near the ruined gate of Minas Tirith. He gave little heed to the wreck and slaughter that lay about all. Fire and smoke and stench was in the air, for many engines had been burned or cast into the fire pits, and many of the slain also, while here and there lay many carcasses of the great Southron monsters, half burned or broken by stone cast, or shot through the eyes by the valiant archers of Northrond. The flying rain had ceased for a time, and the sun gleamed up above, but all the lower city was still wrapped in a smoldering reek. Already men were laboring to clear a way through the jetsam of battle, and now out of the gate came some bearing litters. Gently they laid Eowyn upon soft pillows, but the king's body they covered with a great cloth of gold, and they bore torches about him, and their flames, pale in the sunlight, were fluttered by the wind. So Theoden and Eowyn came to the city of Gondor, and all who saw them bared their heads and bowed, and they passed through the ashen fume of the burnt circle, and went on and up along the streets of stone. To Mary, the ascent seemed age-long, 
this journey in a hateful dream, going on and on to some dim ending that memory cannot seize. Slowly the lights of the torches in front of him flickered and went out, and he was walking in the darkness, and he thought, This is a tunnel leading to a tomb. There we will stay forever. But suddenly, into his dream, there fell Mary. a living voice. Well, Mary, thank goodness I found you. He looked up and the mist before his eyes cleared a little. There was Pippin. They were face to face in a narrow lane. And but for themselves, it was empty. He rubbed his eyes. Where is the king? And there we... Then he stumbled and sat down on the doorstep and began to weep again. They have gone up into the citadel, said Pippin. I think you must have fallen asleep on your feet and taken the wrong turning. When we found that you were not with them, Gandalf sent me to look for you. Poor old Mary. How glad am I to see you again! But you are worn out, and I won't bother you with any talk. But tell me, are you hurt? Or wounded? No, said Mary. Well, I don't think so. But I can't use my right arm, Pippin. Not since I stabbed him. My sword burned all away like a piece of wood. Pippin's face was anxious. Well, you had better come with me as quick as you can, he said. I wish I could carry you. You aren't fit to walk any further. They shouldn't have let you walk at all, but you must forgive them. So many dreadful things have happened to the city, Mary, that one poor hobbit coming in from the battle is easily overlooked. It's not always a misfortune being overlooked, said Mary. I was overlooked just now by... No, no, I can't speak of it. Help me, Pippin. It's all going dark again. My arm is so cold. Well, lean on me, Mary, lad. Uh, Come now, foot by foot. It's not far. Are you going to bury me? Said Mary. No, indeed. Said Pippin, trying to sound cheerful, though his heart was wrung with fear and pity. No. We are going to the Houses of Healing. They turned out of the lane that ran between tall houses and the outer wall and fourth circle, and they regained the main street, climbing up to the citadel. Step by step they went, while Mary swayed and murmured as one in sleep. I'll never get in there, thought Pippin. Is there no one to help me? I can't leave him here. Just then, to his surprise, a boy came running up behind. And as he passed, he recognized Birgil, Berigon's son. Hello, Birgil! He called. Where are you going? Glad to see you again, and still alive. I am running errands for the healers, said Birgil. I cannot stay. Don't! said Pippin. But tell them up there that I have a sick hobbit. A perian, mind you. Come from the battlefield. I don't think he can walk so far. If Mithrandir is here, he'll be glad of the message. Birgil ran on. I'd better wait here, thought Pippin. So he let Mary sink gently down onto the pavement in a patch of sunlight. And then he sat down beside him, laying Mary's head in his lap. He felt his body and limbs gently and took his friend's hand in his own. The right hand felt icy to the touch. It was not long before Gandalf himself came in search of them. He stooped over Merry and caressed his brow. Then he lifted him carefully. He should have been born in honor into the city, he said. He has well repaid my trust. For if Elrond had not yielded to me, neither of you would have set out. And then far more grievous would the evils of this day have been. He sighed. And yet here is another charge on my hands. 
while all the time the battle hangs in the balance. So at last, Faramir and Eowyn and Meriadoc were laid in beds in the Houses of Healing, and there they were tended well. For though all law was in these latter days fallen from its fullness of old, the leechcraft of Gondor was still wise, and skilled in the healing of wound and hurt, and all such sickness as east of the sea mortal men were subject to, save old age only. For that they had found no cure, and indeed the span of their lives had now waned to little more than that of other men, and those among them who passed the tale of five score years with vigor were grown few, save in the houses of purer blood. But now their art and knowledge were baffled, for there were many sick of a malady that would not be healed, and they called it the Black Shadow, for it came from the Nazgul, and those who were stricken with it fell slowly into an ever deeper dream, and then passed to a silence and a deadly cold, and so died. And it seemed to the tenders of the sick that on the halfling and on the Lady of Rohan this malady lay heavily. Still, at whiles, as the morning wore away, they would speak, murmuring in their dreams, and the watchers listened to all that they said, hoping perhaps to learn something that would help them to understand their hurts. But soon they began to fall down into the darkness, and as the sun turned west, a grey shadow crept over their faces. But Faramir burned with a fever that would not abate. Gandalf went from one to the other, full of care, and he was told all that the watchers could hear. And so the day passed, while the great battle outside went on with shifting hopes and strange tidings. And still Gandalf waited and watched, and did not go forth. Till at last the red sunset filled all the sky, and the light through the windows fell on the grey faces of the sick. Then it seemed to those who stood by that in the glow the faces flushed softly, as with health returning. But it was only a mockery of hope. Then an old wife, Eorith, the eldest of the women who served in that house, looking on the fair face of Faramir, wept, for all the people loved him, and she said, Alas, if he would die. But that there were kings in Gondor, as there were once upon a time, they say, for it is said in old law, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so the rightful king would ever be known. And Gandalf, who stood by, said, Men may long remember your words, Eoreth, for there is hope in them. Maybe a king has indeed returned to Gondor. Or have you not heard the strange tidings that have come to the city? I have been too busy with this and that to heed all the crying and shouting, she answered. All I hope is that those murdering devils do not come to this house and trouble the sick. Then Gandalf went out in haste, and already the fire in the sky was burning out, and the smouldering hills were fading, while ash-grey evening crept over the fields. Now as the sun went down, Aragorn and Eomer and Imrahil drew near the city with their captains and knights, and when they came before the gate, Aragorn said, Behold the sun setting in a great fire. It is a sign of the end, and fall of many things, and a chance in the tides of the world. But this city and realm has rested in the charge of the stewards for many long years, and I fear that if I enter it unbidden, then doubt and debate may arise, which should not be while this war is fought. I will not enter it, nor make any claim until it be seen whether we or Mordor shall prevail. Men shall pitch my tents upon the field, and here I will await the welcome of the lord of the city. But Eomer said, Already you have raised the banner of the kings and displayed the tokens of Elendil's house. Will you suffer these to be challenged? No, said Aragorn, but I deem the time unripe, and I have no mind for strife. 
except with our enemy and his servants. And the Prince Imrahil said, Your words, Lord, are wise. If one who is a kinsman of the Lord Denethor may counsel you in this matter, he is strong-willed and proud, but old, and his mood has been strange since his son was stricken down. Yet I would not have you remain like a beggar at the door. Not a beggar, said Aragorn. Say a captain of the rangers, who were unused to cities and houses of stone. And he commanded that his banner should be furled. And he did off the star of the North Kingdom and gave it to the keeping of the sons of Elrond. Then the prince Imrahil and Eomer of Rohan left him and passed through the city in the tumult of the people and mounted to the citadel. And they came to the hall of the tower, seeking the steward. But they found his chair empty. And before the dais lay Theoden king of the Mark upon a bed of state. And twelve torches stood about it and twelve guards, knights of both Rohan and Gondor. And the hangings of the bed were of green and white, but upon the king was laid a great cloth of gold, up to his breast, and upon that his unsheathed sword, and at his feet his shield. The light of the torches shimmered in his white hair like the sun in the spray of a fountain, but his face was fair and young, save that a peace lay on it beyond the reach of youth, and it seemed that he slept. When they had stood silent for a time beside the king, Imrahil said, Where is the steward? And where also is Mithrandir? And one of the guards answered, The steward of Gondor is in the houses of healing. But Eomer said, Where is Lady Eowyn, my sister? For surely she should be lying beside the king in, in no less honor. Where have they bestowed her? And Imrahil said, but the Lady Eowyn was yet living when they bore her hither, did you not know? Then hope unlooked for came so suddenly to Eomer's heart, and with it the bite of care and fear renewed, that he said no more, but turned and went swiftly from the hall, and the prince followed him. And when they came forth, evening had fallen, and many stars were in the sky. And there came Gandalf on foot, and with him one cloaked in grey, and they met before the doors of the houses of healing. And they greeted Gandalf and said, we seek the steward, and the men say that he is in this house. Has any hurt befallen him? And the Lady Eowyn, where is she? And Gandalf answered, She lies within, and is not dead, but is near death. But the Lord Fadamir was wounded by an evil dart, as you have heard, and he is now the steward. For Denethor has departed, and his house is in ashes. And they were filled with grief and wonder at the tale that he told. But Imrahil said, so victory is shorn of gladness, and it is bitter brought, if both Gondor and Rohan are in one day bereft of their lords. Eomer rules the Rohirrim. Who shall rule the city meanwhile? Shall we not send now for the Lord Aragorn? And the cloaked man spoke and said, He is come. And they saw as he stepped into the light of the lantern by the door that it was Aragorn, wrapped in the great cloak of Lorien above his mail, and bearing no other token than the green stone of Galadriel. I have come because Gandalf begs me to do so, he said. But for the present, I am but the captain of the Dunedain of Arnor, and the lord of Dol Amroth shall rule the city until Faramir wakes. But it is my counsel that Gandalf should rule us all in the days that follow and in our dealings with the enemy. And they agreed upon that. Then Gandalf said, Let us not stay at the door, for the time is urgent. Let us enter. For it is only in the coming of Aragorn that any hope remains for the sick that lie in the house. Thus spake Eorith, wise woman of Gondor. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. 
and so shall the rightful king be known. Then Aragorn entered first, and the others followed, and there at the door were two guards in the library of the citadel, one tall, but the other scarce the height of a boy, and when he saw them he cried aloud in surprise and joy. Strider! How splendid! Do you know, I guessed it was you in the black ships, but they were all shouting corsairs and wouldn't listen to me. How did you do it? Aragorn laughed and took the hobbit by the hand. Well met indeed, he said, but there is no time yet for traveler's tales. But Imrahil said to Eomer, Is it thus that we speak to our kings? Yet maybe he will wear his crown in some other name. And Aragorn, hearing him, turned and said, Verily, for in the high tongue of old I am Elisa, the Elstone, and Envinyata, the Renewer. And he lifted from his breast the green stone that lay there. But Strider shall be the name of my house, if that be ever established. In the high tongue it will not sound so ill, and Telkontar I will be, and all the heirs of my body. And with that they passed into the house, and as they went towards the rooms where the sick were tended, Gandalf told of the deeds of Eowyn and Meriadoc. For, he said, long have I stood by them, at first they spoke much of their dreaming, before they sank into the deadly darkness. Also it is given to me to see many things far off. Aragorn went first to Faramir, and then to the Lady Eowyn, and last to Merry. When he had looked on the faces of the sick, and seen their hurts, he sighed. Here I must put forth all such power and skill as is given to me, he said. Would that Elrond were here, for he is the eldest of all our race, and has the greater power. And Eomer, seeing that he was sorrowful and weary, said, First you must rest, surely, and at least eat a little. But Aragorn answered, Nay, for these three, and most soon for Faramir, time is running out. All speed is needed. Then he called to Eoreth and said, Do you have stored in this house of the herbs of healing? Yes, lord, she answered. But not enough, I reckon, for all that will need them. But I am sure I do not know where we shall find more, for all things are amiss in these dreadful days. What with fires and burnings in the lands, and the lads that run errands so few, and all the roads blocked. Why, it is days out of count since ever a carrier came in from Lasana to the market. But we do our best in this house, with what all we have, as I am sure your lordship will know. I will judge when I see, said Aragorn. One thing also is short time for speech. Have you Athlas? I do not know, I am sure, lord. She answered. At, at least not by that name. I, I will go and ask for the herb master. He knows all the old names. It is also called Kingsfoil, said Aragorn. And maybe you know it by that name, for so the country folk call it in these latter days. Oh, that, said Eoreth. Well, if your lordship had named it at first, I could have told you. No, we have none of it, I'm sure. Why, I have never heard it had any great virtue. And indeed, I have often said to my sisters when we came upon it growing in the woods, Kingsfoil, I said. "'Tis a strange name, and I wonder why it is called so, "'for if I were a king I would have plants more bright in my garden. "'Still, it smells sweet when bruised, does it not? "'If is sweet is the right word, wholesome maybe is nearer.' "'Wholesome verily,' said Aragorn. "'And now, Dame, if you love the Lord Faramir, "'run as quick as your tongue and get me king's foil "'if there is any leaf in the city.' "'And if not,' said Gandalf, "'I will ride to Losarnach with Eoreth behind me, "'and she shall take me to the woods, but not to her sisters, "'and Shadowfax shall show her the meaning of haste.' When Eoreth was gone, Aragorn bade the other women to make water hot. When he took Faramir's hand in his, and laid the other hand upon the sick man's brow, it was drenched with sweat. But Faramir did not move or make any sign, and seemed hardly to breathe. He is nearly spent, said Aragorn. 
turning to Gandalf. This comes not from the wound. See, that is healing. Had he been smitten by some dart of the Nazgul as you thought, he would have died that night. This turn was given by some Southron arrow, I would guess. Who drew it forth? Was it kept? I drew it forth, said Imrahil, and staunched the wound. But I did not keep the arrow, for we had much work to do. It was, as I remember, just such a dart as the Southrons use. Yet I believe that it came from the shadows above, for else his fever and sickness were not to be understood, since the wound was not kept or vital. How then do you read the matter? Weariness, grief for his father's mood, a wound, and over all the black breath, said Aragorn. He is a man of staunch will, for already he had come close under the shadow before ever he rode to battle on the outwalls. Slowly the dark must have crept on him, even as he fought and strove to hold his outpost. Would that I could have been here sooner. Thereupon the herbmaster entered. Your lordship asks for Kingfoil, as the rustics name it, he said. Or Arthalas, in the noble tongue, or those who know somewhat of the Valinorian. I do so, said Aragorn, and I care not whether you say Aslaranion or Kingsfoil, so long as you have some. Your pardon, lord, said the man. I see you are a lordmaster, not merely a captain of war, but alas, sir, will you not keep this thing in the houses of healing? Will only the gravely hurt or sick attend it? For it has no virtue that, save perhaps to sweeten a fouled air, or to drive away some passing heaviness. Unless, of course, you give heed to rhymes of old days, which women such as our good Eureth still repeat without understanding. Where the black breath blows, and death's shadow grows, and all lights pass. Come, Athelas, come, Athelas. Life to the dying, in the king's hand lying. It, it is but a droggle, I fear. Garbled in the memory of old wives. Its meaning I leave to your judgment, if indeed it has any. But old folks still use an infusion of the herb for headaches. And in the name of the king, go and find some old man of less lore and more wisdom who keeps some in his house. Cried Gandalf. <laughs> now Aragorn knelt beside Faramir, and held a hand upon his brow. And those that watched felt that some great struggle was going on. For Aragorn's face grew grey with weariness. And ever and anon he called the name of Faramir but each time more faintly to their hearing, as if Aragorn himself was removed from them, and walked afar in some dark vale, calling for one that was lost. And at last Burgil came running in, and he bore six leaves in a cloth. It's king's foil, sir, he said. But not fresh, I fear. It must have been culled two weeks ago at the least. I hope it will serve, sir. Then looking at Faramir, he burst into tears. But Aragorn smiled. <laughs> it will serve, he said. The worst is now over. Stay and be comforted. Then, taking two leaves, he laid them on his hands and breathed on them. And then he crushed them, and straightway a living freshness filled the room, as if the air itself awoke and tingled, sparkling with joy. And then he cast the leaves into the bowls of streaming water that were brought to him. And at once all hearts were lightened, but the fragrance that came to each was like a memory of dewy mornings of unshadowed sun in some land of which the fair world in spring is itself but a fleeting memory. But Aragorn stood up as one refreshed, and his eyes smiled as he held a bowl before Faramir's dreaming face. Well now, who would have believed it? said Eoreth to a woman that stood beside her. The weed is better than I thought. It reminds me of the roses of Imlothmelui when I was a lass, and no king could ask for better. Suddenly Faramir stirred, and he opened his eyes and he looked on Aragorn who bent over him, and a light of knowledge and love was kindled in his eyes, and he spoke softly. 
My lord, you called me. I come. What does the king command? Walk no more in the shadows, but awake, said Aragorn. You are weary. Rest a while and take food, and be ready when I return. I will, lord, said Faramir. For who would lie idle when the king has returned? Farewell, then, for a while, said Aragorn. I must go to others who need me. And then he left the chamber with Gandalf and Imrahil, but Baragond and his son remained behind, unable to contain their joy. As he followed Gandalf and shut the door, Pippin heard Eoreth exclaim, King! Did you hear that? What did I say? The hands of a healer, I said. And soon the word had gone out from the house that the king was indeed come among them, and after war he brought healing, and the news ran throughout the city. But Aragorn came to Eowyn, and he said, Here there is a grievous hurt and a heavy blow. The arm that was broken has been tended with due skill, and it will mend in time, if she has the strength to live. It is the shield arm that is maimed, but the chief evil comes through the sword arm, and that is where now seems no life, although it is unbroken. Alas, for she was pitted against a foe beyond the strength of her mind or body, and those who will take a weapon to such an enemy must be sterner than steel if the very shock shall not destroy them. It was an evil doom that set her in this path, for she is a fair maiden, fairest lady of a house of queens. And yet I know not how I should speak of her. When I first looked on her and perceived her unhappiness, it seemed to me that I saw a white flower standing straight and proud, shapely as a lily, and yet knew that it was hard, as if wrought by elf rites out of steel. Or was it maybe a frost that had turned its sap to ice, and so it stood, bittersweet, still fair to see, but stricken, soon to fall and die. Her malady begins far back before this day, does it not, Elma? I marvel that you should ask me, Lord, he answered, for I hold you blameless in this matter, as in all else. Yet I knew not that Eowyn, my sister, was touched by any frost until she first looked on you. Care and dread she had, and and shared with me in the days of Wormtongue and the king's bewitchment. And she tended the king in growing fear. But that did not bring her to this pass. My friend, said Gandalf, you had horses and deeds of arms and the free fields. But she, born in the body of a maid, had a spirit and courage at least a match of yours. Yet she was doomed to wait upon an old man whom she loved as a father and watching him falling into a mean, dishonored dotage. And her part seemed to her more ignoble than that of the staff he leaned on. Think you that Wormtongue had poison only for Theoden's ears? Doted, what is the house of Eol but a thatched barn where brigands drink in the reek, and their brats roll on the floor amongst their dogs? Have you not heard those words before? Saruman spoke them, the teacher of Wormtongue, Though I do not doubt that Wormtongue at home wrapped their meaning in terms more cunning. My lord, if your sister's love for you and her will still bent to their duty had not restrained her lips, you might have heard even such things as these escape them. But who knows what she spoke to the darkness, alone, and in bitter watches of the night, when all her life seemed shrinking, and all the walls of her bower closing in about her. 
a hut to channel some wild thing in. Then Elmer was silent and looked on his sister as if pondering anew all the days of their past life together. But Aragorn said, I saw also what you saw, Eomer. Few other griefs amid the ill chances of this world have more bitterness and shame for a man's heart than to behold the love of a lady so fair and brave that cannot be returned. Sorrow and pity have followed me ever since I left her, desperate in Dunharrow, and rode to the paths of the dead. And no fear upon that way was so present as the fear of what might befall her. And yet, Elmer, I say to you that she loves you more truly than me. For you she loves and knows, but in me she loves only a shadow and a thought, a hope of glory and great deeds, and lands far from the fields of Rohan. I have maybe the power to heal her body and to recall her from the dark valley, but to what she will awake, hope or forgetfulness or despair, I do not know. And if to despair, then she will die, unless other healing comes which I cannot bring. Alas! for her deeds have set her among the queens of great renown. Then Aragorn stooped and looked in her face, and it was indeed white as a lily, cold as frost, and hard as a graven stone. But he bent and kissed her on the brow, and called her softly, saying, Eowyn, Eomon's daughter, awake, for your enemy has passed away. She did not stir, but now she began to breathe deeply, so that her breast rose and fell beneath the white linen of the sheet. Once more, Aragorn bruised two leaves of Athalas, and cast them into steaming water, and he laved her brow with it, and her right arm lying cold and nerveless on the coverlet. Then, whether Aragorn had indeed some forgotten power of westerness, or whether it was but his words of the Lady Eowyn that wrought on them, as the sweet influence of the herb lore about the chamber it seemed to those who stood by that a keen wind blew through the window, and it so bore no scent, but was an air wholly fresh and clean and young, as if it had not been breathed by any living thing, and came new made from snowy mountains high beneath a dome of stars, or from shores of silver far away, washed by seas of foam. Awake, Eowyn, Lady of Rohan, said Aragorn again. And he took her right hand in his, and felt it warm with life returning. Awake, the shadow is gone and the darkness is washed clean. Then he laid her hand in Aomer's and stepped away. Call her, he said, and he passed silently from the chamber. Eowyn! Eowyn! cried Aomer amidst his tears. But she opened her eyes and said, Aomer, what joy is this? For they said that you were slain. Nay, but was only that was only the dark voices in my dream. How long have I been dreaming? Not long, my sister, said Elmer. Think no more on it. I am strangely weary, she said. I must rest a little. But tell me, what of the Lord of the Mark? Alas, do not tell me that that was a dream, for I know that it was not. He is dead, as he foresaw. He is dead, said Elmer. For he bade me say farewell to Eowyn, dearer than doctor. <laughs> he lies now in great honor in the citadel of Gondor. That is grievous, she said. And yet it is good beyond all that I dare to hope in the dark days, when it seemed that the house of Eowyn was sunk in honor, 
less than any shepherd's cot. And what of the king's esquire? The halfling. Hilma, you shall make him a knight of the Riddermock, for he is valiant. He lies nearby in his house, and I will go to him, said Gandalf. Hilma shall stay here for a while, but do not speak yet of war or woe until you are made whole again. Great gladness it is to see you awake again to health and hope, <laughs> so valiant a lady. To health, said Eowyn. It may be so. At least while there is an empty saddle for some fallen rider that I can fill, and there are deeds to do. But hope? I do not know. Gandalf and Pippin came to Mary's room, and there they found Aragorn standing by the bed. Oh, poor old Mary! cried Pippin, and he ran to the beside. For it seemed to him that his friend looked worse, and a greyness was in his face, as if a weight of years of sorrow lay on him. And suddenly a fear seized Pippin that Mary would die. Do not be afraid, said Aragorn. I came in time, and I have called him back. He is weary now and grieved, and he has taken a hurt like the Lady Eowyn, daring to smite that deadly thing. But these evils can be amended. So strong and gay a spirit in him, his grief he will not forget. But it will not darken his heart will teach him wisdom. Then Aragorn laid his hand on Mary's head, and passing his hand gently through the brown curls, he touched the eyelids and called him by name. And when the fragrance of Athelas stole through the room, like the scent of orchards and of heather in the sunshine full of bees, suddenly Mary awoke, and he said, I'm hungry. What's the time? Past supper time, though said Pippin. Though I dare say I could bring you something if they will let me. They will indeed, said Gandalf, and anything else that this rider of Rohan may deserve, if it can be found in Minas Tirith, where his name is in honour. Good, said Merry. Then I would like supper first, and after that a pipe. And then his face clouded. No, not a pipe. I don't think I'll smoke again. Why not, said Pippin. Well, answered Mary slowly. He is dead. It has brought it all back to me. He said he was sorry he had never had a chance of talking Herblor with me. Almost the last thing he ever said. I shan't ever be able to smoke again without thinking of him. That day, Pippin, when he rode up to Isengard, it was so polite. Smoke then and think of him, said Aragorn. For he was a gentle heart and a great king, and kept his oaths. And he rose out of the shadows to a last fair morning. Though your service to him was brief, it should be a memory glad and honorable to the end of your days. Mary smiled. Well then, he said, if Strider will provide what is needed, I will smoke and think. I had some of Saruman's best in my jacket, but what became of it in the battle, I'm sure I, I don't know. Master Meriadoc, said Aragorn, if you think that I have passed through the mountains in the realm of Gondor with fire and sword to bring herbs to a careless soldier who throws away his gear, you are mistaken. If your pack has not been found, then you must send for the herb masters of this house, and he will tell you that he did not know that the herb you desire had any virtues, but that it is called Westman's Weed by the vulgar, and Galenas by the noble, and other names in other tongues more learned, and after adding a few half-forgotten rhymes that he does not understand, he will regretfully inform you that there is none in the house, and he will leave you to reflect on the history of tongues. And so now must I. 
for I have not slept in such a bed as this since I rode from Dunharrow, nor eaten since the dark before dawn. Mary seized his hand and kissed it. I am rightfully sorry, he said. Go at once. Ever since that night at Bree, we have been a nuisance to you. But it is the way of my people to use light words at such times and say less than they mean. We fear to say too much. It robs us of the right words when a jest is out of place. I know that well. Or I would not deal with you in the same way, said Aragorn. May the Shire live forever unwithered. And kissing Mary, he went out, and Gandalf went with him. Pippin remained behind. Was there anyone like him? He said. Except Gandalf, of course. I think they must be related. My dear ass, your pack is lying by your bed. And you hid it on your back when I met you. He saw it all the time, of course. And anyway, I have some stuff of my own. Come on now, long bottom leaf it is. Fill up while I run and see about some food. And let's be easy for a bit. Dear me. We tukes and brandybucks. We can't live long on the heights. No, said Mary. I can't. Not yet, at any rate. But at least, Pippin, we can now see him and honor them. It is best to love first what you are fitted to love, I suppose. You must start somewhere and have some roots. The soil of the Shire is deep. Still, there are things deeper and higher, and not a gaffer could tend his garden in what he calls peace but for them. Whether he knows about them or not, I'm glad I know about them. A little. But I don't know why I'm talking like this. Where's that life? And get my pipe out of my pack if it isn't broken. Aragorn and Gandalf went now to the Warden of the Houses of Healing, and they counseled him that Faramir and Eowyn should remain here and still be tended with care for many days. The Lady Eowyn, said Aragorn, will wish soon to rise and depart, but she should not be permitted to do so, if you can in any way restrain her until at least ten days be passed. As for Faramir, said Gandalf, he must soon learn that his father is dead, but the full tale of the madness of Denisor should not be told to him until he is quite healed and has duties to do. See that Baragond and the Perian who are present do not speak to him of these things yet. And the other Perian, uh, Meriadoc, who is under my care, what of him? Said the warden. It is likely that he will be fit to arise tomorrow for a short while. Said Aragorn. Let him do so if he wishes. He may walk a little in the care of his friends. <laughs> we are a remarkable race, said the warden, nodding his head. Very tough in the fiber, I deem. At the doors of the houses, many were already gathered to see Aragorn, and they followed after him. And when at last he had supped, Men came and prayed that he would heal their kinsmen or their friends whose lives were in peril through hurt or wound, or who lay under the black shadow. And Aragorn arose and went out, and he sent for the sons of Elrond, and together they labored far into the night, and word went through the city, the king is come again indeed, and they named him Elfstone, because of the green stone that he wore, and so the name which it was foretold at his birth that he should bear was chosen for him by his own people. And when he could labor no more, he cast his cloak about him, and slipped out of the city, and went to his tent just ere dawn, and slept for a little. And in the morning the banner of Dol Amroth, a white ship like a swan upon blue water, floated from the tower. And men looked up and wondered if the coming of the king had been but a dream.
The morning came after the day of battle, and it was fair with light clouds and the wind turning westward. Legolas and Gimli were early abroad, and they begged leave to go up into the city, for they were eager to see Merry and Pippin. It is good to see that they are still alive, said Gimli. They cost us great pains in our march over Rohan, and I would not have such pains all wasted. Together the elf and the dwarf entered Minas Tirith, and folk that saw them pass marveled to see such companions, for Legolas was fair of face, beyond the measure of men, and he sang an elven song in a clear voice as he walked in the morning. But Gimli stalked behind him, stroking his beard and staring about him. There is some good stonework here, he said as he looked at the walls, but also some that is less good, and a straight could be better contrived. When Aragorn comes into his own, I shall offer him the service of stone rites of the mountains, and we will make this a town to be proud of. They need more gardens, said Legolas. The houses are dead, and there is too little here that grows and is glad. If Aragorn comes into his own, the people of the wood shall bring him birds that sing, and trees that do not die. At length they came to the Prince Imrahil, and Legolas looked at him and bowed low, for he saw that here indeed was one who had elven blood in his veins. Hail, Lord, he said. It is long since the people of Nimrodil left the woodlands of Lorien, and yet still one may see that not all sailed from Mamlos Haven west over the water. So it is said in the lore of my land, said the prince, yet never has one of the fair folk been seen here for years beyond count, and I marvel to see one here now in the midst of sorrow and war. What do you seek? I am one of the nine companions who set out with Mithrandir from Imladris, said Legolas, and with this dwarf, my friend, I came with the Lord Aragorn. But now we wish to see our friends, Mariadoc and Peregrine, who are in your keeping, we are told. You will find them in the Houses of Healing, and I will lead you thither, said Imrahil. It will be enough if you send one to guide us, Lord, said Legolas. For Aragorn sends his message to you. He does not wish to enter the city again at this time. Yet there is need for the captains to hold council at once, and he prays that you and Eomer of Rohan will come down to his tents as soon as may be. Mithrandir is already there. We will come, said Imrahil, and they parted with courteous words. That is a fair lord and a great captain of men, said Legolas. If Gondor has such men still in these days of fading, great must have been its glory in the days of its rising. And doubtless the good stonework is the older who was wrought in the first building said Gimli. It is ever so with the things that men begin. There is a frost in spring, or a blight in summer, and they fail on their promise. Yet seldom do they fail of their seed, said Legolas, and that will lie in the dust and rot to spring up again in times and places unlooked for. The deeds of men will outlast us, Gimli. And yet come to note in the end what might have been, I guess, said the dwarf. To that the elves know not the answer, said Legolas. With that, the servant of the prince came and led them to the houses of healing. And there they found their friends in the garden, and their meeting was a merry one. For a while they walked and talked, rejoicing for a brief space in peace and rest under the morning high up in the windy circles of the city. Then, when Mary became weary, they went and sat upon the wall with the greensward of the houses of healing behind them. And away southward before them was the Anduin glittering in the sun, as it flowed away out of the sight even of Legolas into the wide flats and green haze of Lebanon and South Athelion. And now Legolas fell silent, while the others talked, and he looked out against the sun, and as he gazed he saw white seabirds beating up the river. 
Look, he cried. Gulls! They are flying far inland. A wonder they are to me and a trouble to my heart. Never in all my life had I met them until we came to Pelargir. And there I heard them crying in the air as we rode to the battle of the ships. Then I stood still, forgetting war in Middle-earth. For their wailing voices spoke to me in the sea. The sea. Alas, I have not yet beheld it. But deep in the hearts of all my kindred lies the sea longing, which it is perilous to stir. Alas, for the gulls! No peace shall I have again under breach or under realm. Say not so, said Gimli. There are countless things still to see in Middle-earth, and great works to do. But if all the fair folk take to the havens, it will be a duller world for those who are doomed to stay. Dull and dreary indeed, mm -hmm. said Merry. You must not go to the havens, Legolas. There will always be some folk, big or little, and even a few wise dwarves like Gimli who will need you. Exactly. At least I hope so. Though I feel somehow that the worst in this war is still to come. How I wish it was all over. <laughs> and well over. Don't be so gloomy, cried Pippin. The sun is shining and here we are together for a day or two at least. I want to hear more about you all. Come, Gimli. You and Legolas have mentioned your strange journey with Strider about a dozen times already this morning. But you haven't told me anything about it. The sun may shine here, said Gimli. But there are memories of that road. But I do not wish to recall out of the darkness. Had I known what was before me, I think that not any friendship would I have taken to the paths of the dead. The paths of the dead? said Pippin. I heard Aragorn say that, and I wondered what he would mean. Won't you tell us some more? Not willingly, said Gimli. For upon that road I was put to shame. Gimli, glowing son, who had deemed himself more tough than men and hardier under earth than any elf. But neither did I prove, and I was held to the road only by the will of Aragorn. And by the love of him also, said Legolas. For all those who come to know him come to love him after his own fashion. Even the cold maiden of the Rohirrim. It was at early morn of the day ere you came here, Mary, and we left Dunharrow, and such a fear was on all the folk that none would look on our going, save the Lady Eowyn who lies now hurt in the house below. There was grief at the parting, and I was grieved to behold it. Alas, I had heart only for myself, said Gimli. Nay, I will not speak of that journey. He fell silent. But Pippin and Merry were so eager for news that at last Legolas said, I will tell you enough for your peace, for I felt not the horror, and I feared not the shadows of men. Powerless and frail as I deemed them. Swiftly then he told of the haunted road under the mountain, and the dark trist at Erech, and the great ride thence, ninety leagues and three, to Pelargir on Anduin. Four days and nights and on into a fifth we rode from the Blackstone, he said. And lo, in the darkness of Mordor my hope rose, for in that gloom the shadow host seemed to grow stronger and more terrible to look upon. Some I saw riding, some striding, yet all moving with the same great speed. Silent they were, but there was a gleam in their eyes. In the uplands of Lamedon, they overtook our horses and swept round us, and would have passed by us if Aragorn had not forbidden them. At his command, they fell back. Even the shades of men are obedient to his will, I thought. They may serve his need yet. One day of light we rode, and then came the day without dawn. And still we rode on, and 
Kirill and Ringlu we crossed, and on the third day we came to Lynn here above the mouth of Gilrain. And there the men of Lamedon contested the fords with fell folk of Ombar and Harad, who had sailed up the river. But defenders and foes alike gave up the battle and fled when we came, crying out that the King of the Dead was upon them. Only Angbor, Lord of Lamedon, had the heart to abide us, and Aragorn bade him gather his folk and come behind, if they dared, when the Grey Hosts had passed. At Pelagir, the heir of Isildur will have need of you, he said. Thus we crossed over Gilrain, driving the allies of Mordor in route before us, and then we rested a while. But soon Aragorn arose, saying, Lo! Already Minas Tirith is assailed. I fear that it will fall, ere we come to its aid. So we mounted again before the night, and passed and went on with all speed that our horses could endure over the plains of Lebanon. Legolas paused and sighed, and turning his eyes southward softly, he sang, Silver flow the streams of Kelos to Erui, in the green fields of Lebanon. Tall grows the grass there, in the wind from the sea. The white lilies sway, and the golden bells are shaken of Malos and Alfirin, in the green fields of Lebanon in the wind from the sea. Green are those fields in the songs of my people, but they were dark then, gray wastes in the blackness before us, and over the wide land trampling unheeded the grass and the flowers, we hunted our foes through a day and a night until we came at the bitter end to the great river, at last. Then I thought in my heart that we drew near the sea, for wide was the water in the darkness, and sea birds innumerable cried on its shores. Alas for the wailing of the gulls, did not the lady tell me to beware of them? And now I cannot forget them. For my part I heeded them not, said Gimli, for we came then at last upon the battle in earnest. There at Pelagir lay the main fleet of Umbar, fifty great ships and smaller vessels beyond count. Many of those that were pursued and reached the havens before us and brought their fear with them, and some of the ships had put off, seeking to escape down the river or to reach the far shore. And many of the smaller craft were ablaze, but the Haradrim, being now driven to the brink, turned that bay. And they were fierce in despair, and they laughed when they looked at us, for they were a great army still. But Aragorn halted and cried with a great voice, Now come! By the Black Stone I call you! And suddenly the shadow host that had hung back at the last came up like a grey tide, sweeping all away before it. Faint cries I heard, and dim hordes blowing, and a murmur of the countless far voices. It was like the echo of some forgotten battle in the dark years long ago. Pale swords were drawn, but I know not whether their blades could still fight, for the dead needed no longer any weapon but fear. None would withstand them. To every ship they came that was drawn up, and then they passed over the waters to those that were anchored, and all the mariners were filled with a madness of terror and leapt overboard save the slaves chained to the oars. Reckless we rode among our fleeting foes, driving them like leaves until we came to the shore. And then to each of the great ships that remained, Aragorn sent one of the Dunedain, and they confronted the captives that were abroad and bade them put aside fear and be free. Ere the dark day ended, none of the enemy were left to resist us. All were drowned, or were flying south in the hope to find their own lands upon foot. Strange and wonderful I thought it, that the designs of Mordor should be overthrown by such wraiths of fear and darkness. With its own weapons was it worsted. Strange indeed, said Legolas. In that hour I looked on Aragorn, and thought how great and terrible a lord he might have become in the strength of his will, had he taken the ring to himself. Not for naught does Mordor fear him, 
but nobler is his spirit than the understanding of Sauron. For is he not of the child of Luthien? Never shall that line fail, though the years may lengthen beyond count. Beyond the eyes of the dwarves are such fortunes. But mighty indeed was Aragorn that day. Lo, all the black fleet was in his hands, and he chose the greatest ship to be his own, and he went up into it. Then he let sound the great concourse of trumpets taken from the enemy, and the shadow host withdrew to the shore. There they stood, silent, hardly to be seen, save for a red gleam in their eyes that caught the glare of the ships that were burning. And Aragorn spoke in a loud voice to the dead men, crying, Hear now the words of the heir of Isildur. Your oath is fulfilled. Go back, and trouble not the valleys ever again. Depart, and be at rest. And thereupon the king of the dead stood out before the host, and broke his spear and cast it down. Then he bowed low, and turned away, and swiftly the whole grey host threw off, and vanished like a mist that is driven back by a sudden wind. And it seemed to me that I awoke from a dream. That night we rested while others laboured, for there were many captives set free, and many slaves released who had been folk of Gondor taken in raids. And soon also there was a great gathering of men out of Lebanon and the Ethir, and Angbor of Lamedon came up with all the horsemen that he could muster. Now that the fear of the dead was removed, they came to aid us and to look on the air of Isildur, for the rumour of that name had run like fire in the dark. And that is near the end of our tale. For during that evening and night many ships were made ready and manned, and in the morning the fleet set forth. Long past it now seems, yet it was but the morn of the day ere yesterday, the sixth since we rode from Dunharrow, but still Aragorn was driven by fear that time was too short. It is forty leagues and two from Pelargit to the landings at the Harland, he said. Yet to the Harland we must come tomorrow, or fail utterly. The oars were now wielded by free men, and manfully they laboured. Yet slowly we passed up the great river, and we strove against its stream, and though that is not swift down in the south, we had no help of wind. Heavy would my heart have been for all the victory at the havens, if Legolas had not laughed suddenly. <laughs> up with your beard, Durin's son, he said, for thus it is spoken. Oft hope is born when all is forlorn. But what hope we saw from afar we could not tell. When night came, it did but deepen the darkness, and our hearts were hot. For away in the north we saw a red glow under the cloud, and Aragorn said, Minas Tirith is burning. But at midnight hope was indeed born anew. Sea crafty men of the Ethir gazing southward spoke of a change coming with the fresh wind from the sea. Long ere the day the masted ships hoisted sail, and our speed grew until dawn whitened the foam at our prows. And so it was, as you know, that we came in the third hour of the morning with the fair wind and the sun unveiled, and we unfurled a great standard in battle, and a great hour, whatever may come out. Follow what may, great deeds are not lessened in worth, said Legolas. Great deed was the riding of the paths of the dead, and great it shall remain though none be left in Gondor to sing of it in the days that are to come. And that may well befall, said Gimli, for the faces of Aragorn and Gandalf are grave. Much I wonder what counsels they are talking in the tents there below. For my part, like Merry, I wish that with our victory the war was now over. Yet whatever is still to do, I hope to have a part in it. 
for the honor of the folk of the Lonely Mountain. And I for the folk of the Great Wood, said Legolas, and for the love of the Lord of the White Tree. Then the companions fell silent, but a while they sat there in the high place, each busy with their own thoughts, while their captains debated. When the Prince Imrahil had parted from Legolas and Gimli, at once he sent for Eoma, and went down with him from the city, and they came to the tents of Aragorn that was set up on the field, not far from the place where King Theoden had fallen. And there they took counsel together, with Gandalf and Aragorn and the sons of Elrond. My lords, said Gandalf, listen to the words of the steward of Gondor before he died. You may triumph on the fields of the Pelennor for a day, but against the power that has now arisen there is no victory. I do not bid you despair, as he did, but to ponder the truth in these words. The stones of seeing do not lie, and not even the Lord of Baradur can make them do so. He can, maybe, by his will choose what things shall be seen by weaker minds, or cause them to mistake the meaning of what they see. Nonetheless, it cannot be doubted that when Denethor saw great forces arrayed against him in Mordor, and more still being gathered, he saw that which truly is. Hardly has our strength sufficed to beat off the first great assault. The next will be greater. This war, then, is without final hope, as Denethor perceived. Victory cannot be achieved by arms. Whether you sit here to endure siege after siege, or march out to be overwhelmed beyond the river, you have only a choice of evils. And prudence would counsel you to strengthen such strong places as you have, and there await the onset. For so shall the time before your end be made a little longer. Then you would have us retreat to Minas Tirith or Dol Amroth or to Dunharrow, and there sit like children on sandcastles when the tide is flowing? Said Imrahil. That would be no new counsel, said Gandalf. Have you not done this and a little more in all the days of Denethor? But no, I said this would be prudent. I do not counsel prudence. I said victory could not be achieved by arms. I still hope for victory, but not by arms. For into the midst of all these policies comes the ring of power, the foundation of Baradur, and the hope of Sauron. Concerning this thing, my lords, you now all know enough for the understanding of our plight and of Sauron's. If he regains it, your valor is vain and his victory will be swift and complete. So complete that none can foresee the end of it while this world lasts. If it is destroyed, then he will fall, and his fall will be so low that none can foresee his arising ever again. For he will lose the best part of the strength that was native to him in his beginning. And all that was made or begun with that power will crumble and he will be maimed forever, becoming a mere spirit of malice that gnaws itself in the shadows, but cannot again grow or take shape. And so a great evil of this world will be removed. Other evils there are and may come, for Sauron is himself but a servant or emissary, yet it is not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us, for the succor of those years wherein we are sent, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know, so that those who live after 
may have clean earth to till. What weather they shall have is not ours to rule. Now, Sauron knows all this, and he knows that this precious thing which he lost has been found again. But he does not yet know where it is, or so we hope, and therefore he is now in great doubt. For if we have found this thing, there are some among us with strength enough to wield it. That too he knows. For do I not guess rightly, Aragorn, that you have shown yourself to him in the Stone of Orthanc? I did so ere I rode from the Hornburg, answered Aragorn. I deemed that a time was ripe, and that the stone had come to me for just such a purpose. It was then ten days since the Ringbearer went east from Rauros, and the Eye of Sauron, I thought, should be drawn out from his own land. Too seldom has he been challenged since he returned to his tower. Though if I had foreseen how swift would be his onset in answer, maybe I should not have dared to show myself. Bare time was given me to come to your aid. But how is this? Asked Eomath. All is vain, you say, if he has the ring. Why would he think it not vain to assail us if we have it? He is not yet sure, said Gandalf. And he has not built up his power by waiting until his enemies are secure. Also, we could not learn how to wield the full power all in a day. Indeed, it can be used only by one master alone, not by many. And he will look for a time of strife, ere one of the great among us makes himself master and puts down the others. In that time, the ring might aid him if he were sudden. He is watching. He sees much and hears much. His Nazgul are still abroad. They passed over this field ere the sunrise, though the few of the weary and sleeping were aware of them. He studies the signs. The sword that robbed him of his treasure remade. The winds of fortune turning in our favor. And the defeat unlooked for of his first assault, the fall of his great captain. His doubt will be growing, even as we speak here. His eye is now straining towards us, blind almost to all else that is moving. So we must keep it. Therein lies all our hope. This, then, is my counsel. We have not the ring. In wisdom or great folly, it has been sent away to be destroyed, lest it destroy us. Without it, we cannot by force defeat his force. But we must at all costs keep his eye from his true peril. We cannot achieve victory by arms. But by arms, we can give the ring-bearer his only chance. Frail though it be. As Aragorn has begun, so we must go on. We must push Sauron to his last throw. We must call out his hidden strength so that he shall empty his land. We must march out to meet him at once. We must make ourselves the bait, though his jaws should close on us. He will take that bait in hope and in greed, for he will think that in such rashness he sees the pride of the new ring lord, and he will say, so, he pushes out his neck too soon and too far. Let him come on, and behold, I will have him a trap from which he cannot escape. There I will crush him, and what he has taken in his insolence shall be mine again forever. We must walk open-eyed into that trap with courage 
but small hope for ourselves. For, my lords, it may well prove that we ourselves shall perish utterly in a black battle far from the living lands, so that even if Baradur be thrown down, we shall not live to see a new age. But this, I deem, is our duty, and better so than to perish nonetheless, as we surely shall if we sit here and know as we die that no new age shall be. They were silent for a while. At length, Aragorn spoke. As I have begun, so I will go on. We come now to the very brink, where hope and despair are akin. To waver is to fall. Let none now reject the counsels of Gandalf, whose long labors against Sauron come at last to their test. But for him, all would long ago have been lost. Nonetheless, I do not yet claim to command any man. Let others choose as they will. Then said Elrohir, from the north we came with this purpose. And from Elrond our father we brought this very counsel. We will not turn back. As for myself, said Elmer, I have little knowledge of these deep matters, but I need it not. This I know, and it is enough, that as my friend, Aragorn, succoured me and my people, so I will aid him when he calls. I will go. As for me, said Imrahil, the Lord Aragorn I hold to be my liege lord, whether he claim it or no. His wish is to me a command. I will go also. Yet for a while I stand in the place of the steward of Gondor, and it is mine to think the first of its people. To prudence some heed must still be given, for we must prepare against all chances, good as well as evil. Now it may be that we shall triumph, and while there is any hope of this, Gondor must be protected. I would not have us return with victory to a city in ruins and a land ravaged behind us. And yet we learn from the Rohirrim that there is an army still unfought upon our northern flank. That is true, said Gandalf. I do not counsel you to leave the city all unmanned. Indeed, the force that we lead east need not be great enough for any assault in earnest upon Mordor, so long as it be great enough to challenge battle. And it must move soon. Therefore I ask the captains, what force could we muster and lead out in two days' time at the latest? And they must be hardy men that go willingly, knowing their peril. All are weary, and very many have wounds, light or grievous, said Elma, and we have suffered much loss of our horses, and that is ill to bear. If we must ride soon, then I cannot hope to lead even two thousands, and yet leave as many for the defense of the city. We have not only to reckon with those who fought on this field, said Aragorn. New strength is on the way from the southern fiefs, now that the coasts have been rid. Four thousands I sent marching from Pelagio through Losarnach two days ago, and Angbor the Fearless rides before them. If we set out in two days more, they will draw nigh ere we depart. Moreover, many were bidden to follow me up the river in any craft they could gather, and with this wind they will soon be at hand. Indeed, several ships have already come to the Harland. I judged that we could lead out seven thousands of horse and foot and yet leave the city in better defense than it was when the assault began. The gate is destroyed, said Imrahil, and where now is the skill to rebuild it and set it up anew? In Erebor, in the kingdom of Dane, there is such skill, said Aragorn. 
And if all our hopes do not perish, then in time I will send Gimli, Gloin's son, to ask for rights of the mountain. But men are better than gates, and no gate will endure against our enemy if men desert it. This then was the end of the debate of the lords, that they should set forth on the second morning from that day with seven thousands, if these might be found, and the great part of this force should be on foot. Because of the evil lands to which they would go, Aragorn should find some two thousands of those that he had gathered to him in the south, but Imrahil should find three and a half thousands, and Eoma five thousands of the Rohirrim, who were unhorsed but themselves war-worthy, and he himself should lead five hundreds of his best riders on horse and another company of five hundred horses there should be, among which should ride the sons of Elrond with the Dunedain and the knights of Dolamroth, all told six thousand foot and a thousand horse. But the main strength of the Rohirrim that remained horse and able to fight, some three thousand under the command of Elfhelm, should waylay the west road against the enemy that was in Anurian. And at once, Swift riders were sent out to gather what news they could northwards, and eastwards from Osgiliath and the road to Minas Morgul. And when they had reckoned up all their strength and taken thought of their journeys they should make and the roads they should choose, Imrahil suddenly laughed aloud. <laughs> Surely, he cried, this is the greatest jest in all the history of Gondor. That we should ride with seven thousand, scarce as many as Vanguard of, of its army in the days of its power, to assault the mountains and the impenetrable gate of the Black Land. So might a child threaten a mail-clad knight with the bows and green willow. If the Dark Lord knows as much as you say, Mithrandir, will he not rather smile than fear, and with his little finger crush us like a fly that tries to sting him? No, he will try to trap the fly and take the sting, said Gandalf. And there are names among us that are worth more than a thousand mail-clad knights apiece. No, he will not smile. Neither shall we, said Aragorn. If this be jest, then it is too bitter for laughter. Nay, it is the last move in a great jeopardy. And for one side or the other, it will bring the end of the game. Then he drew Anduril and held it up glittering in the sun. You shall not be sheathed again until the last battle is fought, he said. Two days later, the army of the West was all assembled on the Pelennor. The host of orcs and Easterlings had turned back out of Anurian, but harried and scattered by the Rohirrim they had broken and fled with little fighting towards Carandros, and with that threat destroyed, and a new strength arriving out of the south of the city was as well manned as might be. Scouts reported that no enemies remained upon the roads east as far as the crossroads of the Fallen King. All now was ready for the last throne. Legolas and Gimli were to ride again together in the company of Aragorn and Gandalf, who went in the van with the Dunedain and the sons of Elrond. But Merry, to his shame, was not to go with them. You are not fit for such a journey, said Aragorn, but do not be ashamed. If you do no more in this war, you have already earned great honor. Peregrine shall go and represent the Shirefolk, 
and do not grudge him his chance of peril. Though he has done as well as his fortune allowed him, he has yet to match your deed. But in truth, all now are in like danger, though it may be our part to find bitter end before the gate of Mordor. If we do so, then you will come also to a last stand, either here or wherever the black tide overtakes you. Farewell. And so despondently Merry now stood and watched the mustering of the army. Birgil was with him, and he also was downcast, for his father was to march leading the company of the men of the city. He could not rejoin the guard until his case was judged. In that same company, Pippin was also to go as a soldier of Gondor. Merry could see him not far off, a small but upright figure among the tall men of Minas Tirith. At last the trumpets rang, and the army began to move. Troop by troop, and company by company, they wheeled and went off eastward. And long after they had passed away out of sight down the great road to the causeway, Mary stood there. The last glint of the morning sun on spear and helm twinkled and was lost. And still he remained with bowed head and heavy heart, feeling friendless and alone. Everyone that he cared for had gone away into the gloom that hung over the distant eastern sky, and little hope at all was left in his heart that he would ever see any of them again. As if recalled by his mood of despair, the pain in his arm returned and he felt weak and old, and the sunlight seemed thin. He was roused by the torch of Burgle's hand. Come, Master Come, Master Perian, said the lad. You are still in pain, I, I see. I, I will help you back to the healers. But do not fear, they will come back. The men of Minas Tirith will never be overcome. And now they have the Lord Elvestone and, and, and Beragon of the Guard, too. Ere noon, the army came to Osgiliath. There, all the workers and craftsmen that could be spared were busy. Some were strengthening the ferries and boat bridges that the enemy had made and in part destroyed when they fled. Some gathered stores and booty, and others on the eastern side across the river were throwing up hasty works of defense. The vanguard passed on through the ruins of old Gondor, and over the wide river, and on up the long straight road that in the high days had been made to run from the fair Tower of the Sun to the tall Tower of the Moon, which now was Minas Morgul in its accursed vale. Five miles beyond Osgiliath they halted, ending their first day's march. But the horsemen pressed on, and ere evening they came to the crossroads and the great ring of trees, and all was silent. No sign of an enemy had they seen, no cry or call had been heard, no shaft had sped from rock or thicket by the way. Yet ever as they went forward, they felt the watchfulness of the land increase. Tree and stone, blade and leaf, were listening. The darkness had been dispelled, and far away westwards, sunset on the Vale of Anduin and the white peaks of the mountains blushed in the blue air. But a shadow and gloom brooded upon the Ethelduath. Then Aragorn set trumpeteers at each of the four roads that ran into the ring of trees, and they blew a great fanfare, and the heralds cried aloud, The lords of Gondor have returned! And all this land that is theirs, they take back! 
The hideous orc head that was set upon the carven figure was cast down and broken in pieces, and the old king's head was raised and set in its place once more, still crowned with white and golden flowers. And men labored to wash and pare away the foul scrolls that orcs had put upon the stone. Now in their debate, some had counseled that Minas Morgul should first be assailed, and if they might take it, it should be utterly destroyed. And maybe, said Imrahil, the road that leads thence to pass above will prove an easy way to assault upon the Dark Lord and his northern gate. But against this Gandalf had spoken urgently, because of the evil that dwelt in the valley, where the minds of living men would turn to madness and horror, and because also of the news that Faramir had brought. For if the ring-bearer had indeed attempted that way, then above all they should not draw the eye of Mordor thither. So the next day when the main host came up, they set a strong guard upon the crossroads to make some defense, if Mordor should send a force over the Morgul Pass, or should bring more men up from the south. For that guard they chose mostly archers who knew the ways of Ithilien, and would lie hid in the woods and slopes about the meeting of the ways. But Gandalf and Aragorn rode with the vanguard to the entrance of Morgul Vale and looked on the evil city. It was dark and lifeless. For the orcs and lesser creatures of Mordor that had dwelt there had been destroyed in battle, and the Nazgul were abroad. Yet the air of the valley was heavy with fear and enmity. Then they broke the evil bridge and set red flames in the noisome fields and departed. The day after, being the third day since they set out from Minas Tirith, the army began its northward march along the road. It was some hundred miles by the way of the crossroads to the Moranon, and what might befall them before they came so far, none knew. They went openly but hopefully, with mounted scouts before them on the road, and others on foot upon either side, especially on the eastward flank. For there lay dark thickets in a tumbled land of rocky gills and crags, behind which the long grim slopes of the Efelduath clambered up. The weather of the world remained fair, and the wind held in the west, but nothing could waft away the glooms and the sad mists that clung about the mountains of shadow, and behind them at whiles great smokes would arise and hover in the upper winds. Ever and anon, Gandalf let blow the trumpets, and the heralds would cry, The lords of Gondor are come! Let all leave this land, or yield them up! But Imrahil said, Say not the lords of Gondor, say the king Elessar, for that is true, even though he has not yet sat upon the throne, and it will give the enemy more thought if the heralds use that name. And thereafter, thrice a day, the heralds proclaimed the coming of the king Elessar. But none answered the challenge. Nonetheless, though they marched in seeming peace, the hearts of all the army from the highest to the lowest were downcast, and with every mile that they went north, foreboding of evil grew heavier on them. It was near the end of the second day of their march from the crossroads that they first met any offer of battle, for a strong force of orcs and easterlings attempted to take their leading companies in an ambush, and that was in the very place where Faramir had waylaid the men of Harad, and the road went in a deep cutting through an outthrust of the eastward hills. But the captains of the west were well warned by their scouts, 
skilled men from Hennethanun led by Mablon. And so the ambush was itself trapped, for horsemen went wide about westward and came up on the flank of the enemy from behind, and they were destroyed or driven east into the hills. But the victory did little to enhearten the captains. It is but a feint, said Aragorn, and its chief purpose, I deem, was rather to draw us on by a false guess of our enemy's weakness than to do us much hurt yet. And from that evening onward, the Nazgul came and followed every move of the army. They still flew high and out of sight of all save Legolas, and yet their presence could be felt as a deepening of shadow and a dimming of the sun. And though the ringwraiths did not yet stoop low upon their foes and were silent, uttering no cry, the dread of them could not be shaken off. So time and the hopeless journey wore away. Upon the fourth day from the crossroads and the sixth from Minas Tirith they came at last to the end of the living lands, and began to pass into the desolation that lay before the gates of the pass of Kirith Gorgor, and they could descry the marshes and the desert that stretched north and west to the Emin Muil. So desolate were those places and so deep the horror that lay on them that some of the host were unmanned and they could neither walk nor ride further north. Aragorn looked at them, and there was pity in his eyes rather than wrath, for these were young men of Rohan, from Westfold far away, or husbandmen from Losarnach, and to them Mordor had been from childhood a name of evil, and yet unreal, a legend that had no part in their simple life. And now they walked like men in a hideous dream made true, and they understood not this war, nor why fate should lead them to such a pass. Go, said Aragorn. But keep what honor you may, and do not run. And there is a task which you may attempt, and so be not wholly ashamed. Take your way southwest till you come to Kerandros, and if that is still held by enemies, as I think, then retake it, if you can, and hold it to the last in defense of Gondor and Rohan. Then some, being ashamed by his mercy, overcame their fear and went on. And the others took new hope hearing a manful deed within their measure that they could turn to, and they departed. And so, since many men had already been left at the crossroads, it was with less than six thousands that the captains of the West came at last to challenge the Black Gate and the might of Mordor. They advanced now slowly, expecting at every hour some answer to their challenge, and they drew together since it was but a waste of men to send out scouts or small parties from the main host. At nightfall of the fifth day of the march from Morgul Vale, they made their last camp, and set fires about it of such dead wood and heath as they could find. They passed the hours of night in wakefulness, and they were aware of many things half-seen, that walked and prowled all about them. And they heard the howling of wolves, the wind had died, and all the air seemed still. They could see little, for though it was cloudless and the waxing moon was four nights old, there were smokes and fumes that rose out of the earth, and the white crescent was shrouded in the mists of Mordor. It grew cold. As morning came, the wind began to stir again, but now it came from the north, and soon it freshened to a rising breeze. All the night walkers were gone, 
and the land seemed empty. North, amid their noisome pits, lay the first of the great heaps of and hills of slag and broken rock and blasted earth. The vomit of the maggot folk of Mordor. But south, and now near, loomed the great rampart of Kirith Gorgor, and the black gate amidmost, and the two towers of the teeth, tall and dark upon either side. For in their last march the captains had turned away from the old road as it bent east, and avoided the peril of the lurking hills, and so now they were approaching the Moranon, from the northwest, even as Frodo had done. The two vast iron doors of the black gate under its frowning arch were fast closed. Upon the battlement, nothing could be seen. All was silent but watchful. They were come to the last end of their folly, and stood forlorn and chill in the grey light of early day before towers and walls which their army could not assault with hope. Not even if it had brought thither engines of great power, and the enemy had no more force than would suffice for the manning of the gate and wall alone. Yet they knew that all the hills and rocks about the Moranon were filled with hidden foes, and the shadowy defile beyond was bored and tunneled by teeming broods of evil things. And as they stood, they saw the Nazgul gathered together, hovering above the towers of the teeth like vultures. And they knew that they were watched. But still the enemy made no sign. No choice was left but to play their part to its end. Therefore Aragorn now set the host in such array as could be best contrived, and they were drawn up on two great hills of blasted stone and earth that orcs had piled in years of labour. Before them, towards Mordor, lay like a moat a great mire of reeking mud and foul-smelling pools. When all was ordered, the captains rode forth towards the Black Gate with a great guard of horsemen, and the banner and heralds and trumpeteers. There was Gandalf as chief herald, and Aragorn with the sons of Elrond, and Eomer of Rohan, and Imrahil, and Legolas and Gimli and Peregrin were bidden to go also, so that all enemies of Mordor should have a witness. They came within cry of the Moranon, and unfurled their banner, and blew upon their trumpets, and the heralds stood out and sent their voices up over the battlefield of Mordor. Come forth! They cried. And the lords of the Black Land come forth! Justice shall be done upon him, for wrongfully has he made war upon Gondor and wrested his lands. Therefore King of Gondor demands that he should atone for his evils and depart then forever. Come forth! There was a long silence. And from a wall and gate no cry or sound was heard in answer. But Sauron had already laid his plans, and he had a mind first to play these mice cruelly before he struck to kill. So it was, even as the captains were about to turn away, the silence was broken suddenly. 
There came a long rolling of great drums like thunder in the mountains, and then a braying of horns that shook the very stones and stunned men's ears. And thereupon the middle door of the black gate was thrown open with a great clang. And out of it there came an embassy from the dark tower. At its head there rode a tall, evil shape, mounted upon a black horse, if horse it was, for it was huge and hideous. And its face was a frightful mask, more like a skull than a living head, and in the sockets of its eyes and its nostrils there burned a flame. The rider was robed all in black, and black was his lofty helm. Yet this was no ringwraith, but a living man. The lieutenant of the Tower of Baradur he was, and his name is remembered in no tale, for he himself had forgotten it. And he said, I am the mouth of Sauron. But it is told that he was a renegade, who came of the race of those that are named the Black Numenorians, for they established their dwellings in Middle-earth during the years of Sauron's domination, and they worshipped him, being enamoured of evil knowledge. And he entered the service of the Dark Tower when it first rose again, and because of his cunning, he grew ever higher in the Lord's favor. And he learned great sorcery, and knew much of the mind of Sauron, and he was more cruel than any orc. He it was that now rode out, and with him came only a small company of black harnessed soldiery, and a single banner, black, but bearing on it in red, the evil now halting a few paces before the captains of the west, he looked them up and down, and laughed. <laughs> Is there anyone in this route with authority to treat with me? He asked. Or indeed with wit to understand me? Not thou, at least. <laughs> he mocked, turning to Aragorn with scorn. It needs more to make a king than a piece of elvish glass, or a rabble such as this. Why, any brigand of the hills can show as good a following. Aragorn said naught in answer, but he took the other's eye and held it, and for a moment they strove thus. But soon, though Aragorn did not stir or move hand to weapon, the other quailed and gave back as if menaced with the blow. I, I am Herald and Ambassador, and may not be assailed, he cried. Where such laws hold, said Gandalf, it is also the custom of ambassadors to use less insolence. But no one has threatened you. You have not to fear from us until your errand is done. But unless your master has come to new wisdom, then with all his servants you will be in great peril. So, said the messenger, then thou art the spokesman, old Greybeard. Have we not heard of thee at whiles and of thy wanderings, ever hatching plots and mischief at, safety, at a safe distance? But this time thou hast stuck out thy nose too far, Master Gandalf, and thou shalt see what comes to him who sets his foolish webs before the feet of Sauron the Great. I have tokens that I was bidden to show to thee. To thee in special, if thou shouldst dare to come. He signed to one of his guards, and he came forward, bearing a bundle swathed in black cloths. 
the messenger put these aside, and there, to the wonder and dismay of all the captains, he held up first the short sword that Sam had carried, and next a grey cloak with an elven brooch, and last, the coat of mithril mail that Frodo had worn wrapped in his tattered garments. A blackness came before their eyes, and it seemed to them in the moment of silence that the world stood still. But their hearts were dead, and their last hope gone. Pippin, who stood behind Prince Rahil, sprang forward with a cry of grief. Silence! said Gandalf sternly, thrusting him back. But the messenger laughed aloud. So you have another of these imps with you, he cried. What use you find them, I cannot guess, but to send them as spies into Mordor is beyond even your accustomed folly. Still, I thank him. It is plain that this brat at least has seen these tokens before, and it would be vain for you to deny them now. I do not wish to deny them, said Gandalf. Indeed, I know them all and all their history, despite your scorn, foul mouth of Sauron. You cannot say as much. But why do you bring them here? Dwarf coat, elf cloak, blade from the downfallen west and spy from the little ratland of the Shire. Nay, do not start. We know it well. Here are the marks of a conspiracy. Now, maybe he that bore these things was a creature that you would not grieve to lose. And maybe otherwise. Undear to you, perhaps. If so, take swift counsel with what little wit is left to you. For Sauron does not love spies, and what his fate shall be depends now on your choice. No one answered him, but he saw their faces grey with fear and the horror in their eyes, and he laughed again, for it seemed to him that his sport went well. <laughs> good, good. He was dear to you, I see. Or else his errand was one that you did not wish to fail. It has, and now he shall endure the slow torment of years, as long and slow as our arts in the great tower can contrive, and never be released, unless maybe when he is chained and broken, so that he may come to you, and you shall see what you have done. This shall surely be, unless you accept my lord's terms. Name the terms said Gandalf steadily. But those nearby saw the anguish in his face, and now he seemed an old and wizened man, crushed, defeated at last. They did not doubt that he would accept. These are the terms, said the messenger, and smiled as he eyed them one by one. The rebel of Gondor and its eluded allies shall withdraw at once beyond the Anduin, first taking oaths never again to assail Sauron the Great in arms, open or secret. All lands east of Anduin shall be Sauron's forever, solely. West of the Anduin, 
As far as the Misty Mountains and the Gap of Rohan shall be tributary to Mordor, and men there shall bear no weapons, but shall have leave to govern their own affairs. But they shall help to rebuild Isengard, which they have wantonly destroyed. And that shall be Sauron's, and there his lieutenant shall dwell. Not Saruman, but one more worthy of trust. Looking in the messenger's eyes, they read his thought. He was to be that lieutenant, and gather all that remained of the West under his sway. He would be their tyrant, and they his slaves. But Gandalf said, This is much to demand for the delivery of one servant, that your master should receive in exchange what he must else fight many a war to gain. Has the field of Gondor destroyed his hope in war so that he falls to haggling? And if indeed we rated this prisoner so high, what surety have we that Sauron, the base master of treachery, will keep his part? Where is the prisoner? Let him be brought forth and yielded to us, and then we will consider these demands. It seemed then to Gandalf, intent, watching him as a man engaged in fencing with a deadly foe, that for the taking of breath the messenger was at a loss. Yet swiftly he laughed. <laughs> Do not brandy words in your insolence with the mouth of Sauron. Surety you crave. Sauron gives none. If you sue for his clemency, you must first do his bidding. These are his terms. Take them or leave them. These we will take, said Gandalf suddenly. He cast aside his cloak and a white light shone forth like a sword in that black place. Before his upraised hand the foul messenger recoiled, and Gandalf coming seized and took from him the tokens, coat, cloak and sword. These we will take in memory of our friend, he cried. But as for your terms, we reject them utterly. Get you gone, for your embassy is over and death is near to you. We did not come here to waste words in treating with Sauron, faithless and accursed, still less with one of his slaves. Be gone! Then the messenger of Mordor laughed no more. His face was twisted with amazement and anger to the likeness of some wild beast that, as it crouches on its prey, is smitten on the muzzle with the stinging rod. Rage filled him, and his mouth slavered, and shapeless sounds of fury came strangling from his throat. But he looked at the fell faces of the captains and their deadly eyes, and fear overcame his wrath. He gave a great cry, and turned, leapt upon his steed, and with his company galloped madly back to Kirith Gorgor. But as they went, his soldiers blew their horns in signal long arranged, and even before they came to his gate, Sauron sprang his trap. Drums rolled and fires leapt up. The great doors of the Black Gate swung back wide. Out of it streamed a great host, as swiftly as swirling waters when a sluice is lifted. The captains mounted again and rode back, and from the host of Mordor there went up a jeering yell. Dust rose, smothering the air, as from nearby there marched up an army of Easterlings that had waited for the signal in the shadows of Ered Lithwi beyond the further tower. Down from the hills on either side of the Moranon poured orcs innumerable. The men of the west were trapped, and soon 
all about the grey mounds where they stood. Forces ten times and more than ten times their match would ring them in a sea of enemies. Sauron had taken the puffered bait in jaws of steel. Little time was left to Aragorn for the ordering of his battle. Upon the one hill he stood with Gandalf, and there fair and desperate was raised the banner of the tree and stars. Upon the other hill hard by stood the banners of Rohan and Dolomroth, white horse and silver swan. And about each hill a ring was made facing all ways, bristling with spear and sword. But in the front towards Mordor, where the first bitter assault would come, there stood the sons of Elrond, and on the left with the Dunedain about them, and on the right the Prince Imrahil with the men of Dolamroth, tall and fair, and picked men of the Tower of Guard. The wind blew, and the trumpets sang, and arrows whined, but the sun, now climbing towards the south, was veiled in the reeks of Mordor. And the ending of the day, or the end maybe of all the world of light. And out of the gathering murk, the Nazgul came in, their cold voices crying words of death, and then all hope was quenched. Pippin had bowed, crushed with horror, when he heard Gandalf reject the terms and doom Frodo to the torment of the tower. But he had mastered himself, and now he stood beside Baragond in the front rank of Gondor, with Imrahil's men. For it seemed best to him to die, and soon, and leave the bitter story of his life, since all was in ruin. Oh, I wish Betty was here, he heard himself saying, and quick thoughts raced through his mind, even as he watched the enemy come charging into the assault. Well, well, now at any rate I understand poor Denethor a little better. We might die together, Mary and I, since die we must. Why not? Well, as he is not here, I hope he'll find an easier end. But now I must... I must do my best. He drew his sword and looked at it. And in the intertwining shapes of red and gold, and the flowing characters of Numenor glinted like fire upon the blade. This was made for just such an hour, he thought. If only I could smite that foul messenger with it. Then almost I should draw level with old Mary. Well... I'll smite some of his beastly brood before the end. I wish I could see cool sunlight and green grass again. Then, even as he thought these things, the first assault crashed upon them. The orcs, hindered by the mires that lay before the hills, halted and poured their arrows into their defending ranks. But through them there came striding up, roaring like beasts, a great company of hill trolls out of Gorgoroth. Taller and broader than men they were, and they were clad only in close-fitting mesh of horny scales. Or maybe that was their hideous hide. But they bore round bucklers, huge and black, and wielded heavy hammers in their knotted hands. Reckless they sprang upon the pools and waded across, bellowing as they came. Like a storm they broke upon the line of the men of Gondor and beat upon helm and head and arm and shield as smiths hewing the hot bending iron. The Pippin side, Beragond was stunned and overborne, and he fell, and the great troll chief that smote him down bent over him, reaching out a clutching claw, for these fell creatures would bite the throats of those that they threw down. 
Then, Pippin stabbed upwards, and the written blade of Westerless pierced through the hide and went deep into the vitals of the throne, and his black blood came gushing out. He toppled forward and came crashing down like a falling rock, burying those beneath him. Blackness and stench and crushing pain came upon Pippin, and his mind fell away into a great darkness. So it ends as I guessed it would, his thought said, even as it fluttered away, and it laughed a little within him ere it fled. Almost gay it seemed to be casting off at last, all doubt and care and fear. And then, even as it whinged away into forgetfulness, it heard voices, and they seemed to be crying in some forgotten world far above. For one moment more, Pippin's heart hovered. Bilbo, it said. But no, that came in his tale long, long ago. This is my tale, and it is ended now. Goodbye. And his thought fled far away, and his eyes saw no more. Sam roused himself painfully from the ground. For a moment he wondered where he was, and then all the misery and despair returned to him. He was in the deep dark outside the undergate of the orc's stronghold. Its brazen doors were shut. He must have fallen stunned when he hurled himself against them, but how long he had lain there he did not know. Then he had been on fire, desperate and furious. Now he was shivering and cold. He crept to the doors and pressed his ears against them. Far within, he could hear faintly the voices of orcs clamoring. But soon they stopped, or passed out of hearing, and all was still. His head ached and his eyes saw phantom lights in the darkness, but he struggled to steady himself and think. It was clear at any rate that he had no hope of getting into the orc hold by that gate. He might wait there for days before it was opened and he could not wait. Time was desperately precious. He no longer had any doubt about his duty. He must rescue his master, or perish in the attempt. Perishing is more likely and will be a lot easier anyway, he said grimly to himself, as he sheathed Sting and turned from the brazen doors. Slowly he groped his way back in the dark along the tunnel, not daring to use the elven light. And as he went, he tried to fit together the events since Frodo and he had left the crossroads. He wondered what the time was. Somewhere between one day and the next, he supposed. But even of the days, he had quite lost count. He was in a land of darkness, where the days of the world seemed forgotten. And where all who entered were forgotten too. I wonder if they think of us at all, he said. And what is happening to them all the way there? He waved his hand vaguely in the air before him, but he was in fact now facing southwards, as he came back to Shelob's tunnel, not west. Out westward in the world it was drawing to noon upon the fourteenth day of March in the Shire Reckoning, and even now, 
Aragorn was leading the Black Fleet from Pelargir, and Merry was riding with the Rohirrim down the Stonewain Valley. While in Minas Tirith, flames were rising and Pippin watched the madness growing in the eyes of Denethor. Yet amid all their cares and fear, the thoughts of their friends turned constantly to Frodo and Sam. They were not forgotten, but they were beyond aid, and no thought could yet bring any help to Samwise Hamfast's son. He was utterly alone. He came back at last to the stone door of the Orc Passage, and still unable to discover the catch or bolt that held it, he scrambled over as before and dropped softly to the ground. Then he made his way stealthily to the outlet of Shelob's tunnel, where the rags of her great web were still blowing and swaying in the cold airs. For cold they seemed to Sam after the noisome darkness behind. But the breath of them revived him. He crept cautiously out. All was ominously quiet. The light was no more than that of dusk at a dark day's end. The vast vapours that arose in Mordor and went streaming westward passed low overhead. A great welter of cloud and smoke now lit again beneath with a sullen glow of red. Sam looked up towards the Orc Tower, and suddenly from its narrow windows light stared out like small red eyes. He wondered if they were some signal. His fear of the Orcs, forgotten for a while in his wrath and desperation, now returned. As far as he could see, there was only one possible course for him to take. He must go on and try to find the main entrance to the dreadful tower. But his knees felt weak, and he found that he was trembling. Drawing his eyes down from the tower and the horns of the cleft before him, he forced his unwilling feet to obey him, and slowly, listening with all his ears, peering into the dense shadows of the rocks beside the way, he retraced his steps, past the place where Frodo fell, and still the stench of Shelob lingered and then on and up, until he stood again in the very cleft where he had put on the ring and seen Shagrat's company go by. There he halted and sat down. For the moment he could drive himself no further. He felt that if once he went beyond the crown of the pass and took one step veritably down into the land of Mordor, that step would be irrevocable. He could never come back. Without any clear purpose, he drew the ring and put it on again. Immediately he felt the great burden of its weight and felt afresh, but now more strong and urgent than ever, the malice of the Eye of Mordor, searching, trying to pierce the shadows that it had made for its own defense, but which now hindered it in its unquiet and doubt. As before, Sam found that his hearing was sharpened, but that to his sight the things of this world seemed thin and vague. The rocky walls of the path were pale, as if seen through a mist. But still at a distance, he heard the bubbling of Shelob in her misery. And harsh and clear, and very close it seemed, he heard cries, and the clash of metal. He sprang to his feet, and pressed himself against the wall beside the road. He was glad of the ring, for here was yet another company of orcs on the march, or so at first he thought. Then suddenly he realized that it was not so. His hearing had deceived him. The orc cries came from the tower, whose topmost horn was now right above him. On the left hand of the cleft, Sam shuddered and tried to force himself to move. There was plainly some devilry going on, 
Perhaps in spite of all orders of the cruelty of the orcs had mastered them, and they were tormenting Frodo, or even savagely hacking him to pieces. He listened, and as he did, a gleam of hope came to him. There could not be much doubt. There was fighting in the tower. The orcs must be at war amongst themselves. Shagrat and Gorbag had come to blows. Faint as was the hope that his guest brought him, it was enough to rouse him. There might just be a chance. His love for Frodo rose above all other thoughts, and forgetting his peril, he cried aloud. I'm coming, Mr. Frodo! He ran forward to the climbing path and over it. At once the road turned left and plunged steeply down. Sam had crossed into Mordor. He took off the ring, moved it maybe by some steep premonition of danger, though to himself he thought only that he wished to see more clearly. Better to have a look at the worst, he muttered. No good blundering about in a fog. Hard and cruel and bitter was the land that met his gaze. Before his feet, the highest ridge of the Eiffel Duaths fell steeply in great cliffs down into a dark trough, on the further side of which there rose another bridge, much lower, its edge notched and jagged, with crags like fangs that stood out black against the red light behind them. It was the grim Morgai, the inner ring of the fences of the land. Far beyond it, but almost straight ahead, across a wide lake of darkness dotted with tiny fires, there was a great burning glow, and from it rose in huge columns a swirling smoke, dusty red at the roots, black above where it merged into the billowing canopy that roofed in all the accursed land. Sam was looking at Orodruin, the mountain of fire. Ever and anon, the furnaces far below its ashen cone would grow hot, and with a great surging and throbbing pour forth rivers of molten rock from chasms in its sides. Some would flow blazing towards Baradur down great channels, some would wind their way into the stony plain, until they cooled and lay like twisted dragon shapes vomited from the tormented earth. In such an hour of labor, Sam beheld Mount Doom and the light of it, cut off by the high screen of the Ethelduath from those who climbed up the path from the west, now glared against the stark rock faces, so that they seemed to be drenched with blood. In that dreadful light, Sam stood aghast for now. Looking to his left, he could see the tower of Kirithungol in all its strength. The horn that he had seen from the other side was only its topmost turret. Its eastern face stood up in three great tiers from a shelf in the mountain wall far below. Its back was to a great cliff behind, from which it jutted out in pointed bastions, one above the other, diminishing as they rose, with sheer sides of cunning masonry that looked northeast and southeast. About the lowest tier, two hundred feet below, where Sam now stood, there was a battlemented wall enclosing a narrow court. Its gate, upon the near southeastern side, opened to a broad road the outer parapet of which ran upon the brink of a precipice until it turned southward and went winding down into the darkness to join the road that came over the Morgul Pass. Then on it went through a jagged rift in the Morgai, out into the valley of Gorgoroth and away to Barad-dûr. The narrow upper way on which Sam stood leapt swiftly down by stair and steep path to meet the main road under the frowning walls, close to the tower gate. As he gazed at it, 
Suddenly, Sam understood, almost with a shock, that this stronghold had been built not to keep enemies out of Mordor, but to keep them in. It was indeed one of the works of Gondor long ago, in an eastern outpost of the defenses of Ithilien, made when, after the last alliance, men of Westerness kept watch on the evil land of Sauron, where his creatures still lurked. But as with Narhos and Karhost, the Towers of the Teeth, so here too the vigilance had failed, and treachery had yielded up the tower to the Lord of the Ringwraiths. And now, for long years, it had been held by evil things. Since his return to Mordor, Sauron had found it useful, for he had few servants but many slaves of fear. And still its chief purpose as of old was to prevent escape from Mordor. Though if an enemy was so rash as to try to enter that land secretly, then it was also a last unsleeping guard against any that might pass the vigilance of Morgul and of Shelob. Only too clearly Sam saw how hopeless it would be for him to creep down under those many-eyed walls and pass the watchful gate. And even if he did so, he could not go far on the guarded road beyond. Not even the black shadows lying deep where the red glow could not reach him would shield him long from the night-eyed orcs. But desperate as that road might be, his task was now far worse. Not to avoid the gate and escape, but to enter it alone. His thought turned to the ring, but there was no comfort there, only dread and danger. No sooner had he come in sight of Mount Doom, burning far away, than he was aware of a change in his burden. As it drew near the great furnaces where, in the deeps of time it had been shaped and forged, the ring's power grew, and it became more fell, untamable save by some mighty will. As Sam stood there, even though the ring was not on him but hanging by its chain about his neck, he felt himself enlarged as if he were robed in a huge, distorted shadow of himself. A vast and ominous threat halted upon the walls of Mordor. He felt that he had from now on only two choices, to forbear the ring, though it would torment him, or to claim it, and challenge the power that sat in its dark hold beyond the Valley of Shadows. Already the ring tempted him, gnawing at his will and reason, Wild fantasies arose in his mind, and he saw Samwise the Strong, hero of the age, striding with the flaming sword across the darkened land, and armies flocking to his call as he marched to the overthrow of Barad-dûr. And then all the clouds rolled away, and the white sun shone, and at his command the Vale of Gorgoroth became a garden of flowers and trees, and brought forth fruit. He had only to put on the ring and claim it for his own, and all this could be. In that hour of trial, it was the love of his master that helped most to hold him firm, but also deep down in him lived still unconquered, his plain hobbit sense. He knew in the core of his heart that he, that he was not large enough to bear such a burden, even if such visions were not a mere cheat to betray him. The one small garden of a free gardener was all he needed and do. Not a garden swollen to a realm, but his own hands to use, not the hands of others to command. And anyway, 
All these notions are only a trick, he said to himself. He'd spot me and cow me before I could so much as shout out. He'd spot me pretty quick if I put the ring on now. And Mordor. Well, all I can say is, things look as hopeless as a frost in spring. Just when being invisible would really be useful, I can't use the ring. If I ever get any further, it's going to be nothing but a drag and a burden every step. <laughs> so what's to be done? He was not really in any doubt. He knew that he must go down to the gate and not linger anymore. With a shrug of his shoulders, as if to shake off the shadow and dismiss the phantoms, he began slowly to descend. With each step he seemed to diminish. He had not gone far before he had shrunk again to a very small and frightened hobbit. He was now passing under the very walls of the tower, and the cries and sounds of fighting could be heard with his unaided ears. At the moment the noise seemed to be coming from the court behind the outer wall. Sam was about halfway down the path, when out of the dark gateway into the red glow there came two orcs running. They did not turn towards him. They were making for the main road, but even as they ran, they stumbled and fell to the ground and lay still. Sam had seen no arrows, but he guessed that the orcs had been shot down by others on the battlement or hidden in the shadows of the gate. He went on, hugging the wall to his left. One look upward had shown him that there was no hope of climbing it. The stonework rose thirty feet without a crack or ledge to overhanging courses like inverted steps. The gate was the only way. He crept on, and as he went, he wondered how many orcs lived in the tower with Shagret, and how many Gorbag had, and what they were quarreling about, if that was what was happening. Shagret's companies had seemed to be about forty, and Gorbag's more than twice as large, but of course Shagret's patrol had only been a part of his garrison. Almost certainly, they were quarreling about Frodo, and the spoil, for suddenly things seemed clear to him, almost as if he had seen him with his eyes. The mithril coat. Of course, Frodo was wearing it and they would find it, and from what Sam had heard, Gorbag would covet it. But the orders of the Dark Tower were at present Frodo's only protection, and if they were set aside, Frodo might be killed out of hand at any moment. Come on, you miserable sluggard! Sam cried to himself. Now, now for it! He drew Sting and ran towards the open gate, but just as he was about to pass into its great arch, he felt a shock, as if he had run into some web-like shelobs, only invisible. He could see no obstacle, but something too strong for his will to overcome barred the way. He looked about, and then within the shadow of the gate, he saw the two watchers. They were like great figures seated upon thrones. Each had three joined bodies, and three heads facing outward and inward, and across the gateway. The heads had vulture faces, and on their great knees were laid claw-like hands. They seemed to be carved out of huge blocks of stone, immovable, and yet they were aware. Some dreadful spirit of evil vigilance abode in them. They knew an enemy. Visible or invisible, none could pass unheeded. They would forbid his entry, or his escape. Hardening his will, Sam thrust forward once again and halted with a jerk, staggering as if from a blow upon his breast and head. Then, greatly daring, because he could think of nothing else to do, answering a sudden thought that came to him, he drew slowly out the fire of Galadriel and held it up. Its white light quickened swiftly, and the shadows under the dark arch fled. The monstrous watchers sat there cold and still, 
revealed in all their hideous shape. For a moment, Sam caught a glitter in the black stones of her eyes, the very malice of which made him quail. But slowly he felt their will waver and crumble into fear. He sprang past them, but even as he did so, thrusting the file back into his bosom, he was aware, as plainly as if a bar of steel had snapped two behind him, that their vigilance was renewed, and from those evil heads there came a high, shrill cry in the towering walls before him. Far up above, like an answering signal, a harsh bell clanged a single stroke. That's done it, said Sam. Now I've rung the front door bell. Well, come on, somebody, he cried. Tell Captain Shagrat that the great elf warrior has called, and with his elf sword, too. There was no answer. Sam strode forward, sting glittered blue in his hand. The courtyard lay in deep shadow, but he could see that the pavement was strewn with bodies. Right at his feet were two orc archers with knives sticking in their backs. Beyond lay many more shapes, some singly as they had been hewn down or shot, others in pairs, still grappling one another, dead in the very throes of stabbing, throttling, biting. The stones were slippery with dark blood. Two liveries Sam noticed, one marked by the red eye, the other by a moon disfigured with a ghastly face of death. But he did not stop to look more closely. Across the court, a great door at the foot of the tower stood half open, and a red light came through. A large orc lay dead upon the threshold. Sam sprang over the body and went in, and then he peered about at a loss. A wide and echoing passage led back from the door towards the mountainside. It was dimly lit with torches flaring in the brackets on the walls, but its distant end was lost in gloom. Many doors and openings could be seen on this side and that, but it was empty save for two or three more bodies sprawling on the floor. From what he had heard of the captain's talk, Sam knew that, dead or alive, Frodo would most likely be found in a chamber high up in the turret far above. But he might search for a day before he found the way. It'll be near the back, I guess, Sam muttered. The whole tower climbs backwards-like. And anyway, I'll better follow these lights. He advanced down the passage. But slowly now, each step more reluctant. Terror was beginning to grip him again. There was no sound save the rap of his feet, which seemed to grow in an echoing noise, like the slapping of great hands upon the stones, the dead bodies, the emptiness, the dank black walls that in the torchlight seemed to drip with blood, the fear of sudden death lurking in doorway or shadow, and behind all his mind, the waiting watchful malice at the gate. It was almost more than he could screw himself to face, he would have welcomed a fight, with not too many enemies at the time, rather than this hideous, brooding uncertainty. He forced himself to think of Frodo, lying bound or in pain or dead somewhere in his dreadful place. He went on. He had passed beyond the torchlight, almost to a great arched door at the end of the passage, the inner side of the undergate, as he rightly guessed, when there came, from high above, a dreadful choking shriek. He stopped short, 
Then he heard feet coming. Someone was running in great haste down an echoing stairway overhead. His will was too weak and too slow to restrain his hand. It dragged at the chain and clutched the ring, but Sam did not put it on. For even as he clasped it to his breast, an orc came clattering down, leaping down from a dark opening at the right. It ran towards him. It was no more than six paces from him when, lifting its head, it saw him, and Sam could hear its gasping breath and see the glare in its bloodshot eyes. It stopped short aghast. For what it saw was not a small frightened hobbit trying to hold a steady sword. It saw a great silent shape, cloaked in a grey shadow, looming against the wavering light behind. In one hand it held a sword, the very light of which was a bitter pain. The other was clutched at its breast, but held concealed some nameless menace of power and doom. For a moment the orc crouched, and then with a hideous yelp of fear it turned and fled back as it had come. Never was any dog more heartened when its enemy turned tail than Sam at this unexpected flight. With a shout, he gave chase. Yes! The elf warrior is loose! He cried. I'm coming! Just you show me the way up or I'll skin you! But the orc was in its own haunts, nimble and well-fed. Sam was a stranger, hungry and wary. The stairs were high and steep and winding. Sam's breath began to come in gasps. The orc had soon passed out of sight and only faintly could be heard the snapping of its feet as it went on and up. Every now and again it gave a yell, and the echo ran along the walls. But slowly, all sound of it died away. Sam plodded on. He felt that he was on the right road, and his spirits had risen a good deal. He thrust the ring away and tightened his belt. Well, well, he said. If only they all take such a dislike to me and my sting, this may turn out better than I hoped. And anyway, it looks as if Stagrat, Gorbag, and the company have done nearly all my job for me. Except for that little frightened rat, I do believe there's nobody left alive in the place. And with that he stopped, brought up hard, as if he had hit his head against the stone wall. The full meaning of what he had said struck him like a blow. Nobody left alive. Whose had been that horrible dying shriek? Frodo! Master! He cried, half sobbing. If they've killed you, what shall I do? Well, I'm coming at last! Right to the top, to see what I must! Up, up he went. It was dark, save for an occasional torch flaring at a turn, or beside some opening that led into the higher levels of the tower. Sam tried to count the steps, but after two hundred he lost his reckoning. He was moving quietly now, for he thought that he could hear the sound of voices talking, still some way above. More than one rat remained alive, it seemed. All at once, when he felt that he could pump out no more breath, nor force his knees to bend again, the stare ended. He stood still. The voices were now loud and near. Sam peered about. He had climbed right to the flat roof of the third and highest tier of the tower, an open space, about twenty yards across, with a low parapet. There the stair was covered by a small dome chamber in the midst of the roof with low doors facing east and west. Eastward, Sam could see the plain of Mordor vast and dark below, and the burning mountain far away. A fresh turmoil was surging in its deep wells, and the rivers of fire blazed so fiercely that even at its distance of many miles, the light of them lit the tower top with the red glare. Westward, the view was blocked by the base of the great turret that stood at the back of this upper court and reared its horn high above the crest of the encircling hills. 
light gleamed in the window slit. Its door was not ten yards from where Sam stood. It was open, but dark. And from just within its shadow, the voices came. At first, Sam did not listen. He took a pace out of the eastward door and looked about. At once he saw that up there, the fighting had been fiercest. All the court was choked with dead orcs, all their severed and scattered heads and limbs. The place stank of death. A snarl, followed by a blow and a cry, sent him darting back into hiding. An orc voice rose in anger, and he knew it again at once, harsh, brutal, cold. It was Shagrat speaking, captain of the tower. You won't go again, you say? Curse you, snarl, you little maggot! If you think I'm so damaged that it's safe to float me, you're mistaken. Come here and I'll squeeze your eyes out like I did to that book just now. And when some new lads come, I'll deal with you. I'll send you to Salem. They won't come. Not before you're dead anyway. Answered Snugger sullenly. I've told you twice that Gorbach Swine got to the gate first and none of yours got out. Lagdurf and Musgash ran through, but they were shot. I saw it from a window, I tell you, and they were the last. Well, you must go. I must stay here anyway. But I'm hurt. Shagrat's voice trailed off into a string of foul names and curses. I gave him better than I got, but he knifed me. Down before I throttled him. You must go, or I'll eat you. News must get through to Le Perks, or we'll both be for the Black Pits. Yes, you do. You won't escape by stalking here. I'm not going down those stairs again! Growled Snugger. Are you captain or no? No! Keep your hands off your knife or I'll put an arrow in your guts. You won't be a captain long when they hear about all these goings on. I fought for the tower against those stinking horrible rats, but a nice mess you two precious captains have made of things fighting over the swag. That's enough from you, snarled Shagrat. I had my orders, it would go back, started it, trying to pitch the pretty shirt. Well, you put his back up. He's so high and mighty, but he had more sense than you anyway. He told you more than once that the most dangerous of these spies were still loose, and you wouldn't listen. And you won't listen now. Gorbag was right, I tell you. There's a great fighter about. What are those bloody-handed elves? What are those filthy ducks? He's coming here, I tell you. You heard the bell. He's got past the watchers, and that's Tark's work. He's on the stairs, and until he's off them, I'm not going down. Not if you're a nasty I wouldn't. So that's it, is it? Yelled Shagrat. You do this and you'll not do that. And when he does come, he'll vote and leave me? No, he won't. I'll put red maggot holes in your belly first! Out of the turret door, the smaller orc came flying. Behind him came Shagrat, a large orc with long arms that, as he ran crouching, reached to the ground, but one arm hung limp and seemed to be bleeding. The other hugged a large black bundle. In the red glare, Sam, cowering behind the stair door, caught a glimpse of his evil face as he passed. It was scored as if by rending claws and smeared with blood. Slaver dripped from its protruding fangs. The mouth snarled like an animal. As far as Sam could see, Shagrat hunted Snaga around the roof, until ducking and eluding him, the smaller orc with a yelp darted back into the turret and disappeared. Then Shagrat halted. Out of the eastward door, Sam could see him now, by the parapet, panting, his left claw clenching and unclenching feebly. He put the bundle on the floor, and with his right claw, drew out a long red knife and spat on it. 
Going to the parapet, he leaned over, looking down into the outer court far below. Twice he shouted, but no answer came. Suddenly, as Shaglet was stooped over the battlement, his back to the rooftop, Sam, to his amazement, saw that one of the sprawling bodies was moving. It was crawling. It put out a claw and clutched the bundle. It staggered up. In its other hand, it held a broad-headed spear with a short broken haft. It was poised for a stabbing thrust, but at that very moment a hiss escaped his teeth. A gasp of pain or hate. Quick as a snake, Shagrat slipped aside, twisting round, and drove his knife into his enemy's throat. Don't you go back! He cried. Not quite dead, eh? Let us finish my job now! He sprang on the fallen body and stamped and trampled it in his fury, stooping now and again to stab and slash it with his knife. Satisfied at last, he threw back his head and let out a horrible gurgling yell of triumph. Then he licked his knife and put it between his teeth, and catching up the bundle, he came loping towards the near door of the stairs. Sam had no time to think. He might have slipped out of the door, but hardly without being seen, and he could not have played hide-and-seek with this hideous orc for long. He did what was probably the best thing he could have done. He sprang out to meet Shagrat with a shout. He was no longer holding the ring, but it was there, a hidden power, a cowing menace to the slaves of Mordor and in his hand was Sting, and its light smote the eyes of the orc like a glitter of cruel stars in the terrible elf countries, the dream of which was a cold fear to all his kind. And Shagrat could not both fight and keep hold of his treasure. He stopped, growling, baring his fangs. Then once more, orc fashion, he leapt aside and as Sam sprang at him, using the heavy bundle as both shield and weapon, he thrust it hard into his enemy's face. Sam staggered, and before he could recover, Shagrat darted past and down the stairs. Sam ran after him, cursing, but he did not go far. Soon the thought of Frodo returned to him, and he remembered that the other orc had gone back into the turret. Here was another dreadful choice, and he had no time to ponder it. If Shagrat got away, he would soon get help and come back, but if Sam pursued him, the other orc might do some horrible deed up there. And anyway, Sam might miss Shagrat or be killed by him. He turned quickly and ran back up the stairs. Wrong again, I expect. He sighed. It's my job to go right up to the top first. Whatever happens afterward. Away below, Shagrat went leaping down the stairs and out over the court and through the gaze, bearing his precious burden. If Sam could have seen him and known the grief that his escape would bring, he might have quailed. But now his mind was set on the last stage of his search. He came cautiously to the turret door and stepped inside. It opened into darkness, but soon his staring eyes were aware of a dim light at his right hand. It came from an opening that led to another stairway, dark and narrow. It appeared to go winding up the turret along the inside of its round outer wall. A torch was glimmering from somewhere up above. Slowly Sam began to climb. He came to the glittering torch, fixed above a door on his left that matched a window slit looking out westward. One of the red eyes that he and Frodo had seen from down below by the tunnel's mouth. Quickly, Sam passed the door and hurried on into the second story, dreading at any moment to be attacked and to feel throttling fingers seize his throat from behind. He came next to a window looking east and another torch above the door to a passage through the middle of the turret. The door was open, the passage dark, save for the glimmer of the torch and the red glare from outside flittering through the window slit. But here the stair stopped and climbed no further. Sam crept into the passage. On either side there was a low door. Both were closed and locked. There was no sound at all. I did it, muttered Sam. After all my climb, 
There's Capri at the top of the tower. What can I do now? He ran back to the lower story and tried the door. It would not move. He ran up again and sweat began to trickle down his face. He felt that even minutes were precious, but one by one they escaped, and he could do nothing. He cared no longer for Shagret or Snagger, or any other orc that was ever spawned. He longed only for his master, for one sight of his face, or one touch of his hand. At last, weary and feeling finally defeated, he sat on a step below the level of the passage floor and bowed his head into his hands. It was quiet, horribly quiet. The torch that was already burning low when he arrived sputtered and went out, and he felt the darkness cover him like a tide. And then softly, to his own surprise, there at the vain end of his long journey and his grief, moved by what thought in his heart he could not tell, Sam began to sing. His voice sounded thin and quavering in the cold, dark tower. The voice of a forlorn and weary hobbit that no listening or could possibly mistake for the clear song of an elven lord. He murmured old childish tunes out of the Shire and snatches of Mr. Bilbo's rhymes that came into his mind like fleeting glimpses of the country of his home. And then suddenly new strength rose in him and his voice rang out while words of his own came unbidden to fit this simple tune. In western lands beneath the sun, in flowers there may rise in spring. The trees may bud, the waters run, the merry finches sing. Or there may be tis cloudless night, and swaying breaches bare. And elven stars as jewels white, amid their branching hair. Though here at journey's end I lie In darkness buried deep Beyond all towers strong and high Beyond all mountains steep Above all shadows rides the sun And stars forever dwell I will not say the day is done nor bid the stars farewell. Beyond old tower strong and high. He began again, and then he stopped short. He thought that he had heard a faint voice answering him, but now he could hear nothing. Yet he could hear something, but not a voice. Footsteps were approaching. Now a door was being opened quietly in the passage above. The hinges creaked. Sam crouched down, listening. The door closed with a dull thud, and then a snarling orc voice rang out. Hold up! You up there, you goddamn rat! Stop your squeaking or I'll come and deal with you, you hear? There was no answer. All right. Growled Snugger. They'll come and have a look at you all the same and see what you're up to. The hinges creaked again, and Sam, now peering over the corner of the passage threshold, saw a flicker of light in an open doorway and the dim shape of an orc coming out. He seemed to be carrying a ladder. Suddenly the answer dawned on Sam. The topmost chamber was reached by a trap door in the roof of the passage. Snagger thrust the ladder upwards, steadied it, and then clambered out of sight. Sam heard a bolt drawn back. You or you'll pay for it. If not want folk to live in peace, I guess. But if you don't want the fun to begin right now, keep your trap shut, see? There was a sound like the crack of a whip, 
At that, rage blazed in Sam's heart to a sudden fury. He sprang up, ran and went up the ladder like a cat. His head came out in the middle of the floor of a large round chamber. A red lamp hung from its roof. The westward window slit was high and dark. Something was lying on the floor by the wall under the window. But over it, a black orc shape was straddled. It raised the whip a second time, but the blow never fell. With a cry, Sam leapt across the floor, sting in hand. The orc wheeled round, but before it could make a move, Sam slashed its whip hand from its arms. Howling with pain and fear but desperate, the orc charged head down at him. Sam's next blow went wide, and thrown off his balance, he fell backwards, clutching at the orc as it stumbled over him. Before he could scramble up, he heard a cry and a thud. The orc, in its wild haste, had tripped on the ladder head and fallen through the trap door. Sam gave no more thought to it. He ran to the figure, huddled on the floor. It was Frodo. He was naked, lying as if in a swoon on a heap of filthy rags. His arm was flung up, shielding his head, and across his side there ran an ugly whip wheel. Frodo! Frodo! Mr. Frodo, my dear! cried Sam, tears almost blinding him. Sam! I've come! He half lifted his master and hugged him to his breast. Frodo opened his eyes. Mice, am I still dreaming? He muttered. But the other dream's horrible. You're not dreaming at all, master, said Sam. It's real. It's me. I've come. Oh, I can hardly believe it, said Frodo, clutching him. There was an orc with a whip. And then it turns into Sam. But I wasn't dreaming after all. When I heard that singing down below and I tried to answer, it was you. It was indeed, Mr. Frodo. I've given up hope almost. I couldn't find you. Well, you have now, Sam. Dear Sam, said Frodo. And he lay back in Sam's gentle arms, closing his eyes like a child at rest, when night fears were driven away by some loved voice or hand. Sam felt that he could sit like that in endless happiness, but it was not allowed. It was not enough for him to find his master. He had still to try and save him. He kissed Frodo's forehead. Come, wake up, Mr. Frodo, he said, trying to sound as cheerful as he had when he had drew back the curtains at Baghend on a summer's morning. Frodo sighed and sat up. Where are we? How did I get here? He asked. There's no time for tales till we get somewhere else, Mr. Frodo said Sam. But you're at the top of that tower that you and me saw from far away, down by the tunnel before the orcs got you. How long ago that was, I don't know. More than a day, I guess. Only that, said Frodo. It seems weeks. You must tell me all about it if we get a chance. Something hit me, didn't it? And I fell into darkness and foul dreams. And woke that found that waking was worse. Orcs were all around me. I think they had just been pouring some horrible burning drink down my throat. My head grew clear, but I was aching and weary. They stripped me of everything. And then two great brutes came and questioned me. Questioned me until I thought I should go mad. Standing over me, gloating, fingering their knives. I'll never forget their claws and eyes. You won't if you talk about them, Mr. Frodo, said Sam. And if we don't want to see them again, the sooner we get going, the better. Can you walk? Yes, 
I can walk, said Frodo, getting up slowly. I am not hurt, Sam. Only I feel very tired, and I have a pain here. He put his hand to the back of his neck above his left shoulder. He stood up, and it looked to Sam as if he was clothed in flame. His naked skin was scarlet in the light of the lamp above. Twice he paced across the floor. That's better, he said, his spirits rising a little. I didn't dare move when I was left alone, but one of the guards came until the yelling and fighting began. The two big brutes, they quarreled, I think, over me and my things. I lay here terrified, and all went deadly silent. And that was worse. Yes, they quarreled seemingly, said Sam. There must have been a couple of hundred of these dirty creatures in this place. A bit of a toll order from Sam Ganji, as you might say. But they've done all the killing of themselves. That's lucky. But it's too long to make a song about it. Till we're out of here. Now what's to be done? You can't go walking in the black land with naught but your skin, Mr. Frodo. They've taken everything, Sam, said Frodo. Everything I had. Do you understand? Everything! He cowered on the floor again with bowed head, as his own words brought home to him the fullness of the disaster, and despair overwhelmed him. The quest has failed, Sam. Even if we get out of here, we can't escape. Only elves can escape. Away. Away out of Middle-earth. Far away over the sea. If, if even that is enough to keep the shadow out. No, not everything, Mr. Frodo. And it hasn't failed. Not yet. I took it, Mr. Frodo. Begging your pardon. And I've kept it safe. It's round my neck now. And a terrible burden it is, too. Sam fumbled for the ring and its chain. But I suppose you must take it back. Now it has come to it, Sam felt reluctant to give up the ring and burden his master with it again. You've got it, gasped Frodo. You've got it here. Sam, you're a marvel. Then quickly and strangely his tone changed. Give it to me, he cried, standing up, holding out a trembling hand. Give it to me at once. You can't have it. All right, Mr. Frodo, said Sam, rather startled. Here it is. Slowly he drew the ring out and passed the chain over his head. But you're in the land of Mordor now, sir. When you get out, you'll see the fiery mountain at all. You'll find the ring very dangerous now and very hard to bear. If it's too hard of a job, I could share it with you, maybe. No! No! Cried Frodo, snatching the ring and chain from Sam's hands. No, you won't! You thief! He panted, staring at Sam with eyes wide with fear and enmity. Then suddenly clasping the ring in one clenched fist, he stood aghast. A mist seemed to clear from his eyes, and he passed a hand over his aching brow. The hideous vision had seemed so real to him, half bemused as he was still with wound and fear. Sam had changed before his very eyes into an orc again, leering and pawing at his treasure, a foul little creature with greedy eyes and a slobbering mouth. But now the vision had passed. There was Sam kneeling before him, his face wrung with pain as if he had been stabbed in the heart. Tears welled from his eyes. Oh, Sam! Cried Frodo. What have I said? What have I done? 
Forgive me. After all you've done, it is a horrible power of the ring. I wish it had never, never been found. But don't mind me, Sam. I must carry the burden to the end. It can't be altered. You can't come between me and this doom. That's all right, Mr. Frodo, said Sam, rubbing his sleeve across his eyes. I understand. But I can still help, can't I? I've got to get you out of here. At once, see? But first, you want some clothes and gear and then some food. The clothes will be the easiest part, as we're in Mordor, we'd best dress up Mordor fashion. And anyway, there isn't no choice. It'll have to be orc stuff for you, Mr. Frodo, I'm afraid. And for me, too, if, if we go together, we'd best match. Now, now put this round you. Sam unclasped his grey cloak and cast it about Frodo's shoulders. Then, unslinging his pack, he laid it on the floor. He drew sting from his sheath. Hardly a flicker was to be seen upon its blade. I was forgetting this, Mr. Frodo. No, they didn't get everything. You lend me sting, if you, if you remember. And the ladies' class. I've got them both still. But lend them to me a little longer, Mr. Frodo. I must go and see what I can find. You stay here. Walk about a bit and ease your legs. I shan't be long. I shan't have you go far. Take care, Sam, said Frodo. And be quick. There may be orcs still alive, lurking in wait. I've got a chance here, said Sam. He stepped to the trap door and slipped down the ladder. In a minute, his head reappeared. He threw a long knife on the floor. There is something that might be useful, he said. He's dead, the one that whipped you. Broke his neck, it seems, in his hurry. Now you draw up the ladder if you can, Mr. Frodo, and don't you let it down till you hear me call the password. Elbereth, I'll call. What the elves say, no orc would say that. Frodo sat for a while and shivered, dreadful fears chasing one another through his mind. Then he got up, drew the grey elven cloak about him, and to keep his mind occupied, began to walk to and fro, prying and peering into every corner of his prison. It was not very long, though. Fear made it seemed an hour at least before he heard Sam's voice calling softly from below. Elbereth! Elbereth! Frodo let down the light ladder. Up came Sam, puffing, heaving a great bundle on his head. He let it fall with a thud. Quick now, Mr. Frodo, he said. I've had a bit of a search to find anything small enough for the likes of us. We'll have to make do, but we must hurry. I've met nothing alive, and I've seen nothing, but I'm not easy. I think this place is being watched. I can't explain it, but, well, it seems to me as if one of those foul flying riders was about. Up in the blackness where he can't be seen. He opened the bundle. Frodo looked in disgust at the contents, but there was nothing for it. He had to put the things on, or go naked. There were long hairy breeches of some unclean beast fell, and a tunic of dirty leather. He drew them on. Over the tunic went a coat of stout ring mail, short for a full-sized orc. Too long for Frodo, and heavy. About it he clasped a belt, at which there hung a short sheath, holding a broad-bladed stabbing sword. Sam had brought several orc helmets. None of them fitted Frodo well enough. A black cap with iron rim and iron hoops covered with leather upon which the evil eye was painted in red, 
above the beak-like nose guard. The Morgul stuff, Gorbag's gear, was a better fit and better made, said Sam. But it won't do, I guess, to go carrying his tokens into Mordor. Not after this business here. Well, there you are, Mr. Frodo. A perfect little orc, if I may make so bold. At least you would be, if we could cover your face with a mask. Give you longer arms and make you bow-legged. Still, this will hide some of the telltales. He put a large black cloak around Frodo's shoulders. Now you're ready. You can pick up a shield as we go. What about you, Sam? Said Frodo. Aren't we going to match? Well, Mr. Frodo, I've been thinking. Said Sam. I'd best not leave any of my stuff behind, and we can't destroy it. And I can't wear orc mail over all my clothes, can I? I'll just have to cover up. He knelt down and carefully folded his elven cloak. It went into a surprisingly small roll. This he put into his pack and lay on the floor. Standing up, he slung it behind his back, put an orc helm on his head, and cast another black cloak about his shoulders. There, he said. Now we match. It's near enough. And now we must be off. I can't go all the way at the run, Sam, said Frodo with a wry smile. I hope you've made inquiries about inns along the road. Or have you forgotten about food and drink? Save me, but so I had, said Sam. He whistled in dismay. Bless me, Mr. Frodo, but you've gone and made me that hungry and thirsty. I don't know when drop or morsel had last passed my lips. I'd forgotten it, trying to find you. But let me think. Last time I looked, I've got enough of that whey bread and of what Captain Faramir gave us to keep me on my legs for a couple of weeks at a pinch. But if there's a drop left in my bottle, there's no more. That's not going to be enough for two, no how. Don't orcs eat? And don't they drink? Or do they just live on foul air and poison? No, they eat and drink, Sam. The shadow that bred them can only mock. It cannot make. Not real new things on its own. I don't think it gave life to the orcs. It only ruined them and twisted them. And if they are to live at all, they have to live like other living creatures. Foul waters and foul meats they'll take if they can get no better. But not poison. They fed me, and so I'm better off than you. There must be food and water somewhere in this place. But there's no time to look for them, said Sam. Well, things are a bit better than you think, said Frodo. I've had a bit of luck while you were away. Indeed, they did not take everything. I found my food bag among some rags on the floor. They've rummaged it, of course, but I guess they dislike the very look and smell of the Lembus. Worse than Gollum did. It's scattered about, and some of it's trampled and broken, but I've gathered it together. It's not far short of what you've got, but they've taken Faramir's food, and they've slashed up my water bottle. Well, there's no more to be said, said Sam. We've got enough to start on, but the water's going to be a bad business. But come, Mr. Frodo. Off we go, or a whole lake of it won't do us any good. Not till you've had a mouthful, Sam, said Frodo. I won't budge. Here, take this elven cake and drink the last drop of your bottle. The whole thing is quite hopeless, so it's no good worrying about tomorrow. It probably won't come. At last they started. Down the ladder they climbed and then Sam took it and laid it in the passage behind the huddled body of the fallen orc. The stair was dark, but on the rooftop the glare of the mountain could still be seen, 
though it was dying down now to a sullen red. They picked up two shields to complete their disguise and went on. Down the great stairway they plodded, the high chamber of the turret behind, where they had met again, seemed almost homely. They went out in the open gate now, then terror ran along the walls. All might be dead in the tower of Kirithongol, but it was steeped in fear and evil still. At length they came to the door upon the outer court, and they halted. Even from where they stood they felt the malice of the watchers beating on them, black and silent shapes on either side of the gate through which the glare of Mordor dimly showed. As they threaded their way among the hideous bodies of the orcs, each step came more difficult. Before they even reached the archway, they were brought to a stand. To move an inch further was a pain and weariness to will and limb. Frodo had no strength for such a battle. He sank to the ground. I cannot go on, Sam. I cannot go on, Sam, he murmured. I'm going to faint. I don't know what's come over me. I do, Mr. Frodo. Hold up now. It's the gate. There's some devilry there that I got through, and I'm going to get out. It can't be more dangerous than before. Now for it! Sam drew out the elven glass of Galadriel again, as if to do honour to his hardihood and to grace with splendour his faithful brown hobbit hand that had done such deeds, the fire blazed forth suddenly, so that all the shadowy court was lit with a dazzling radiance like lightning. But it remained steadily, and did not pass. Sam cried, for why he did not know. His thoughts sprang back suddenly to the elves in the Shire, and the song that drove away the black rider in the trees. Cried Frodo once again behind him. The will of the watchers was broken with a suddenness like the snapping of a cord, and Frodo and Sam stumbled forward. Then they ran through the gate and past the great seated figures with their glittering eyes. There was a crack. The keystone of the arch crashed almost on their heels, and the wall above crumbled and fell in ruin. Only by a hair did they escape. A bell clanged, and from the watches there went up a high and dreadful wail. Far above in the darkness it was answered. Out of the black sky there came dropping like a boat, a winged shape, rendering the clouds with a ghastly shriek. Sam had just wits enough left to thrust the fire back into his breast. Run, Mr. Frodo! He cried. No, not that way! There's a sheer drop over the wall! Follow me! Down the road from the gate they fled. In fifty paces, with a swift bend round a jutting bastion of the cliff, it took them out of sight from the tower. They had escaped for the moment. Cowering back against the rock, they drew breath. And then they clutched at their hearts. Perching now on the wall beside the ruined gate, the last ghoul sent out its deadly cries. All the cliffs echoed. In terror they stumbled on. Soon the road bent sharply eastward again and exposed them for a dreadful moment to view from the tower. As they flitted across, they glanced back and saw the great shape upon the battlement. 
Then they plunged down between high rock walls in a cutting that fell steeply to join the Morgul road. They came to the way meeting. There was still no sign of orcs, nor of an answer to the cry of the Nazgul, but they knew that the silence would not last long. At any moment now, the hunt would begin. This won't do, Sam. Said Frodo. If we, if we were real orcs, we ought to be dashing back to the tower, not running away. The first enemy we beat will know us, and we must get off this road somehow. But we can't, said Sam. Not without wings. The eastern faces of the Ethel Duath were sheer, falling in cliff and precipice to the black trough that lay between them and the inner ridge. A short way beyond the way meeting, yet another steep incline, a flying bridge of stone leapt over the chasm and bore the road across into the tumbled slopes and glens of the Morgai. With a desperate spurt, Frodo and Sam dashed along the bridge, but they had hardly reached its further end when they heard the hue and cry begin. Away behind them, now high above on the mountainside, loomed the tower of Kirithungol, its stones glowing dully. Suddenly its harsh bell clanged again and then broke into a shattering peal. Horns sounded, and now, from beyond the bridge end, came the answering cries. Down in the dark trough, cut off from the dying glare of Rodruin, Frodo and Sam could not see ahead, but already they heard the tramp of iron-shod feet and upon the road there rang the swift clatter of hoofs. Quick, Sam, over we go, cried Frodo. They scrambled on to the low parapet of the bridge. Fortunately, there was no longer any dreadful drop into the gulf, for the slopes of the Morgai had already risen almost to the level of the road. But it was too dark for them to guess the depth of the fall. Well, here goes, Mr. Frodo, said Sam. Goodbye. He let go. Frodo followed, and even as they fell, they heard the rush of horsemen sweeping over the bridge and the rattle of orc feet running up behind. But Sam would have laughed if he had there. Half fearing a breaking plunge down into the unseen rocks, the hobbits landed in a drop of no more than a dozen feet with a sudden crunch into the last thing they had expected. A tangle of thorny bushes. There Sam lay still, softly sucking a scratched hand. When the sound of hoof and foot had passed, he ventured a whisper. Bless me, Mr. Frodo, but I didn't know as anything grew in Mordor. But if I had a known, this is just what I've looked for. These thorns must be a foot long by the feel of them. They've stuck through everything I've got on. I wish I'd have put a male shirt on. Oh, the male doesn't keep these thorns out, said Frodo. Not even a leather jacket is any good. They had a struggle to get out of the thicket. The thorns and briars were as tough as wire, and as clanging as claws. Their cloaks were rent and tattered before they broke free at last. Now down we go, Sam. Frodo whispered. Down into the valley quick, and then turn northward as soon as ever we can. Day was coming again in the world outside, and far beyond the glooms of Mordor the sun was climbing over the eastern rim of Middle-earth. But here, all was still dark as night. The mountain smoldered, and its fires went out. The glare faded from the cliffs. The easterly wind that had been blowing ever since they left the Ithilien now seemed dead. Slowly and painfully they clambered down, groping, stumbling, scrambling among rock and briar and dead wood in the blind shadows, down and down until they could go no further. At length they stopped and sat side by side, 
their backs against a boulder. Both were sweating. If Shagret himself was to offer me a glass of water, I'd shake his hand, said Sam. Don't say such things, said Frodo. It only makes it worse. Then he stretched himself out, dizzy and weary, and he spoke no more for a while. At last, with the struggle, he got up again. To his amazement, he found that Sam was asleep. Wake up, Sam, he said. Come on, it's time to meet another effort. Sam scrambled to his feet. Well, I never, he said. I must have dropped off. Oh, it's a long time, Mr. Frodo, since I had a proper sleep, and my eyes just closed down on their own. Frodo now led the way, northward as near as he could guess, among the stones and boulders lying thick at the bottom of the great ravine. But presently he stopped again. It's no good, Sam, he said. I can't manage it. This male shirt, I mean. Not in my present state. Even my mithril coat seemed heavy when I was tired. This is far heavier. Now, what's the use of it? We can't win through by fighting. But we may have some more to do, <sighs> said Sam. And there's knives and stray arrows. That golem isn't dead for one thing. I don't like to think of you with naught but a bit of leather between you and a stab in the dark. Look here. Sam, dear lad, said Frodo. I haven't a hope left. But I have to go on trying to get to the mountain. As long as I can move. The ring is enough. This extra weight is killing me. It must go. But don't think I'm ungrateful. I hate to think of the foul work you must have had among the bodies to find it for me. Don't talk about it, Mr. Frodo, bless you. I'll carry you on my back if I could. Let it go, then. Frodo laid aside his cloak and took off the old mail and flung it away. He shivered a little. What I may need is something warm, he said. It's gone cold, or else I've caught a chill. You get out my cloak, Mr. Frodo, said Sam. He unslung his pack and took out the elven cloak. How's this, Mr. Frodo? He said. You wrap that orc rag close around you and I'll put the belt outside it. Then this can go over all. It don't look quite orc-fashioned, but it'll keep you warmer. And I dare say it'll keep you from arm better than any other gear. It was made by the lady. Frodo took the cloak and fastened the brooch. That's better. He said. I feel much lighter. I can go on now. But this blind dark seems to be getting to my heart. As I lay in prison, Sam, I tried to remember the brandywine. And would he end? and the water running through the mill at Hobbiton. But I can't see them now. There now, Mr. Frodo, it's you that's talking of water this time, said Sam. If only the lady could see us or hear us, I'd say to her, Your ladyship, all we want is light and water. Just clean water in plain daylight, better than any jewels, begging your pardon. But it's a long way to Lorien. Sam sighed and waved his hand toward the heights of the Ethelduath now only to be guessed as deeper blackness against the black sky. They started off again. They had not gone far when Frodo paused. There's a black rider over us. He said. I can feel it. We had better keep still for a while. 
crouched under a great boulder, they sat facing back westward and did not speak for some time. Then Frodo breathed a sigh of relief. It's past, he said. They stood up, and then they both stared in wonder. Away to their left southward, against a sky that was turning grey, the peaks and high ridges of the great range began to appear dark and black. Visible shapes. Light was growing behind them. Slowly it crept towards the north. There was battle far above in the high spaces of the air. The billowing clouds of Mordor were being driven back. Their edges tattering as a wind out of the living world came up and swept the fumes and smokes towards the dark land of their home. Under the lifting skirts of the dreary canopy, dim light leaked into Mordor like pale morning through the grime shadow of a prison. Look at it, Mr. Frodo, said Sam. Look at it. The wind's changed. Something's happening. He's not having it all his own way. His darkness is breaking up out in the world there. Oh, I wish I could see what's going on. It was the morning of the 15th of March, and over the Vale of Anduin, the sun was rising above the eastern shadow, and the southwest wind was blowing. Theoden lay dying on the Pelennor fields. As Frodo and Sam stood and gazed, the rim of light spread all along the line of the Etheldwerth, and they saw a shape moving at a great speed out of the west, at first only a black speck against the glimmering strip above the mountain tops, but growing until it plunged like a boat into the dark canopy and passed high above them. As it went, it sent out a long, shrill cry, the voice of a Nazgul, but this cry no longer held any terror for them. It was a cry of woe and dismay. Ill tidings for the Dark Tower. The Lord of the Ringwraiths had met his doom. What did I tell you? Something's happening, cried Sam. The war's going well, said Chakra. But Gorbeck, he wasn't so sure. And he was right there, too. Things are looking up, Mr. Frodo. Haven't you got some hope now? Well, well, no. Not much, Sam. Frodo sighed. That's away beyond the mountains. They're going east, not west. And I'm so tired. And the ring is so heavy, Sam. And I begin to see it in my mind. All the time. It's like a great wheel of fire. Sam's quick spirit sank again at once. He looked at his master anxiously, and he took his hand. Come, Mr. Frodo, he said. I've got one thing I wanted. A bit of light, enough to help us. And yet I guess it's dangerous too. Try a bit further, and then we'll lie close and have a rest. But take a morsel to eat now. And a, a, a bit of that elf's food, it may hearten you. Sharing a wafer of Limbus and munching it as best they could with their parched mouths, Frodo and Sam plodded on. The light, though no more than a grey dusk, was now enough for them to see that they were deep in the valley, between the mountains. It sloped up gently northward, and at its bottom went the bed of a now dry and withered stream. Beyond its stony course they saw a beaten path that wound its way under the feet of the westward cliffs. Had they known, they could have reached it quicker, for it was a track that left the main Morgul road at the western bridge end and went down by a long stair cut in the rock to the valley's bottom. 
It was used by patrols or by messengers going swiftly to lesser posts and strongholds, north or west, between Kirithungul and the narrows of Eisenmouth, the iron jaws of Karach Amgren. It was perilous for the hobbits to use such a path, but they needed speed, and Frodo felt that he could not face the toil of scrambling among the boulders or its trackless glens of the Morgai. And he judged that northward was, maybe, the way that their hunters would least expect them to take. The road east to the plain, or the pass back westward. Those they would first search most thoroughly. Only when he was well north of the tower did he mean to turn and seek for some way to take him east. East to the last desperate stage of his journey. So now they crossed the stony bed and took to the orc path. And for some time they marched along it. The cliffs at their left were overhung, and they could not be seen from above. But the path made many beds, and at each bend, they gripped their sword hilts and went forward cautiously. The light grew no longer, for a Rodruin was still belching forth a great fume that, beaten upwards by the opposing airs, mounted higher and higher until it reached a region above the wind and spread in an immeasurable roof, whose central pillar rose out of the shadows beyond their view. They had trudged for more than an hour when they heard a sound that brought them to a halt. Unbelievable, but unmistakable. Water trickling. Out of a gully on the left, so sharp and narrow that it looked as if the black cliff had been cloven by some huge axe, water came dripping down. The last remains, maybe, of some sweet rain gathered from sunlit seas, but ill-fated to fall at last upon the walls of the black land and wander fruitless down into the dust. Here it came out of the rock in a little falling streamlet, and flowed across the path, and turning south, ran away swiftly to be lost among the dead stones. Sam sprang towards it. If ever I see the lady again, I will tell her, he cried. Light and now water! He then stopped. Let me drink it first, Mr. Frodo, he said. All right, but there's room enough for two. Oh, I, I didn't mean that, said Sam. I mean, well, if it's poisonous or something that will show its badness quick, well, better me than you, master, if you understand me. I do, but I think we'll trust our luck together, Sam, or our blessing. Still, be careful now if it's very cold. The water was cool, but not icy, and it had an unpleasant taste. At once bitter and oily, or so they would have said at home. Here it seemed beyond all praise, and beyond fear or prudence, they drank their fill, and Sam replenished his water bottle. After that, Frodo felt easier, and they went on for several miles, until the broadening of the road and the beginnings of a rough wall along its edge warned them that they were drawing near to another orc hold. This is where we turn aside, Sam, said Frodo. We must turn east. He sighed as he looked at the gloomy ridges across the valley. I have just about enough strength left to find some hole away up there. And then I must rest a little. The riverbed was now some way below the path. They scrambled down to it and began to cross it. To their surprise, they came upon dark pools fed by threads of water trickling down for some source higher up the valley. Upon its outer marges under the westward mountains of Mordor was a dying land, but it was not yet dead. And here things still grew Harsh, twisted, bitter, struggling for life. 
In the glens of the Morgai on the other side of the valley, low scrubby trees lurked and clung. Coarse grey grass tussocks fought with the stones and withered mosses scrawled on them. And everywhere great writhing tangled brambles sprawled. Some had long stabbing thorns, some hooked barbs that rent like knives. The sullen shriveled leaves of a past year hung on them, grating and rattling in the sad airs. But their maggot-ridden buds were only just opening. Flies, dun or grey or black, marked like oars with a red eye-shaped blotch, buzzed and stung. And above the briar thickets, clouds of hungry midges danced and reeled. Or gears no good, said Sam, waving his arms. I wish I'd gotten orcs hide. At last, Frodo couldn't go no further. They had climbed up a narrow shelving ravine, but they still had a long way to go before they could even come in sight of the last craggy ridge. I must rest now, Sam, and sleep if I can, said Frodo. He looked about, but there seemed nowhere even for an animal to crawl in in this dismal country. At length, tired out, they slunk under a curtain of brambles and hung down like a mat over a low rock face. There they sat and made such a meal as they could, keeping back the precious lambus for the evil days ahead. They ate half of what remained in Sam's bag of Faramir's provision, some dried fruit and a small slip of cured meat, and they sipped some water. They had drunk again from the pools in the valley, but they were very thirsty again. There was a bitter tang in the air of Mordor that dried the mouth. When Sam thought of water, even his hopeful spirit quailed. Beyond the Morgai was the dreadful plain of Gorgoroth to cross. Now you go to sleep first, Mr. Frodo, he said. It's getting dark again. I reckon this day is nearly over. Frodo sighed and was asleep almost before the words were spoken. Sam struggled with his own weariness, and he took Frodo's hand. And there he sat silent, till deep night fell. Then at last, to keep himself awake, he crawled from the hiding place and looked out. The land seemed full of creaking and cracking and sly noises, but there was no sound of voice or of foot. Far above the Efer Duath, in the west, the night sky was still dim and pale. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope. For then he was thinking of himself. Now, for a moment, his own fate and even his master's ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side. And putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. They woke together hand in hand. Sam was almost fresh, ready for another day. But Frodo sighed. His sleep had been uneasy, full of dreams of fire, 
and waking brought him no comfort. Still his sleep had not been without all healing virtue. He was stronger, more able to bear his burden one stage further. They did not know the time, nor how long they had slept, but after a morsel of food and a sip of water, they went on up the ravine, until it ended in a sharp slope of screes and sliding stones. There at last, living things gave up their struggle. The tops of the Morgai were grassless, bare, jagged, barren as a slate. After much wandering and searching, they found a way that they could climb. And with a last hundred feet of clawing scramble, they were up. They came to a cleft between two dark cracks, and passing through found themselves on the very edge of the last fence of Mordor. Below them at the bottom of a fall of some fifteen hundred feet lay the inner plain stretching away into a formless gloom beyond their sight. The wind of the world blew now from the west, and the great clouds were lifted high, floating away eastward, but still only a grey light came to the dreary fields of Gorgoroth. There smokes trailed on the ground and lurked in hollows, and fumes leaked from fissures in the earth. Still far away, forty miles at least, they saw Mount Doom. Its feet founded in ashen ruin, its huge cone rising to a great height, where its reeking head was swathed in cloud. Its fires were now dimmed, and it stood in smouldering slumber, as threatening and dangerous as a sleeping beast. Behind it there hung a vast shadow, ominous as a thundercloud. The veils of Barad-dur that was reared far away upon a long spur of the Ashen Mountains, thrust down from the north. The dark power was deep in thought, and the eye turned inward, pondering tidings of doubt and danger. A bright sword in the stern kingly face it saw, and for a while it gave little thought to other things. And all its great stronghold, gate on gate, and tower on tower, was wrapped in brooding gloom. Frodo and Sam gazed out in mingled loathing and wonder on this hateful land. Between them and the smoking mountain, and about it north and south, all seemed ruinous and dead. A desert burned and choked. They wondered how the lord of this realm maintained and fed his slaves and his armies. Yet armies he had. As far as their eyes could reach, along the skirts of the Morgai and away southward there were camps. Some of tents, some ordered like small towns. One of the largest of these was right below them. Barely a mile out into the plain it clustered like some huge nest of insects, with straight dreary streets of huts and long low drab buildings. About it the ground was busy with folk going to and fro. A wide road ran from its southeast to join the Mogul Way, and along it many lines of small black shapes were hurrying. I don't like the look of things at all, said Sam. Pretty hopeless, I call it. Saving that where there's such a lot of folk, there must be wells of water. Not to mention food. And these are men, not orcs. My eyes are all wrong. Neither he nor Frodo knew anything of the great slave-worked fields away south in this wide realm, beyond the fumes of the mountain by the dark sad waters of Lake Nurnan, nor of the great roads that ran away east and south to tributary lands, from which the soldiers of the tower brought long wagon trains of goods and booty and fresh slaves. 
here in the northward regions were the mines and forges and the musterings of long planned war. And here the dark power, moving its armies like pieces on the board, was gathering them together. Its first moves, the first feelers of its strength, had been checked upon its western line, southward and northward. For the moment it withdrew them, and brought up new forces, massing them about Kirith Gorgor for an avenging stroke. And if it had also been its purpose to defend the mountain against all approach, it could scarcely have done more. Well, Sam went on. Whatever they have to eat and drink, we can't get it. There's no way down that I can see. And we couldn't cross all that open country crawling with enemies even if we did get down. Still, we shall have to try, said Frodo. It's no worse than I expected. I never hoped to get across. I can't see any hope of it now. But I've got to do the best I can at present. That is to avoid being captured as long as possible. So we must still go northwards, I think, and see what it is like where the open plain is narrower. I guess what it'll be like, said Sam. Where it's narrower, the orcs and men will just be packed closer. You'll see, Mr. Frodo. I dare say, I dare say I shall if we ever get so far, said Frodo, and turned away. They soon found that it was impossible to make their way along the crest of the Morgai, or anywhere along its higher levels, pathless as they were and scored with deep gills. In the end, they were forced to go back down the ravine that they had climbed, and seek for a way along the valley. It was rough going, for they dared not cross over to the path on the westward side. After a mile or more they saw, huddled in a hollow at the cliff's foot, the oak hole that they had guessed was near at hand, a wall in a cluster of stone huts set about the dark mouth of a cave. There was no movement to be seen, but the hobbits crept by cautiously, keeping as much as they could to the thorn breaks that grew thickly at this point along both sides of the old watercourse. They went two or three miles further, and the orc hold was hidden from sight behind them. But they had hardly begun to breathe more freely again when harsh and loud they heard orc voices. Quickly they slunk out of sight behind a brown and stunted bush. The voices drew nearer. Presently two orcs came into view. One was clad in ragged brown and was armed with a bow of horn. It was of a small breed, black-skinned with wide and snuffling nostrils. Evidently a tracker of some kind. The other was a big fighting orc, like those of Shagrat's company, bearing the token of the eye. He also had a bow at his back and carried a short broad-headed spear. As usual, they were quarreling. And being of different breeds, they used the common speech after their fashion. Hardly twenty paces from where the hobbits lurked, the small orc stopped. It snarled. I'm going home. It pointed across the valley to the orc hold. No good wearing my nose out on stones anymore. There's no trace left, I say. I've lost the scent through giving away to you. It went up into the hills, not along the valley, I tell you. Not much use, are you, you little snufflers? Said the big orc. I reckon eyes are better than your snotty noses. Then what have you seen with them? Snarled the other. Wrong! You don't even know what you're looking for. Whose blame's that? Said the soldier. Not mine. That comes from higher up. First they say it's a great elf in white armor. Then it's a sort of small dwarf man. Then it must be a pack of rebel Urukai. 
Or maybe it's all the lot together. Said the tracker. They've lost their heads, that's what it is. And some of the bosses are going to lose their skins too, I guess. If what I hear is true, Tower raided an hole and hundreds of your lads done in and prisoner got away. If that's the way fighters go on, small wonder there's bad news from the battles. Who says there's bad news? Who says there isn't? Let's curse rebel talk and I'll stick you if you don't shut it down, see? All right, all right, said the tracker. I'll say no more and go on thinking. But what's the black snake got to do with it all, that gobbler with the flapping hands? I don't know. Nothing, maybe. But he's up to no good nosing around, I'll wager. Curse him! No sooner had he slipped us and run off than word came he's wanted alive. Wanted quick. Well, I hope they get him and put him through it, growled the tracker. He messed up the scent back there, pinching that cast off metal shirt that he found and paddling all around the place before I could get there. Well, it saved his life, anyhow, said the soldier. Why? Before I knew he was wanted, I shot him as neat as neat at fifty paces right in the back, but he ran on. Ah, you missed him, said the tracker. First you shoot wildly, you run too slow, and then you send for the poor trackers. I've had enough of you. He loped off. You come back, shouted the soldier. Or I'll report you! The hell? Not your precious Zagrat. He won't be captured anymore. I'll give your name and number to the Nazgul. Said the soldier, lowering his voice to a hiss. One of them's in charge of the tower now. The other halted, and his voice was full of fear and rage. You cursed bitch and slick He yelled. You can't do your job and you can't even sneak by your own folk. Told you filthy they shriek us and may they freeze the flesh off you if the enemy does get them first. They've done in number one, I've heard. And I have a stroke. The big orc, spear in hand, leapt after him, but the tracker, springing behind a stone, put an arrow in his left eye as he ran up, and he fell with a crash. The other ran off across the valley and disappeared. For a while, the hobbit sat in silence. At length, Sam stirred. Oh, I call that neat as neat, he said. If this friendliness would spread about in Mordor, half our trouble would be over. Quietly, Sam, Frodo whispered. Maybe others about. We have evidently had a very narrow escape, and the hunt was hotter on our tracks than we guessed, but that is the spirit of Mordor, Sam, and it has spread to every corner of it. Orcs have always behaved like that, or so all the tales say when they were on their own. But you can't get much hope out of it. They hate us far more. All together and all the time. If those two had seen us, they would have stopped all their quarrel. There was another long silence. Sam broke in again, but with a whisper this time. Did you hear what they said about that gobbler, Mr. Frodo? I told you Gollum wasn't dead yet, didn't I? Yes, I remember. And I wondered how you knew. Said Frodo. Well, come now. I think we'd better not move out from here again until it has gone quite dark. So you shall tell me how you know and all about what happened. If you can do so quietly. I'll try, said Sam. But when I think of that stinker, I get so hot I could shout. 
There the hobbit sat under the cover of the thorny bush, while the drear light of Mordor faded slowly into a deep and starless night. And Sam spoke into Frodo's ear all that he could find words for Gollum's treacherous attack, the horror of Shelob, and his own adventures with the orcs. When he had finished, Frodo said nothing, but took Sam's hand and pressed it. At length he stirred. Well, I suppose we must be going on again, he said. I wonder how long it will be before we really are caught, and all the toilings and the slinking will be over. And in vain. He stood up. It's dark and we cannot use the lady's glass. Keep it safe for me, Sam. I have nowhere to keep it now except in my hand. And I shall need both hands in the blind night. But sting I give to you. I have got that oak blade, but I do not think it will be my part to strike any blow again. It was difficult and dangerous moving in the night in the pathless land. But slowly and with much stumbling the two hobbits toiled on hour by hour northward along the eastern edge of the stony valley. When the grey light crept back onto the western heights, long after day had opened in the lands beyond, they went into hiding again. And slept a little, turn by turn. In his times of waking, Sam was busy with thoughts of food. At last, when Frodo roused himself and spoke of eating and making ready for yet another effort, he asked the question that was troubling him most. Uh, begging your pardon, Mr. Frodo, he said. But have you any notion of how far there is still to go? No. Not any clear notion, Sam. Frodo answered. In Rivendell, before I set out, I was shown a map of Mordor that was made before the enemy came back here. But I only remember it vaguely. I remember clearest that there was a place in the north where the western range and the northern range set out spurs that nearly meet. That must be twenty leagues at least from the bridge back by the tower. It might be a good point at which to cross. But of course, if we get there, we shall be further than we were from the mountain. Sixty miles from it, I should think. I guess that we have gone about twelve leagues north from, north from the bridge now. Even if all goes well, I should hardly reach the mountain in a week. <sighs> I'm afraid, Sam. But the burden will get very heavy. And I shall go still slower as we get nearer. Sam sighed. <sighs> that is just as I feared, he said. Well, to say nothing of water, we've got to eat less, Mr. Frodo, or else move a bit quicker at any rate while we're still in this valley. One more bite and all the food's ended, save the elves' waybread. I'll try and be a bit quicker, Sam, said Frodo, drawing a deep breath. Come on, then. Let's start another march. Right. It was not yet quite dark again. They plodded along out into the night. The hours passed in a weary stumbling trudge and with a few brief halts. At first hint of grey light under the skins of the canopy of shadow, they hid themselves again in a dark hollow under an overhanging stone. Slowly the light grew until it was clearer than it yet had been. A strong wind from the west was now driving the fumes of Mordor from the upper airs. Before long, the hobbits could make out the shape of the land for some miles about them. 
The trough between the mountains and the Morgai had steadily dwindled as it climbed upwards, and the inner ridge was now no more than a shelf in the steep faces of the Ethel Duath. But to the east it fell, as sheerly as ever, down to Gorgoroth. Ahead the watercourse came to an end in a broken steps of rock, for out of the main range there sprang a high barren spur, thrusting eastward like a wall. To meet it there, stretched out from the grey and misty northern range, the arid Lithwi, a long jutting arm, and between the ends there was a narrow gap. Karach Angren, the Eisenmouth beyond which lay the deep dale of Udun. In that dale behind the Moronon there were tunnels and deep armories that the servants of Mordor had made for the defence of the black gate of their land. And there now their lord was gathering in haste great forces to meet the onslaught of the captains of the west. Upon the outthrust spurs, forts and towers were built, and watchfires burned, and all across the gap an earth wall had been raised, and a deep trench delved that could be crossed only by a single bridge. A few miles north, high up in the angle where the western spur branched away from the main range, stood the old castle of Durthang, now one of the many orc holes that clustered about the Dale of Udun. A road already visible in the glowing night came winding down from it, until only a mile or two from where the hobbits lay, it turned east and ran along a shelf cut in the side of the spur, and so went down into the plain, and on to the Eisenmouth. To the hobbits as they looked out, it seemed that all their journey north had been useless. The plain on their right was dim and smoky, and they could see there neither camps nor troops moving. But all that region was under the vigilance of the forts of Karach Angren. We have come to a dead end, son, said Frodo. If we go on, we shall only come up to that orc tower, that the only road to take is that road that comes down from it, unless we go back. We can't climb up westward or climb down eastward. Then we must take the road, Mr. Frodo, said Sam. We must take it and chance our luck if there is any luck in Mordor. We might as well give ourselves up as wander about anymore, or try to go back. Our food won't last. We've got to make a dash for it. All right, Sam, said Frodo. Lead me. As long as you've got any hope left, mine is gone. But I can't dash, Sam. Just plod along after you. Before you start any more plodding, you need sleep and food, Mr. Frodo. Come and take what you can get of him. He gave Frodo water and an additional wafer of the waybread, and he made a pillow of his cloak for his master's head. Frodo was too weary to debate the matter, and Sam did not tell him that he had drunk the last drop of their water, and eaten Sam's share of the food as well as his own. When Frodo was asleep, Sam bent over him and listened to his breathing and scanned his face. It was lined and thin, and yet in sleep it looked content and unafraid. Well, here goes, monster. Sam muttered to himself. I'll have to leave you for a bit and trust to luck. Water we must have or we'll get no further. Sam crept out, and flitting from stone to stone with more than hobbit care, he went down into the watercourse, and then followed it for some way as it climbed north until he came to the rock steps where long ago, no doubt, its spring had come gushing down in a little waterfall. All now seemed dry and silent. 
but refusing to despair, Sam stooped and listened. And to his delight, he caught the sound of trickling. Clambering a few steps up, he found a tiny stream of dark water that came out from the hillside and filled a little bare pool, from which again it spilled and vanished then under the barren stones. Sam tasted the water, and it seemed good enough. Then he drank deeply, refilled the bottle, and turned to go back. At that moment, he caught a glimpse of a black form or shadow flitting across the rocks away near Frodo's hiding place. Biting back a cry, he leapt down from the spring and ran, jumping from stone to stone. It was a wary creature, difficult to see, but Sam had little doubt about it. He longed to get his hands on its neck, but it heard him coming and slipped quickly away. Sam thought he saw a last fleeting glimpse of it, peering back over the edge of the eastward precipice before it ducked and disappeared. Well, luck did not let me down, muttered Sam. That was that was a near thing, if it isn't enough. To have walked by the thousand without that stinking felon coming nosing around. I wish he'd been shot. He sat down by Frodo and did not rouse him, but he did not dare to go to sleep himself. At last, when he felt his eyes closing, and knew that his struggle to keep awake would not go on much longer, he wakened Frodo gently. Gollum's about again, I'm afraid, Mr. Frodo, he said. Leastways, if it wasn't him, then there's two of them. I went away to find some water, his biting nosing round just as I turned back. I reckon it isn't safe for us both to sleep together. I'm begging your pardon, but I can't hold up my lids much longer. Bless you, Sam, said Frodo. Lie down and take your proper turn. I'd rather have Gollum than Orcs. At any rate, he won't give us away to them, not unless he's caught himself. But he might do a bit of robbery and murder on his own, growled Sam. Keep your eyes open, Mr. Frodo. There's a bottle full of water. Drink up. We can fill it again when we go on. With that, Sam plunged into sleep. Light was fading when he awoke. Frodo sat propped against the rock behind, but he had fallen asleep. The water bottle was empty. There was no sign of Gollum. Mordor Dark had returned, and the watchfires of the heights burned fierce and red when the hobbits set out again on the most dangerous stage of all their journey. They went first to the little spring, and then climbing wearily up, they came to the road at the point where it swung east towards the Eisenmouth, twenty miles away. It was not a broad road, and it had no wall or parapet along the edge and as it ran on, the sheer drop of its brink became deeper and deeper. The hobbits could hear no movements, and after listening for a while, they set off eastward at a steady pace. After doing some twelve miles, they halted. A short way back, the road had bent a little northward, and the stretch that they had passed over was now screened from sight. This proved disastrous. They rested for some minutes, and then went on. But they had not taken many steps when suddenly, in the stillness of the night, they heard the sound that all along that they had secretly dreaded. The noise of marching feet. It was still some way behind them, but looking back they could see the twinkle of torches coming round the bend less than a mile away. And they were moving fast. Too fast for Frodo to escape by flight along the road ahead. I feared it, Sam, said Frodo. We've trusted to luck, and it has failed ours. We're trapped. 
They looked wildly up at the frowning wall, where the road builders of old had cut the rock sheer for many fathoms above their heads. He ran to the other side and looked over the brink into a dark pit of gloom. We're trapped at last, he said. He sank to the ground beneath the wall of rock and bowed his head. Seems so, said Sam. Well, we can but wait and see. And with that, he sat down beside Frodo under the shadow of the cliff. They did not have to wait long. The orcs were going at a great pace. Those in the foremost files bore torches. On they came, red flames in the dark, swiftly glowing. Now Sam too bowed his head hoping that it would hide his face when the torches reached them, and he set their shields before their knees to hide their feet. We are in a hurry, we'll let a couple of tired soldiers alone and pass on, he thought. And so it seemed that they would. The leading orcs came loping along, panting, holding their heads down. They were a gang of the smaller breeds, being driven unwilling to their Dark Lord's wars. All they cared for was to get the march over and escape the whip. Beside them, running up and down the line, went two of the large, fierce Uruks, cracking lashes and shouting. File after file passed, and the telltale torchlight was already somewhere ahead. Sam held his breath. Then half the line had gone by. Then suddenly one of the slave drivers spied the two figures by the roadside. He flicked the whip at them again. They did not answer, and with a shout, he halted the whole company. Come on, you slugs! This is no time for spouting! He took a step towards them, and even in the gloom, he recognized the devices on their shields. Deserting, eh? He snarled. Or thinking of it? All your folks should have been inside a dirt before yesterday evening, you know that! Up you get, and fall in, or I'll have your numbers and report you! They struggled to their feet, and keeping bent, limping like footsore soldiers, they shuffled back towards the rear of the line. No! Not all at the rear! The slave driver shouted. Three miles up and stay there, or you'll know it when I come down the line! He sent his long whiplash cracking over their heads, and with another crack and a yell, he started the company off again at a brisk trot. It was hard enough for poor Sam, tired as he was. But for Frodo, it was a torment. And soon a nightmare. He set his teeth and tried to stop his mind from thinking, and he struggled on. The stench of the sweating orcs about him was stifling, and he began to gasp with thirst. On, on they went, and he bent all his will to draw his breath and to make his legs keep going, and yet to what evil end he toiled and endured he did not dare to think. There was no hope of falling out unseen. Now and again, the orc driver fell back and jeered at them. He laughed, flicking at their legs. There's a will! My slugs! Hold up! I'll give you a nice pressure now, only you'll get as much mass as your skin will carry when you come in late to your camp! Oh, you good! Don't you know we're at war? They had gone some miles and the road was at last running down a long slope into the plain where Frodo's strength began to give out, and his will wavered. He lurched and stumbled. Desperately, Sam tried to help him and hold him up, though he felt that he could himself hardly stay the pace much longer. 
At any moment now, he knew that the end would come. His master would faint or fall, and all would be discovered and their bitter efforts be in vain. I'll have that base-blade-driving devil anyway! He thought. Then, just as he was putting his hand to the hilt of his sword, there came an unexpected relief. They were out on the plain now and drawing near the entrance to Udun. Somewhere in front of it, before the gate at the bridge end, the road from the west converged with others coming from the south and from Barad-dur. Along all the roads, troops were moving and the captains of the west were advancing and the Dark Lord was speeding his forces north. So it chanced that several companies came together at the road meeting, in the dark beyond the light of the watch fires of the world. At once there was great jostling and cursing as each group tried to get first to the gate and the ending of their march. Though the drivers yelled and plied their whips, scuffles broke out and some blades were drawn. A troop of heavy-armed Uruks from Baradur charged into the Durthang line and threw them into confusion. Dazed as he was with pain and weariness, Samuel Cup grasped quickly at his chance and threw himself to the ground, dragging Frodo down with him. Orcs fell over him, snarling and cursing. Slowly on hand and knee, the hobbits crawled away out of the turmoil until at last, unnoticed, they dropped over the further edge of the road. It had a high curb by which troop leaders could guide themselves in black night or fork, and it was banked up some feet above the level of the open land. They lay still for a while. It was too dark to seek for cover, if indeed there was only to find. But Sam felt that they ought to at least get further away from the highways and out of the range of torchlight. He whispered. One more crawl, and you can lie still. With a last despairing effort, Frodo raised himself on his hands and struggled on for maybe twenty yards. Then he pitched down into a shallow pit that opened unexpectedly before them, and there he lay like a dead thing. Sam put his ragged orc cloak under his master's head and covered them both with the grey robe of Lorien. And as he did so, his thoughts went out to that far land and to the elves, and he hoped that the cloth woven by their hands might have some virtue to keep them hidden beyond all hope in this wilderness of fear. He heard the scuffling and cries die down as the troops passed on through the Eisenmouth. It seemed that in the confusion and the mingling of many companies of various kinds, they had not been missed. Not yet at any rate. Sam took a sip of water, but pressed Frodo to drink, and when his master had recovered a little, he gave him a whole wafer of their precious whey bread, and made him eat it. Then, too worn out even to feel much fear, they stretched themselves out. They slept a little in uneasy fits, for their sweat grew chill on them, and the hard stones bit them, and they shivered. Out of the north from the black gate through Kirith Gorgor there flowed whispering along the ground a thin, cold air. In the morning a grey light came again, for in the high regions the west wind still blew, but down on the stones behind the fences of the black clan the air seemed almost dead, chill and yet stifling. Sam looked up out of the hollow. The land all about was dreary flat and drab-hued. On the roads nearby, nothing was moving now, but Sam feared the watchful eyes on the wall of the Eisenmouth, no more than a furlong away northward. 
southeastward and far off like a dark standing shadow loomed the mountain. Smokes were pouring from it, and while those that rose into the upper air trailed away eastward, great rolling clouds floated down its sides and spread over the land. A few miles to the northeast, the foothills of the Ashen Mountain stood like somber gray ghosts, behind which the misty northern heights like a line of distant cloud hardly darker than the lowering sky. Sam tried to guess the distance and to decide what way they ought to take. It looks every step to fifty miles, he muttered gloomily, staring at the threatening mountain. And that'll take a week if it takes a day with Mr. Frodo as he is. He shook his head. And as he worked things out, slowly a new dark thought grew in his mind. Never for long had hope died in his staunch heart, and always until now he had taken some thought of their return. But the bitter truth came home to him at last. At best their provision would take them to their goal, and when the task was done, there they would come to an end. Alone, houseless, foodless in the midst of a terrible desert. There could be no return. So that was the job I felt I had to do when I started, thought Sam, to help Mr. Frodo to the last step and die with him. Well, if that's the job, then I must do it. But I would dearly like to see Bywater again, and Rosie Cotton, and her brothers, and the Kaffir and Marigold and all. I can't think somehow that Gandalf would have sent Mr. Frodo on this errand if there hadn't been any hope of his ever coming back at all. Things all went wrong when he went down in Moria. I wish he hadn't. He would have done something. But even as hope died in Sam, or seemed to die, it was turned to a new strength. Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern, almost grim, as the will hardened in him and he felt through all his limbs a thrill, as if he was turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. With a new sense of responsibility, he brought his eyes back to the ground, near at hand, studying the next move. As the light grew, a little he saw to his surprise that what from a distance had seemed wide and featureless, Flats were in fact all broken and tumbled. Indeed, the whole surface of the plains of Gorgoroth was pocked with great holes, as if, while it was still a waste of soft mud, it had been smitten with a shower of bolts and huge sling stones. The largest of these holes were rimmed with edges of broken rock, and broad fissures ran out from them in all directions. It was a land in which it would be possible to creep from hiding to hiding, unseen by all but the most watchful eyes. Possible at least for one who was strong, and had no need for speed. For the hungry and worn, who had far to go before life failed, it had an evil look. Thinking of all these things, Sam went back to his master. He had to rouse him. Frodo was lying on his back with eyes open, staring at the cloudy sky. Well, Mr. Frodo, said Sam, I've been having a look around and thinking a bit. There is nothing on the roads, and we'd best be getting away while there's a chance. Can you manage it? 
I can manage it, said Frodo. I must. Once they started crawling from hollow to hollow, flitting behind such cover as they could find, but moving always in a slant towards the foothills of the northern range. But as they went, the most easterly of the roads followed them, until it ran off, hugging the skirts of the mountains, away into a wall of black shadow far ahead. Neither man nor orc now moved along its flat grey stretches, for the Dark Lord had almost completed the movement of his forces, and even in the fastness of his own realm he sought the secrecy of night, fearing the winds of the world that had turned against him. Tearing aside his veils, and troubled with the tidings of bold spies that had passed through his fences. The hobbits had gone a few weary miles when they halted. Frodo seemed nearly spent. Sam saw that he could not go much further in his fashion, crawling, stooping, now picking a doubtful way very slowly, now hurrying at a stumbling run. I'm going back to the road while the light lasts, Mr. Frodo, he said. Trust your luck again. It nearly failed us last time. But it didn't quite. A steady pace for a few more miles, and then a rest. He was taking a far greater risk than he knew. But Frodo was too much occupied with his burden and with the struggle in his mind to debate. And almost too hopeless to care. They climbed on to the causeway and trudged along down the hard, cruel road that led to the Dark Tower itself. But their luck held, and for the rest of that day they met no living or moving thing. And when night fell, they vanished into the darkness of Mordor, and the land now brooded as the coming of a great storm. For the captains of the West had passed the crossroads and set flames in the deadly fields of Imlad Morgul. So the desperate journey went on as the ring went south and the banners of the kings rode north. For the hobbits each day, each mile, was more bitter than the one before, as their strength lessened and the land became more evil. They met no enemies by day, at times by night, as they cowered or drowsed uneasily in some hiding beside the road, they heard cries and the noise of many feet or the swift passing of some cruelly hidden steed. But far worse than all such perils was the ever-approaching threat that beat upon them as they went. The dreadful menace of the power that waited, brooding in deep thought and sleepless malice behind the dark veil about its throne. Nearer and nearer it drew, looming blacker, like the oncoming of a wall of night at the last end of the world. There came at last a dreadful nightfall, and even as the captains of the West drew near to the end of the living lands, the two wanderers came to an hour of blank despair. Four days had passed since they had escaped from the orcs, but the time lay behind them like an ever-darkening dream. All this last day Frodo had not spoken, but had walked half-bowed, often stumbling, as if his eyes no longer saw the way before his feet. Sam guessed that among all their pains he bore the worst. The growing weight of the ring, a burden on the body and a torment to his mind. Anxiously, Sam had noted how his master's left hand would often be raised as if to ward on a blow, or 
to screen his shrinking eyes from a dreadful eye that sought to look in them. And sometimes his right hand would creep to his breast, clutching, and then slowly, as the will recovered mastery, it would be withdrawn. Now, as the blackness of night returned, Frodo sat, his head between his knees, his arms hanging wearily to the ground where his hands lay feebly twitching. Sam watched him, till night covered them both and hid them from one another. He could no longer find any words to say, and he turned to his own dark thoughts. As for himself, though weary and under a shadow of fear, he still had some strength left. The Lembus had a virtue without which they would long ago have lain down to die. It did not satisfy desire, and at times Sam's mind was filled with the memories of food and the longing for simple bread and meats. And yet this waybread of the elves had a potency that increased as travelers relied on it alone and did not mingle it with other foods. It fed the will and it gave strength to endure and to master sinew and limb beyond the measure of mortal kind. But now a new decision must be made. They could not follow this road any longer, for it went on eastward into the great shadow. But the mountain now loomed upon their right, almost due south, and they must turn towards it. Yet still before it, there stretched a wide region of fuming, barren, ash-ridden land. Water. Water. Muttered Sam. He had stinted himself, and in his parched mouth his tongue seemed thick and swollen. But for all his care, they now had very little left. Perhaps half his bottle, and maybe there were still days to go. All would long ago have been spent, but they had not dared to follow the Orc Road. For at long intervals on that highway, cisterns had been built for the use of troops, sent in haste through the waterless regions. In one, Sam had found some water left, stale, muddied by the orcs, but still sufficient for their desperate case. Yet it was now a day ago. There was no hope of any more. At last, wearied with his cares, Sam drowsed, leaving the morrow till it came. He could do no more. Dream and waking mingled uneasily. He saw lights like gloating eyes and dark creeping shapes and he heard noises as of wild beasts or the dreadful cries of tortured things. And he would start up to find the world all dark, and only empty blackness all about him. Once only, as he stood and stared wildly round, did it seem that, though now awake, he could still see pale lights like eyes, but soon they flickered and vanished. The hateful night passed slowly and reluctantly. Such daylight as followed was dim, but here, as the mountain drew nearer, the air was ever murky. While out of the dark tower, there crept the veils of shadow that Sauron wove about himself. Frodo was lying on his back, not moving. Sam stood beside him, reluctant to speak, and yet knowing that the word now lay with him. He must set his master's will to do work for another effort. At length, stooping and caressing Frodo's brow, he spoke in his ear. He said. Time for another start. As if roused by a sudden bell, Frodo rose quickly and stood up and looked away southwards. But when his eyes beheld the mountain and the desert, he quailed again. 
managed it, Sam. He said. It's such a weight to carry. Such a weight. Sam knew before he spoke that it was vain, and that such words might do more harm than good. But in his pity, he could not keep silent. Then let me carry it a bit for you, Master, he said. You know I would, and gladly, as long as I have any strength. A wild light came into Frodo's eyes. Stay away! Don't touch he me! He cried. It is mine, I say! Be off! His hand stayed to his sword hilt, but then quickly his voice changed. No, no Sam, he said sadly. But you must understand, it is my burden. No one else can bear it. It is too late now, Sam dear. You can't help me in the way again. I am almost in its power now. I should not give up. And if you try to take it, I should come mad. Sam nodded. I understand, he said. But I've been thinking, Mr. Frodo. There's other things that we might have to do without. Why not lighten the load a bit? We might bring that way now, as straight as we can make it. He pointed to the mountain. It's no good taking anything we're not sure to need. Frodo looked again towards the mountain. <sighs> no, he said. We shan't need much on that road. And as it's, and at its ending, nothing. Picking up his orc shield, he flung it away and threw his helmet after it. Then pulling off the grey cloak, he undid the heavy belt and let it fall to the ground. And the sheath soared with it. The sheds of that black cloak he tore off and scattered. I'll be an orc no more, he cried. And I'll bear no weapon, fair or foul. Let them take it if they will. Sam did likewise, and put aside his orc gear. And he took out all the things in his pack. Somehow each of them had become dear to him, if only because he had borne them so far with so much toil. Hardest of all it was to part with his cooking gear. Tears welled in his eyes at the thought of casting it away. Do you remember that pit of rabbit, Mr. Frodo? He said. In our place under the warm bank in Captain Farmer's country. I'm afraid not, Sam, said Frodo. At least, I know that such things happened, but I cannot see. feel of water, no sound of wind, no memory of tree or grass or flower, no image of moon or star are left to me. I am naked in the dark, Sam. There is no veil between me and the wheel of fire. I begin to see it even in my waking eyes. All else fails. Sam went to him and kissed his hand. The sooner we're rid of it, the sooner to rest. He said haltingly, finding no better words to say. Talking won't mend nothing. He muttered to himself as he gathered up all the things that they had chosen to cast away. He was not willing to leave them lying open in the wilderness for any eyes to see. Stinker picked up that orc shirt seemingly, and he isn't going to add a sword to it. His hands are bad enough when empty, and he isn't going to mess with my pans. With that, he carried all the gear away to one of the many gaping fishes that scored the land and threw them in. The clatter of his precious pans as they fell down into the dark was like a death knell to his heart.
he came back to Frodo, and then of his elven rope he cut a short piece to serve his master as a girdle and bind the great cloak close about his waist. The rest he carefully coiled and put back in his pack. Beside that he kept only the remnants of their waybread and the water bottle, and Sting still hanging by his belt and hidden away in a pocket of his tunic, next his breast, the file of Galadriel, and the little box that she gave him for his own. Now at last they turned their faces to the mountain and set out, thinking no more of concealment, bending their weariness and failing wills only to the one task of going on. In the dimness of its dreary day, few things even in that land of vigilance could have espied them, save from close at hand. Of all the slaves of the Dark Lord, only the Nazgul could have warned him of the peril that crept, small but indomitable, into the very heart of his guarded realm. But the Nazgul and their black wings were abroad on other errand. They were gathered far away, shadowing the march of the captains of the West, and thither the thought of the Dark Lord was turned. That day it seemed to Sam that his master had found some new strength, more than could be explained by the small lightning of the load that he had to carry. In the first marches they went further and faster than he had hoped. Their land was rough and hostile, and yet they made much progress, and ever the mountain drew nearer. But as the day wore on, and all too soon the dim light began to fail, Frodo stooped again and began to stagger, as if the renewed effort had squandered his remaining strength. At their last halt, he sank down and said, I'm thirsty, Sam, and did not speak again. Sam gave him a mouthful of water. Only one more mouthful remained. He went without himself, and now as once more the night of Mordor closed over them. Through all his thoughts there came the memory of water, and every brook or stream or fount that he had ever seen under the green willow shades of twinkling in the sun danced and rippled for his torment behind the blindness of his eyes. He felt the cool mud about his toes as he paddled in the pool at Bywater, with Jolly Cotton and Tom and Nibs, and their sister Rosie. But that was ten years ago, he sighed, and far away. The way back, if there is one, goes past the mountain. He could not sleep and held a debate with himself. Oh, come now. We've done better than you hoped, he said sturdily. Began well anyway. I reckoned across half of the distance before we stopped. One more day will do it. And then he paused. Don't be a fool, Sam Gamgee, came an answer to his own voice. He won't go another day like that if he moves at all. And you can't go on much longer giving him all the water and most of the food. I can go on a good way through, and I will. Where to? To the mountain, of course. But what then, Simgamji? What then? When you get there, what are you going to do? He won't be able to do anything for himself. To his dismay, Sam realized that he had not got an answer to this. He had no clear idea at all. Frodo had not spoken much to him of his errand, and Sam only knew vaguely that the ring had somehow to be put into the fire. He muttered, the old name rising to his mind. Well, if Master knows how to find them, I don't. There you are, came the answer. It's all quite useless, he said to himself. You are the fool going and hoping and toiling. You could have lain down and gone to sleep together days ago if you hadn't been so dogged. But you'd die just the same or worse. You might just as well lie down and give up. You'll never get to the top anyway. 
my bones behind, said Sam. And I'll carry Mr. Frodo up myself if it breaks through my back and heart. So stop arguing! At that moment, Sam felt a tremor in the ground beneath him, and he heard or sensed a deep remote rumble as of thunder imprisoned under the earth. There was a brief red flame that flicked under the clouds and died away. The mountain too slept uneasily. The last stage of their journey to Orodruin came, and it was a torment greater than Sam had ever thought that he could bear. He was in pain, and so parched that he could no longer swallow even a mouthful of food. It remained dark, not only because of the smokes of the mountain. There seemed to be a storm coming up, and away to the southeast there was a shimmer of lightnings under the black skies. Worst of all, the air was full of fumes, breathing was painful and difficult, and a dizziness came on them so that they staggered and often fell. And yet their wills did not yield, and they struggled on. The mountain crept up ever nearer, until, if they lifted their heavy heads, it filled all their sight, looming vast before them, a huge mass of ash and slag and burned stone, out of which a sheer-sided cone was raised into the clouds. Before the day-long dusk ended and true night came again, they had crawled and stumbled to its very feet. With a gasp, Frodo cast himself on the ground. Sam sat by him. To his surprise, he felt tired but lighter, and his head seemed clear again. No more debates disturbed his mind. He knew all the arguments of despair and would not listen to them. His will was set, and only death would break it. He felt no longer either desire or need of sleep, but rather of watchfulness. He knew that all the hazards and perils were now drawing together to a point. The next day would be a day of doom. The day of final effort or disaster. The last gasp. But when would it come? The night seemed endless and timeless, minute after minute falling dead and adding up to no passing hour, bringing no change. Sam began to wonder if a second darkness had begun and no day would ever reappear. At last he groped for Frodo's hand. It was cold and trembling. His master was shivering. I didn't ought to have left my blanket behind, muttered Sam. And lying down, he tried to comfort Frodo with his arms and body. Then sleep took him, and the dim light of the last day of their quest found them side by side. The wind had fallen the day before as it shifted from the west, and now it came from the north and began to rise. And slowly the light of the unseen sun filtered down into the shadows where the hobbits lay. Now for it! Now for the last gasp! Said Sam as he struggled to his feet. He bent over Frodo, rousing him gently. Frodo groaned, but with a great effort of will, he staggered up, and then he fell upon his knees again. He raised his eyes with difficulty to the dark slopes of Mount Doom, towering above him. And then pitifully he began to crawl forward on his hands. Sam looked at him and wept in his heart, but no tears came to his dry and stinging eyes. broke my back, he muttered. And I will. Come, Mr. Frodo, he cried. 
I can't carry it for you, but I can't carry you, and it is well. So up you get. Come on, Mr. Frodo, dear. Sam will give you a ride. Just tell him where to go, and he'll go. As Frodo clung upon his back, arms loosed about his neck, legs clasped firmly under his arms, Sam staggered to his feet, and then to his amazement he felt the burden light. He had feared that he would have barely strength to lift his master alone, and beyond that he had expected to share in the dreadful dragging weight of the accursed ring. But it was not so. Whether because Frodo was so worn by his long pains, wound of knife and venomous sting, and sorrow, fear and homeless wandering, or because some gift of final strength was given to him, Sam lifted Frodo with no more difficulty than if he were carrying a hobbit child piggyback in some romp on the lawns or hayfields of the Shire. He took a deep breath and started off. They had reached the mountain's foot on its northern side, and a little to the westward, there its long grey slopes, though broken, were not sheer. Frodo did not speak, and so Sam struggled on as best he could, having no guidance but the will to climb as high as might be before his strength gave out and his will broke. On he toiled up and up, turning this way and that, to lessen the slope, often stumbling forward, and at the last crawling like a snail with a heavy burden on his back. When his will could drive him no further and his limbs gave way, he stopped and laid his master gently down. Frodo opened his eyes and drew a breath. It was easier to breathe up here, above the reeks that coiled and drifted down below. He said in a cracked whisper. How far is there to go? Oh, I don't know, said Sam. Because I don't know where we're going. He looked back, and then he looked up. And he was amazed to see how far his last effort had brought him. The mountain standing ominous and alone had looked taller than it was. Sam saw now that it was less lofty than the high passes of the Ethel Duath, which he and Frodo had scaled. The confused and tumbled shoulders of its great base rose for maybe 3,000 feet above the plain, and above them, reared half as high, again its tall central cone, like a vast oast or chimney capped with a jagged crater. But already Sam was more than halfway up the base, and the plain of Golgoroth was dim below him, wrapped in fume and shadow. As he looked up, he would have given a shout if his parched throat had allowed him, for amid the rugged humps and shoulders above him, he saw plainly a path or road. It climbed like a rising girdle from the west and wound snake-like about the mountain, until before it went round out of view it reached the foot of the cone upon its eastern side. Sam could not see the course immediately above him, where it was lowest, for a steep slope went up where he stood, but he guessed that if he could only struggle on just a little way further up, they could strike this path. A gleam of hope returned to him. They might conquer the mountain yet. Why? It might have been put there a purpose, he said to himself. If it wasn't there, I'd have to say it was beaten in the end. The path was not put there for the purposes of Sam. He did not know it, but he was looking at Sauron's road, from the Barad-dûr to the Samathnaur, the chambers of fire. Out of the dark tower's huge western gate it came over a deep abyss by a vast bridge of iron, and then passing into the plain it ran for a league between two smoking chasms and so reached a long sloping causeway that led up on to the mountain's eastern side. Thence, turning up and circling all its wide girth from south to north, it climbed at last high in the upper cone, but still far from the reeking summit to a dark entrance that gazed back east straight to the window of the eye in Sauron's shadow-mantled fortress. 
often blocked or destroyed by the tumults of the mountain's furnaces, always that road was repaired and cleaned again by the labors of countless orcs. Sam drew a deep breath. There was a path, but how he was to get up the slopes to it he did not know. First he must ease his aching back. He lay flat beside Frodo for a while. Neither spoke. Slowly the light grew. Suddenly a sense of urgency which he did not understand came to Sam. It was almost as if he had been called. Now, now, or it will be too late! He braced himself and got up. Frodo also seemed to have felt the call. He struggled to his knees. I'll crawl, Sam. He gasped. So, foot by foot, like small grey insects, they crept up the slope. They came to the path and found that it was broad, paved with broken rubble and beaten ash. Frodo clambered onto it, and then moved as if by some compulsion he turned slowly to face the east, far off the shadows of Sauron Hoth. But torn by some gust of wind out of the world, or else moved by some great disquiet within, the mantling clouds swirled, and for a moment drew aside, and he saw, rising black, blacker and darker than the vast shades amid which it stood, the cruel pinnacles and iron crown of the topmost tower of Barad-dûr. One moment only it stared out, but as from the great window immeasurably high, there stabbed northward a flame of red, the flicker of a piercing eye. And then the shadows were filled again, and the terrible vision was removed. The eye was not turned to them. It was gazing north to where the captains of the west stood at bay, and thither all this malice was now bent, as the power moved to strike its deadly blow. But Frodo at the dreadful glimpse fell as one stricken mortally. His hands sought the chain about his neck. Sam knelt by him, faint almost inaudibly. He heard Frodo whispering, Help me, Sam. Help me, Sam. Hold my hand. I can't stop it. Sam took his master's hands and laid them together, palm to palm, and kissed them. And then he held them gently between his own. The thought came suddenly to him. He spotted us. It's all up. Or soon it will be. Now, Sam Ganji. This is the end of ends. Again he lifted Frodo and drew his hands down to his own breast, letting his master's legs dangle. Then he bowed his head and struggled off along the climbing road. It was not as easy a way to take as it had looked at first. By fortune the fires had poured forth in the great turmoils when Sam stood upon Kirith Ungol and flowed down mainly on the southern and western slopes, and the road on this side was not blocked, yet in many places it had crumbled away or was crossed by graping rents. After climbing eastward for some time it bent back upon itself at a sharp angle and then went westward fox apace. There at the bend it was cut deep through a crag of old weathered stone, once long ago vomited from the mountain surfaces. Panting under his load, Sam turned the bend, and even as he did so, out of the corner of his eye, he had a glimpse of something falling from the crag, like a small piece of black stone that had toppled off as he passed. A sudden weight smote him and he crashed forward, tearing the backs of his hands that still clasped his masters. Then he knew what had happened, for above him as he lay, he heard a hated voice. Wicked master! It hissed. Wicked master cheats us! He mustn't do that world! He mustn't hurt the precious! Give it to Smeagol! Yes! 
Give it to us! Give it to us! With a violent heave, Sam rose up. At once he drew his sword, but he could do nothing. Gollum and Frodo were locked together. Gollum was tearing at his master, trying to get the chain and the ring. It was probably the only thing that could have roused the dying embers of Frodo's heart and will. An attack. An attempt to wrest his treasure from him by force. He fought back with a sudden fury that amazed Sam and Gollum also. Even so, things might have gone far otherwise if Gollum himself had remained unchanged. But whatever dreadful paths, lonely and hungry and waterless, he had trodden, driven by a devouring desire and a terrible fear, they had left grievous marks on him. He was a lean, starved, haggard thing, all bones and tight-drawn, sallow skin, a wild light flaming in his eyes, but his malice was no longer matched by his old griping strength. Frodo flung him off and rose up, quivering. Down! Down! He gasped, clutching his hand to his breast, so that beneath the cover of his leather shirt, he clasped the ring. Down, you creeping thing! And out of my path! Your time is at an end. You cannot betray me or slay me now. Then suddenly, as before under the eaves of the Emin Wheel, Sam saw these two rivals with other vision. A crouching shape, scarcely more than the shadow of a living thing, a creature now wholly ruined and defeated, yet filled with a hideous lust and rage, and before it stood stern, untouchable now by pity, a figure robed in white. But at its breast it held a wheel of fire. Out of the fire there spoke a commanding voice. Be gone, and trouble me no more! If you touch me ever again, you shall be cast yourself into the fire of doom! The crouching shape backed away, terror in its blinking eyes, and yet at the same time insatiable desire. Then the vision passed and Sam saw Frodo standing, hand on his breast, his breath coming in great gasps, and Gollum at his feet, resting on his knees with his wide-splayed hands upon the ground. Look out! cried Sam. Hail Spring! He stepped forward, brandishing his sword. Quick, Master! He gasped. Go on! Go on! No time to lose! I'll deal with him! Go on! Frodo looked at him as if one now far away. Yes, I must go on. He said. Farewell, Sam. This is the end at last. On Mount Doom, Doom shall fall. Farewell. He turned and went on, walking slowly but erect up the climbing path. Now, said Sam. At least I can deal with you! He leapt forward with drawn blade, ready for battle. But Gollum did not spring. He fell flat upon the ground and whimpered. Oh, 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 don't kill us! He wept. Don't harm the master's cruel steel. Let us live. Yes, live just a little longer. Lost, lost, lost. And my precious stars will die. Thus, time to the past. He clawed up the ashes of the path with his long fleshless fingers. His mind was hot with wrath and memory of evil. It would be just to slay this treacherous, murderous creature. Just and many times deserved. And also it seemed the only safe thing to do. But deep in his heart, there was something that restrained him. He could not strike this thing. 
Lying in the dust, forlorn, ruinous, utterly wretched, he himself, though only for a little while, had borne the ring. And now dimly he guessed the agony of Gollum's shriveled mind and body. Enslaved to that ring, unable to find peace or relief ever in life again. But Sam had no words to express what he felt. Oh, oh, curse you, you stinking thing! He said. Go away! Be off! I don't trust you, not as far as I could kick you, but be off! Or I shall hurt you! Yes, with nasty, cruel steel! Gollum got up on all fours and backed away for several paces, and then he turned, and then as Sam aimed a kick at him, he fled away down the path. Sam gave no more heed to him. He suddenly remembered his master. He looked up the path and could not see him. As fast as he could, he trudged up the road. If he had looked back, he might have seen not far below Gollum turn again, and then with a wild light of madness glaring in his eyes come, swiftly but wearily creeping on behind a slinking shadow among the stones. The path climbed on. Soon it bent again and, with a last eastward course, passed in a cutting along the fence of the cone and came back to the door in the mountainside. The door of the Samoth now. Far away now, rising towards the south, the sun piercing the smokes and haze, burned ominous, a dull bleared disk of red. But all Mordor lay about the mountain like a dead land, silent, shadow-folded, waiting for some dreadful stroke. Sam came to the gaping mouth and peered in. It was dark and hot, and a deep rumbling shook the air. Frodo! Master! He called. There was no answer. For a moment he stood, his heart beating with wild fears. And then he plunged in. A shadow followed him. At first he could see nothing. In his great need he drew out once more the file of Galadriel, but it was pale and cold in his trembling hand and threw no light into that stifling dark. He was come to the heart of the realm of Sauron and the forges of his ancient might greatest in Middle-earth. All other powers were here subdued. Fearfully, he took a few uncertain steps in the dark, and then all at once there came a flash of red that leapt upward and smote the high black roof. Then Sam saw that he was in a long cave or tunnel that bored into the mountain's smoking cone. But only a short way ahead its floor and the walls on either side were cloven by a great fissure, out of which the red glare came now leaping up, now dying down into darkness. And all the while, far below, there was a rumour and a trouble as of great engines throbbing and labouring. The light sprang up again, and there on the brink of the chasm, at the very crack of doom, stood Frodo. Black against the glare, tense, erect, but still as if he had been turned to stone cried Sam. Then Frodo stirred and spoke with a clear voice. Indeed with a voice clearer and more powerful than Sam had ever heard him use. And it rose above the throb and turmoil of Mount Doom, ringing in the roof and walls. I have come, he said. But I do not choose now to do what I came to do. I will not do this deed. The ring is mine. And suddenly, as he set it on his finger, he vanished from Sam's sight. Sam gasped, 
but he had no chance to cry out, for at that moment, many things happened. Something struck Sam violently in the back. His legs were knocked from under him, and he was flung aside, striking his head against the stony floor, as a dark shape sprang over him. He lay still, and for a moment all went black. And far away, as Frodo put on the ring and claimed it for his own, even in Samoth Naur, the very heart of his realm, the power of Barad-dur was shaken, and the tower trembled from its foundations to its proud and bitter crown. The Dark Lord was suddenly aware of him, and his eye, piercing all shadows, looked across the plain into the door that he had made. And the magnitude of his own folly was revealed to him in a blinding flash, and all the devices of his enemies were at last laid bare. Then his wrath blazed in consuming flame, but his fear rose like a vast black smoke to choke him. For he knew his deadly peril, and the thread upon which his doom now hung. From all his policies and webs of fear and treachery, from all his stratagems and wars, his mind shook free, and throughout his realm a tremor ran. His slaves quailed, and his armies halted, and his captains, suddenly steerless, bereft of will, wavered and despaired, for they were forgotten. The whole mind and purpose of the power that wielded them was now bent with overwhelming force upon the mountain. At this summons, wheeling with the rending cry, in a last desperate race, there flew, faster than the winds, the Nazgûl, the Ringwraiths, and with a storm of wings, they hurtled towards Mount Doom. Sam got up. He was dazed, and blood streaming from his head dripped in his eyes. He groped forward, and then he saw a strange and terrible thing. Gollum on the edge of the abyss was fighting like a mad thing with an unseen foe. To and fro he swayed. Now so near the brink that almost he tumbled in, now dragging back, falling to the ground, rising and falling again. And all the while he hissed, but spoke no words. The fires below awoke in anger, the red light blazed, and all the cavern was filled with a great glare and heat. Suddenly, Sam saw Gollum's long hands draw upwards to his mouth. His wide fangs gleamed, and then snapped as they bit. Frodo gave a cry, and there he was fallen upon his knees at the chasm's edge. But Gollum, dancing like a mad thing, held aloft the ring. A finger still thrust within its circle. It shone now as if verily it was wrought of living fire. Gollum cried. Brussels! My Brussels! Oh, my Brussels! My Brussels! And with that, even as his eyes were lifted up to gloat on his prize, he stepped too far, toppled, wavered for a moment on the brink, and then with a shriek, he fell. Out of the depths came his last wail. And he was gone. There was a roar and a great confusion of noise. Fires leapt up and licked the roof. 
the throbbing crew to a great tumult, and the mountain shook. Sam ran to Frodo and picked him up and carried him out to the door. And there upon the dark threshold of the Samoth Nahur, high above the plains of Mordor, such wonder and terror came on him that he stood still, forgetting all else, and gazed as one turned to stone. A brief vision he had of swirling cloud, and in the midst of it, towers and battlements, tall as hills, founded upon a mighty mountain throne above immeasurable pits, great courts and dungeons, eyeless prisons, sheer as cliffs, and gaping gates of steel and adamant. And then, all passed. Towers fell and mountains slid. Walls crumbled and melted, crashing down. Vast spires of smoke and spouting steams went billowing up, up, until they toppled like an overwhelming wave. And its wild crest curled and came foaming down upon the land. Then, at last, over the miles between there, came a rumble, rising to a deafening crash and roar. The earth shook, the plain heaved and cracked, and the dream breathed. Fire belched from its riven summit. The skies burst into thunder, seared with lightning. Down like lashing whips fell a torrent of black rain, and into the heart of the storm, with a cry that pierced all other sounds, Tearing the clouds asunder, the Nazgul came, shooting like flaming bolts. As caught in the fiery ruin of hill and sky, they crackled, withered, and went out. Well, this, this is the end, Sam Kapchi. And there was Frodo, pale and worn, and yet himself again. And in his eyes there was peace now, neither strain of will, nor madness, nor any fear. His burden was taken away. There was the dear master of the sweet days, in the Shire. Oh, master! cried Sam, and fell upon his knees. In all that ruin of the world, for the moment he felt only joy, great joy. The burden was gone. His master had been saved. He was himself again. He was free. And then Sam caught sight of the maimed and bleeding hand. Oh, oh your poor hand, he said. And I have nothing to bind it with or comfort it. Ah, I would have spared him. A whole hand of mine, rather. But, but he's gone now. Beyond recall. Gone forever. Yes, said Frodo. But do you remember Gandalf's words? Even Gollum may have something yet to do. But for him, Sam, I would have not destroyed the ring. The quest would have been in vain. Even at the bitter end. So let us forgive him. For the quest is achieved. And now all is over. I'm glad you're here with me. 
about the hills, the hosts of Mordor raged. The captains of the west were foundering in a gathering sea. The sun gleamed red, and under the wings of the Nazgul, the shadows of death fell dark upon the earth. Aragorn stood beneath his banner, silent and stern, as one lost in thought of things long past or far away. But his eyes gleamed like stars that shine the brighter as the night deepens. Upon the hilltop stood Gandalf, and he was white and cold, and no shadow fell on him. The onslaught of Mordor broke like a wave on the beleaguered hills, voices roaring like a tide amid the wreck and crash of arms. As if to his eyes some sudden vision had been given, Gandalf stirred, and he looked, and he turned, looking back north where the skies were pale and clear. Then he lifted up his hands, and cried in a loud voice, ringing above the din. The eagles are coming! And many voices answered, crying, The hosts of Mordor looked up and wondered what this sign might mean. There came Gwaihir, the Wind Lord, and Landraval, his brother, greatest of all eagles of the north, mightiest of the descendants of old Thorondor, who built his Ares in the inaccessible peaks of the encircling mountains, when Middle-earth was young. Behind them in long swift lines came all their vessels from the northern mountains, speeding on a gathering wind. Straight down upon the Nazgul they bore, stooping suddenly out of the high airs, and the rush of their wide wings as they passed over was like a gale. But the Nazgul turned and fled, and vanished into Mordor's shadows, hearing a sudden terrible call out of the Dark Tower. And even at that moment, all the hosts of Mordor trembled. Doubt clutched their hearts, their laughter failed, their hands shook and their limbs were loosed. The power that drove them on and filled them with hate and fury was wavering. Its will was removed from them. And now, looking in the eyes of their enemies, they saw a deadly light and were afraid. Then, all the captains of the West cried aloud, for their hearts were filled with a new hope in the midst of darkness. Out from the beleaguered hills, knights of Gondor, riders of Rohan, Dunedain of the North, close serried companies drove against their wavering forces, piercing the press with the thrust of bitter spears. But Gandalf tilted up his arm and called once more in a clear voice. Stand, men of the West! Turn and wait! This is the hour of doom! And even as he spoke, the earth rocked beneath their feet. Then, rising swiftly up, far above the towers of the Black Gate, a vast roaring darkness sprang into the sky, flickering with fire. The earth groaned and quaked, the towers of the teeth swayed, tottered, and fell down. The mighty rampart crumbled, the black gate was hurled in ruin, and from far away, now dim, now growing, now mounting to the clouds, there came a drumming rumble, a roar, a long echoing roll of ruinous noise. As the captains gazed south to the land of Mordor, it seemed to them that, black against the pole of cloud, there rose a huge shape of shadow, impenetrable, lightning crowned, filling all the sky. Enormous it reared above the world, and stretched out towards them a vast threatening hand. Terrible, 
but impotent, for even as it leaned over them, a great wind took it, and it was all blown away, and passed, and then a hush fell. The captains bowed their heads, and when they looked up again, behold, their enemies were flying, and the power of Mordor was scattering like dust in the wind. As when death smites the swollen brooding thing that inhabits their crawling hill, and holds them all in sway, ants will wander witless and purposeless and then feebly die, so the creatures of Sauron, orc or troll, or beast spell enslaved, ran hither and thither mindless, and some slew themselves, or cast themselves in pits, or fled wailing back to hide in the holes and dark lightless places far from hope. But the men of Ruin and Harad, Easterling and Southron, saw the ruin of their war and the great majesty and glory of the captains of the West. And those that were deepest and longest in evil servitude, hating the West and yet were men proud and bold, in their turn now gathered themselves for a last stand of desperate battle. But the most part fled eastward as they could, and some cast their weapons down and sued for mercy. Then Gandalf, leaving all such matters of battle and command to Aragorn and the other lords, stood upon the hilltop and called. And down to him came the great eagle Gwaihir, the Windlord, and stood before him. Twice you have borne me, Gwaihir, my friend, said Gandalf. Thrice shall pay for all, if you are willing. You will not find me a burden much greater than when you bore me from Zeraxigil, when my old life burned away. I would bear you, answered Gwaihir, whither you will, even were you made of stone. Then come, and let your brother go with us, and some other of your folk who is most swift. For we have need of speed greater than any wind, outmashing the wings of the Nazgul. The north wind blows, but we shall outfly it, said Gwaihir. And he lifted up Gandalf and sped away south, and with him went Landrovar and Meneldor, young and swift. And they passed over Adun and Gorgoroth, and saw all the land in ruin and tumult beneath them. And before them, Mount Doom blazing, pouring out its fire. You're here with me, said Frodo. Here at the end of all things. Yes, I'm with you, Master, said Sam, laying Frodo's wounded hand gently on his breast. And you're with me. And the journey's finished. But after coming all the way, I, I don't want to give up yet. It's not like me, somehow, if you understand. Maybe not, Sam said Frodo. But it's like things are in the world. Hopes fail. And then comes. We have only a little time to wait now. We are lost in ruin and downfall. And there is no escape. Well, Master, we could at least go further from this dangerous place here. From this crack of doom, if that's its name. How couldn't we? Come, Mr. Frodo. Let's go down the path, at any rate. Very well, Sam. If you wish to go, I'll come, said Frodo. And they rose and went slowly down the winding road. And even as they passed towards the mountain's quaking feet, a great smoke and steam belched from the Samoth Nahar. And the side of the cone was riven open, and a huge fiery vomit rolled in slow, thunderous cascade. 
down the eastern mountainside. Frodo and Sam could go no further. Their last strength of mind and body was swiftly ebbing. They had reached a low ashen hill piled at the mountain's foot, but from it there was no more escape. It was an island now, not long to endure, amid the torment of a Rodruin. All about it the earth gaped, and from deep rifts and pits smoke and fumes leapt up. Behind them the mountain was convulsed, great rents opened in its side. Slow rivers of fire came down the long slopes towards them. Soon they would be engulfed. A rain of hot ash was falling. They stood now, and Sam, still holding his master's hand, caressed it. What a tale we've been in, Mr. Frodo, haven't we? He said. Do you think they'll say, now comes the story of nine-figured Frodo and the Ring of Dome? And then everyone will hush, like we did, when in Rivendell they told us the tale of Baron Monat and the Great Jewel. I wish I could hear it. And I wonder how it will go on after our part. But even while he spoke so, to keep fear away until the very last, his eyes still strayed north, north into the eye of the wind to where the sky far off was clear, and the cold blast, rising into a gale, drove back the darkness and the ruin of the clouds. And so it was that Gwaihir saw them with his keen, far-seeing eyes, and down the wild wind he came, and daring the greatest peril of the skies he circled in the air, two small dark figures, forlorn, hand in hand upon a little hill, while the world shook under them, and gasped, and rivers of fire drew near, and even as he espied them and came swooping down, he saw them fall, worn out and choked within fumes and heat, or stricken down by despair at last, hiding their eyes from death. Side by side they lay, and down swept Gwaiir, and down came Landrovar, and Meneldor the swift, dream, not knowing what fate had befallen them, the wanderers were lifted up and borne away out of the darkness and the fire. When Sam awoke, he found that he was lying on some soft bed. But over him gently swayed wide beechen bows, and through their young leaves sunlight glimmered, green and gold. All the air was full of a sweet mingled scent. He remembered that smell, the fragrance of Athelion. Bless me, he mused. How, how long have I been asleep? For the scent had borne him back to the day when he had lit his little fire under the sunny bank, and for the moment all else between was out of making memory. He stretched and drew a deep breath. Why? What a dream I've had! He muttered. Oh, I'm glad to wake. He sat up 
And then he saw that Frodo was lying beside him and slept peacefully, one hand behind his head and the other resting upon the coverlet. It was the right hand, and the third finger was missing. Full memory flooded back, and Sam cried aloud. It wasn't a dream! Then where are we? And then a voice spoke softly behind him. In the land of Ithilien, and in the keeping of the king, and he awaits you. With that, Gandalf stood before him, robed in white, his beard now gleaming like pure snow in the twinkling of the leafy sunlight. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? He said. But Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped. Gandalf! I thought you were dead! But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then, as a sweet rain will pass down the wind of spring, and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased, and his laughter welled up. And laughing, he sprang from his bed. How do I feel? He cried. Whoa, I don't know how to say it. I feel... I, I feel... He waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter, and sun on the leaves, and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard. He stopped, and then he turned towards his master. Oh, but how's Mr. Frodo? He said. Isn't it a shame about his poor hand? But I hope he's all right otherwise. He's had a cruel time. Yes, I am all right otherwise said Frodo, sitting up and laughing in his turn. I fell asleep again waiting for you, Sam, you sleepyhead. I was awake early this morning, and now it must be nearly noon. Noon, said Sam, trying to calculate. Noon of what day? The fourth month of the new year, said Gandalf. Or if you like, the eighth day of April in the Shire Reckoning. But in Gondor, the new year will always now begin upon the 25th of March when Sauron fell, and when you were brought out of the fire to the king. He has tended you, and now he awaits you. You shall eat and drink with him. When you are ready, I will lead you to him. The king? said Sam. What king, and who is he? The king of Gondor, and the lord of western land, said Gandalf and he has taken back all his ancient realm. He will ride soon to his crowning, but he waits for you. What shall we wear? said Sam, for all he could see was the old and tattered clothes that he had journeyed in, lying folded on the ground beside their beds. The clothes that you wore on your way to Mordor, said Gandalf. Even the orc rags that you wore in the Black Land, Frodo, shall be preserved. No silks and linens, nor any armor of heraldry could be more honorable. But later I will find some other clothes, perhaps. Then he held out his hands to them, 
and they saw that one shone with light. What have you got there? Frodo cried. Can it be? Yes. I have brought your two treasures. They were found on Sam when you were rescued. The Lady Galadriel's gifts, your glass, Frodo, and your box, Sam. You will be glad to have these safe again. When they were washed and clad, and had eaten a light meal, the hobbits followed Gandalf. They stepped out of the beech grove in which they had lain, and passed on to a long green lawn, glowing in sunshine, bordered by stately dark-leafed trees laden with scarlet blossom. Behind them they could hear the sound of falling water, and a stream ran down before them between flowering banks until it came to a greenwood at the lawn's foot, and passed then on under an archway of trees through which they saw the shimmer of water far away. As they came to the opening in the wood, they were surprised to see knights in bright mail and tall guards in silver and black standing there, who greeted them with honor and bowed before them. And then one blew a long trumpet, and they went on through the aisle of trees beside the singing stream. So they came to a wide green land, and beyond it was a broad river in the silver haze, out of which rose a long wooded isle, and many ships lay by its shores. But on the field where they now stood, a great host was drawn in, ranks and companies glittering in the sun. And as the hobbits approached, swords were unsheathed, and spears were shaken, and horns and trumpets sang, and men cried with many voices in many tongues, Long live the halflings, praise them with great praise. Kuyoi Ferian Anna, Aglarni Feriana, praise them with great praise, Frodo and Samwise, Daura Berhael, Konilenanin, Eglerio, praise them, Eglerio, Alaitate, Laitate, Andave, Laituvalmet, praise them, Horma Colindor, Alaitatariena, praise them, the ring bearers, praise them with great praise. And so the red blood blushing in their faces and their eyes shining with wonder, Frodo and Sam went forward and saw that amidst the clamorous host were set three high seats built of green turves. Behind the seat upon the right floated, white on green, a great horse running free. Upon the left was a banner, silver upon blue, a ship, swan proud, fearing on the sea. In the midst of all, a great standard was spread in the breeze, and there a white tree flowered upon a sable field beneath a shining crown, and seven glittering stars. On the throne sat a mail-clad man. A great sword was laid across his knees, but he bore no helm. As they drew near, he rose, and then they knew him, changed as he was, so high and glad of face, kingly. Lord of men, dark-haired with eyes of grey. Frodo ran to meet him, and Sam followed close behind. Well, if this isn't the crown of all, he said. Strider, or I'm still asleep. Yes, Sam, Strider, said Aragorn. It is a long way, is it not? From Bree, where you did not like the look of me? A long way for us all. But yours has been the darkest road. And then, to Sam's surprise and utter confusion, he bowed his knee before them. And taking them by the hand, Frodo upon his right and Sam upon his left, he led them to the throne, and setting them upon it, he turned to the men and captains who stood by and spoke, so that his voice rang over all the host, crying, Praise them with great praise! 
And when the glad shout had swelled up and died away again, to Sam's final and complete satisfaction and pure joy, a minstrel of Gondor stood forth and knelt and begged leave to sing. And behold, he said, Lo, lords and knights and men of valor unashamed, kings and princes and fair people of Gondor, and riders of Rohan, and ye sons of Elrond, and Dunedain of the North, and Elf and Dwarf, and great hearts of the Shire, and all free folk of the West, now listen to my lay, for I will sing to you of Frodo and the Nine Fingers, and the Ring of Doom. And when Sam heard that, he laughed aloud for sheer delight, and he stood up and cried, O oh, great glory and splendor, and all my wishes have come true. And then he wept, and all the hosts laughed and wept, and in the midst of their merriment and tears, the clear voice of the minstrel rose like silver and gold, and all men were hushed. And he sang to them, now in the elven tongue, now in the speech of the West, until their hearts, wounded with sweet words, overflowed, and their joy was like swords. And they passed in thought out to regions where pain and delight flow together, and tears are the very wine of blessedness. And at the last, as the sun fell from the noon and the shadows of the trees lengthened, he ended. Praise them with great praise, he said and knelt. And then Aragorn stood up, and all the host arose, and they passed to pavilions made ready to eat and drink and make merry while the day lasted. Frodo and Sam were led apart and brought to a tent, and there their old raiment was taken off, but folded and set aside with honor, and clean linen was given to them. Then Gandalf came and in his arms, to the wonder of Frodo, he bore the sword and the elven cloak and the mithril coat that had been taken from him in Mordor. For Sam he brought a coat of gilded mail and his elven cloak, all healed of the soils and hurts that it had suffered and then he laid before them two swords. I do not wish for any sword, said Frodo. Tonight at least you should wear one, said Gandalf. Then Frodo took the small sword that had belonged to Sam and had been laid at his side in Kirith Ungol. Sting I give to you, Sam, he said. No, master. Mr. Bilbo gave it to you and it goes with his silver coat. He would not wish anyone else to wear it now. Frodo gave way and Gandalf, as if he were their esquire, knelt and girt the sword belts about them. And then, rising, he set circlets of silver upon their heads. And when they were arrayed, they went to the great feast. And they sat at the king's table with Gandalf, and King Eomer of Rohan, and the Prince Imrahil, and all the chief captains, and there also were Gimli and Legolas. But when, after the standing silence, wine was brought, there came in two esquires to serve the kings, or so they seemed to be. One was clad in the silver and stable of the guards of Minas Tirith, and the other in white and green. But Sam wondered what such young boys were doing in an army of mighty men. Then suddenly, as they drew near and he could see them plainly, he exclaimed, Why look, Mr. Frodo! Look here! Well, if it isn't Pippin! Mr. Peregrine Took, I should say! And Mr. Merry! How they have grown! Bless me! But I can see there's more tales to tell than ours. There are indeed, said Pippin, turning towards him. And we'll begin telling them as soon as this feast is ended. 
In the meantime, you can try Gandalf. He's not so close as he used to be, though he laughs more now than he talks. We are knights of the city, and of the mark, as I hope you have served. <laughs> At last the glad day ended, and when the sun was gone, and the round moon rode slowly above the mists of Anduin, and flickered through the fluttering leaves, Frodo and Sam sat under the whispering trees amid the fragrance of fair Ithilien. And they talked deep into the night, with Merry and Pippin, and Gandalf, and after a while Legolas and Gimli joined them. There Frodo and Sam learned much and all that happened to the company after their fellowship was broken on the evil day at Path Garland by Raulus Falls. And still there was always more to ask and more to tell. Orcs and talking trees and leagues of grass and galloping riders in glittering caves and white towers and golden halls and battles and tall ships sailing and all these passed before Sam's mind until he felt bewildered. But amidst all these wonders, he returned always to his astonishment at the size of Merry and Pippin, and he made them stand back to back with Frodo and himself. He scratched his head. Can't understand it at your age, he said, but there it is. You're three inches taller than you ought to be, or I'm a dwarf. <laughs> that you certainly are not, said Gimli. But what did I say? Mortals cannot go drinking end drafts and expect no more to come of them than a pot of beer. End drafts, said Sam. There you go about ends again, but what they are beats me. Why, it will take weeks before we get all these things sized up. Weeks indeed, said Pippin. And then Frodo will have to be locked up in the Tower of Minas Tirith and write it all down. Otherwise he will forget half of it. And poor old Bilbo will be dreadfully disappointed. At length Gandalf rose. The hands of the king are hands of healing, dear friends, he said. But you went to the very brink of death ere he called you. Putting forth all his power, he sent you into the sweetest forgetfulness of sleep. And though you have indeed slept long and blessedly, still it is now time to sleep again. And not only Sam and Frodo here, said Gimli, but you too, Pippin. I love you, if only because of the pains you have cost me, which I shall never forget. Nor shall I forget finding you on the hill of the last battle. But for Gimli the dwarf, you would have been lost then. But at least I know now the look of a hobbit's foot, though it be all that can be seen under a heap of bodies. And when I heaved that great carcass off you, I made sure you were dead. I could have torn out my beard, and it is only a day since you were first up and abroad again. To bed now you go, and so shall I. And I, said Legolas, shall walk in the woods of this fair land, which is rest enough. In days to come, if my elven lord allows, some of our folk shall remove hither. And when we come, it shall be blessed for a while. For a while. A month. A life. A hundred years of men. But Anduin is near. And Anduin leads down to the sea. To the sea. To the sea, to the sea. The white gulls are crying. The wind is blowing and the white foam is flying. West, west away, the round sun is falling. Grey ships. Grey ship, grey ship, do you hear them calling? The voices of my people that have gone before me. I will leave. I will leave the woods that bore me. For our days are ending, and our years failing. I will pass the wide waters lonely sailing. Long are the waves of the last shore falling. Sweet are the voices in the lost isle calling. In Eresea, in Elvenholm, that no man can discover, where the leaves fall not. Land of my people forever. And so singing, Legolas went away down the hill. 
Then the others also departed, and Frodo and Sam went to their beds and slept. And in the morning they rose again, in hope and peace, and they spent many days in Ithilien, for the fields of Cormalen, where the host was now encamped, was near to Henneth Anun, and the stream that flowed from its falls could be heard in the night as it rushed down through its rocky gate, and passed through the flowering meads into the tides of Anduin by the Isle of Cairndros. The hobbits wandered here and there, visiting again the places that they had passed before, and Sam hoped always in some shadow of the woods or secret glade to catch maybe a glimpse of the great Oliphant. And when he learned that at the siege of Gondor there had been a great number of these beasts, but they were all destroyed, he thought it a sad loss. Well, one can't be everywhere at once, I suppose, he said, but I missed a lot, seemingly. In the meanwhile, the host made ready for the return to Minas Tirith. The weary rested and the hurt were healed, for some had labored and fought much with the remnants of the Easterlings and Southrons, until all were subdued. And, latest of all, those returned who had passed into Mordor and destroyed the fortresses in the north of the land. But at the last, when the month of May was drawing near, the captains of the west set out again. They went aboard ship with all their men, and they sailed from Cairndros, down Anduin to Osgiliath. And there they remained for one day. And the day after, they came to the green fields of the Pelennor, and saw again the white towers under tall Mindoluin, the city of the men of Gondor, last memory of Westerness that had passed through the darkness and the fire to a new day. And there, in the midst of the fields, they set up their pavilions and awaited the morning. For it was the eve of May, and the king would enter his gates with the rising of the sun. Over the city of Gondor, doubt and great dread had hung. Fair weather and clear sun had seemed but a mockery to men whose days held little hope, and who looked each morning for news of doom. Their lord was dead and burned. Dead lay the king of Rohan in their citadel, and the new king that had come to them in the night was gone again to a war with powers too dark and terrible for any might of valor to conquer. And no news came. After the host left Mordul Vale and took the northward road beneath the shadow of the mountains, no messenger had returned, nor any rumor of what was passing in the brooding east. When the captains were but two days gone, the Lady Eowyn bade the women who tended her to bring her raiment, and she would not be gainsaid, but rose. And when they had clothed her and set her arm in a sling of linen, she went to the warden of the Houses of Healing. Sir, she said, I'm in great unrest, and I cannot lie longer in sloth. Lady, he answered, you are not yet healed, and I was commanded to tend you with special care. You should not have risen from your bed for seven days yet, or so I was bidden. I beg you to go back. I am healed, she said, healed at least in body, save my left arm only, and that is at ease. But I shall sicken anew, if there is naught that I can do. Harder no tidings of war. The women can tell me nothing. There are no tidings, said the warden. Save that the lords have ridden to Morgul Vale, and men say that the new captain of the north is their chief. A great lord is that, and a healer. And it is a thing passing strange to me that a healing hand should also wield the sword. 
It is not thus in Gondor now. Though once it was so, if old tales be true, but for long years we healers have only sought to patch the rents made by the men of swords. Though we should still have enough to do without them, the world is full enough of hurts and mischances without wars to multiply them. It needs but one foe to breed a war, not two, Master Warden, answered Eowyn. And those who have not swords can still die upon them. Would you have the folk of Gondor gather you herbs only when the Dark Lord gathers armies? And it is not always good to be healed in body, nor is it always evil to die in battle, even in the bitter pain. Were I permitted, in this dark hour, I would choose the latter. The warden looked at her. Tall she stood there, her eyes bright in her white face, her hand clenched as she turned and gazed out of his window that opened to the east. He sighed and shook his head. After a pause, she turned to him again. Is there no deed to do? She said. Who commands this city? I, I do not rightly know, he answered. Such things are not my care. There is a marshal over the riders of Rohan and the Lord Hurin, I am told, commands the men of Gondor. But the Lord Faramir is by right the steward of the city. Where can I find him? In his house, lady. He was sorely hurt, but is now set again on the way to health. But I do not know... Will you not bring me to him? Then you will know. The Lord Faramir was walking alone in the garden of the Houses of Healing, and the sunlight warmed him, and he felt life run new in his veins. But his heart was heavy, and he looked out over the walls eastward. And coming, the warden spoke his name, and he turned and saw the Lady Eowyn of Rohan. And he was moved with pity, for he saw she was hurt, and his clear sight perceived her sorrow and unrest. My lord, said the warden, here is the Lady Eowyn of Rohan. She rode with the king and was sorely hurt and dwells now in my keeping. But she is not content and she wishes to speak to the steward of the city. Do not misunderstand him, Lord, said Eowyn. It is not lack of care that grieves me. No houses could be fairer for those who desire to be healed. But I cannot lie in sloth, idle, caged. I look for death in battle, but I have not the height. And battle still goes on. At a sign from Faramir, the warden bowed and departed. What would you have me do, lady? Said Faramir. I also am a prisoner of the healers. He looked at her. And being a man whom pity deeply stirred, it seemed to him that her loveliness amid her grief would pierce his heart. And she looked at him and saw the grave tenderness in his eyes, and yet knew, for she was bred among men of war, that there was one whom no rider of the mark would outmatch in battle. What do you wish? he said again. If it lies in my power, I will do it. I would have you command this warden and bid him let me go, she said. But though her words were still proud, her heart faltered, and for the first time she doubted herself. She guessed that this tall man, both stern and gentle, might think her merely wayward, like a child that has not the firmness of mind to go on with a dull task to the end. I myself am in the warden's keeping, answered Faramir, nor have I taken up my authority in the city, but had I done so, I should still listen to his counsel and should not cross his will in matters of his craft unless in some great need. But I do not desire healing, she said. I wish to ride to war like my brother Eomer, or better, like Theoden the king, for he died and has both honor and peace. It is too late, lady, to follow the captains, even if you had the strength, said Faramir. But death and battle may come to us all yet, willing or unwilling. You will be better prepared to face it in your own manner. While there is still time, 
You do as the healer commanded. You and I, we must endure with patience the hours of waiting. She did not answer, but as he looked at her, it seemed to him that something in her softened, as though a bitter frost were yielding at the first faint passage of spring. A tear sprang in her eye and fell down her cheek, like a glistening raindrop. Her proud head drooped a little. Then quietly, more as if speaking to herself than to him, but the healers would have me lie abed seven days yet, she said, and my window does not look eastward. Her voice was now that of a maiden, young and sad. Faramir smiled, though his heart was filled with pity. Your window does not look eastward, he said. That can be amended. In this I will command the warden. If you will stay in this house in our care, lady, and take your rest, then you shall walk in this garden in the sun as you will. And you shall look east, whither all our hopes have gone. And here you will find me, walking and waiting, and also looking east. It would ease my care if you would speak to me, or walk at whiles with me. Then she raised her head and looked him in the eyes again, and a colour came in her pale face. How should I ease your care, my lord? she said, and I do not desire the speech of living men. Would you have my plain answer? he said. I would. Then, Eowyn of Rohan, I say to you that you are beautiful. In the valleys of our hills there are flowers fair and bright, and maidens fairer still, but neither flower nor lady have I seen till now in Gondor so lovely and so sorrowful. It may be that only a few days are left ere darkness falls upon our world, and when it comes I hope to face it steadily. But it would ease my heart if while the sun yet shines, I could see you still. For you and I have both passed under the wings of the shadow, and the same hand drew us back. Alas, not for me, Lord, she said. Shadow lies on me still. Look not to me for healing. I am a shield maiden, and my hand is ungentle. But I thank you for this at least, that I need not keep to my chamber. I will walk abroad by the grace of the steward of the city. And she did him a courtesy and walked back to the house. But Faramir for a long while walked alone in the garden, and his glance now strayed rather to the house than to the eastward walls. When he returned to his chamber, he called for the warden, and heard all that he could tell of the Lady of Rohan. But I doubt not, Lord, said the warden, that you would learn more from the halfling that is with us, for he was in the riding of the king, with the lady at the end, they say. And so Mary was sent to Faramir, and while that day lasted, they talked long together, and Faramir learned much, more even than Mary put into words, and he thought that he understood now something of the grief and unrest of Eowyn of Rohan. And in the fair evening, Faramir and Mary walked in the garden, but she did not come. But in the morning, as Faramir came from the houses, he saw her, and she stood upon the walls, and she was clad in white, and gleamed in the sun. And he called to her, and she came down, and they walked on the grass or sat under a green tree together, now in silence, now in speech. And each day after they did likewise, and the warden, looking from his window, was glad in his heart, for he was a healer, and his care was lightened 
And certain it was that, heavy as was the dread and foreboding for those days upon the hearts of men, still these two of his charges prospered and grew daily in strength. And so the fifth day came since the Lady Eowyn went first to Faramir, and they stood now together once more upon the walls of the city and looked out. No tiding had yet come, and all hearts were darkened. The weather too was bright no longer. It was cold. A wind that had sprung up in the night was blowing now keenly from the north, and it was rising. But the lands about looked grey and drear. They were clad in warm raiment and heavy cloaks, and over all the Lady Eowyn wore a great blue mantle of the colour of deep summer night, and it was set with silver stars about them, about hem and throat. Faramir had sent for his robe and had wrapped it about her, and he thought that she looked fair and queenly indeed as she stood there at his side. The mantle was wrought for his mother, Finduilas of Hamroth, who died untimely, and was to him but a memory of loveliness in far days and of his first grief. And her robe seemed to him raiment fitting for the beauty and sadness of Eowyn. But she now shivered beneath the starry mantle, and she looked northwards above the grey hitherlands, into the eye of the cold wind where far away the sky was hard and clear. What do you look for, Eowyn? said Faramir. Does not the black gate lie yonder, said she, and must he not now be come thither? It is seven days since he rode away. Seven days, said Faramir. But think not ill of me if I say to you, they have brought me both a joy and a pain that I never thought to know. Joy to see you, but pain, because now the fear and doubt of this evil time are grown dark indeed. Eowyn, I would not have this world end now nor lose so soon what I have found. Lose what you have found, Lord, she answered, but she looked at him gravely, and her eyes were kind. I know not what in these days you have found that you could lose. But come, my friend, let us not speak of it. Let us not speak at all. I stand upon some dreadful brink, and it is utterly dark in the abyss before my feet. But whether there is any light behind me, I cannot tell. But I cannot run yet. I wait for some stroke of doom. Yes, we wait for the stroke of doom, said Faramir. And they said no more. And it seemed to them as they stood upon the wall that the wind died, and the light failed, and the sun was bleared, and all sounds in the city or in the lands about were hushed. Neither wind nor voice nor bird call nor rustle of leaf, nor their own breath could be heard the very beating of their hearts was stilled. Time halted. And as they stood so, their hands met and clasped, though they did not know it, and still they waited for they knew not what. Then presently it seemed to them that above the ridges of the distant mountains another vast mountain of darkness rose, towering up like a wave that should engulf the world, and about it lightnings flickered, and then a tremor ran through the earth, and they felt the walls of the city quiver. A sound like a sigh went up from all the lands about them, and their hearts beat suddenly again. It reminds me of Numenor, said Faramir, and wondered to hear himself speak. Of Numenor, said Eowyn. Yes, said Faramir, of the land of Westerness that founded and of the great dark wave climbing over the green lands, and above the hills and coming on, darkness unescapable, 
I often dream of it. Then you think that the darkness is coming, said Erwin. Darkness unescapable. And suddenly she drew close to him. No, said Faramir, looking into her face. It was but a picture in the mind. I do not know what is happening. The reason of my waking mind tells me that great evil has befallen, and we stand at the end of days. But my heart says nay, and all my limbs are light, and a hope and joy are come to me that no reason can deny. Eowyn, Eowyn, white lady of Rohan. And he stopped and kissed her brow. In this hour, I do not believe that any darkness will endure. And so they stood on the walls of the city of Gondor, and a great wind rose and blew, and her hair, raven and golden, streamed out mingling in the air, and the shadow departed, and the sun was unveiled, and light leapt forth, and the waters of Anduin shone like silver, and in all the houses of the city men sang for the joy that welled up in their hearts, from what source they could not tell. And before the sun had fallen far from the moon out of the east, there came a great eagle flying, and he bore tidings beyond hope from the lords of the west, crying, Sing now, ye people of the Tower of Arnor, for the realm of Sauron is ended forever, and the dark tower is thrown down. Sing and rejoice, ye people of the Tower of God, for your watch hath not been in vain, and the black gate is broken, and your king hath passed through, and he is victorious. Sing and be glad, all you children of the West, for your king shall come again, and he shall dwell among you all the days of your life. And the tree that was withered shall be renewed, and he shall plant it in the high places, and the city shall be blessed. Sing, all ye people. And the people sang in all the ways of the city. The days that followed were golden, and spring and summer joined and made revel together in the fields of Gondor. And tidings now came by swift riders from Cairandros of all that was done, and the city made ready for the coming of the king. Mary was summoned and rode away with the wains that took store of goods to Osgiliath, and thence by ship to Cairandros. But Faramir did not go, for now being healed, he took upon him his authority and the stewardship, although it was only for a little while, and his duty was to prepare for one who would replace him. And Eowyn did not go though her brother sent word begging her to come to the field of Kormalin, and Faramir wondered at this. But he saw her seldom, being busy with many matters, and she dwelled still in the houses of healing, and walked alone in the garden, and her face grew pale again, and it seemed that in all the city she only was ailing and sorrowful, and the warden of the houses was troubled, and he spoke to Faramir. Then Faramir came and sought her, and once more they stood on the walls together, and he said to her, Eowyn, why do you tarry here, and do not go in the rejoicing of Corbalin before Cairandros, where your brother awaits you? And she said, Do you not know? But he answered, Two reasons there may be, but which is true I do not know. And she said, I do not wish to play riddles. Speak plainer. Then if you will have it so, lady, he said, you do not go because only your brother called for you and to look on the Lord Aragorn Elendil's heir in his triumph would now bring you no joy. Or, or because I do not go, and you desire still to be near me. And maybe for both these reasons, and you yourself cannot choose between them. Eowyn, do you not love me, or will you not? 
I wish to be loved by another, she answered, but I desire no man's pity. That I know, he said. You desire to have the love of the Lord Aragorn, because he was high and puissant, and you wish to have renown and glory and to be lifted far above the mean things that crawl on the earth. And as a great captain, many to a young soldier, he seemed to you admirable. For so he is, a lord among men, the greatest that now is. But when he gave you only understanding and pity, then you desire to have nothing, unless a brave death in battle. Look at me, Eowyn. And Eowyn looked at Faramir long and steadily, and Faramir said, do not scorn pity that is the gift of a gentle heart, Eowyn. But I do not offer you my pity. For you are a lady high and valiant and have yourself won renown that shall not be forgotten. And you are a lady beautiful, I deem, beyond even the words of the elven tongue to tell. And I love you. Once I pitied your sorrow, but now, were you sorrowless without fear or any lack? Were you the blissful queen of Gondor? Still, I would love you, Eowyn. Do you not love me? Then the heart of Eowyn changed, or else at least she understood it. And suddenly her winter passed, and the sun shone on her. I stand in Minasanor, the Tower of the Sun, she said, and behold. The shadow has departed. I will be a shield maiden no longer, nor vie with the great writers, nor take joy only in the songs of slaying. I will be a healer, and take joy and love all things that grow and are not barren. And again she looked at Faramir. No longer do I desire to be a queen, she said. Then Faramir laughed merrily. <laughs> that is well, he said, for I'm not a king. Yet I will wed with the White Lady of Rohan, if it be her will. And if she will, and in happier days, let us dwell in Ferithilion, and there make a garden. All things will grow in joy there, if the White Lady comes. Then must I leave my own people, man of Gondor, she said. And would you have your proud folk say of you, there goes a lord who tamed the wild shield maiden of the north? Was there no woman in the race of Numenor to choose? I would, said Faramir. And he took her in his arms and kissed her under the sunlit sky. And he cared not that they stood high upon the walls in the sight of many. And many indeed saw them and the light that shone about them as they came down from the walls and went hand in hand to the houses of healing. And to the warden of the houses Faramir said, Here is the Lady Eowyn of Rohan, and now she is healed. And the warden said, Then I release her from my charge and bid her farewell. And may she suffer never hurt nor sickness again. I commend her to the care of the steward of the city until her brother returns. But Eowyn said, If now that I have leave to depart, I would remain, for this house had become to me of all dwellings the most pleasant. And she remained there until King Eomer came. All things were now made ready in the city, and there was great concourse of people. For the tidings had gone out into all parts of Gondor, from Minrimon even to Pinath Gelin, and the far coasts of the sea, and all that could come to the city made haste to come. And the city was filled again with women and fair children, 
that returned to their homes laden with flowers. And from Dol Amroth came the harpers that harped most skillfully in all the land. And there were players upon viols, and upon flutes, and upon horns of silver, and clear-voiced singers from the vales of Lebanon. At last an evening came, and from the walls the pavilions could be seen upon the field, and all night lights were burning as men watched for the dawn. And when the sun rose in the clear morning above the mountains in the east, upon which shadows lay no more, then all the bells rang, and all the banners broke and flowed in the wind, and upon the white tower of the citadel the standard of the stewards, bright argent like snow in the sun, bearing no charge nor device, was raised over Gondor for the last time. Now the captains of the west led their host towards the city, and folk saw them advance in line upon line, flashing and glinting in the sunrise, and rippling like silver. And so they came before the gateway, and halted a furlong from the walls. As yet no gates had been set up again, but a barrier was laid across the entrance to the city, and there stood men-at-arms in silver and black, with long swords drawn. Before the banner stood Faramir the steward, and Hurin, warden of the keys, and other captains of Gondor, and the Lady Eowyn of Rohan with Elfhelm the Marshal, and many knights of the Mark, and upon either side of the gate was a great press of fair people in raiment of many colours and garlands of flowers. So now there was a wide space before the walls of Minas Tirith, and it was hemmed in upon all sides by the knights and the soldiers of Gondor and of Rohan, and by the people of the city and of all parts of the land. A hush fell upon all, as out from the host stepped the Dúnedain in silver and grey, and before them came walking slow the Lord Aragorn. He was clad in black mail girt with silver, and he wore a long mantle of pure white clasped at the throat with a great jewel of green that shone from afar. But his head was bare, save for a star upon his forehead, bound by a slender fillet of silver. With him were Eomer of Rohan, and the prince Imrahil and Gandalf robed all in white, and four small figures that many men marveled to see. Hey, cousin, they are not boys, said Eoreth to her kinswoman from Imloth Melui, who stood beside her. Those are Perian out of the far country of the halflings, where they are princes of great fame, it is said. I should know, for I have had one to tend in the houses. They are small, but they are valiant. Why, cousin, one of them went with only his esquire into the black country and fought with the Dark Lord all by himself, and set fire to his tower, if you can believe it. At least that is the tale in the city. That will be the one that walks with our Elfstone. They are dear friends, I hear. Now he is a marvel, the Lord Elfstone. Not too soft in his speech, mind you. But he has a golden heart, as the saying is. And he has the healing hands. The hands of the king and the hands of a healer, I said. And that was how all was discovered. And Mithrandir, he said to me, Eoreth, men will long remember your words. And... But Eoreth was not permitted to continue the instruction of her kinswoman from the country. For a single trumpet rang, and a dead silence followed. Then forth from the gate went Faramir with Hurin of the Keys, and no others, save that behind them walked four men in the high helms and armour of the citadel. And they bore a great casket of black lebethron, bound with silver. Faramir met Aragorn in the midst of those there assembled, and he knelt, and said, The last steward of Gondor begs leave to surrender his office. And he held out a white rod, but Aragorn took the road and gave it back, saying, That office is not ended. I shall be thine and thy heirs, as long as thy line shall last. 
Do now thy office. Then Faramir stood up and spoke in a clear voice. Men of Gondor, hear now the steward of this realm. Behold, one has come to claim the kingship again at last. Here is Aragorn, son of Erethorn, chieftain of the Dunedain of Arnor, captain of the host of the west, bearer of the star of the north, wielder of the sword reforged, victorious in battle, whose hands bring healing. The elf stone, Elisar of the line of Valendil, Isildur's son, Elendil's son of Numenor. Shall he be king and enter into the city and dwell there? And all the host and all the people cry, Yea, with one voice. And Eorath said to her kinswoman, This is just a ceremony such as we have in the city, cousin. For he has already entered, and I was telling you. And he said to me, And then again she was obliged to silence. For Faramir spoke again. Men of Gondor, the lawmasters tell that it was the custom of old that the king should receive the crown from his father ere he died. Or if that might not be, that he should go alone and take it from the hands of his father in the tomb where he was laid. But since things must now be done otherwise, using the authority of the steward, I have today brought hither from Rathdinen the crown of Ernur, the last king, whose days passed in the time of our long fathers of old. Then the guard stepped forward, and Faramir opened the casket, and he held up an ancient crown was shaped like the helms of the guards of the citadel, save that it was loftier, and it was all white, and the wings at either side were wrought of pearl and silver, in the likeness of the wings of a seabird, for it was the emblem of kings who came over the sea, and seven gems of adamant were set in a circlet, and upon its summit was set a single jewel, the light of which went up like a flame. Then Aragorn took the crown, and held it up, and said, Eterelo endorenautulien, sino memaruvan arhildiniar tenambar meta. And those were the words that Elendil spoke when he came up out of the sea on the wings of the wind. Out of the great sea to Middle Earth I am come. In this place I will abide and my heirs unto the ending of the world. Then, to the wonder of many, Aragorn did not put the crown upon his head but gave it back to Faramir and said, By the labor and valor of many I have come into my inheritance. In token of this I would have the ring-bearer bring the crown to me, and let Mithrandir set it upon my head if he will. For he has been the mover of all that has been accomplished, and this is his victory. Then Frodo came forward and took the crown from Faramir and bore it to Glandalf. And Aragorn knelt, and Gandalf set the white crown upon his head and said, Now come the days of the king. And may they be blessed, while the thrones of the valor endure. But when Aragorn arose, all that beheld him gazed in silence, for it seemed to them that he was revealed to them now for the first time. Tall as the sea kings of old he stood above all that were near, Ancient of days he seemed, and yet in the flower of manhood, and wisdom sat upon his brow, and strength and healing were in his hands, and a light was about him. And then Faramir cried, Behold the king! 
And in that moment all the trumpets were blown, and the King Elisar went forth and came to the barrier, and Hurin of the Keys thrust it back, and amid the music of harp and of viol and of flute, and the singing of clear voices, the King passed through the flower-laden streets, and came to the citadel, and entered in. And the banner of the tree and the stars was unfurled upon the topmost tower, and the reign of King Elisar began of which many songs have told. In this time the city was made more fair than it had ever been, even in the days of its first glory, and it was filled with trees and with fountains, and its gates were wrought of mithril and steel, and its streets were paved with white marble, and the folk of the mountain labored in it, and the folk of the wood rejoiced to come there, and all was healed and made good, and the houses were filled with men and women, and the laughter of children, and no window was blind, nor any courtyard empty. And after the ending of the third age of the world, into the new age, it preserved the memory and the glory of the years that were gone. In the days that followed his crowning, the king sat on his throne in the hall of the kings, and pronounced his judgments. And embassies came from many lands and peoples, from the east and the south, and from the borders of Mirkwood, and from Dunland in the west. And the king pardoned the Easterlings that had given themselves up, and sent them away free. And he made peace with the peoples of Harad, and the slaves of Mordor he released and gave to them all the lands about Lake Nurnan to their own. And there were brought before him many to receive his praise and reward for their valor. And last the captain of the guard brought to him Beragond to be judged. And the king said to Beragond, Beragond, by your sword blood was spilt in the hallows, where that is forbidden. Also you left your post without leave of lord or of captain. For these things of old, death was the penalty. Now therefore I must pronounce your doom. All penalty is remitted of your valor in battle, and still more because all that you did was for the love of the lord Faramir. Nonetheless you must leave the guard of the citadel. And you must go forth from the city of Minas Tirith. Then the blood left Beragon's face, and he was stricken to the heart and bowed his head. But the king said, So it must be, for you are appointed to the White Company, the guard of Faramir, Prince of Ithilien, and you shall be its captain and dwell in Emin Arnen in honor and peace and in the service of him for whom you risked all to save him from death. And then Beragorn, perceiving the mercy and justice of the king, was glad, and kneeling, kissed his hand, and departed in joy and content. And Aragorn gave to Faramir Ethelion to be his princedom, and bade him dwell in the hills of Eminarnen within sight of the city. For, said he, Minas Ethel and Morgulville shall be utterly destroyed. And though it may in time to come be made clean, no man may dwell there for many long years. And last of all, Aragorn greeted Aylmer of Rohan, and they embraced. And Aragorn said, Between us there can be no word of giving or taking, nor of reward, for we are brethren. In happy hour did Aeol ride from the north, and never has any league of people been more blessed, so that neither has ever failed the other, nor shall fail. Now, as you know, we have laid Theoden the renowned in a tomb in the Hallows, and there he shall lie forever among the kings of Gondor, if you will. Or if you desire it, 
we will come to Rohan and bring him back to rest with his own people. And Eoma answered, Since the day when you rose before me out of the green grass of the downs, I have loved you. And that love shall not fail. But I must depart for a while, to my own realm, where there is much to heal and set in order. But as for the fallen, when all is made ready, we will return to him. But here let him sleep a while. And Eowyn said to Faramir, Now I must go back to my own land and look on it once again, and help my brother in his labor. But when one whom I long loved as father is laid at last to rest, I will return. So the glad days passed. And on the eighth day of May, the riders of Rohan made ready, and rode off by the north way, and with them went the sons of Elrond. All the road was lined with people to do them honour and praise them, from the gate of the city to the walls of the Pelennor. Then all others that dwelt afar went back to their homes rejoicing. But in the city there was labour of many willing hands to rebuild and renew and remove all the scars of war and the memory of the darkness. The hobbits still remained in Minas Tirith, with Legolas and Gimli. For Aragorn was loath for the fellowship to be dissolved. At last all things must end, he said. But I would have you wait a little while longer, for the end of the deeds that you have shared in has not yet come. A day draws near that I have looked for in all the years of my manhood, and when it comes, I would have my friends beside me. But of that day he would say no more. In those days the companions of the ring dwelt together in a fair house with Gandalf, and they went to and fro as they wished. And Frodo said to Gandalf, Do you know what this day is that Aragorn speaks of? For we are happy here, and I don't wish to go, but the days are running away. And Bilbo is waiting. And the Shire is my home. As for Bilbo, said Gandalf, he is waiting for the same day, and he knows what keeps you. And as for the passing of the days, it is now only May, and high summer is not yet in. And though all things may seem changed as if an age of the world had gone by, yet to the trees and the grass it is less than a year since she set out. Pippin, said Frodo, didn't you say that Gandalf was less close than of old? He was weary of his labours then, I think. Now he is recovering. And Gandalf said, Many folk like to know beforehand what is to be set on the table, but those who have laboured to prepare the feast like to keep their secret. For wonder makes the words of praise louder, and Aragorn himself waits for a sign. There came a day when Gandalf could not be found, and the companions wondered what was going forward. But Gandalf took Aragorn out from the city by night, and he brought him to the southern feet of Mount Mindoluin, and there they found a path made in ages past that few now dare to tread, for it led up onto the mountain to a high hollow where only the kings had been wont to go. And they went up by steep ways, until they came to a high field below the snow that clad the lofty peaks. And it looked down over the precipice that stood behind the city. And standing there they surveyed the lands, for the morning was come, and they saw the towers of the city far below them like white pencils touched by the sunlight. And all the vale of Anduin was like a garden, and the mountains of shadow were veiled in a golden mist. Upon the one side their sight reached to the grey Emin Muil, and the glint of Rauros was like a star twinkling far off, 
and upon the other side they saw the river like a ribbon laid down to Pelargir, and beyond that was a light on the hem of the sky that spoke of the sea. And Gandalf said, This is your realm, and the heart of the greater realm that shall be. The third age of the world is ended, and the new age has begun. And it is your task to order its beginning and to preserve what may be preserved. For though much has been saved, much must now pass away. And the power of the Three Rings also is ended. And all the lands that you see, and those that lie around about them, shall be dwellings of men. For the time comes of the dominion of men, and the elder kindred shall fade or depart. I know it well, dear friend, said Aragorn, but I would still have your counsel. Not for long now, said Gandalf. The third age was my age. I was the enemy of Sauron, and my work is finished. I shall go soon. The burden must lie now upon you and your kindred. But I shall die, said Aragorn, for I am a mortal man, and though being what I am, and of the race of the West unmingled, I shall have lives far longer than any other men. Yet that is but a little while, and when those who are now in the wombs of women are born and have grown old, I too shall grow old. And who then shall govern Gondor and those who look to the city as to their queen, if my desire be not granted? The tree in the court of the fountain is still withered and barren. When shall I see a sign that it will ever be otherwise? Turn your face from the green world, and look where all seems barren and cold, said Gandalf. Then Aragorn turned, and there was a stony slope behind him, running down from the skirts of the snow. And as he looked, he was aware that alone there in the waste a growing thing stood. And he climbed to it, and saw that out of the very edge of the snow there sprang a sapling tree no more than three foot high. Already it had put forth young leaves, long and shapely, dark above and silver beneath. And upon its slender crown it bore one small cluster of flowers whose white petals shone like the sunlit snow. Then Aragorn cried, You too, Fienies, I have found it. Lo, there is a Sion of the eldest of trees. But how comes it here? For it is not itself yet seven years old. And Gandalf coming looked at it and said, Verily, this is a sapling of the line of Nimloth the Fair. And that was a seedling of Galathilion. And that a fruit of Telperion for many names, eldest of trees. We shall say how it comes here in the appointed hour. But this is an ancient hallow, and ere the kings failed or the tree with it in the court, a fruit must have been set here, for it is said that, though the fruit of the tree comes seldom to ripeness, yet the life within may then lie sleeping through many long years, and one can foretell the time in which it will awake. Remember this, for if ever a fruit ripens, it should be planted, lest the line die out of the world. Here it has lain hidden on the mountain, even as the race of Elendil lay hidden in the wastes of the north. Yet the line of Nimloth is older far than your line, King Elisar. 
Then Aragorn laid his hand gently to the sapling, and lo, it seemed to hold only lightly to the earth, and it was removed without hurt. And Aragorn bore it back to the citadel. Then the withered tree was uprooted, but in reverence, and they did not burn it, but laid it to rest in the silence of Rath Dinan. And Aragorn planted the new tree in the court by the fountain, and swiftly and gladly it began to grow. And when the month of June entered in, it was laden with blossom. The sign has been given, said Aragorn, and the day is not far off. And he sent watchmen upon the walls. It was about the day before midsummer when messengers came from Amondine to the city, and they said that there was a riding of fair folk out of the north. And they drew near now to the walls of the Pelennor, and the king said, At last they have come. Let all the city be made ready. Upon the very eve of midsummer, when the sky was blue as sapphire, and white stars opened in the east, but the west was still golden, and the air was cool and fragrant, the riders came down the north way to the gates of Minas Tirith. First rode Elrohir and Eladan with the banner of silver, and then came Glorfindel, and Erestor, and all the household of Rivendell, and after them came the Lady Galadriel and Celeborn, Lord of Lothlorien, riding upon white steeds, and with them many fair folk of their land, grey-cloaked, with white gems in their hair. And last came Master Elrond, mighty among elves and men, bearing the scepter of Anuminas, and beside him, upon a grey palfrey, rode Arwen, his daughter, Evanstar of her people. And Frodo, when he saw her come glimmering in the evening with stars on her brow and a sweet fragrance about her, was moved with great wonder. And he said to Gandalf, At last I understand why we have waited. This is the ending. Now not day only shall be beloved, but night too shall be beautiful and blessed and all its fear pass away. Then the king welcomed his guests, and they alighted. And Elrond surrendered the scepter, and laid the hand of his daughter in the hand of the king. And together they went up into the high city, and all the stars flowered in the sky. And Aragorn the king Elisar wedded Arwen Undomiel in the city of the kings upon the day of midsummer. And the tale of their long waiting and labors was come to fulfillment. When the days of rejoicing were over at last, the companions thought of returning to their own homes. And Frodo went to the king as he was sitting with the queen Arwen by the fountain. And she sang a song of Valinor, while the tree grew and blossomed. They welcomed Frodo and rose to greet him. And Aragorn said, I know what you have come to say, Frodo. You wish to return to your own home. Well, dearest friend, the tree grows best in the land of its sires, but for you in all the lands of the West there will ever be a welcome. And though your people have had little fame in the legends of the great, they will now have more renown than many wide realms that are no more. But it is true that I wish to go back to the Shire, 
said Frodo. But I first must go to Rivendell, for if there could be anything wanting in a time so blessed, I missed Bilbo, and I was grieved when among all the household of Elrond I saw that he was not come. Do you wonder at that, Ringbearer? said Arwen, for you know the power of that thing which is now destroyed, and all that was done by that power is now passing away. But your kinsman possessed this thing longer than you. He is ancient in years now, according to his kind, and he awaits you, for he will not again make any long journey, save one. Then I beg leave to depart soon, said Frodo. In seven days we will go, said Aragorn, for we shall ride with you far on the road, even as far as the country of Rohan. In three days now, Eomer will return hither to bear Theoden back to rest in the mark, and we shall ride with him to honor the fallen. But now before you go, I will confirm the words that Faramir spoke to you. And you are made free forever of the realm of Gondor, and all your companions likewise. And if there are any gifts that I could give to match with your deeds, you should have them. But whatever you desire, you shall take with you. And you shall ride in honor and arrayed as princes of the land. But the Queen Arwen said, A gift I will give to you, for I am the daughter of Elrond. I shall not go with him now when he departs to the havens, for mine is the choice of Luthien, and as she so have I chosen, both the sweet and the bitter. But in my stead you shall go, ring-bearer, when the time comes, if you desire it. If your hurts grieve you still, and the memory of your burden is heavy, then you may pass into the west, until all your wounds and weariness are healed. But wear this now in memory of Elfstone and Evanstar, with whom your life has been woven. And she took a white gem like a star that lay upon her breast, hanging upon a silver chain, and she set the chain about Frodo's neck. When the memory of the fear and the darkness troubles you, she said, this will bring you aid. In three days, as the king had said, Eomer of Rohan came riding to the city, and with him came an Eoret, the fairest knights of the mark. He was welcomed, and when they sat all at table in Marathrond, the great hall of feasts, and he beheld the beauty of the ladies that he saw, and was filled with great wonder. And before he went to his rest, he sent for Gimli the dwarf, and he said to him, Gimli, loins son. Have you your axe ready? Nay, lord, said Gimli. But I can speedily fetch it if there be need. You shall judge, said Eomer. For there are certain rash words concerning the Lady of the Golden Wood that lie between us. And now I have seen her with my eyes. Ah, well, Lord, said Gimli. And what say you now? Alas, said Eomer, I will not say that she is the fairest lady that lives. Well, then I must go for my axe, said Gimli. But first I will plead this excuse, said Eomer. Had I seen her in other company, I would have said all that you could wish. But now I will put Queen Arwen Evanstar first, and I am ready to do battle on my own part with any who deny me. Shall I call for my sword? Then Gimli bowed low. Nay, you are excused for my part, Lord, he said. You have chosen the evening, but my love is given to the morning, and my heart forebodes that soon it will pass away forever. At last the day of departure came, and a great and fair company made ready to ride north from the city. Then the kings of Gondor and Rohan went to the hallows where they came, 
and they came to the tombs in Rathdinen, and they bore away King Theoden upon a golden bier, and passed through the city in silence. Then they laid the bier upon a great wain with riders of Rohan all about it, and his banner borne before. And Mary, being Theoden's squire, rode upon the wain and kept the arms of the king. For the other companions, steeds were furnished according to their stature, and Frodo and Samwise rode at Aragorn's side, and Gandalf rode upon Shadowfax, and Pippin rode with the knights of Gondor, and Legolas and Gimli as ever rode together upon Arod. In that riding went also Queen Arwen, and Celeborn and Galadriel with their folk, and Elrond and his sons, and the princes of Dolamroth, and of Ithilien, and many captains and knights. Never had any king of the Marks such company upon the road as went with Theoden Thengil's son to the land of his home. Without haste and at peace, they passed into Anurian. And they came to the Grey Wood under Amundine, and there they heard a sound as of drums beating in the hills, though no living thing could be seen. Then Aragorn let the trumpets be blown, and heralds cried, Behold the King Elisar is come! The forests of Druadan he gives to Khan Burihan and to his folk to be their own forever. And hereafter let no man enter it without their leave. Then the drums rolled loudly and were silent. At length, after fifteen days of journey, the wain of King Theoden passed through the green fields of Rohan and came to Edoras. And there they all rested. The golden hall was arrayed with fair hangings, and it was filled with light, and there was held the highest feast that it had known since the days of its building. For after three days the men of the mark prepared the funeral of Theoden, and he was laid in a house of stone, with his arms and many other fair things that he had possessed. And over him was raised a great mound, covered with green turves of grass and of white evermind. And now there were eight mounds on the east side of the battlefield. Then the riders of the king's house upon white horses rode round about the barrow and sang together a song of Theoden Thengil's son, that Gleovine, his minstrel, made. And he made no other song after. The slow voices of the riders stirred in the hearts even of those who did not know the speech of that people, but the words of the song brought a light to the eyes of the folk of the mark as they heard again afar the thunder of the hooves of the north, and the voice of Aeol crying above the battle upon the field of Celebrant. And the tale of the kings rolled on, and the horn of Helm was loud in the mountains, until the darkness came, and King Theoden arose, and rode through the shadow of the fire, and died in splendor, even as the sun, returning beyond hope, gleamed upon Mindolri in the morning. Out of doubt, out of dark, to the day's rising, he rode singing in the sun, sword unsheathing. Hope he rekindled, and in hope ended, over death, over dread, over doom lifted, out of loss, out of life, unto long glory. But Mary stood at the foot of the green mound, and he wept, and when the song was ended, he arose and cried, Theoden King! Theoden King! Farewell! As a father you were to me, for a little while. Farewell. When the burial was over, and the weeping of women was stilled, and Theoden was left at last alone in his barrow, 
Then folk gathered to the Golden Hall for the great feast and put away sorrow. For Theoden had lived to full years and ended in honor, no less than the greatest of his sires. And when the time came that in the custom of the mark they should drink to the memory of the kings, Eowyn, Lady of Rohan, came forth, golden as the sun and white as snow, and she bore a filled cup to Eowyn. Then a minstrel and lawmaster stood up and named all the names of the lords of the mark in their order, Eorl the Young, and Bregor, builder of the hall, and Aldor, brother of Baldor the Hapless, and Freyawine, and Goldwine, and Deor, and Gram, and Helm who lay hid in Helm's Deep when the mark was overrun, and so ended the nine mounds of the west side. For in that time the line was broken, and after came the mounds of the east side, Freyalaf, Helm's sister son, and Leofar, and Valda, and Folka, and Folkwine, and Thengel, and Theoden, the latest. And when Theoden was named, Eomer drained the cup. Then Eowyn bade rose that served to fill the cups, and all there assembled rose and drank to the new king, crying, Hail Eomer, king of the mark! At the last, when the feast drew to an end, Eomer arose and said, Now this is the funeral feast of Theoden king, but I will speak ere we go of tidings of joy, for he would not grudge that I should do so since he was ever a father to Eowyn, my sister. Hear then, all my guests, fair folk of many realms, such as have never before been gathered in this hall. Faramir, steward of Gondor and prince of Ithilien, asks that Eowyn, lady of Rohan, should be his wife, and she grants it full willing. Therefore they shall be troth-plighted before you all. And Faramir and Eowyn stood forth and set hand in hand, and all there drank to them and were glad. First, said Eomer, is the friendship of the Mark and of Gondor bound with a new bond. And the more do I rejoice. <laughs> no, niggard are you, Eomer, said Aragorn, to give thus to Gondor the fairest thing in your realm. Then Eowyn looked in the eyes of Aragorn, and she said, Wish me joy, my liege lord and healer. And he answered, I have wished thee joy ever since first I saw thee. It heals my heart to see thee, now in bliss. When the feast was over, those who were to go took leave of King Eomer, and Aragorn and his knights, and the people of Lorien and of Rivendell made ready to ride. But Faramir and Imrahil remained at Eruras, and Arwen Evanstar remained also, and she said farewell to her brethren. None saw her last meeting with Elrond, her father, for they went up into the hills and there spoke long together. And bitter was their parting that should endure beyond the ends of the world. At the last, before the guests set out, Eomer and Eowyn came to Merry, and they said, Farewell now, Merry, a duck of the Shire, and hold wine of the mark. Ride to good fortune and ride back soon to our welcome. And Eomer said, Kings of old would have laden you with gifts that a wain could not bear for your deeds upon the fields of Munburg. And yet you will take naught, you say, but the arms that were given to you? This I suffer, for indeed I have no gift that is worthy, but my sister begs you to receive this small thing as a memorial of Dernhelm and the horns of the mark at the coming of the morning. 
Then Eowyn gave to Merry an ancient hall, small but cunningly wrought, all of fair silver with a baldric of green, and rites had engraven upon it swift horsemen riding in a line that wound about it from the tip of the mouth. And there were set runes of great virtue. This is an heirloom of our house, said Eowyn. It was made by the dwarves, and came from the horde of Scatha, the worm. Eol the young brought it from the north. He that blows it shall set fear in the hearts of his enemies, and joy in the hearts of his friends, and they shall hear him and come to him. Then Mary took the horn, for it could not be refused, and he kissed Eowyn's hand, and they embraced him, and so they parted for that time. Now the guests were ready, and they drank the stirrup cup, and with great praise and friendship they departed, and came at length to Helm's Deep, and there they rested two days. Then Legolas repaid his promise to Gimli, and went with him to the glittering caves, and when they returned, he was silent, and would say only that Gimli alone could find fit words to speak of them. And never before has a dwarf claimed victory over an elf in a contest of words, said he. Now therefore let us go to Fanghorn, and set the score right. From deep in Coombe they rode to Isengard, and saw how the Ents had busied themselves. All the stone circle had been thrown down and removed, and the land within was made into a garden filled with orchards and trees, and a stream ran through it. But in the midst of all there was a lake of clear water, and out of it the tower of Orthanc rose still, tall and impregnable, and its black rock was mirrored in the pool. For a while the travellers sat where once the old gates of Isengard had stood, and there were now two tall trees like sentinels at the beginning of a green-bordered path that ran towards Orthanc, and they looked in wonder at the work that had been done. But no living thing could they see far or near. But presently they heard a voice calling, and there came Treebeard, striding down the path to greet them with quick beam at his side. Welcome to the tree gods of Orthanc, he said. I knew that you were coming, but I was at work up in the valley. There is much still to be done, but you have not been idle either away in the south and the east, I hear. And all that I hear is good. Very then Treebeard praised all their deeds of which he seemed to have full knowledge, and at last he stopped and looked long at Gandalf. Welcome now, he said. You have proved mightiest, and all your labors have gone well. Where now would you be going, and why do you come here? To see how your work goes, my friend said Gandalf. And to thank you for your aid in all that has been achieved. Mm. Well, that is fair enough, said Treebeard. For to be sure, Ents have played their part, and not only in dealing with that, um, that accursed tree slayer that dwelt here, for there was a great inrush of those those evil-eyed, black-handed, moan-looked, flint-hearted, claw-fingered, foul-bellied, bloodthirsty, warring my destined gone. Well, to 
to a hasty folk, and their full name is as long as years of torment, those vermin of orcs. And they have come over the river and down from the north and all around the port of the Great Ones, who are here. <sighs> he bowed to the Lord and Lady of Lorien. And these foul creatures were more than surprised to meet us out of the world. <laughs> For they had not heard of us before. Though that might be said also of better folk. And not many will remember us. For not many escaped us alive. And they had not met us. Then the king of the grassland would have ridden far, and if he had, there would have been no home to return to. We know it well, said Aragorn, and never shall it be forgotten in Minas Tirith or in Edoras. Mm, never is too long a word, even for me, said Treebeard. Not while the kingdoms last, you mean. But they will have to last long indeed, to seem long to ends. The new age begins, said Gandalf. And in this age it may well prove that the kingdoms of men shall outlast you, Fangorn, my friend. But now come tell me, what of the task that I set you? Where is Saruman? Is he not weary of all thank yet? For I do not suppose that he will think you have improved the view from his windows. Treebeard gave Gandalf a long look. Almost a cunning look, Merry thought. Ah, he said. I thought you would come to that. Weary of all thank, yes, weary at last, but not so weary of his tower as he was weary of my voice. I gave him some long tales, or at least what might be thought long in your speech. Then why did he stay to listen? Didn't you go into Orthanc? No, not into Orthanc, said Treebeard. But he came to his window and listened, because he could not get news in any other way. And though he hated the news, he was greedy to have it. And I saw that he heard it all. But I added a great many things to the news that it was good for him to think of. He grew very wary. <laughs> he always was hasty. That was his ruin. I observe, my good Fangorn, said Gandalf, that with great care you say dwelt, was, grew. What about is? Is he dead? No, not dead so far as I know, said Treebeard. But he is gone. Yes, he is gone seven days. I let him go. There was little left of him when he crawled out. And as for that worm creature of his, he was like a pale shadow. Now do not tell me, Gandalf, that I promised to keep him safe, for I know it. But things have changed since then, and I kept him until he was safe. Safe from doing any more harm. 
You should know that above all I hate the caging of live things. I will not keep even such creatures as these caged beyond great need. A snake without fans may crawl where he will. You may be right, said Gandalf. But this snake had still one tooth left, I think. He had the poison of his voice. And I guess that he persuaded you, even you, Treebeard, knowing the soft spot in your heart. Well, he is gone, and there is no more to be said. But the Tower of Orthanc now goes back to the king, to whom it belongs. Though maybe he will not need it. That will be seen later, said Aragorn. But I will give to Ents all this valley to do with as they will, so long as they keep a watch upon Orthanc and see that none enter it without my leave. It is locked, said Treebeard. I made Saruman lock it and give me the keys. Quickbeam has them. Quickbeam bowed like a tree bending in the wind and handed to Aragorn two great black keys of intricate shape, joined by a ring of steel. Now I thank you once more, said Aragorn, and I bid you farewell. May your forest grow again in peace. When this valley is filled, there is room to spare west of the mountains where once you walked long ago. Treebeard's face became sad. Forests may grow, he said. Woods may spread, but not ends. There are no endings. Yet maybe there is now more hope in your search, said Aragorn. Lands will lie open to you eastward and have long been closed. But Treebeard shook his head and said, It is far to go. And there are too many men there these days. But I am forgetting my manners. Will you stay here and rest a while? And maybe there are some that would be pleased to pass through Fanghorn Forest and so shorten their road home. He looked at Celeborn and Galadriel. But all save Legolas said that they must now take their leave and depart either south or west. Come, Gimli! said Legolas. Now by Fangorn's leave I will visit the deep places of the Entwood and see such trees that are nowhere else to be found in Middle-earth. You shall come with me and keep your word, and thus we will journey on together to our own lands in Mirkwood and beyond. To this Gimli agreed, though with no great delight it seemed. Here then at last comes the ending of the Fellowship of the Ring said Aragorn. Yet I hope ere long you will return to my land with the help that you promised. We will come if our own lords allow it, said Gimli. Well, farewell, my hobbits. You should come safe to your own homes now. And I shall not be kept awake for fear of your peril. We will send word when we may. And some of us may yet meet at times. But I fear that we shall not all be gathered together ever again. Then Treebeard said farewell to each of them in turn, and he bowed three times slowly and with great reverence to Celeborn and Galadriel. It is long, long since we met by stock or by stone. Avanima. Ah, Vanimalion Nustari.
he said. It is said that we should meet only thus at the ending. For the world is changing. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. And I smell it in the air. I do not think we shall meet again. And Celeborn said, I do not know, Eldest. But Galadriel said, Not in Middle-earth, nor until the lands that lie under the wave are lifted up again. Then in the willow meads of Tassarina, we may meet in the spring. Farewell. Last of all, Merry and Pippin said goodbye to the old end. And he grew gayer as he looked at them. Well, my merry folk, he said, Will you drink another draught with me before you go? Indeed we will, they said. And he took them aside into the shade of one of the trees, and there they saw that a great stone jar had been set, and Treebeard filled three bowls. And they drank, and they saw his strange eyes looking at them over the rim of his bowl. Take care, take care, said, for you have already grown since I saw you last. And they laughed and drained their bowls. Well, goodbye, he said. And don't forget that if you hear any news of the Entwives in your land, you will send word to me. Then he waved his great hands to all the company and went off into the trees. The travellers now rode with more speed, and they made their way towards the Cap of Rohan. And Aragorn took leave of them at last, close to that very place where Pippin had looked into the stone of Orthanc. The hobbits were grieved at this parting, for Aragorn had never failed them, and he had been their guide through many perils. I wish we could have a stone that we could see all our friends in, said Pippin, and that we could speak to them from far away. Only one now remains that you could use answered Aragorn, for you would not wish to see what the stone of Minas Tirith would show you. But the Palantir of Orthanc the king will keep, to see what is passing in his realm, and what his servants are doing. For do not forget, Peregrine Duke, that you are a knight of Gondor, and I do not release you from your servant. You are going now on leave, but I may recall you. And remember, Dear friends of the Shire, that my realm lies also in the north, and I shall come there one day. Then Aragorn took leave of Celeborn and Galadriel, and the lady said to him, Elfstone, through darkness you have come to your home, and have now all your desire. You swell the days. But Celeborn said, Kinsmen, farewell. May your doom be other than mine and your treasure remain with you to the end. With that, they parted. And it was then the time of sunset, when after a while they turned and looked back, they saw the King of the West sitting upon his horse with his knights about him, and the falling sun shone upon them and made all their harness to gleam like red gold and the white mantle of Aragorn was turned to a flame. 
Then Aragorn took the green stone and held it up, and there came a green fire from his hand. Soon the dwindling company, following the Eisen, turned west and rode through the gap into the wastelands beyond. And then they turned northwards and passed over the borders of Dunland. The Dunaldings fled and hid themselves, for they were afraid of elvish folk, though few indeed ever came to their country. But the travellers did not heed them, for they were still a great company and were well provided with all that they needed. And they went on their way at their leisure, setting up their tents when they would. On the sixth day since their parting from the king, they journeyed through a wood climbing down from the hills at the feet of the misty mountains, that now marched on their right hand. As they came down again into the open country at sundown, they overtook an old man leaning on a staff, and he was clothed in rags of grey or dirty white, and at his heels went another beggar, slouching and whining. Well, Saruman, said Gandalf, where are you going? What is that to you? He answered. Will you still order my goings, and are you not content with my ruin? You know the answers, said Gandalf. No, and no. But in my case, the time of my labors now draws to an end. The king has taken on the burden. If you had waited at Orthanc, you would have seen him, and he would have shown you wisdom and mercy. Then all the more reason to have left sooner, said Saruman. For I desire neither of him. Indeed, if you wish for an answer to your first question, I am seeking a way out of his realm. Then once more you are going the wrong way, said Gandalf. And I see no hope in your journey. But will you scorn our help? For we offer it to you. To me, said Saruman. Nay. Pray do not smile at me. I prefer your frowns. And as for the lady here, I do not trust her. She has always hated me and seemed for your part. I do not doubt that she has brought you this way to have the pleasure of gloating over my poverty. Had I been warned of your pursuit, I would have denied you the pleasure. Saruman, said Galadriel, we have other errands and other cares that seem to us more urgent than hunting for you. Say rather that you are overtaken by good fortune, for now you have a last chance. <laughs> if it be truly the last, I am glad, said Saruman. Well, I shall be spared the trouble of refusing it again. All my hopes are ruined, but I would not share yours if you have any. For a moment his eyes kindled. Go, he said. I did not spend long study on these matters for naught. You have doomed yourselves, and you know it! And it will afford me some comfort as I wander to think that you pulled down your own house when you destroyed mine. And now, what ship will bear you back across so wide a sea? It will be a grey ship and full of ghosts. He laughed, <laughs> but his voice was cracked and hideous. Get up, you idiot! He shouted to the other beggar who had sat down on the ground, and he struck him with his staff. Turn about! If these fine folk are going our way, then we will take another. Get on, or I will give you no 
crust for your supper. The beggar turned and slouched past, whimpering. <laughs> Poor old Grimer. Poor old Grimer. Always beaten and cursed. How I hate him. I wish I could leave him. Then leave him. But Wormtongue only shot a glance of his bleared eyes full of terror at Gandalf, and then shuffled quickly past behind Saruman. As the wretched pair passed by the company, they came to the hobbits, and Saruman stopped and stared at them. But they looked at him with pity. So, you have come to gloat too, have you, my urchins? He said. You don't care what a beggar lacks, do you? For you have all you want. Food and fine clothes and the best weed for your pipes. Oh yes, I know. I know where it comes from. You would not give a pipeful to a beggar, would you? I would if I had any, said Frodo. You can have what I have got left, said Mary. If you'll wait a moment. He got down and searched in the bag at his saddle. Then he handed to Saruman a leather pouch. Take what there is, he said. You are welcome to it. It came from the flotsam of Isengard. Mine, mine, yes, and dearly bought, cried Saruman, clutching at the pouch. <laughs> this is only a repayment in token. For well, you took more, I'll be bound. Still, I think I must be grateful. If a thief returns even a morsel of his own, well, it will serve you right when you come home. If you find things less good in the South Farthing than you would like. Long may your land be short of life. Uh, thank you, said Mary. In that case, I will have my pouch back, which is not yours and has journeyed far with me. Grab the weed in a rag of your own. One thief deserves another, said Saruman, and turned his back on Mary, and kicked Wormtongue, and went away towards the wood. Well, I like that, said Pippin. Thief indeed. What of our claim of waylaying, wounding, and orc dragging us through Rohan? Ah, said Sam. And bolt, he said. How, I wonder. And I didn't like the sound of what he said about the south farthing. It's time we got back. I'm sure it is said Frodo. But we can't go any quicker if we had to see Bilbo. I'm going to Rivendell first, whatever happens. Yes, I think you had better do that, said Gandalf. But alas for Saruman. I fear nothing more can be made of him. He was withered altogether. All the same, I am not sure that Treebeard is right. I fancy he could do some mischief in a small, mean way. Next day they went on into northern Dunland where no men now dwelt, though it was a green and pleasant country. September came in with golden days and silver nights, and they rode at ease until they reached the Swanfleet River and found the old ford, east of the falls, where it went down suddenly into the lowlands. Far to the west in a haze lay the mires and ayots through which it wound its way to the Grey Flood. There countless swans housed in a land of reeds. So they passed into Eregion, and at last a fair morning dawned, shimmering above gleaming mists, and looking from their camp on a low hill, the travelers saw away in the east the sun catching three peaks that thrust up into the sky through floating clouds, Caradras, Kelebdil, and Fanuithol. They were near to the gates of Moria. Here now for seven days they tarried, 
for the time was at hand for another parting, which they were loath to make. Soon Celeborn and Galadriel and their folk would turn eastward, and so pass by the Redhorn Gate and down the Dimril Stair to the Silver Load and to their own country. They had journeyed thus far by the West Ways, for they had much to speak of with Elrond and with Gandalf, and here they lingered still in converse with their friends. Often long after the hobbits were wrapped in sleep, they would sit together under the stars, recalling the ages that were gone and all their joys and labours in the world, or holding counsel concerning the days to come. If any wanderer had chanced to pass, little would he have seen or heard, and it would have seemed to him only that he saw grey figures, carved in stone, memorials of forgotten things now lost in unpeopled lands. For they did not move or speak with mouth, looking from mind to mind, and only their shining eyes stirred and kindled as their thoughts went to and fro. But at length all was said, and they parted again for a while, until it was time for the three rings to pass away. Quickly fading into the stones and the shadows, the great cloaked people of Lorien rode towards the mountains. And those who were going to Rivendell sat on the hill and watched until there came out of the gathering mist a flash, and then they saw no more. Frodo knew that Galadriel had held aloft her ring in token of farewell. Sam turned away and sighed. I wish I was going back to Lorien. At last, one evening they came over the high moors. Suddenly, as to the travellers, it always seemed to the brink of the deep valley of Rivendell and saw far below the lamps shining in Elrond's house. And they went down and crossed the bridge and came to the doors and all the house was filled with light, and song for joy at Elrond's homecoming. First of all, before they had eaten or washed or even shed their cloaks, the hobbits went in search for Bilbo. They found him all alone in his little room. He was littered with papers and pens and pencils, but Bilbo was sitting in a chair before a small bright fire. He looked very old, but peaceful and sleeping. He opened his eyes and looked up as they came in. Hello, hello, he said. So you've come back. And tomorrow's my birthday too. How clever of you. Do you know I shall be 129? And in one year more, if I am spared, I shall equal the old Duke. I should like to beat him. We shall see. After the celebration of Bilbo's birthday, the four hobbits stayed in Rivendell for some days, and they sat much with their old friend, who spent most of his time now in his room, except at meals. For these he was still very punctual as a rule, and he seldom failed to wake up in time for them. Sitting round the fire, they told him in turn all they could remember of their journeys and adventures. At first he pretended to take some notes, but he often fell asleep. And when he woke, he would say, Oh, how splendid! How wonderful! But where were we? Then they went on with the story from the point where he had begun to nod. The only part that seemed really to rouse him and hold his attention was the account of the crowning and marriage of Aragorn. I was invited to the wedding, of course, he said. And I have waited for it long enough. But somehow... When it came to it, I found I had so much to do here, and packing is such a bother. 
When nearly a fortnight had passed, Frodo looked out of his window and saw that there had been a frost in the night, and the cobwebs were like white nets. Then suddenly he knew that he must go and say goodbye to Bilbo. The weather was still calm and fair after one of the most lovely summers that people could remember, but October had come, and it must break soon and begin to rain and blow again. And there was still a very long way to go. Yet it was not really the thought of the weather that stirred him. He had a feeling that it was time he went back to the Shire. Sam shared it. Only the night before he had said, Well, Mr. Frodo, we've been far and seen a deal. Yet I don't think we've found a better place than this. There's something of everything here, if you understand me. The Shire and the Goldenwood and Gondor and King's Houses and Inns and Meadows and Mountains all mixed. And yet... Somehow I feel we ought to be going soon. I'm worried about my gaffer, to tell you the truth. Yes, something of everything, Sam. Except the sea, Frodo answered, and he repeated it now to himself. Except the sea. That day Frodo spoke to Elrond, and it was agreed that they should leave the next morning. To their delight, Gandalf said, I think I shall come too. At least as far as Bree. I want to see Butterpur. In the evening, they went to say goodbye to Bilbo. Well, if you must go, you must, he said. I am sorry. I shall miss you. It is nice just to know that you are about the place. Yes. But I am getting very sleepy. Then he gave Frodo his mithril coat and sting, forgetting that he had already done so. And he gave him also three books of law that he had made at various times, written in his spidery hand and labelled on their red backs. Translations from the Elvish by B.B. To Sam he gave a little bag of gold. Almost the last drop of the smog vintage, he said. May come in useful if you think of getting married, Sam. Sam blushed. Oh, I have nothing much to give you two young fellows, he said to Merry and Pippin, except good advice. And when he had given them a fair sample of this, he added a last item in Shire fashion. Don't let your heads get too big for your hats. But if you don't finish growing up soon, you are going to find hats and clothes expensive. But if you want to beat the old tick, oh. said Pippin, I don't see why we shouldn't try and beat the bull roar. Bilbo laughed. <laughs> and he produced out of a pocket two beautiful pipes with pearl mouth pieces and bound with fine wrought silver. Think of me when you smoke them, he said. The elves made them for me. But I don't smoke now. And then suddenly he nodded and went to sleep for a while. And when he woke up again, he said, Now, 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 uh, now, where were we? Yes, of course, giving presents. Which reminds me, what's become of my ring, Frodo? That you took away? Oh, I have lost it, Bilbo, dear, said Frodo. I got rid of it, you know. Oh, what a pity said Bilbo. I should have liked to see it again. No. How silly of me. That's what you went for, wasn't it? To get rid of it? 
<laughs> but it is all so confusing. For such a lot of other things seem to have got mixed up with him. Aragorn's affairs and the White Council and, and Gondor and, and the Horsemen and Southrons and Oliphants. Did you really see one, Sam? And caves and towers and golden trees and golden... And goodness knows what besides. I evidently came by much too straight a road from my trip. I think Gandalf might have shown me, might have shown me round a bit. But, but then the auction would have been over before I got back. I should have had even more trouble than I did. Anyway, it's, it's too late now. And really, I think it's much more comfortable to sit here hear about it all. Fire's very cosy, and the food's very good. And there are elves when you want them. What more could one want? The road goes ever on and on, out from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone. Let others follow it who can. Let them a journey new begin. But I at last, with weary feet, will turn towards the lighted inn and my evening rest and sleep to and as Bilbo murmured the last words, his head dropped on his chest, and he slept soundly. The evening deepened in the room, and the firelight burned brighter, and they looked at Bilbo as he slept, and saw that his face was smiling, for some time they sat in silence. Then Sam, looking round at the room, and the shadows flickering on the walls, said softly, I don't think, Mr. Frodo, that he's done much writing while we've been away. He won't ever write our story now. At that, Bilbo opened his eye, almost as if he had heard. Then he roused himself. You see, I am getting so sleepy, he said. And when I have time to write, I only really like writing poetry. I, I, I wonder, Frodo, my dear fellow, if you would very much mind tidying up a bit before you go. Collect all my notes and papers and my diary, too, and take them with you, if, if you will. You see, I haven't much time for the selection and the arrangement and all that. Get Sam to help, and when you've knocked things into shape, come back, and I'll run over it. I won't be too critical. Of course I'll do it, said Frodo. And of course I'll come back soon. It won't be dangerous anymore. There is a real king now, and he will soon put the roads in order. <gasps> Thank you, my dear fellow, said Bilbo. That really is a very great relief to my mind. And with that he fell asleep again. The next day Gandalf and the hobbits took leave of Bilbo in his room for it was cold out of doors. And then they said farewell to Elrond and all his household. As Frodo stood upon the threshold, 
Elrond wished him a fair journey and blessed him. And he said, I think, Frodo, that maybe you will not need to come back. Unless you come very soon. For about this time of the year, when the leaves are gold before they fall, look for Bilbo in the woods of the Shire. I shall be with him. These words no one else heard, and Frodo kept them to himself. At last the hobbits had their faces turned towards home. They were eager now to see the Shire again, but at first they rode only slowly, for Frodo had been ill at ease. When they came to the ford of Bruinum, he had halted, and seemed loath to ride into the stream, and they noted that for a while his eyes appeared not to see them or things about him. All that day he was silent, it was the 6th of October. Are you in pain, Frodo? Said Gandalf quietly as they rode by Frodo's side. Well, yes, I am, said Frodo. It is my shoulder. The wound aches and the memory of the darkness is heavy on me. It was a year ago today. Alas, there are some wounds that cannot be wholly cured said Gandalf. I fear it may be so with mine, said Frodo. There is no real going back. Though I may come to the Shire, it will not seem the same, for I shall not be the same. I am wounded with knife, sting and tooth, and a long pen. Where shall I find rest? Gandalf did not answer. By the end of the next day, the pain and unease had passed, and Frodo was merry again, as merry as if he did not remember the blackness of the day before. After that, the journey went well, and the days went quickly by, for they rode at leisure, and often they lingered in the fair woodlands where the leaves were red and yellow in the autumn sun. At length they came to Weathertop, and it was then drawing towards evening, and the shadow of the hill lay dark on the road. Then Frodo begged them to hasten, and he would not look towards the hill, but rode through its shadow with head bowed and cloak drawn close about him. That night, the weather changed, and a wind came from the west laden with rain, and it blew loud and chill, and the yellow leaves whirled like birds in the air. When they came to the Chetwood, already the bows were almost bare, and a great curtain of rain veiled Bree Hill from their sight. So it was that near the end of a wild and wet evening in the last days of October, the five travellers rode up the climbing road and came to the south gate of Bree. It was locked fast, and the rain blew in their faces, and in the darkening sky low clouds went hurrying by and their hearts sank a little, for they had expected more welcome. When they had called many times, at last the gatekeeper came out, and they saw that he carried a great cudgel. 
He looked at them with fear and suspicion, but when he saw that Gandalf was there and that his companions were hobbits in spite of their strange gear, then he brightened and wished them welcome. Come in, he said, unlocking the gate. We won't stay for news out here in the cold and the wet. A ruffianly evening. But old Barley will no doubt give you a welcome at the pony, and there you'll hear all there is to hear. <laughs> and there you'll hear later all that we say and more, laughed Gandalf. Harry's Harry. The gatekeeper scowled. Gone, he said. But you'd best ask Barlow. Good evening to you. Good evening to you, they said and passed through. And then they noticed that behind the hedge at the roadside, a long, low hut had been built, and a number of men had come out and were staring at them over the fence. When they came to Bill Fernie's house, they saw that the hedge was tattered and unkempt, and the windows were all boarded up. You think you killed him with that apple son? said Pippin. <laughs> well, I'm not so hopeful, Mr. Pippin, said Sam. But I'd like to know what became of that poor pony. He's been on my mind many a time, and the wolves howling and all. At last they came to the prancing pony, and that at least looked outwardly unchanged. And there were lights behind the red curtains in the lower windows. They rang the bell, and Nob came to the door, and opened it a crack and peeped through. And when he saw them standing under the lamp, he gave a cry of surprise. Mr. Butterbur, master! He shouted. They've come back! Came Butterbur's voice, and out he came with a rush. And he had a club in his hand. But when he saw who they were, he stopped short. And the black scowl on his face changed to wonder and delight. Nob, you woolly-painted ninny! He cried. Don't you give old friends their names? You shouldn't go scaring me like that with times as they are. Well, well, and where have you come from? I never expected to see any of you folk again, and that's a fact. Going off into the wild with that strider and all those black men about. But I'm right glad to see you and none more than Gandalf. Come in, come in. The same rooms as before. They're free. Indeed, most rooms are empty these days, and as I'll not hide from you, you'll find it soon enough. And I'll see what can be done about supper as soon as may be. But I'm sore-handed at present. Thank you. Hey, Nob, you're slow, coach. Tell Bob. Ah, here. I'm forgetting. Bob's gone. Goes home to his folk at nightfall now. Well, take the guest's ponies to the stables, Nob. I don't know. And you'll be taking your horse to the stable yourself, Gandalf. I don't doubt. <laughs> A fine beast, as I've said when I first set eyes on him. Well, come in. Make yourselves at home. Mr. Butterbur had at any rate not changed his manner of talking, and still seemed to live in his old breathless bustle. And yet there was hardly anybody about, and all was quiet. From the common room there came a low murmur of no more than two or three voices, and seen closer in the light of two candles that he lit and carried before them, the landlord's face looked rather wrinkled and careworn. He led them down the passage to the parlour that they had used on that strange night more than a year ago, and they followed him. A little disquieted, for it seemed plain to them that old Barliman was putting a brave face on some trouble. Things were not what they had been. But they said nothing, and waited. 
As they expected, Mr. Butterbur came to the parlor after supper to see if all had been to their liking. As indeed it had. No change for the worse had yet come upon the beer or their victuals at the pony at any rate. Now I won't make so bold to suggest you should come to the common room tonight, said Butterbur. You'll be tired. And there isn't many folk here this evening anyway. But if you could spare me half an hour before you go to your beds, I would dearly like to have some talk with you. Quiet like. By ourselves. And that is just what we would like too, said Gandalf. We are not tired. We have been taking things easy. We were wet, cold, and hungry, but all that you have cured. Come, sit down. And if you have any pipe weed, we'll bless you. Well, if you'd called for anything else, I'd have been happier, said Butterbur. That's just a thing that we are sort of, seeing how we've only got what we grow ourselves, and that's not enough. There is none to be had from the Shire these days, but I'll do what I can. When he came back, he brought them enough to last them for a day or two. A wad of uncut leaf. Southlinch, he said, and the best we have. But not the match of Southfar, then, as I've always said. Though I'm all for Bree in most matters, begging your pardon. They put him in a large chair by the wood fire, and Gandalf sat on the other side of the hearth, and the hobbits in low chairs between them. And then they talked for many times half an hour, and exchanged all such news as Mr. Butterbur wished to hear or give. Most of the things which they had to tell were a mere wonder and bewilderment to their host, and far beyond his vision, and they brought forth few comments other than, You don't say! often repeated in defiance of the evidence of Mr. Butterbur's own ears. You don't say, Mr. Baggins, or is it Mr. Underhill? I'm getting so mixed up. You don't say, Master Gandalf. Well, I never. Who'd have thought it at our times? But he did say much on his own account. Things were far from well, he would say. Business was not even fair. It was downright bad. No one comes nigh Bree now from outside, he said. And the inside folks, they stay at home mostly and keep their doors barred. It all comes of those newcomers and gongrels that began coming up in the Greenway last year, as you may remember. But more came later. Some were just poor bodies running away from trouble. But most were bad men, full of thievery and mischief. And there was trouble right here in Bree. <sighs> bad trouble. Why, we had a real set to, and there were some folk killed. Killed dead, if you'll believe me. I will indeed, said Gandalf. How many? Three and two, said Butterbur, referring to the big folk and the little. <laughs> there was poor Matt Heathertoes, and Rowley Appledore, and little Tom Pickthorn from over the hill, and Willie Banks from up away, and one of the other hills from Staddle. All good fellows, and they're missed. And Harry Goatleaf, that used to be on the West Gate, and that Bill Fernie. They came in on the stranger's side, and they've gone off with them. And it's my belief they let them in. On the night of the fight, I mean. And that was after we showed them the gates and pushed them out. Before the year's end, that was. And the fight was early in the new year, after the heavy snow we've had. 
And now they're gone for robbers and live outside, hiding in the woods beyond Archit and out in the wilds north away. It's like a bit of the bad old times tale teller, I say. It isn't safe on the road, and nobody goes far, and folk lock up early. We've had to keep watchers all round the fence and put a lot of men on the gates at nights. Well, no one troubled us, said Pippin, and we came along slowly and kept no watch. We thought we'd left all trouble behind us. Ah, that you haven't, Master. More's the pity, said Butterbur. But it's no wonder they left you alone. They wouldn't go for armed folk with swords and helmets and shields and all. Make them think twice, that would. And I must say, it put me aback a bit when I saw you. Then the hobbits suddenly realized that people had looked at them with amazement, not out of surprise at their return, so much as in wonder at their gear. They themselves had become so used to warfare and to riding in well-arrayed companies that they had quite forgotten that the bright mail peeping from under their cloaks and the helms of Gondor and the Mark and the fair devices on their shields would seem outlandish in their own country. And Gandalf, too, was now riding on his tall grey horse, all clad in white, with a great mantle of blue and silver over all, and the long sword glamdring at his side. Gandalf laughed. Well, well. He said, If they are afraid of just five of us, then we have met worse enemies on our travels. But at any rate, they will give you peace at night while we stay. How long will that be? said Butterbur. I'll not deny that we should be glad to have you about for a bit. You see, we're not used to such troubles, and the rangers have all gone away, folk told me. I don't think we've rightly understood till now what they did for us. For there's been worse than robbers about. Wolves were howling round the fences last winter. And there's dark shapes in the woods. Dreadful things that makes the blood run cold to think of. <sighs> it's been very disturbing, if you understand me. I expect it has, said Gandalf. Nearly all lands have been disturbed these days. Very disturbed. But cheer up, Barlamin. You have been on the edge of very great troubles, and I am only glad to hear that you have not been deeper in. But better times are coming. Maybe better than any you remember. The rangers have returned. We came back with them, and there is a king again, Barlyman. He will soon be turning his mind this way. Then the Greenway will be open again, and his messengers will come north. And there will be comings and goings, and the evil things will be driven out of the wastelands. Indeed, the waste in time will be waste no longer, and there will be people and fields where once there was wilderness. Mr. Butterbur shook his head. If there's a few decent, respectable folk on the roads, that won't do no harm, he said. But we don't want no more rabble and ruffians. And we don't want no outsiders at Bree, nor near Bree at all. We want to be let alone. I don't want a whole crowd of strangers camping here and settling there, tearing up the wild country. You will be let alone, Barleyman, said Gandalf. There is room enough for realms between Eisen and Greyflood, or along the shoreland south of the Brandywine, without anyone living within many days' ride of Bree. And many folk used to dwell away north, a hundred miles or more from here, at the far end of the Greenway, on the North Downs, or by Lake Evendium, 
Rub away my dead man's dyke, said Butterbur, looking even more dubious. That's... that's haunted land, they say. None but a rubber will go there. The rangers go there, said Gandalf. Midman's dyke, you say. So it has been called for long years, but its right name, Parliament, is Fornost Erain, Norbury of the Kings. And the king will come there again one day, and you'll have some fair folk riding through. Well, that sounds more hopeful, I'll allow, said Butterba. And it will be good for business, no doubt. So long as he lets Bree alone. <laughs> he will, said Gandalf. He knows it and loves it. Does he know? said Butterbur, looking puzzled. Though I'm sure I don't know why he should, sitting in his big chair up in his great castle, hundreds of miles away, and drinking wine out of a golden cup, I shouldn't wonder. What's the pony to him, or bugs of beer? No, but what my beer's good, Gandalf. It's been uncommon good since you came in the autumn last year and put a good word on it. And that's been a comfort in trouble, I will say. Ah! said Sam. But he says your beer's always good. He says? Of course he does. A Strider, the chief of the rangers. Haven't you got that in your head yet? It went in at last. And Butterbur's face was a study in wonder. The eyes in his broad face grew round and his mouth opened wide, and he gasped. Strider! He exclaimed when he got back his breath. Him? Crown and all in a golden cup. <laughs> well, what are we coming to? Better times for Bree, at any rate, said Gandalf. I hope so, I'm sure, said Butterbur. Well, well, this has been the nicest chat I've had in a month of Mondays. And I'll not deny that I'll sleep easier tonight with and with a lighter heart. You've given me a powerful lot to think over, but I'll put that off until tomorrow. I'm for bed, and I've no doubt you'll be glad of your beds too. Hey, Nob! He called, going to the door. Nob, you slowcoats! Nob! Nob! He said to himself, slapping his forehead. Now, what does that remind me of? <laughs> Not another letter you've forgotten, I hope, Mr. Butterbur, said Mary. No, no, Mr. Benderbuck, don't go remind me of that. But there, you've broken my thought. Now, where was I? Nope, stables. <gasps> that was it. I've something that belongs to you. If you recollect Bill Fernie and the horse thieving. His pony as you bought. Well, it's here. Come back all of itself it did. But where it had been to, you know better than me. It was as shaggy as an old dog and as lean as a clothes rail, but it was alive. Nobs looked after it. What? My bill? Cried Sam. Well, I was born lucky, whatever my gaffer may say. There's another wish come true. Where is he? Sam would not go to bed until he had visited Bill in his stable. The travellers stayed in Bree all the next day, and Mr. Butterbur could not complain of his business next evening at any rate. Curiosity overcame all fears, and his house was crowded. For a while out of politeness, the hobbits visited the common room in the evening and answered a good many questions. Bree memories being retentive, Frodo was asked many times if he had written his book. Not yet, he answered. I'm going home now to put my notes in order. He promised to deal with the amazing events at Bree, and so give it a bit of interest to a book that appeared likely to treat mostly of the remote and less important affairs away south. 
Then one of the younger folk called for a song, but at that a hush fell, and he was frowned down, and the call was not repeated. Evidently there was no wish for any uncanny events in the common room again. No trouble by day, nor any sound by night, disturbed the peace of Bree while the travelers remained there. But the next morning they got up early, for as the weather was still raining, they wished to reach the Shire before night. And it was a long ride. The Bree folk were all out to see them off, and were in merrier mood than they had been for a year. And those who had not seen the strangers in all their gear before gaped with wonder at them. At Gandalf with his white beard and the light that seemed to gleam from him, as if his blue mantle was only a cloud over sunshine. And at the four hobbits like riders upon errantry, out of almost forgotten tales. Even those who had laughed at all the talk about the king began to think there might be some truth in it. Well, good luck on your road, and good luck to your own coming, said Mr. Butterbush. I should have warned you before that all's not well in the Shire either, if all we hear is true. Funny goings on, they say. But one thing drives out another, and I was full of my own troubles. But if I may be so bold, you've come back changed from your travels, and you look now like folk that us can deal with troubles out of hand. I don't doubt you'll soon set all to rights. Good luck to you. Thank you very much. And the oftener you come back, the better I'll be pleased. They wished him farewell and rode away, and passed through the west gate and on towards the Shire. Bill the Pony was with them, and as before, he had a good deal of baggage, but he trotted along beside Sam and seemed well content. I wonder what old Barleyman was hinting at, said Frodo. I can guess some of it, said Sam gloomily. What I saw in the mirror, trees cut down and all, my old gaffer turned out of the row. I ought to have hurried back quicker. And something's wrong with the south farthing, evidently, said Mary. There's a general shortage of pipeweed. Whatever it is, said Pippin, Lothar will be at the bottom of it. You can be sure of that. Deep in, but not at the bottom, said Gandalf. You've forgotten Saruman. He began to take an interest in the Shire before Mordor did. Well, we've got you with us, said Mary. So things will soon be cleared up. I am with you at present, said Gandalf. But soon I shall not be. I am not coming to the Shire. You must settle its affairs yourselves. That is what you have been trained for. Do you not yet understand? My time is over. It is no longer my task to set things to rights, nor to help folk to do so. And as for you, my dear friends, you will need no help. You are grown up now. Grown indeed very high among the great you are, and I have no longer any fear at all for any of you. But if you would know, I'm turning aside soon. I'm going to have a long talk with Bombadil. Such a talk as I have not had in all my time. He is a moss gatherer, and I have been a stone doomed to rolling. But my rolling days are ending. And now we shall have much to say to one another. In a little while they came to the point of the east road, where they had taken leave of Bombadil, 
and they hoped and half expected to see him standing there to greet them as they went by. But there was no sign of him, and there was a grey mist on the barrow down southwards, and a deep veil over the old forest far away. They halted, and Frodo looked south wistfully. I should dearly like to see the old fellow again, he said. I wonder how he's getting on. <laughs> as well as ever, you may be sure, said Gandalf. Quite untroubled, and I should guess not much interested in anything that we have done or seen. <laughs> unless perhaps in our visit to the elves. There may be a time later for you to go and see him. But if I were you, I should press on for home. Or you will not come to the Brandywine Bridge before the gates are locked. But there aren't any gates, said Mary. Not on the road. You know that quite well. There's the Buckland Gate, of course, but they'll let me through that in any time. There weren't any gates, you mean, said Gandalf. I think you will find some now. And you might have more trouble even at the Buckland Gate than you think. But you'll manage all right. Goodbye, dear friend. Not for the last time. Not yet. Goodbye. He turned Shadowfax off the road, and the great horse left the green dyke that here ran beside it, and then at a cry from Gandalf, he was gone, racing towards the Barrow Downs like a wind from the north. Well, here we are. Just the four of us that started out together, said Mary. We have left all the rest behind, one after another. It seems almost like a dream that has slowly faded. Not to me, said Frodo. To me, it feels more like falling asleep again. It was after nightfall when, wet and tired, the travellers came at last to the Brandywine, and they found the way barred. At either end of the bridge there was a great spiked gate, and on the further side of the river they could see that some new houses had been built, two-storied, with narrow, straight-sided windows, bare and dimly lit, all very gloomy and unshire-like. They hammered on the outer gate and called. But there was at first no answer. And then, to their surprise, someone blew a horn, and the lights in the windows went out. A voice shouted in the dark. Who's that? Beowulf, you can't come in. Can't you read the notice? No admittance between sundown and sunrise. Of course we can't read the notice in the dark, Sam shouted back. And if hobbits of the Shire are to be kept out of the wet on a cold night like this, I'll tear down your notice when I find it. At that, a window slammed, and a crowd of hobbits with lanterns poured out of the house on the left. They opened the further gate, and some came over the bridge. When they saw the travellers, they seemed frightened. Come along, said Mary, recognising one of the hobbits. If you don't know me, Hob Hayward, you ought to. I'm Mary Brandybuck, and I should like to know what all this is about. And what a bucklander like you is doing here. You used to be on the Haygate. Bless me! 
it's Master Merry, to be sure, and all dressed up for fighting, said old Hob. Why, they said you were dead. Lost in the old forest, by all accounts. I'm pleased to see you alive, after all. Then stop gaping at me through the bars and open the gate, said Merry. I'm sorry, Master Merry, but we have orders. Whose orders? The chief's up at Bag Inn. Chief, do you mean Mr. Lotho? Said Frodo. I suppose so, Mr. Baggins, but we have to say just the chief nowadays. Do you indeed? Said Frodo. Well, I'm glad he has dropped the Baggins at any rate. But it is evidently high time that the family dealt with him and put him in his place. A hush fell on the hobbits beyond the gate. It won't do no good talking that way, said one. You get to hear of it. And if you make so much noise, you'll wake up the chief's big man. We shall wake him up in a way that will surprise him, said Merry. If you mean that your precious chief has been hiring ruffians out of the wild, then we've not come back too soon. He sprang from his pony and seeing the notice in the light of the lanterns, he tore it down and threw it over the gate. The hobbits backed away and made no move to open it. Come on, Pippin, said Merry. Two is enough. Merry and Pippin climbed the gate, and the hobbits fled. Another horn sounded. Out of the bigger house on the right, a large, heavy figure appeared against the light in the doorway. What's all this? He snarled as he came forward. Gate-breaking! You clear out or I'll break your filthy little necks! Then he stopped, for he had caught the gleam of swords. (sighs) Bill Fernie, said Merry. If you don't open that gate in ten seconds, you'll regret it. I shall set steel to you if you don't obey. And when you've opened the gates, you will go through them. And never return. You're a ruffian and a highway robber. Bill Fernie flinched and shuffled to the gate and unlocked it. Give me the key, said Mary. But the ruffians flung it at his head and then darted out of the darkness. As he passed the ponies, one of them let fly with his heels and just caught him as he ran. He went off with a yelp into the night and was never heard of again. Nate, we're belt, said Sam, meaning the pony. Not much for your big man, said Merry. We'll see the chief later. In the meantime, we want a lodging for the night. And as you seem to have pulled down the bridge in and built this dismal place instead, you'll have to put us up. I'm sorry, Mr. Murray, said Hob. But, but it isn't allowed. What isn't allowed? Uh, Taking in folk off-hand like and eating extra food and all that, said Hob. What's the matter with this place? said Merry. Has it been a bad year or what? I thought it'd been a fine summer in Harvest. Well, no, the the year's been good enough, said Hob. We grows a lot of food, uh, but we don't rightly know what's become of it. It's all these gatherers and sharers, I reckon. Going around counting and measuring and taking off to storage. They do more gathering than sharing, and we never see most of the stuff again. Oh, come, said Pippin, yawning. This is all too tiresome for me tonight. We've got food in our bags. Just give us a room to lie down in. It'll be better than many places I've seen. The hobbits at the gate still seemed ill at ease. Evidently, some rule or other was being broken. But there was no gainsaying four such masterful travellers, all armed, 
and two of them uncommonly large and strong-looking. Frodo ordered the gates to be locked again. There was some sense in any rate in keeping a guard, while Ruffins were still about. Then the four companions went into the Hobbit guardhouse and made themselves as comfortable as they could. It was a bare and ugly place, with a mean little grate that would not allow a good fire. In the upper rooms were little rows of hard beds, and on every wall there was a notice and a list of rules. Pippin tore them down. There was no beer and very little food. But with what the travellers brought and shared out, they all made a fair meal. And Pippin broke rule four by putting most of the next day's allowance of wood on the fire. Well now, what about a smoke? Well, you tell us what has been happening in the Shire, he said. Uh, there is no pipe weed now, said Hob. At least only for the chief's men. All the stocks seem to have gone. We do hear that the wagon loads of it uh, went away down in the old road out of the south farthing over Sarn Ford Way. Ah, uh, that would be the end of last year after you left, but it had been going away quietly before that in a small way. That lotho cried several of the others. You know talk of that sort isn't allowed. The chief will hear of it, and we'll all be in trouble. He wouldn't hear or not if some of you weren't snakes! rejoined Hob hotly. All right, all right, said Sam. That's quite enough. I don't want to hear no more. No welcome, no beer, no smoke, and a lot of rules and orc talk instead. I hope to have a rest, but I can see there's work and trouble ahead. <sighs> Let's sleep and forget it till morning. The new chief evidently had means of getting news. It was a good 40 miles from the bridge to Bag End, but someone made the journey in a hurry. So Frodo and his friends soon discovered. They had not made any definite plans, but had vaguely thought of going down to Crick Hollow together first, and resting there a bit. But now, seeing what things were like, they decided to go straight to Hobbiton. So the next day they set along the road and jogged along steadily. The wind had dropped, but the sky was grey. The land looked rather sad and forlorn, but it was, after all, the first of November and the fag end of autumn. Still, there seemed an unusual amount of burning going on, and smoke rose from many points round about. A great cloud of it was going up far away in the direction of the woody end. As evening fell, they were drawing near to Frogmorton, a village right on the road, about twenty-two miles from the bridge. There they meant to stay the night. The floating log at Frogmorton was a good inn, but as they came to the east end of the village, they met a barrier with a large board saying, No Road. And behind it stood a large band of sheriffs with staves in their hands and feathers in their caps, looking both important and rather scared. <laughs> What's all this? said Frodo, feeling inclined to laugh. This is what it is, Mr. Baggins, said the leader of the sheriffs, a two-feather hobbit. You're arrested for gatekeeping and tearing up of rules and assaulting gatekeepers and trespassing and sleeping in shire buildings without leave and bribing guards with food. And what else? said Frodo. That'll do to go on with, said the sheriff leader. I can add some more if you'd like it, said Sam. Calling your chief names, wishing to punch his pimply face and thinking you sheriff look a lot of tom fools. There, there now, mister, that'll do. It's the chief's orders that you're to come along quiet. 
We're going to take you to Bywater and hand you over to the chief's men. And when he deals with your case, you can have your say. But if you don't want to stay in the lock holes away any longer than you need, I should cut the way short if I was you. To the discomfiture of the sheriffs, Frodo and his companions <laughs> all roared with laughter. <laughs> don't, don't be absurd, said Frodo. I'm going where I please, and in my own time. I happen to be going to Bag End on business, but if you insist on going too, well, that is your affair. Uh, very well, Mr. Baggins, said the leader, pushing the barrier aside. But don't forget, I've arrested you! I won't, said Frodo. Never. But I may forgive you. Now, I am not going any further today, so if you'll kindly escort me to the floating log, I'll be obliged. I can't do that, Mr. Baggins. The inn's closed. There's a sheriff house on the far end of the village. I'll take you there. All right, said Frodo. Go on and we'll follow. Sam had been looking at the sheriffs up and down and had spotted one that he knew. Hey, come here, Robin Smallborough, he called. I want a word with you. With a sheepish glance at his leader, who looked wrathful but did not dare to interfere, Sheriff Smallborough fell back and walked beside Sam, who got down off his pony. <laughs> Look here, Cock Robin, said Sam. You're Hobbiton bred, and ought to have more sense coming up waylaying Mr. Frodo and all. And what's all this about the inn being closed? They're all closed, said Robin. The chief doesn't hold with beer. Leastways, that is how it started. But now I reckon it's his men that has it all. And he doesn't hold with folk moving about, so if they will or they must, then they has to go to the sheriff's house and explain their business. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, having anything to do with such nonsense, said Sam. You used to like the inside of an inn better than the outside yourself. You were always popping in, on duty or off. And so I would be still, Sam, if I could. But don't be hard on me. What can I do? You know how I went for a sheriff seven years ago before any of this began? Gave me a chance of walking around the country and seeing folk and hearing the news and knowing where the good beer was, but now it's different. But you can give it up. Stop sheriffing, if it has stopped being a respectable job, said Sam. We're, we're not allowed to, said Robin. If I hear not aloud much oftener, said Sam, I'm gonna get angry. Can't say as I'd be sorry to see it, said Robin, lowering his voice. If we all got angry together, something might be done. But it's these men, Sam, the chief's men. He sends them round everywhere. And if any of us small folks stand up for our rights, they drag him off to the lock holes. They took old Flower Dumpling, old Will Whitford, the mayor, first. And they've taken a lot more. Lately it's been getting worse. Often they beat them now. And why do you do that work for them? Said Sam angrily. Who sent you to Frogmorton? No one did. We stay here in the big sheriff house. We're the first East Farthing troop now. There's hundreds of sheriffs all told. And they want more, with all these new rules. Most of them are in it against their will, but not all. Even in the Shire there are some, like, minding other folks' business and talking big. And there's worse than that. There's a few as do spy work for the chief and his men. Ah, so that's how you've had news of us, isn't it? That's right. We aren't allowed to send by it now, but they use the old quick post service and keep special numbers at different points. One came in from Whitfarrows last night with a secret message. 
and another took it from here. And a message came back this afternoon saying you was to be arrested and taken to Bywater, not direct to the lock holes. The chief wants to see you at once, evidently. He won't be so eager when Mr. Frodo has finished with him, says Sam. The sheriff house at Frogmorton was as bad as the bridge house. It had only one story, but it had the same narrow windows, and it was built of ugly pale bricks, badly laid. Inside it was damp and cheerless, and supper was served on a long bare table that had not been scrubbed for weeks. The food deserved no better setting. The travellers were glad to leave the place. It was about 18 miles to Bywater, and they set off at 10 o'clock in the morning. They would have started earlier, only the delay so plainly annoyed the sheriff leader. The west wind had shifted northward and it was turning colder. But the rain was gone. It was rather a comic cavalcade that left the village, though the few folk that came out to stare at the get-up of the travellers did not seem quite sure whether laughing was allowed. A dozen sheriffs had been told off as escort to the prisoners, but Mary made them march in front, while Frodo and his friends rode behind. Mary, Pippin and Sam sat at their ease, laughing and talking and singing, while the sheriff stumped along, trying to look stern and important. Frodo, however, was silent and looked rather sad and thoughtful. The last person they passed was a sturdy old gaffer, clipping a hedge. Hello, hello! He jeered. Now who's arrested who? Two of the sheriffs immediately left the party and went towards him. Later, said Mary. Order your fellows back to their places at once if you don't want me to deal with them. The two hobbits said a sharp word from the leader came back sulkily. Now get on, said Mary. And after that, the travellers saw to it that their ponies' pace was quick enough to push the sheriffs along as fast as they could go. The sun came out, and in spite of the chilly wind, they were soon puffing and sweating. At the three-farthing stone, they gave it up. They had done nearly 14 miles with only one rest at noon. It was now three o'clock. They were hungry and very food store, and they could not stand the pace. Well, come along in your own time, said Mary. We're going on. Goodbye, Cock Robin, said Sam. I'll wait for you outside the Green Dragon if you haven't forgotten where that is. Don't dwaddle on the way. You're breaking a rest, that's what you're doing, said the leader ruefully. And I can't be answerable. We shall break a good many things yet and not ask you to answer, said Pippin. Good luck to you. The travellers trotted on, and as the sun began to sink towards the white downs far away on the western horizon, they came to Bywater by its wide pool. And there they had their first really painful shock. This was Frodo and Sam's own country, and they found out now that they cared about it more than any other place in the world. Many of the houses that they had known were missing. Some seemed to have been burned down. The pleasant row of old hobbit holes in the bank of the north side of the pool were deserted. And their little gardens that used to run down bright into the water's edge were rank with weeds. Worse, there was a whole line of the ugly new house all along poolside, where the Hobbiton Road ran close to the bank. An avenue of streets had stood there. They were all gone. And looking with dismay up the road towards Bag End, they saw a tall chimney of brick in the distance. It was pouring out black smoke into the evening air.
Sam was beside himself. I'm going right out, Mr. Frodo. He cried. I'm going to see what's up. I want to find my gaffer. We ought to find first what we're in for, Sam, said Mary. I guess that their chief will have a gang of ruffians handy. We had better find someone who will tell us how things are around here. But in the village of Bywater, all the houses and holes were shut, and no one greeted them. They wondered at this, but they soon discovered the reason of it. When they reached the Green Dragon, the last house on the Hobbiton side, now lifeless and with broken windows, they were disturbed to see half a dozen large, ill-favored men lounging against the inn wall. They were squint-eyed and sallow-faced. Like that friend of Bill Furnace at Bree. Like many that I saw at Isengard, muttered Merry. The ruffians had clubs in their hands and horns by their belts, but they had no other weapons, as far as could be seen. As the travelers rode up, they left the wall and walked into the road, blocking the way. Where do you think you're going? said one, the largest and most evil-looking of the crew. There's no road for you any further. And where are those precious sheriffs? Coming along nicely, said Mary. A little footsore, perhaps. We promised to wait for them here. Darn, what did I say? Said the ruffian to his mates. I told Sharky it was no good trusting those little fools. Some of our chaps ought to have been set. And what difference would that have made, pray? Said Mary. We're not used to footpads in this country, but we know how to deal with them. Footpads, eh? Said the man. So that's your tone, is it? Change it or we'll change it for you. You little folk are getting too uppish. Don't you trust too much of the boss's kind heart. Sharky's come now. And he'll do what Sharky says. And what may that be? Said Frodo quietly. This country wants waking up and setting to rights. Said the ruffian. And Sharky's gonna do it and make it hard if you drive him to it. You'll need a bigger boss. And you'll get one before the year is out. There is any more trouble. Then you'll learn a thing or two, you little rat folk. Indeed. I'm glad to hear of your plans, said Frodo. I'm on my way to call on Mr. Lotho, and he may be interested to hear of them too. The ruffian laughed. Lotho! He knows all right. Don't you worry. He'll do what Sharky says, because if a boss gets trouble, we can change him. And if little folks try to push in where they're not wanted, we can push them out of mischief, see? Yes, I see, said Frodo. For one thing, I see that you're behind the times and the news here. Much has happened since you left the South. Your day is over, and all other ruffians. The Dark Tower has fallen, and there is a king in Gondor. An Isengard has been destroyed, and your precious master is a beggar in the wilderness. I passed him on the road. The king's messengers will ride up from the Greenway now. Not bullies from Isengard. The man stared at him and smiled. Oh, a beggar in the wilderness, <laughs> he mocked. Oh, is he indeed? Oh, swagger it, swagger it, my little cockerel. But that won't stop us living in this fat little country where you have lazed long enough and... He snapped his fingers in Frodo's face. King's messengers, that for them. When I see one, I'll take notice. 
Pippin's perhaps. This was too much for Pippin. His thoughts went back to the field of Kormalin, and here was a squint-eyed rascal calling the ring-bearer Little Cockerwoop. He cast back his cloak, flashed out his sword, and the silver and sable of Gondor gleamed on him as he rode forward. I am a messenger of the king, he said. You are speaking to the king's friend, and one of the most renowned in all the lands of the west. You are a ruffian and a fool! Down on your knees in the road and ask pardon, or I will set this troll's bane in you! The sword glinted in the westering sun. Mary and Sam drew their swords also and rode up to support Pippin. But Frodo did not move. The ruffians gave back. Scaring Greenland peasants and bullying bewildered hobbits had been their work. Fearless hobbits with bright swords and grim faces were a great surprise. And there was a note in the voices of these newcomers that they had not heard before. It chilled them with fear. Go! said Merry. If you trouble this village again, you will regret it. The three hobbits came on, and then the ruffians turned and fled, running away up the hobbiton road. But they blew their horns as they ran. <sighs> well, we've come back none too soon, said Merry. Not a day too soon. Perhaps too late, at any rate to save Lotho, said Frodo. Miserable fool, but I'm sorry for him. Save Lotho? Whatever do you mean? Said Pippin. Destroy him, I should say. I don't think you're quite understanding things, Pippin, said Frodo. Lotho never meant things to come to this pass. He has been a wicked fool, but he's caught now. The ruffians are on top, gathering, robbing and bullying and, and running or ruining things as they like in his name. And not in his name, even for much longer. He's a prisoner in Bag End now, I expect. And very frightened. We ought to try and rescue him. Well, I am staggered, said Pippin. Of all the heads to our journey, that is the very last I should have thought of. To have to fight half-orcs and ruffians in the Shire itself. To rescue Lothar Pimple. Fight? said Frodo. Well, I suppose it may come to that. But remember... There is to be no slaying of hobbits, not even if they have gone over to the other side. Really gone over, I mean, not just obeying ruffians' orders because they are frightened. No hobbit has ever killed another on purpose in the Shire, and it is not to begin now. And nobody is to be killed at all if it can be helped. Keep your tempers and hold your hands to the last possible moment. But if there are many of these ruffians, said Mary, it will certainly mean fighting. He won't rescue Lothar or the Shire just by being shocked and sad, my dear Frodo. No, said Pippin. It won't be too easy scaring them a second time. They were taken by surprise. You heard that horn blowing? Evidently there are other ruffians near at hand. They'll be much bolder when there is more of them together. We ought to think of taking cover somewhere for the night. After all, we are only four, even if we are armed. I have an idea, said Sam. Let's go to old Tom Cotton's down south line. He always was a stout fellow, and he has a lot of lads that were all friends of mine. No, said Mary. It's no good getting undercover. That is just what people have been doing, and just what these ruffians like. They'll simply come down on us in force, corner us, and then drive us out, or burn us in. No, we have got to do something at once. Do what? said Pippin. Raise the Shire, said Mary. Now, wake all our people. They hate all this, you can see. All of them except perhaps one or two rascals and a few fools that want to be important, but not all understand what's really going on. 
But Shire folk have been so comfortable so long they don't know what to do. They just want to match them, and they'll all go up in fire. The chief's men must know that. They'll try to stamp on us and put us out quick. You've only got a very short time. Sam, you can make a dash for Cotton's farm if you like. He's the chief person around here and the sturdiest. Come on! I'm going to blow the horn of Rohan and give them all some music they have never heard before. They rode back to the middle of the village. There Sam turned aside and galloped off to the lane that led south to Cotton's. They had not gone far when he heard a sudden clear horn call go up ringing into the sky. Far over the hill and field it echoed, and so compelling was that call that Sam himself almost turned and dashed back. His pony reared and neighed. On, lad! On! He cried. We'll be going back soon! Then he heard Mary change the note, and up went the horn cry of Buckland, shaking the air. Awake! Awake! Fear! Fire! Bows! Awake! Fire! Bows! Awake! Behind him, Sam heard a hubbub of voices and a great din and slamming of doors. In front of him, light sprang out in the gloaming. Dogs barked. Feet came running. Before he got to the lane's end, there was Farmer Cotton with three of his lads, young Tom, Jolly, and Nick, hurrying towards him. They had axes in their hands and barred the way. It's none of them ruffians! Sam heard the farmer say, It's a hobbit by the size of it, but all dressed up queer. He cried, Who are you and what's all this to do? It's Sam Gamgee! I've come back! Farmer Cotton came up close and stared at him in the twilight. Well... He exclaimed. The voice is right and your face is no worse than it was, Sam. But I should have paused you in the street in that gear. You've been in foreign parts, seemingly. We feared you were dead. That I ain't, said Sam. Not Mr. Frodo. He's here and his friends. And that's the to-do. They're raising the Shire. We're going to clear out these ruffians and their chief too. We're starting now. Good, good, cried Farmer Cotton. So it's begun at last. I've been itching for some trouble all this year, but folks wouldn't help. I've had the wife and Rosie to think of. These ruffians don't stick at nothing, but come on now, lads. My water is up. We must be in it. What about Mrs. Cotton and Rosie? Said Sam. It isn't safe yet for them to be left all alone. My nibs is with them. But you can go and help him if you have a mind. Said Farmer Cotton with a grin. Then he and his sons ran off towards the village. Sam hurried to the house. By the large round door at the top of the steps of the wide yard stood Mrs. Cotton and Rosie and Nibs in front of them, grasping a hayfork. It's me! shouted Sam as he trotted up. Sam Gamgee! So don't try prodding me, Nibs! Anyway, I have a male shirt on me! He jumped down from his pony and went up the steps. They stared at him in silence. Good evening, Mrs. Cotton. He said. Hello, Rosie. Hello, Sam, said Rosie. Where have you been? They said you were dead. But I've been expecting you since the spring. You haven't hurried, have you? <laughs> Perhaps not, said Sam abashed. But I'm hurrying now. We're setting about the ruffians, and I've got to get back to Mr. Frodo. But I thought I'd have a look and see how Mrs. Cotton was keeping. And you, Rosie. Oh, we've been keeping nicely, thank you, said Mrs. Cotton. Or should be, if it weren't for these thieving ruffians. Well, be off with you, said Rosie. If you've been looking after Mr. Frodo all this while, what do you want to leave him for as soon as things look dangerous? This was too much for Sam. It needed a week's answer. Or none. He turned away and mounted his pony. But as he started off, Rosie ran down the steps. 
think you look fine, Sam. She said. Go on now, but take care of yourself and come straight back as soon as you've settled the ruffians. When Sam got back, he found the whole village roused. Already, apart from many younger lads, more than a hundred sturdy hobbits were assembled with axes and heavy hammers and long knives and a few hunting bows. More were still coming in from outlying farms. Some of the village folk had lit a large fire just to enliven things, and also because it was one of the things forbidden by the chief. It burned bright as night came on. Others at Mary's orders were setting up barriers across the road at each end of the village. When the sheriffs came up to the lower one, they were dumbfounded, but as soon as they saw how things were, most of them took off their feathers and joined in the revolt. The others slunk away. Sam found Frodo and his friends by the fire talking to old Tom Cotton, while an admiring crowd of Bywater folk stood round and stared. Well, what's the next move? said Farmer Cotton. I can't say, said Frodo, until I know more. How many of these ruffians are there? It's hard to tell, said Cotton. They moves about and comes and goes. There's sometimes fifty of them in their sheds up in Hobbiton Way, but they go out from there roving round, thieving or gathering as they call them. Still, there's seldom less than a score around the boss, as they names him. He's at Bag End. Or was. But he don't go outside the grounds now. No one's seen him at all. In fact, for a week or two. But the men don't let no one go near. Hobbiton's not their only place, is it? No. More is the pity, said Cotton. There's a good few down south in Longbottom and by Sarn Ford, I hear, and some more lurking in the woody end, and they've sheds at Waymeet, and there's lock holes, as they call them. The old storage tunnels at, at Mickle Delving, that they've made into prisons for those that stand up to them. Still, I reckon there's not above three hundred of them in the Shire, all told. Or maybe less. We can master them if we stick together. Have they got any weapons? said Mary. Whips, knives, and clubs. Enough for their dirty work. That's all they've showed so far, said Cotton. But I dare say they've got other gear if it comes to fighting. Some have bows, anyway. They've shot one or two of our folk. There you are, Frodo, said Mary. I knew we should have to fight. Well, they started the killing. Not exactly, said Cotton. Leastways, not the shooting. Took started that. You see, your dad, Mr. Peregrine, he's never had no truck with his Lotho, nor from the beginning. Said that if anyone was going to play the chief at this time of day, it would be the right thing of the Shire and no upstart. And when Lotho sent his men, they got no chance out of him. Took's are lucky. They've got those deep holes in the green hills. The great spiels and all. And the ruffians can't come at them. And they won't let the ruffians come on their land. If they do, Took sent them. Took shot three for prowling and robbing. And after that, the ruffians turned last year. And they keep a pretty close watch on Tukland. No one gets in or out of it now. Kid for the ticks! cried Pippin. But someone is going to get in again now. I'm off to the smales. Anyone coming with me to Tuckborough? Pippin rode off with half a dozen lads on ponies. See you soon! He cried. It's only 14 miles or so over the fields. I'll bring you back an army of tooks in the morning! Mary blew a horn call after them as they rode off into the gathering night. The people cheered. All the same, said Frodo to all those who stood near. I wish for no killing, not even of the ruffians unless it must be done, to prevent them from hurting hobbits. All right, said Mary. But we shall be having a visit from the Hobbiton gang at any time now, I think. They won't come just to talk things over. We'll try to deal with them neatly. 
we must be prepared for the worst. Now I've got a plan. Very good, said Frodo. You make the arrangements. Just then, some hobbits who had been sent out towards Hobbiton came running in. They're coming! They said. A score or more, but two have gone off west across country. To weigh me, that'll be, said Cotton, to fetch more of the gang. Well, it's 15 miles each way. We needn't trouble about them just yet. Mary hurried off to give orders. Farmer Cotton cleared the street, sending everyone indoors, except the older hobbits, who had weapons of some sort. They had not long to wait. Soon they could hear loud voices, and then the tramping of heavy feet. Presently a whole squad of the ruffians came down the road. They saw the barrier and laughed. They did not imagine that there was anything in this little land that would stand up to twenty of their kind together. The hobbits opened the barrier and stood aside. Thank you! Thank you! The men jeered. Now run home to bed before you wet. Then they marched along the streets shouting. Put those lights out! Get indoors and stay there! We'll take fifty of you into the lock holes for a year! Get in! The boss is losing his temper! No one paid any heed to their orders. But as the ruffians passed, they closed in quietly behind and followed them. When the men reached the fire, there was Farmer Cotton standing all alone, warming his hands. And who are you and what do you think you're doing? Said the ruffian leader. Farmer Cotton looked at him slowly. I was just going to ask you that, he said. This isn't your country, and you're not wanted. Well. You're wanted anyhow, said the leader. We want you. Take him, lads. Lock holes for him, and give him something to keep him quiet. The men took one step forward and stopped short. There rose a roar of voices all around them, and suddenly they were aware that Farmer Cotton was not all alone. They were surrounded. In the dark on the edge of the firelight stood a ring of hobbits that had crept up out of the shadows. There was nearly two hundred of them all holding some weapon. Mary stepped forward. We have met before, he said to the leader, and I warned you not to come back here. I warn you again. You are standing in the light and you are covered by archers. If you lay a finger on this farmer or anyone else, you will be shot at once. Lay down any weapons that you have. The leader looked around. He was trapped, but he was not scared. Not now with a score of his fellows to back him. He knew too little of hobbits to understand his peril. Foolishly, he decided to fight. It would be easy to break out. Hurt the lads! He cried. With a long knife in his left hand and a club on the other, he made a rush at the ring. Trying to burst out back towards Hobbiton, he aimed a savage blow at Mary who stood in his way. He fell dead with four arrows in him. That was enough for the others. They gave in. Their weapons were taken from them and they were roped together and marched off to an empty hut that they had built themselves. And there they tied hand and foot and looked up under guard. The dead leader was dragged off and buried. <laughs> Seems almost too easy after all, don't it? Said Cotton. I said we could master them. But we needed a call. 
You came back in the nick o' time, Mr. Mary. There's more to be done still, said Mary. If you're right in your reckoning, we haven't dealt with a tithe of them yet. But it's dark now. I think the next stroke must wait till morning. Then we must call on the chief. Why not now? said Sam. It's not much more than six o'clock, and I want to see my gaffer. Do you know what's come of him, Mr. Cotton? He's not too well, and not too bad, sir, said the farmer. They dug up Bagshot Row, and that was a sad blow to him. He's in one of the new houses that the chief's men used to build, while they still did any work other than burning and thieving. Not above a mile from the end of Bywater. But he comes round to me when he gets a chance, and I see he's better fed than some of the poor bodies. All against the rules, of course. I'd have had him with me, but that wasn't allowed. Thank you indeed, Mr. Cotton, and I'll never forget it, said Sam. But I want to see him. That boss, and that sharky, as they spoke of, they might do a mischief up there before the morning. All right, Sam, said Cotton. Choose a lad or two and go and fetch him to my house. You'll not have need to go near the old Hobbiton village over water. My jolly here will show you. Sam went off. Mary arranged for lookouts round the village and guards at the barriers during the night. Then he and Frodo went off with Farmer Cotton. They sat with the family in the warm kitchen, and the Cottons asked a few polite questions about their travels, but hardly listened to the answers. They were far more concerned with events in the Shire. It all began with Pimple, as we call them, said Farmer Cotton. And it began as soon as you'd gone off, Mr. Frodo. He'd funny ideas, had Pimple. Seems he wanted to own everything himself, and then order other folk about. It soon came out that he already did own a sight more than was good for him, and he was always grabbing more. Well, though where he got the money was a, a mystery. Mills and malt houses and inns and farms and, and leaf plantations. He'd already bought Sandyman's mill before he came to Bag End, seemingly. Of course, he started with a lot of property in the South, Father, which he had from his dad. And it seemed he's been selling a lot of that best leaf and sending it away quietly for a year or two. But at the end of last year, he began sending away loads of stuff. Not only leaf. Things began to get short. And winter was coming on, too. Folk got angry. But he had his answer. A lot of men, ruffians mostly, came with great wagons. Some to carry off the goods south away, and others to stay. And before we knew where we were, we... They were planted here and there all over the Shire, and were felling trees, and digging and building themselves sheds and houses just as they liked. At first, goods and damages was paid for by Pimple, but soon they began lording it around and, and taking what they wanted. Then there was a bit of trouble, but not enough. Old Will, the mayor, set off for Bag End to protest, but he never got there. Ruffians laid hands on him, and took him and locked him up in a hole in Mikkel Delving. And there he is now. And after that, it, it would be soon after New Year, there wasn't no more mayor. And Pimple called himself Chief Sheriff, or just Chief, and did as he liked. And if anyone got uppish, as they called it, they followed Will. So things went from bad to worse. There wasn't no smoke left, save for the men. And the Chief didn't hold with beer, save for his men. And closed all the inns and everything. And everything except rules got shorter and shorter. Unless one could hide a bit of one's own when the ruffians went around gathering stuff up for fair distribution. Which meant they got it and we didn't. Except for the lavings, which you could have at the sheriff houses if you, if you could stomach them. Oh, very bad. But since Sharky came, 
It's been plain ruination. Who is Sharky? said Mary. I heard of one of the ruffians speak of him. <laughs> the biggest ruffian of the lot, seemingly, answered Cotton. It was about last harvest end of September that we were first heard of him. We've never seen him, but he's up at Bag End and he's the real chief now, I guess. All the ruffians do what he says, and what he says is mostly hack, burn, and ruin. And now it's come to killing. There's no longer even any bad sense in it. They cut down trees and let them lie, and they burn houses and, and build no more. Take Sandyman's mill now. Pimple knocked it down almost as soon as he came to Bag End. Then he brought in a lot of dirty-looking men to build a bigger one and fill it full of wheels and outlandish contraptions. Only that fool Ted was pleased by that. And he works there cleaning wheels for the men where his dad was the miller and his own master. Pimple's idea was to grind more and faster, or so he said. He's got other mills like it, but you've got to have grist before you can grind. And there was no more for the new mill to do than for the old. But since Sharky came, they don't grind no more corn at all. They're always a hammering and letting out a smoke and a stench, and there is no peace even at night in Hobbiton. And they pour out filth a purpose, and they've fouled all the lower water, and it's getting down into brandy wine. If they want to make the Shire into a desert, they're doing the right way about it. I don't believe that fool of a pimple's behind all this. It's Sharky, I say. That's right, put in young Tom. Why, they even took Pimple's old ma and Lobelia. And he was fond of her, if no one else was. Some of the Hobbiton folk, they saw it. She comes down the lane with her old umbrella. Some of the ruffians were going up with the big cart. Where be you a-going, says she? To, to Bag End, says they. What for, says she? To put some sheds for Sharky, says they. Who said you could, said she? Sharky, says they. So get out of the old road, old haggling. <laughs> I'll give you, Sharky, you dirty little thieving ruffians, says she, and puts up with her umbrella and goes for the leader, near twice her size. <laughs> so they took her, dragged her off into the lock holes at her age, too. They've took others we miss more, but there's no denying she showed more spirit than most. Into the middle of this came Sam, bursting in with his gaffer. Old Gamgee did not look much older, but he was a little deafer. Good evening, Mr. Baggins. He said. Glad indeed I am to see you safe back. I've had a bone to peck with you, in a manner of speaking. If I may be so bold. You didn't ever ought to have, have a sold bag end, as I've always said. That's what started out all the mischief. And while you've been traipsing in foreign parts, chasing black men up mountains from, from what my Sam says, the what for he don't make clear, they've been in dug up Bagshot Row and they've ruined my taters. I'm very sorry, Mr. Gamgee, said Frodo, but now I've come back. I'll do my best to make amends. Well, you can't say fairer than that, said the gaffer. Mr. Frodo Baggins is a real gentle hobbit, I have always have said. Whatever you may think of some others of the name, begging your pardon. And I hope my Sam's behaved himself and given satisfaction. Perfect satisfaction, Mr. Gamgee, said Frodo. Indeed, if you will believe it, he's now one of the most famous people in all the lands. And they're making songs about his deeds from here to the sea and beyond the great river. Sam blushed, 
but he looked gratefully at Frodo, for Rosie's eyes were shining and she was smiling at him. It takes a lot of believing, said the gaffer, though I can see he's been mixing in strange company. What's come of his waistcoat? I don't hold with wearing ironmongery, whether it wears well or no. Farmer Cotton's household and all his guests were up early next morning. Nothing had been heard in the night, but more trouble would certainly come before the day was old. Seems as if none of the ruffians were left up at Bag End, said Cotton, but the gang from Waymeet will be along any time now. After breakfast, a messenger from the Tookland rode in. He was in high spirits. The Thane has raised all our country, he said. And the news has gone like far all ways. The ruffians that were watching our land have fled off south. Those escaped alive. The Thane has gone after them to hold off the big gang down that way. But he sent Mr. Peregrine back with all the other folk he can spare. The next news was less good. Mary, who had been out all night, came riding in about ten o'clock. There's a big band about four miles away, he said. They're coming along the road from Waymeet. But a good many stray ruffians have joined up with them. There must be close on a hundred of them. And they're fire-raising as they come. Curse them! Ah, this lot won't stay to talk. They'll kill if they can, said Farmer Cotton. If Dukes don't come sooner, we'd best get behind cover and shoot without arguing. There's got to be some fighting before this is settled, Mr. Frodo. Before long, they marched in, a hundred strong, from Tuckborough and the Green Hills with Pippin at their head. Mary now had enough sturdy hobbitry to deal with the ruffians. Scouts reported that they were keeping close together. They knew that the countryside had risen against them, and plainly meant to deal with the rebellion ruthlessly, at its centre in Bywater. But however grim they might be, they seemed to have no leader among them who understood warfare. They came on without any precautions. Merry laid his plans quickly. The ruffians came trampling along the east road, and without halting turned up the Bywater road, which ran for some way sloping up between high banks with low hedges on top. Round a bed, about a furlong from the main road, they met a stout barrier of old farm carts upturned. That halted them. At the same moment, they became aware that the hedges on both sides, just above their heads, were all lined with hobbits. Behind them, other hobbits now pushed out some more wagons that had been hidden in the field, and so blocked the way back. A voice spoke to them from above. Well, you've walked into a trap! Your fellows from Hobbiton did the same, and one is dead and the rest are prisoners. Lay down your weapons! Then go back twenty paces and sit down! Any who try to break out will be shot. But the ruffians could not now be cowed so easily. A few of them obeyed, but were immediately set on by their fellows. A score or more broke back and charged the wagons. Six were shot, but the remainder burst out, killing two hobbits, and then scattering across country in the direction of Woody End. Two more fell as they ran. Merry blew a loud horn call, and there were answering calls from the distance. They won't get far, said Pippin. All that country is alive with our hunters now. Behind the trapped men in the lane, still about four score tried to climb the barrier in the banks, and the hobbits were obliged to shoot many of them, or hew them with axes. But many of the strongest and most desperate got out on the west side and attacked their enemies fiercely, being now more bent on killing than escaping. Several hobbits fell and the rest were wavering, when Merry and Pippin, who were on the east side, came across and charged the ruffians. Merry himself slew the leader, a great sprint-eyed brute, like a huge orc. Then he drew his forces off, encircling the last remnant of the men in a wide ring of archers. At last, all was over. Nearly seventy of the ruffians lay dead on the field, 
and a dozen were prisoners. Nineteen hobbits were killed, and some thirty were wounded. The dead ruffians were laden on wagons and hauled off to an old sand pit nearby, and they are buried in the battle pit, as it was afterwards called. The fallen hobbits were laid together in a grave on the hillside, where later a great stone was set up with a garden about it. So ended the Battle of Bywater, 1419. The last battle fought in the Shire, and the only battle since the Greenfields, 1147, are way up in the North Farthing. In consequence, though it happily cost very few lives, it has a chapter to itself in the Red Book, and the names of all those who took part were made into a roll, and learned by heart by Shire historians. The very considerable rise in the fame and fortune of the Cottons dates from this time. But at the top of the roll in all accounts stand the names of Captains Maria Dock and Peregrine. Frodo had been in the battle, but he had not drawn a sword. And his chief part has been to prevent the hobbits in their wrath at their losses from slaying those of their enemies who threw down their weapons. When the fighting was over and the later labours were ordered, Merry, Pippin and Sam joined him and they rode back with the cottons. They ate a late midday meal, and then Frodo said with a sigh, Well, I suppose it is time now that we dealt with the chief. Yes, indeed. The sooner the better, said Merry. And don't be too gentle. He's responsible for bringing in these ruffians, and for all the evil that they have done. Farmer Cotton collected an escort of some two dozen sturdy hobbits. For it's only a guess that there is no ruffians left at Pack End, he said. We don't know. Then they set out on foot. Frodo, Sam, Merry and Pippin led the way. It was one of the saddest hours in their lives. The great chimney rose up before them, and as they drew near, the old village across the water through rows of new mean houses along each side of the road, they saw the new mill in all its frowning and dirty ugliness. A great brick building, straddling the stream, which it fouled with the steaming and stinking overflow. All along the Bywater Road, every tree had been felled. As they crossed the bridge and looked up the hill, they gasped. Even Sam's vision in the mirror had not prepared him for what he saw. The old grange on the west side had been knocked down, and its place taken by rows of tarred sheds. And the chestnuts were gone. The banks and hedgerows were broken. Great wagons were standing in disorder, in a field beaten bare of grass. Bagshot Row was yawning sand and gravel quarry. Bag end up beyond could not be seen for a clutter of large huts. They've cut it down! cried Sam. They've cut down the party tree! He pointed to where the tree had stood under which Bilbo had made his farewell speech. It was lying lopped and dead in the field. As if this was the last straw, Sam burst into tears. A laugh put an end to them. There was a surly hobbit lounging over the low wall of the wheel yard. He was grimy face and black-handed. Don't they like it, Sam? He sneered. But you always was soft. I thought you'd gone off in one of them ships you used to prattle about. Sailing, sailing. What do you want to come back for? 
We've work to do in the Shire now. So I see, said Sam. No time for washing, but time for wall propping. But see here, Master Sandyman. I've got a score to pay in this village, and don't you make it any longer with your jeering, or you'll foot a bill too big in your purse. Ted Sandyman spat over the wall. Dan, he said. You can't touch me. I'm a friend of the bosses. But he'll touch you, all right, if I have any more of your mouth. Don't waste any more words on the fool, Sam, said Frodo. I hope there are not many more hobbits that have become like this. It would be a worse trouble than all the damage the men have done. You are dirty and insolent, Sandyman, said Merry, and also very much out of your reckoning. We've just gone up the hill to remove your precious boss. We have dealt with his men. Ted gaped, for at that moment he first caught sight of the escort that at a sign from Merry now marched over the bridge. Dashing back into the mill, he ran out with a horn and blew it loudly. Ha <laughs> ha! Save your breath, laughed Merry. I've a better. Then lifting up his silver horn, he winded it, and his clear call rang over the hill, and out of the holes and sheds and shabby houses of Hobbiton, the hobbits answered, and came pouring out, and with cheers and loud cries, they followed the company up the road to Bag End. At the top of the lane, the party halted, and Frodo and his friends went on, and they came at last to the one's beloved place. The garden was full of huts and sheds, some so near the old westward windows that they cut off all their light. There were piles of refuse everywhere. The door was scarred, the bell chain was dangling loose, and the bell would not ring. Knocking brought no answer. At length, they pushed, and the door yielded. They went in. The place stank, and was full of filth and disorder. It did not appear to have been used for some time. Where is that miserable Lotho hiding? said Mary. They had searched every room, and found no living thing save rats and mice. Shall we turn on the others to search the sheds? This is worse than Mordor, said Sam. Much worse in a way. It comes home to you, as they say. Because it is home. And you remember it before it was all ruined. Yes, this is Mordor, said Frodo. Just one of its works. Saruman was doing its work all the time, even when we thought he was working for himself. And the same with those that Saruman tricked, like Lotho. Merry looked round in dismay and disgust. Let's get out, he said. If I'd known all the mischief that he had caused, I should have stuffed my pouch down Saruman's throat. No doubt. No doubt. But you did not. And so... I am able to welcome you home. There, standing at the door, was Saruman himself, looking well-fed and well-pleased. 
His eyes gleamed with malice and amusement. A sudden light broke on Frodo. Sharky! He cried. Saruman laughed. <laughs> Sir, you have heard the name, have you? All my people used to call me that in Isengard, I believe. A sign of affection, possibly. But evidently you did not expect to see me here. I did not, said Frodo. But I might have guessed. A little mischief in a mean way. Gandalf warned me that you were still capable of it. Quite capable, said Saruman. And more than a little. You made me laugh, you hobbit lordlings. Riding along with all those great people. So secure and so pleased with your little selves. You thought you had done very well out of it and could now just amble back and have a nice quiet time in the country. Saruman's home could be all wrecked, and he could be turned out, but no one could touch yours. Oh no! Gandalf would look after your affairs. <laughs> Not he! When his tools have done their task, he drops them. But you must go dangling after him, dawdling and talking, and riding round twice as far as you need it. Well, thought I, if they are such fools, I will get ahead of them and teach them a lesson. One ill turn deserves another. It would have been a sharper lesson if only you had given me a little more time and a little more men. Still, I have already done much that you will find it hard to mend or undo in your lives. And it will be pleasant to think of that and set it against my injuries. Well, if that is what you find pleasure in, said Frodo, I pity you. It will be a pleasure of memory only, I fear. Go at once and never return. The hobbits of the village had seen Saruman come out of one of the huts, and at once they came crowding up to the door of Bag End. When they heard Frodo's command, they murmured angrily. Don't let it go! Kill him! Kill him! Saruman looked round at their hostile faces and smiled. Kill him! Kill him! He mocked. Kill him! If you think there are enough of you, my brave hobbits! He drew himself up and stared at them darkly with his black eyes. But do not think that when I lost all my goods, I lost all my power. Whoever strikes me shall be accursed. And if my blood stains the Shire, it shall wither and never again. Be healed. The hobbits recorded. But Frodo said, Do not believe him. He has lost all his power, save his voice that can still daunt you and deceive you, if you let it. But I will not have him slain. It is useless to meet revenge with revenge. It will heal nothing. Go, Saruman, by the speediest way. Saruman called, and out of a nearby hut came Wormtongue, crawling, 
almost like a dog. To the road again, worm! said Saruman. These fine fellows and lordlings are turning us adrift again. Come along! Saruman turned to go, and Wormtongue shuffled after him. But even as Saruman passed close to Frodo, a knife flashed in his hand, and he stabbed swiftly. The blade turned on the hidden mail cloak and snapped. A dozen hobbits, led by Sam, leapt forward with a cry and flung the villain to the ground. Sam drew his sword. No, Sam! said Frodo. Do not kill him even now, for he has not hurt me. And in any case, I do not wish him to be slain in this evil mood. He was great once, of a noble kind that we should not dare to raise our hands against. He has fallen, and his cure is beyond us. But I would still spare him, in the hope that he may find it. Saruman rose to his feet and stared at Frodo. There was a strange look in his eyes of mingled wonder and respect and hatred. You have grown, halfling, he said. Yes, you have grown very much. You are wise and cruel. You have robbed my revenge of sweetness And now I must go hence in bitterness. In debt of your mercy, I hate it! And you! Well, I go, and I will trouble you no more. But do not expect me to wish you health and long life. You will have neither. But that is not my doing. I merely foretell. He walked away, and the hobbits made a lane for him to pass, but their knuckles whitened as they gripped on their weapons. Wormtongue hesitated, and then followed his master. Wormtongue, called Frodo. You need not follow him. I know of no evil you have done to me. You can have a rest and food here for a while and until you are stronger, and can go your own ways. Wormtongue halted and looked back at him, half prepared to stay. Saruman turned. No evil! Oh no! Even when he sneaks out at night, it is not only to look at the stars. But did I hear someone ask where poor Lotho is hiding? You know, don't you, Worm? Will you tell them? Wormtongue cowered down and whimpered. (laughs) No! Then I will said Saruman. Worm killed your chief. Poor little fellow. Your nice little boss. Didn't you, Worm? Stabbed him in his sleep, I believe. Buried him, I hope, though Worm has been very hungry lately. (laughs) No, Worm is not really nice. You had better leave him to me. A look of wild hatred came into Wormtongue's red eyes. You told me to! You made me do it! Saruman laughed. <laughs> you do, you do what Sharky says, always. Don't you, Worm? Well, now he says, follow. He kicked Wormtongue in the face as he groveled and turned and made off. But at that, Something snapped. Suddenly, Wormtongue rose up, drawing a hidden knife, and then with a snarl like a dog, he sprang on Saruman's back, jerked his head back, 
cut his throat and with a yell ran off down the lane. Before Frodo could recover or speak a word, three hobbit bows twanged and Wormtongue fell dead. To the dismay of those that stood by, about the body of Saruman, a grey mist gathered, and rising slowly to a great height, like a smoke from a fire, as a pale shrouded figure it loomed over the hill. For a moment it wavered, looking to the west, but out of the west came a cold wind, and it bent away, and with a sigh dissolved into nothing. Frodo looked down at the body with pity and horror, for as he looked it seemed that long years of death were suddenly revealed in it, and it shrank, and the shriveled face became rags of skin upon a hideous skull. Lifting up the skirt of the dirty cloak that sprawled beside it, he covered it over and turned away. And that's the end of that, said Sam. A nasty end, and I wish I needn't have to see it. But it's a good riddance, and the very last end of the war, I hope, said Mary. I hope so, said Frodo and sighed. the very last stroke. But to think that it should fall here, at the very door of Bag End, among all my hopes and fears, at least I never expected that. I shan't call it the end till we've cleared up the mess, said Sam gloomily. And that will take a lot of time and work. The clearing up certainly needed a lot of work, but it took less time than Sam had feared. The day after the battle, Frodo rode to Michel Delving and released the prisoners from the lockholes. One of the first that they found was poor Fredegar Bolger, fatty no longer. He had been taken when the ruffians smoked out a band of rebels that he had led from their buildings up in the Brockenbores by the hills of Scarry. You would have done better to come with us after all, poor old Fredegar said Pippin, as they carried him out too weak to walk. He opened an eye and tried gallantly to smile. Who's this young giant with a loud voice? He whispered. Oh, little Pippin, what's your size now? Then there was Lobelia. Poor thing. She looked very old and thin when they rescued her from the dark and narrow cell. She insisted on hobbling out on her own feet. And she had such a welcome that there was such clapping and cheering when she appeared, leaning on Frodo's arm, but still clutching her umbrella, that she was quite touched, and drove away in tears. She had never in her life been popular before. But she was crushed by the news of Lotho's murder, and she would not return to Bag End. She gave it back to Frodo, and went to her own people, the Bracegirdles of Hardbottle, when the poor creature died next spring, she was after all more than a hundred years old. Frodo was surprised and much moved. She had left all that remained of her money and of Lotho's for him to use in helping hobbits made homeless by the troubles. So, that feud was ended. Old Will Whitford had been in the Lockholes longer than any, and though he had perhaps been treated less harshly than some, he needed a lot of feeding up before he could look the part of mayor. 
So Frodo agreed to act as his deputy until Mr. Whitfoot was in shape again. The only thing that he did as deputy mayor was to reduce the sheriffs to their proper functions and numbers. The task of hunting out the last remnant of the ruffians was left to Marion Pippin, and it was soon done. The southern gangs, after hearing the news of the Battle of Bywater, fled out of the land and offered little resistance to the Thane. Before the year's end, the few survivors were rounded up in the woods, and those that surrendered were shown to the borders. Meanwhile, the labor of repair went on apace, and Sam was kept very busy. Hobbits can work like bees when the mood and the need comes on them. Now, there were thousands of willing hands of all ages, from the small but nimble ones of the hobbit lads and lasses to the well-worn and horny ones of the gaffers and gammas. Before you, not a brick was left standing of the new sheriff houses or of anything that had been built by Sharky's men. But the bricks were used to repair many an old hole, to make it snugger and drier. Great stories of goods and food and beer were found that had been hidden away by the ruffians in sheds and barns and deserted holes. And especially in the tunnel at Mickle Delvig, and in the old quarries at Scarry. So that there was a great deal better cheer that you than anyone had hoped for. One of the first things done in Hobbiton, before even the removal of the new mill, was the clearing of the hill at Bag End and the restoration of Bagshot Row. The front of the new sandpit was all levelled and made into a large sheltered garden, and new holes were dug in the southward face, back into the hill, and they were lined with brick. The gaffer was restored to number three, and he said often, and did not care who heard it. It's an ill wind as blows nobody no good, as I always say. And, and all's well as ends better. There was some discussion of the name that the new row should be given. Battle Gardens was thought of, or better Smeals. But after a while, in sensible Hobbit fashion, it was just called New Row. It was a purely Bywater joke to refer to it as Sharky's End. The trees were the worst loss and damage. For at Sharky's bidding, they had been cut down recklessly, far and wide over the Shire and Sam grieved over this more than anything else. For one thing, this hurt would take long to heal, and only his great-grandchildren, he thought, would see the Shire as it ought to be. Then, suddenly, one day, for he had been too busy for weeks to give a thought to his adventures, he remembered the gift of Galadriel. He brought the box out and showed it to the other travelers, for so they were called now by everyone, and asked their advice. I wondered when you would think of it, said Frodo. Open it. Inside it was filled with a grey dust, soft and fine, in the middle of which was a seed, like a small nut with a silver shale. What can I do with this? said Sam. Throw it in the air on a breezy day and let it do its work, said Pippin. On what? said Sam. Choose one spot as a nursery. And see what happens to the plants there, said Mary. But I'm sure the lady would not like me to keep it all for my own garden. Now so many folk have suffered, said Sam. Use all the wits and knowledge you have of your own, Sam, said Frodo. And then use the gift to help your work and better it. And use it sparingly. There is not much here, and I expect every grain has a value. 
So, Sam planted saplings at all the places where specially beautiful or beloved trees had been destroyed, and he put a grain of the precious dust in the soil at the root of each. He went up and down the Shire in his labor, but if he paid special attention to Hobbiton and Bywater, no one blamed him. And at the end, he found that he still had a little of the dust left. So he went to the Three Farthing Stone, which is as near the center of the Shire as no matter, and cast it in the air with his blessing. The little silver nut he planted in the party field, where the tree had once been. And he wondered what would come of it. All through the winter, he remained as patient as he could, and tried to restrain himself from going round constantly to see if anything was happening. Spring surpassed his wildest hopes. His trees began to sprout and grow, as if time was in a hurry and wished to make one year do for twenty. In the party field, a beautiful young sapling leapt up. It had silver bark and long leaves and burst into golden flowers in April. It was indeed a melon, and it was the wonder of the neighborhood. In after years, as it grew in grace and beauty, it was known far and wide, and people would come long journeys to see it. The only melon west of the mountains and east of the sea, and one of the finest in the world. Altogether, 1420 in the Shire was a marvelous year. Not only was there wonderful sunshine and delicious rain, in due times and perfect measure, but there seemed something more. An air of richness and growth, and a gleam of beauty beyond that of mortal summers that flicker and pass upon this middle earth. All the children born or begotten in that year, and there were many, were fair to see and strong and most of them had a rich golden hair that had before been rare among hobbits. The fruit was so plentiful that young hobbits very nearly bathed in strawberries and cream. And later, they sat on the lawns under the plum trees and ate, until they had made piles of stones, like small pyramids or the heaped skulls of a conqueror, and then they moved on. And no one was ill, and everyone was pleased except those who had to mow the grass. In the south farthing, the vines were laden, and the yield of leaf was astonishing, and everywhere there was so much corn that at harvest, every barn was stuffed. The north farthing barley was so fine that the beer of 1420 malt was long remembered and became a byword. Indeed, a generation later, one might hear an old gaffer Lenin after a good pint of well-earned ale, put down his mug and sigh. <sighs> that was proper 1420, that was. Sam stayed at first at the Cottons with Frodo, but when the new row was ready, he went with the gaffer. In addition to all his other labors, he was busy directing the cleaning up and restoring of Bag End. But he was often away in the Shire, on his forestry work. So he was not at home in early March, and did not know that Frodo had been ill. On the 13th of that month, Farmer Cotton found Frodo lying on his bed. He was clutching a white gem that hung on a chain about his neck, and he seemed half in a dream. It is gone forever. He said. Now all is dark and empty. 
of the fit passed. And when Sam got back on the 25th, Frodo had recovered and he had said nothing about himself. In the meanwhile, Bag End had been set in order, and Merry and Pippin came over from Crickholm, bringing back all the old furniture and gear, so that the old hole soon looked very much as it always had done. When all was at last ready, Frodo said, When are you going to move in and join me, Sam? Sam looked a bit awkward. There is no need to come yet if you don't want to, said Frodo. But you know the gaffer is close at hand and he will be very well looked after by wider rumble. Oh, it's not that, Mr. Frodo, said Sam, and he went very red. Well, what is it? It's... it's Rosie. Rosie Cotton, said Sam. It seems she didn't like my going abroad at all, poor lass. But as I hadn't spoken, she couldn't say so. And I didn't speak because I had a job to do first. But now I have spoken, and she says... Well, you've wasted a year, so why wait longer? Wasted, I says. I wouldn't call it that. Still, I see what she means. I feel torn in two, as you might say. I see, said Frodo. You want to get married, and yet you want to live with me and Bagend too? <laughs> My dear Sam, how easy. Get married as soon as you can, and then move in with Rosie. There's room enough in Bag End for as big a family as you could wish for. And so, it was settled. Sam Gamgee married Rosie Cotton in the spring of 1420, which was also famous for his weddings, and they came and lived at Bag End. And if Sam thought himself lucky, Frodo knew that he was more lucky himself. For there was not a hobbit in the Shire that was looked after with such care. When the labours of repair had all been planned and set going, he took a quiet life, writing a great deal and going through all his notes. He resigned the office as deputy mayor at the free fair that midsummer, and dear old Will Whitfoot had another seven years of presiding at banquets. Mary and Pippin lived together for some time at Crickhollow, and there was much coming and going between Buckland and Bag End. The two young travellers cut a great dash in the Shire with their songs and their tales and their finery and their wonderful parties. Lordly, folk called them, meaning nothing but good, for it warmed all hearts to see them go riding by with their mail shirts so bright and their shields so splendid, laughing and singing songs of far away. And if they were now large and magnificent, they were unchanged otherwise unless they were indeed more fair-spoken, and more jovial, and full of merriment than ever before. Frodo and Sam, however, went back to ordinary attire, except that when there was need they both wore long grey cloaks, finely woven, and clasped at the throat with beautiful brooches. And Mr. Frodo wore always a white jewel on a chain that he often would finger. All things now went well, with hope always of becoming still better. And Sam was as busy and as full of delight as even a hobbit could wish. Nothing for him marred that whole year, except for some vague anxiety about his master. Frodo dropped quietly out of all the doings of the Shire, and Sam was pained to notice how little honour he had in his own country. Few people knew or wanted to know about his deeds and adventures, their admiration and respect were given mostly to Mr. Mariadoc and Mr. Peregrine, 
and, if Sam had known it, to himself. Also in the autumn, there appeared a shadow of old troubles. One evening, Sam came into the study and found his master looking very strange. He was very pale, and his eyes seemed to see things far away. What's the matter, Mr. Frodo? said Sam. I am wounded, he answered. Wounded. It will never really heal. But then he got up, and the turn seemed to pass, and he was quite himself the next day. It was not until afterwards that Sam recalled that the date was October the 6th. Two years before on that day, it was dark in the dell under Weathertop. Time went on, and 1421 came in. Frodo was ill again in March, but with a great effort he concealed it, for Sam had other things to think about. The first of Sam and Rosie's children was born on the 25th of March, a date that Sam noted. Well, Mr. Frodo, he said, I'm in a bit of a fix. Rose and me had settled to call him Frodo with your leave. But it's not him. It's her. Though as pretty a maid child as any could hope for, taken after Rose more than me, luckily. So we don't know what to do. Well, Sam, said Frodo, what's wrong with the old customs? Choose a flower name like Rose. Half the maid children in the Shire are called by such names. And what could be better? I suppose you're right, Mr. Frodo, said Sam. I've heard some beautiful names in my travels, but I suppose they're a bit too grand for daily wear and tear, as you might say. The gaffer, he says, make it short, and then you won't have to cut it short before you can use it. But if it's to be a flower name, then I don't trouble about the length. It must be a beautiful flower, because, you see, I think she's very beautiful. And is going to be beautifuler still. Frodo thought for a moment. Well, Sam, what about Eleanor, the sun star? You remember the little golden flower in the grass of Lothlorien? You're right again, Mr. Frodo, said Sam, delighted. That's what I wanted. Little Eleanor was nearly six months old, and 1421 had passed to its autumn, when Frodo called Sam into the study. It will be Bilbo's birthday on Thursday, Sam, he said, and he will pass the old duke. He will be a hundred and thirty-one. So he will, said Sam. He's a marvel. Well, Sam, said Frodo, I want you to see Rose and find out if she can spare you so that you and I can go off together. You can't go far off for a long time now, of course, he said a little wistfully. Well, not very well, Mr. Frodo. Of course not. But never mind. You can see me on my way. Tell Rose that you won't be away very long. Not more than a fortnight. And you'll come back quite safe. I wish I could go all the way with you to Rivendell, Mr. Frodo. To see Bilbo. Said Sam. And yet the only place I really want to be in is... Here. I am that torn in two. Poor Sam... It will feel like that, I'm afraid, said Frodo. But you will be healed. You were meant to be solid and whole. And you will be. 
In the next day or two, Frodo went through his papers and his writings with Sam, and he handed over his keys. There was a big book with plain red leather covers. Its tall pages were now almost filled. At the beginning, there were many leaves covered with Bilbo's thin, wandering hand. But most of it was written in Frodo's firm, flowing script. It was divided into chapters, but chapter 80 was unfinished. And after that were some blank leaves. The title page had many titles on it, crossed out one after another, so... My Diary. My Unexpected Journey. There and back again. And what happened after. Adventures of Five Hobbits. The Tale of the Great Ring. Compiled by Bilbo Baggins from his own observations and the accounts of his friends. What we did in the War of the Ring. There Bilbo's hand ended and Frodo had written The Downfall of the Lord of the Rings and the Return of the King. As seen by the little people being the memoirs of Bilbo and Frodo of the Shire, supplemented by the accounts of their friends and the learning of the wise, together with extracts from books of lore translated by Bilbo in Rivendell. Why, you've nearly finished it, Mr. Frodo, Sam exclaimed. Well, you have kept at it, I must say. I have quite finished, Sam, said Frodo. The last pages are for you. On September the 21st, they set out together. Frodo on the pony that had borne him all the way from Minas Tirith and was now called Strider, and Sam on his beloved Bill. It was a fair golden morning, and Sam did not ask where they were going. He thought he could guess. They took the stock road over the hills and went towards the woody end, and they let their ponies walk at their leisure they camped in the green hills, and on September the 22nd, they rode gently down into the beginning of the trees as afternoon was wearing away. If that isn't the very tree you hid behind when the Black Rider first showed up, Mr. Frodo, said Sam, pointing to the left. Seems like a dream now. It was evening, and the stars were glimmering in the eastern sky as they passed the ruined oak and turned and went on down the hill between the hazel thickets. Sam was silent, deep in his memories. Presently, he became aware that Frodo was singing softly to himself, singing the old walking song, but the words were not quite the same. Still round the corner there may wait a new road or a secret gate. And though I oft have passed them by, a day will come at last when I shall take the hidden paths that run west of the moon, east of the sun. And, as if in answer, from down below, coming up the road out of the valley, voices sang, Ael Bereth Gilthoniel, si livren pena Miriel, o menel aglar Elenath Gilthoniel a Elbereth. 
we still remember we who dwell in this far land beneath the trees, the starlight on the western seas. Frodo and Sam halted and sat silent in the soft shadows until they saw a shimmer as the travelers came towards them. There was Gildor and many fair elven folk, and there, to Sam's wonder, rode Elrond and Galadriel. Elrond wore a mantle of grey and had a star upon his forehead and a silver harp that was in his hand, and upon his finger was a ring of gold with a great blue stone. Vilia, mightiest of the three. But Galadriel sat upon a white palfrey and was robed all in glimmering white, like clouds about the moon, for she herself seemed to shine with a soft light. On her finger was Nenya, the ring wrought of Mithril, that bore a single white stone flickering like a frosty star. Riding slowly behind on a small grey pony, and seeming to nod in his sleep, was Bilbo himself. Elrond greeted them gravely and graciously, and Galadriel smiled upon them. Well, Master Samwise, she said, I hear and see that you have used my gift well. The Shire shall now be more than ever blessed and beloved. Sam bowed, but found nothing to say. He had forgotten how beautiful the lady was. Then Bilbo woke up and opened his eyes. Hello, Frodo, he said. Well, I have passed the old duke today. So that's settled. And now I think I am quite ready to go on another journey. Are you coming? Yes, I am coming, said Frodo. The ring bearers should go together. Where are you going, Master? cried Sam, though at last he understood what was happening. To the haven, Sam, said Frodo. And I can't come. No, Sam. Not yet, anyway. Not further than the havens. Though you too were a ring bearer. If only for a little while. Your time may come. Do not be too sad, Sam. You cannot always be torn in two. You will have to be one in whole for many years. You have so much to enjoy, and to be, and to do. But, said Sam, and tears started in his eyes. But I thought you were going to enjoy the Shire too. For years and years. After all you've done. So I thought too once. But I've been too deeply hurt, Sam. I tried to save the Shire. And it has been saved. But not for me. It must often be so, Sam. When things are in danger, someone has to give them up, lose them, so that others may keep them. But you are my heir. All that I had and might have had, I leave to you. 
And also, you have Rose and Eleanor. And Frodo Lad will come, and Rosie Lass, and Merry, and Goldilocks, and Pippin, and perhaps more that I cannot see. Your hands and your wits will be needed everywhere. You will be mayor, of course, as long as you want to be, and the most famous gardener in history. And you will read things out of the Red Book and keep alive the memory of the age that is gone, so that people will remember the great danger, and so love their beloved land all the more. And that will keep you as busy and as happy as anyone can be, as long as your part of the story goes on. Come now. Ride with me. Then Elrond and Galadriel rode on. For the third age was over, and the days of the rings were past. And an end was come of the story and song of those times. With them went many elves of the High Kindred who would no longer stay in Middle-earth. And among them, filled with a sadness that was yet blessed and without bitterness, rode Sam and Frodo and Bilbo, and the elves delighted to honor them. Though they rode through the mist of the Shire, all the evening and all the night, none saw them pass, save the wild creatures, or here and there some wanderer in the dark who saw a swift shimmer under the trees, or a light and shadow flowing through the grass as the moon went westward. And when they had passed from the Shire, going about the south skirts of the White Downs, they came to the Far Downs, and to the Towers, and looked on the distant sea. And so they rode down at last to Mithlond, to the Grey Havens, in the long firth of Loon. As they came to the gates, Círdan the shipwright came forth and greeted them. Very tall he was, and his beard was long. And he was grey and old, save that his eyes were keen as stars. And he looked at them and bowed, and said, All is now ready. Then Círdan led them to the havens, and there was a white ship lying. And upon the quay beside a great grey horse stood a figure robed all in white awaiting them. As he turned and came towards them, Frodo saw that Gandalf now wore openly on his hand the third ring, Narya the Great, and the stone upon it was red as fire. Then those who were to go were glad, for they knew that Gandalf also would take ship with them. But Sam was now sorrowful at heart, and it seemed to him that if the parting would be bitter, more grievous still would be the long road home alone. But even as they stood there, and the elves were going aboard, and all was being made ready to depart, up rode Merry and Pippin in great haste. And amid his tears, Pippin laughed. <laughs> you tried to give us the slip once before and failed, Frodo. He said, This time you have nearly succeeded, but you have failed again. 
It was not Sam, though, that gave you away this time, but Gandalf himself. Yes, said Gandalf, for it will be better to ride back three together than one alone. Well, here at last, dear friends, on the shores of the sea comes the end of our fellowship in Middle-earth. Go in peace. I will not say, do not weep, for not all tears are in evil. Then Frodo kissed Merry and Pippin, and last of all Sam. aboard, and the sails were drawn up, and the wind blew, and slowly the ship slipped away down the long grey firth, and the light on the glass of Galadriel that Frodo bore glimmered and was lost. And the ship went out into the high sea passed on into the west. Until at last on a night of rain, Frodo smelled a sweet fragrance on the air and heard a sound of singing that came over the water. And then it seemed to him that as in his dream in the house of Bombadil, the grey rain curtain turned all to silver glass and was rolled back. And he beheld white shores. And beyond them, a far green country. Under a swift sunrise. But to Sam, the evening deepened to darkness as he stood at the haven. And as he looked at the grey sea, he saw only a shadow on the waters that was soon lost in the west. There still he stood, far into the night, hearing only the sigh and murmur of the waves on the shores of Middle-earth. And the sound of them sank deep into his heart. Beside him stood Merry and Pippin, and they were silent. At last, the three companions turned away, and never again looking back, they rode slowly homewards. And they spoke no word to one another until they came back to the Shire. But each had great comfort in his friends on the long grey road. At last, they rode over the downs and took the east road. And then Merry and Pippin rode on to Buckland. And already they were singing again as they went. But Sam turned to Bywater, and so came back up the hill, as day was ending once more. And he went on. And there was yellow light, and fire within, 
and the evening meal was ready, and he was expected. And Rose drew him in, and set him in his chair, and put little Eleanor upon his lap. He drew a deep breath. Well, I'm back, he said.
1422. With the beginning of this year, the fourth age began in the count of years in the Shire, but the numbers of the years of Shire reckoning were continued. 1427. Will Whitfoot resigns. Samwise is elected mayor of the Shire. Peregrine Chuke marries Diamond of Longcleave. King Elisar issues an edict that men are not to enter the Shire and he makes it a free land under the protection of the Northern Scepter. 1430. Faramir, son of Peregrine, born. 1431. Goldilocks, daughter of Samwise, born. 1432. Meriadoc, called the Magnificent, becomes master of Buckland. Great gifts are sent to him by King Eomer and the Lady Eowyn of Ithilien. 1434. Peregrine becomes the Tuke and Thane. King Elisar makes the Thane the master and the mayor councillors of the North Kingdom. Master Samwise is elected mayor for the second time. 1436. King Elisar rides north and dwells for a while by Lake Evendim. He comes to the Brandywine Bridge and there greets his friends. He gives the star of the Dunedain to Master Samwise and Eleanor is made a maid of honor to Queen Arwen. 1441, 
Master Samwise becomes mayor for the third time. 1442, Master Samwise and his wife and Eleanor ride to Gondor and stay there for a year. Master Tolman Cotton acts as deputy mayor. 1448, Master Samwise becomes mayor for the fourth time. 1451, Eleanor the Fair marries Fastred of Greenholm on the Far Downs. 1452, the West March from the Far Downs to the Tower Hills, Emin Beriad, is added to the Shire by the gifts of the King. Many hobbits remove to it. 1454, Elfstan Fairbarn, son of Fastred and Eleanor, is born. 1455, Master Samwise becomes mayor for the fifth time. At his request, Thane makes Fastred Warden of Westmarch. Fastred and Eleanor make their wedding at Undertowers on the Tower Hills, where their descendants, the Fairbarns of the Towers, dwelt for many generations. 1462. Master Samwise becomes mayor for the sixth time. 1463. Faramir Tuk marries Goldilocks, daughter of Samwise. 1469, Master Samwise becomes mayor for the seventh and last time. Being in 1476, at the end of his office, 96 years old. 1482, death of Mistress Rose, wife of Master Samwise, on Midia's day. On September 22nd, Master Samwise rides out from Bag End. He comes to the Tower Hills and is last seen by Eleanor, to whom he gives the Red Book, afterwards kept by the Fairbarns. Among them, the tradition is handed down from Eleanor that Samwise passed the towers and went to the Grey Havens and passed over sea. Last of the ring bearers. 1484. In the spring of the year, a message came from Rohan to Buckland that King Eomer wished to see Master Holdwine once again. Meriadoc was then old, 102, but still hale. He took counsel with his friend the Thane, and soon after, they handed over their goods and offices to their sons and rode away over the Sarn Ford. And they were not seen again in the Shire. 1484. It was heard after that Master Meriadoc came to Edoras and was with King Eomer before he died in that autumn. Then he and Thane Peregrine went to Gondor and passed what short years were left to them in that realm until they died, and were laid in Rath Dinan among the great of Gondor. 1541 In this year, on March 1st, came at last the passing of King Elessar. It is said that the beds of Meriadoc and Peregrine were set beside the bed of the great king. Then. Legolas built a grey ship in Ithilien, and sailed down Anduin, and so over sea, and
with him, it is said, went Gimli the Dwarf. And when that ship passed, an end was come in Middle-earth of the Fellowship of the Ring.